Conceived in Liberty, Volume 1, A New Land, A New People, The American Colonies in the 17th Century, by Murray N. Rothbard. Whenever the legislators endeavor to take away and destroy the property of the people or to reduce them to slavery under arbitrary power, they put themselves into a state of war with the people who are thereupon absolved from any farther obedience and are left to the common refuge which God hath provided for all men against force and violence. John Locke Preface What? Another American history book? The reader may be pardoned for wondering about the point of another addition to the seemingly inexhaustible flow of books and text on American history. One problem, as pointed out in the bibliographical essay at the end of this volume, is that the survey studies of American history have squeezed out the actual stuff of history, the narrative facts of the important events of the past. With the true data of history squeezed out, what we have left are compressed summaries in the historian's interpretations and judgments of the data. There is nothing wrong with the historians having such judgments. Indeed, without them, history would be a meaningless and giant almanac listing dates and events with no causal links. But without the narrative facts, the reader is deprived of the data from which he can himself judge the historian's interpretations and evolve interpretations of his own. A major point of this and succeeding volumes is to put back the historical narrative into American history. Facts, of course, must be selected and ordered in accordance with judgments of importance, and such judgments are necessarily tied into the historian's basic world outlook. My own basic perspective on the history of man and, a fortiori, on the history of the United States is to place central importance on the great conflict which is eternally waged between liberty and power. A conflict, by the way, which was seen with crystal clarity by the American revolutionaries of the 18th century. I see the liberty of the individual not only as a great moral good in itself, or with Lord Acton as the highest political good, but also as the necessary condition for the flowering of all the other goods that mankind cherishes, moral virtue, civilization, the arts and sciences, economic prosperity. Out of liberty, then, stem the glories of civilized life, but liberty has always been threatened by the encroachments of power, power which seeks to suppress, control, cripple, tax, and exploit the fruits of liberty and production. Power, then, the enemy of liberty, is consequently the enemy of all the other goods and fruits of civilization that mankind holds dear. And power is almost always centered in and focused on that central repository of power and violence, the state. With Albert J. Nock, the 20th century American political philosopher, I see history as centrally a race and conflict between 
social power, the productive consequence of voluntary interactions among men, and state power. In those eras of history when liberty, social power, has managed to race ahead of state power and control, the country and even mankind have flourished. In those eras when state power has managed to catch up with or surpass social power, mankind suffers and declines. Four decades, American historians have quarreled about conflict or consensus as the guiding leitmotif of the American past. Clearly, I belong in the conflict rather than the consensus camp, with the proviso that I see the central conflict as not between classes, social or economic, or between ideologies, but between power and liberty, state and society. The social or ideological conflicts have been ancillary to the central one, which concerns who will control the state and what power will the state exercise over the citizenry. To take a common example from American history, there are, in my view, no inherent conflicts between merchants and farmers in the free market. On the contrary, in the market, the sphere of liberty, the interest of merchants and farmers are harmonious with each buying and selling the products of the other. Conflicts arise only through the attempts of various groups of merchants or farmers to seize control over the machinery of government and to use it to privilege themselves at the expense of the others. It is only through and by state action that class conflicts can ever arise. This volume is the story of the 17th century, the first century of the English colonies in North America. It was the century when all but one, Georgia, of the original 13 colonies were founded, in all their disparity and diversity. Remarkably enough, this critical period is only brusquely treated in the current history textbooks. While the motives of the early colonists varied greatly and their fortunes changed in a shifting and fluctuating kaleidoscope of liberty and power, all the colonists soon began to take on an air of freedom unknown in the mother country. Remote from central control, Pioneering in a land of relatively few people spread over a space far vaster than any other they had ever known. The contentious colonists proved to be people who would not suffer power gladly. Attempts at imposing feudalism on, or rather transferring it to, the American colonies had all failed. By the end of the century, the British forging of royal colonies, all with similar political structures, could occur only with the fearsome knowledge that the colonists could and would rebel against unwanted power at the drop of a tax or quit rent. If the late 17th century Virginia rebel Nathaniel Bacon was not exactly the torchbearer of the revolution, then this term might apply to the other feisty and rambunctious Americans throughout the colonies. 
My intellectual debts for this volume were simply too numerous to mention, especially since an historian must bring to bear not only his own discipline, but also his knowledge of economics, of political philosophy, and of mankind in general. Here, I would just like to mention, for his methodology of history, Ludwig von Mises, especially his much-neglected volume, Theory and History, and Lord Acton, for his emphasis on the grievously overlooked moral dimension. For his political philosophy and general outlook on American history, Albert J. Nock, particularly his Our Enemy, the State. As for my personal debts, I'm happy to be more specific. This volume would never have been attempted, much less seen the light of day, without the inspiration, encouragement, and support provided by Kenneth S. Templeton, Jr., now of the Institute for Humane Studies, Menlo Park, California. I hope that he won't be overly disappointed with this in later volumes. I am grateful to the Foundation for Foreign Affairs, Chicago, for enabling me to work full-time on the volumes, and to Dr. David S. Collier of the Foundation for his help and efficient administration. Others who have helped with ideas and aid in various stages of the manuscript are Charles G. Koch and George Pearson of Wichita, Kansas, and Robert D. Kephart of Human Events, Washington, D.C. Historians Robert E. Brown of Michigan State University and Forrest MacDonald of Wayne State University were kind enough to read the entire manuscript and offer helpful suggestions, even though it soon became clear to them and to myself that our fundamental disagreements tended to outweigh our agreements. To my first mentor in the field of American history, Joseph Dorfman, now Professor Emeritus at Columbia University, I owe in particular the rigorous training that is typical of that keen and thorough scholar. But my greatest debt is to Leonard P. Ligio of City College, CUNY, whose truly phenomenal breadth of knowledge and insight into numerous fields and areas of history are an inspiration to all who know him. Ligio's help was indispensable in the writing of this volume, in particular his knowledge of the European background. Over the years in which this manuscript took shape, I was fortunate in having several congenial typists, in particular Willette Murphy Klausner of Los Angeles and the now distinguished intellectual historian and social philosopher Dr. Ronald Hamaway, of the University of Alberta. I would particularly like to thank Mrs. Phyllis Wampler of Wichita, Kansas, for her heroic service of typing the entire manuscript in its final form. The responsibility for the final product is, of course, wholly my own. Murray N. Rothbard, December 1973 Part 1 Europe, England, and the New World Chapter 1. Europe at the Dawn of the Modern Era Until the close of the Middle Ages at the end of the 15th century, the Americas remained outside the ken of Western civilization. The Americas had been discovered and settled as many as 10,000 years before by tribes crossing over from Asia on what was then a land bridge across the Bering Strait. By the late 15th century, 
One million of these American Indians lived north of Mexico alone, in diverse cultures and tribes scattered throughout the continent. As recently as the end of the 10th century, Norsemen, the great seamen of Scandinavia, spread across the North Atlantic and planted a settlement in Greenland. From there, the Viking Leif Erikson explored and settled Vinland, somewhere on the northeast coast of North America, about the year A.D. 1000. Norse objects dating from the mid-14th century have been found in north-central America. But these sporadic contacts made no imprint on history, for the New World had not yet been brought into any continuing economic or social relation with the Western world. Hence, its existence was not even known beyond the narrow circle of those few who, like the Norsemen, had actually been there. The same holds true for the possibility that French fishermen were already making use of the abundantly stocked waters off Newfoundland by the late 15th century. In neither case was Europe really made cognizant of the new lands. Western Europe, during the early Middle Ages, was a stagnant and war-torn region, burdened by feudalism, a hierarchical rule based on assumed and conquered land titles, and on the virtual enslavement of the peasantry who worked as serfs in support of the ruling caste. A great revival during the 11th century, inaugurating the High Middle Ages, was based upon the rise of trade between Italian towns that had remained relatively free of feudal restrictions, and the commercial centers of the Eastern Mediterranean. The revival of industry and trade and the concomitant growth in living standards provided the necessary economic base for a flowering of learning and culture. The emerging commercial capitalism and growing civilizations soon developed most intensively in the city-states of northern Italy, the centers of the vital Mediterranean trade with the East. It was this international trade that began to break up the isolated local self-sufficiency at subsistence levels that had characterized feudal Western Europe. The local feudal manor could no longer be a stagnant, self-sufficient, agricultural, and domestic industry unit if it wished to purchase the products of the Middle East and especially of the Orient. The Orient furnished luxury goods of all kinds, silks, damasks, jewels, dyes, tropical fruits, but its great contribution was spices, the preeminent commodity in Mediterranean trade. Spices not only enhanced the taste of food, but also preserved it. For in those days, before refrigeration, spices were the only way to preserve food for any length of time. The Oriental commodities were produced in China, India, Ceylon, or the East Indies, and transported by Muslim merchants, Indian and Arab, to the ports of the Middle East and the shores of the eastern Mediterranean, where northern Italian merchants took over to transport the goods to Western Europe. Sales were then made, often by German merchants, at such places as the great fairs, notably the fairs of Champagne in northeastern France. Thus, pepper, by far the most important of the spices, 
was largely grown on the Malabar coast of India, and from there taken to the eastern Mediterranean and thence to Europe. In exchange for these products from the east, Western Europe exported timber, metals, and especially woolen textiles, which had become its major commodity for export. From the late 11th century, England became the major European supplier of raw wool because of its advantages of soil and climate, as well as the advanced scientific management of its monastic sheep ranches. The English wool was then exported to Flanders for weaving into cloth. The cloth was exchanged for spices at the great fairs of Champagne and then carried by the Italian merchants to sell in the Middle East. Three main routes connected the West with the Orient. One was a virtually all-sea route from China, India, Malaya, and the rest of the Orient to the Red Sea and thence up to Cairo and Alexandria. A second went up the Persian Gulf to Baghdad and thence overland to Antioch or to various cities of the eastern Mediterranean. The third, a northerly route, traveled overland by caravan from North China westward to the Caspian and Black Seas. This last route was made possible in the 13th century by the establishment of Mongol rule over this vast trading area. In all of this trade, the northern Italians, as we have indicated, were predominant in Europe. They were the great merchants, shippers, and bankers of the Western world. In the mid-14th century, a severe blow was struck at this vital pattern of European trade with the Orient. This blow was the general collapse of Mongol rule in Asia. The end of Mongol rule in Persia destroyed the freedom of Italian, especially Genoese, traders in that critical terminus of the overland route. And the liquidation of Mongol rule in China ended Mongol friendliness to Western trade, which had permitted both commerce and cultural contact with the West. Thereafter, traditional Chinese suspicion of foreigners reasserted itself. The consequent forced closing of the overland route doubled the price of silks in Europe. Ordinarily, one would have expected the Mongol collapse and the closing of the overland route to spur a search by northern Italians, especially the Genoese, for an all-sea route to the Orient. Indeed, the Genoese captains by the late 13th and early 14th centuries had already sailed through the Strait of Gibraltar and south along the western coast of Africa in search of new spice routes and had already discovered the Canary and Madeira Islands. But a cataclysmic set of changes at the turn of the 14th century was to divert attention from such sea exploration and drastically alter the pattern of European production and trade. The expansion of medieval production and trade in the concomitant cultural progress of Europe came to an abrupt halt at the beginning of the 14th century. As wealth and capital continued to accumulate in Western Europe from the 11th century on, this growing wealth provided great temptations to power to seize and divert that wealth for its own non-productive, indeed anti-productive purposes. 
This power loomed in the emerging nation-states of Western Europe, particularly in France and England, which set about to confiscate and drain off the wealth of society for the needs and demands of the emerging state. Internally, the state siphoned off the wealth to nurture an increasingly elaborate and expensive state apparatus. Externally, the state used the wealth in expensive wars to advance its dynastic power and plunder. Furthermore, the states increasingly regulated and intervened in, as well as taxed, the market economy of Europe. The several nascent states of the modern era ruptured the harmonious and cosmopolitan social and economic relations of medieval Europe. A unity in free market relations was sundered and ravaged by the imposed violence and plunder of the governments of the new nation-states. Specifically, the new policy of statism of England and France at the beginning of the 14th century involved first the immediate expulsion and confiscation of the wealth of Jewish merchants, Italian bankers, and vital independent financial institutions, such as the crucial fairs of Champagne. For the longer run, the monies necessary to support the state apparatus and army were derived from privileges and monopolies granted by governments to associations of merchants and craftsmen who aided in the collection of taxes in return for the assurance of profits by excluding native and foreign competitors. The consumer was completely sacrificed to that producer who proved the best help in the collection of taxes, and incentives for initiative, inexpensiveness of product, and technical progress were destroyed. Detailed regulations and controls were established by government-privileged guilds to assure the collection of taxes and to prevent competition from more efficient producers within and without the guild monopoly. As a result of the growth and development of warfare, the state apparatus, monopoly, and taxation, the 14th and 15th centuries in Europe were marked by stagnation, depression, and even retrogression. Not only were there no further expansion in the scope of international trade and no increase in the volume of commerce, but this trade was forced to take far different directions. The commercial centers of Italy, the northern cities, remained relatively free of restrictions of monopoly in the state apparatus, and Italian capitalists now sought a commerce free from control by the regulations and taxation of governments. The crucial problem of the capitalists was the loss of their overland trade route to northern France, brought about by the destruction of the great fairs of Champagne by the taxation and controls of the French king. The Italian merchants, therefore, had to find an efficient route to Flanders, the source of European cloth. The only alternative for the carrying of large quantities of goods was the sea, and it was natural for Venice and Genoa to turn to the sea as the best means of transportation from the Mediterranean to Flanders. The first Atlantic convoys of ships to Flanders were sent from Venice and Genoa about 1314, 
they sailed through the Strait of Gibraltar and along the Atlantic coast of Europe to the English Channel port of Southampton in England, then on to Bruges in Flanders. Bruges now became the great center of northern European commerce. It served as the northern depot of Italian trade, even as it had been the western terminus of North Sea and Baltic trade, a trade which now received a great impetus for growth. During the Middle Ages, cities were founded along the coast of the Baltic Sea as the German people colonized eastward. These German cities engaged in trade along the North or German Sea as well as the East or Baltic Sea. For the mutual defense of their trade, they formed a confederation of cities called the Hanseatic League. From the Hanseatic Western depots, Bruges and the Steel Yard in London, the trade of the League extended through the German and Scandinavian countries to the Slavic countries of the Eastern Baltic, terminating in the great northern Russian commercial center, the independent Republic of Great Novgorod. The trade of the Hansards, or Easterlings, from which the English measure of silver, the pound sterling, is derived, as the Hanseatic merchants were called, was largely in raw materials and agricultural products. The foundation of Hanseatic commerce was its dominance of the Baltic trade in dried and salted fish, a necessary part of the European diet because of the scarcity of meat and the needs of religious observance. Search for the salt necessary for curing the fish had led the Hanseatic traders to Bordeaux on the Atlantic coast of France, the major source of salt. Bordeaux wine also accompanied the salt to northern Europe. The Bordeaux trade increased the importance of England in European commerce as Bordeaux and the province of Gascony had been English possessions since the middle of the 12th century. For the spices and manufactured goods that the Hansards carried to the Baltic from Bruges, they supplied the industrial centers of Western Europe with the dried and salted fish of the Baltic, the grain of Prussia and Poland, the timber of Scandinavia, and the furs, wax, and honey of the Russian forest. The closest to a luxury product for the Hansards was the important fur trade. Fur, because of its rarity and beauty, had become a symbol of social and political importance. The only form of fur sufficiently inexpensive to be available to the masses was hats processed from beaver, the most popular form of headwear. The Russian Republic of Great Novgorod built its greatness by controlling the fur trade with the Finnish peoples who inhabited the forest of northern Russia and the Hanseatic League controlled the distribution of furs across Europe from Novgorod to the steelyard in London. Wool, the principal product of English agriculture, entered Hanseatic and Italian trade mainly through the cloth woven in Flanders. Poundage, the tariff on the export of wool and the import of cloth, was the principal tax imposed by the English government in the process of state formation. Poundage was permanently established by the 14th century, even though it was contrary to the provisions of Magna Carta. 
The newly burgeoning state apparatus was maintained by this tax on wool exports, and the rates increased as England's financial crisis of the 14th and 15th century continued to intensify. This continuing crisis was brought about by the English government's persistent interventions in overseas wars. To ensure collection of taxes on wool exports, the English government granted a monopoly of the export of wool to a group of merchants drawn from the importing and exporting centers. In return for the monopoly profits gained from this privilege, the merchants would enforce and collect the tariffs and ensure their payment to the government. The mayor, constables, and fellowship of the merchants of the staple of England received the monopoly of wool export to the continent in the mid-14th century after a succession of ill-starred attempts to grant the monopoly to smaller groups of merchants. It was the first lasting organization of English foreign trade monopoly. The merchants of the staple proceeded to use their monopoly privilege in the time-honored manner of monopoly by moving to jack up their selling prices and to lower their buying prices. Such procedure ensured their profit, but also eventually crippled the great English wool trade by reducing the demand for wool and by discouraging the production of wool at home. But the free market also has a time-honored way of fighting back against restrictions by evading them. Despite the restrictions, the free trade in wool persisted in the form of smuggling, which the government policy had forced upon the merchants. From the late Middle Ages through the 18th century, England was not so much a nation of seafarers and shopkeepers as a nation of smugglers. Since Flanders was being carefully watched by the merchants of the staple, the Dutch Netherlands became the center of the free trade, the non-taxed trade in smuggled wool, and the Dutch ship captains became the leading carriers and traders in tax-free goods shipped into and out of small harbors along the coasts of England. When the constitutional procedures of the common law were applied, there could be few convictions for smuggling by juries of ordinary people who shared in the common interest as sufferers from taxes and monopoly and hence in the common enthusiasm for smuggling. To circumvent the constitutional courts of common law, the prerogative High Court of Admiralty was established to absorb the jurisdictions of the maritime courts of the seaports, which had administered the traditional sea law and law merchant. A tariff on the importation of wines, called tonnage, the measure of a ton of wine, was imposed with the excuse that it would finance the policing of the seas. The creation of the offices of Lord High Admiral and the High Court of Admiralty increased the burdens on commerce, while their activities were used by the government to advance the claim of an English monopoly over the English Channel and other neighboring seas. Thus, during the 14th and 15th centuries, in place of a universal economic system based on international trade, common commercial laws, and efficient economic relationships, 
unnatural economies were created on a foundation of violence and political power. The purposes were to supply a constantly increasing financial means of support for the civil and military apparatus of the state and to grant special privileges for groups of merchants favored by and sharing in control of the state at the expense of the economy and the rest of the population. This mercantilist system having its origins in the rise of sustained warfare and the development of the state apparatus, also introduced permanent hostility between countries by its destruction of the universal European economy. While Western Europe stagnated under the weight of the mercantilism imposed by the apparatuses of the emerging states, the regions of relative freedom Italy and the areas of the Baltic producing raw material continued to develop and progress economically. The Italian cities were preeminent not only by reason of their merchants, shippers, and bankers, but also for their advances in the arts and sciences of navigation, in technological inventions and the sciences of astronomy, cartography, and geography. In the Middle Ages, the development of geography in Europe had centered in Sicily, where Latin culture had been enriched by classical and Byzantine knowledge, directly by Greek and indirectly by Arab scholars. To classical geographical knowledge, summarized in Ptolemy's second-century geography, was added knowledge of Africa and India from Arab sources, and of East Asia from Italian travelers. A leading Italian traveler was Marco Polo, a late 13th century Venetian merchant who had settled as an official in the Mongol capital of Peking and had written the most important book on Asia of the late Middle Ages. This new geographic knowledge was incorporated into the scientific charts and maps developed by the cartographers of the northern Italian cities, the most advanced of which was a 1351 map of Laurentian Portolano of Florence. The Arab and Jewish scholarship in Spain led, in the latter half of the 14th century, to the development of the important Jewish school of geographers on the island of Majorca, which produced the most accurate medieval map, the Catalan Atlas of 1375. This atlas had a significant influence on future exploration, both of Africa and of Asia. Ptolemy's geography had indicated a short circumference of the earth, making Asia three times nearer Europe than it actually was, and had depicted the African continent as short and connected directly to East Asia, making the Indian Ocean an inland sea. In 1410, however, Cardinal Pierre Dali wrote Imaggio Mundi. He indicated that Africa was long and surrounded by water, thus making the Indian Ocean approachable by sea. These works were all to have a profound influence on the explorations seeking the routes to Asia around Africa and across the Atlantic. But before the advanced geographical concepts could guide exploration, the necessary ship designs, navigational science, and experience of oceanic sailing needed to be developed. 
the northern Italian merchants had been forced to inaugurate the long Mediterranean-Atlantic-Oceanic route in the early 14th century and thus had added oceanic experience to their overall stature as the great seamen of Europe. When thereafter the major Atlantic countries, England, France, Spain, and Portugal, decided to create governmental navies, they naturally turned to contract with Italian captains to develop, staff, and command these navies. The great northern Italian cities of Genoa, Venice, Pisa, and Florence were particularly abundant sources of those having experience with the sea. Thus, in 1317, Emmanuel Pizzagno of Genoa contracted to command the Portuguese navy as Lord High Admiral and to keep it supplied with 20 experienced Genoese navigators. These arrangements were continued as hereditary contracts with the Pizzagno family for two centuries. In addition to the role that Italian navigators and sailors, astronomers and instrument makers, geographers and map makers played in the maritime history of Atlantic Europe, Italians made important contributions as ship designers and ship builders. The Hanseatic cogs built in the Baltic were efficient ships for carrying bulky cargoes in the Hanseatic trade. Italian ship designers maintained this efficiency but revolutionized the ship's maneuverability and speed. As a result, during the 15th century, ships became available that could travel long distances at a suitable speed on rough oceans. They had large carrying capacities, but needed only small crews, so that they could remain for a long while at sea without stopping regularly to take on provisions. However, as timber supplies in the Mediterranean became increasingly scarce, greater reliance was placed upon such ships built and even manned in the Atlantic European countries. At the same time that the sailors of the Atlantic countries were gaining knowledge and experience from oceanic voyages, increasingly higher prices of spices in Western Europe encouraged the Atlantic countries to find the gold with which to pay for the spices, or to discover better alternative routes to the oriental sources of these commodities. Routes were also sought that could bypass the Italian middlemen. Hence, when Portuguese explorers began to be sent southward along the African coast, their immediate and primary objective was to discover the sources of the gold of West Africa, with which the North African Arabs were plentifully supplied. From 1419 until his death in 1460, most of the exploration of the 15th century was organized by Prince Henry the Navigator, governor of the southern district of Portugal. Henry accomplished his exploration with the aid of a court functioning as a veritable maritime college, including Genoese captains, Venetian navigators, and Italian and Jewish geographers. The Madeira Islands were discovered definitely by 1420 by a Portuguese expedition, and one of the first officials sent there by Prince Henry was Bartholomew Perestrella, an Italian and future father-in-law of Christopher Columbus. 
Sugarcane from Sicily was introduced into Madeira and into the Canary Islands being settled by Spaniards, and these islands soon became an important source of sugar for Europe until the establishment of sugar culture in Brazil by the Portuguese in the 16th century. These western islands also became an important center for the cultivation of sweet wines. During the following generation, Numerous expeditions made slow progress down the coast of western Sahara, while others discovered and settled the Azores in the North Atlantic. In 1441, a few Negro slaves were brought back to Portugal, thus beginning the extensive and barbarous slave trade. After tropical Africa, 1,500 miles from the Strait of Gibraltar, was reached in 1445, Large numbers of slaves were purchased from the native chiefs of the coastal districts, and slave stations were constructed by the Portuguese along the West African coast. Although the Cape Verde Islands were discovered in 1445 by a Venetian, Captain Catamosto, the world of Portuguese exploration largely turned to concentration upon commerce in gold and local West African pepper, as well as to the slave trade for supplying the large feudal estates of southern Portugal, which had been granted by the Portuguese government after taking that region from the Moors. During the 1470s, explorations under private auspices covered another 2,000 miles along the coast of the Gulf of Guinea. The Spanish, based on the Canaries, began to compete with the Portuguese in the Guinea trade, and the warfare resulting from this rivalry was settled by treaty in 1480. By this treaty, Spain recognized Portugal's prior rights to Africa and the South Atlantic, and Portugal accepted Spanish rights to the Canary Islands and the western seas beyond the Azores. Thereupon, and being hurried by the rumor of an English expedition to West Africa, Portugal in 1482 commissioned voyages to create a strong fort at Elmina in West Africa to defend the trade in gold, pepper, and slaves. Captains for these voyages included Bartholomew Diaz and the Genoese Christopher Columbus. A large colony of Genoese captains, pilots, and mapmakers had settled in Lisbon during the late 15th century, and by 1477, Christopher Columbus, 1451 through 1506, was established in Lisbon as a mapmaker with his brother Bartholomew. After engaging in the sugar trade from Madeira and the African trade for Genoese firms, Columbus had gained sufficient experience in oceanic navigation to propose a plan for a westward voyage to the Orient. Columbus had concluded that China and the Orient could easily be reached by sailing westward if Asia were really 3,000 miles west of Europe, as the geographers had indicated. Contrary to popular myth, the idea that the earth was round was well known to the educated Europeans of the day. The geographical concept of a feasible westward voyage to the Orient 
received even wider currency in Europe when printed editions appeared of Ptolemy in the 1470s, Dali's Imago Mundi in 1483, and Marco Polo's Travels in 1485, and Aeneas Silvius's Pope Pius II's Historia Rerum in 1477. Columbus was also encouraged in his project by his correspondence with the Florentine scientist Paolo Dal Pozzo Toscanelli. The Portuguese had meanwhile resumed exploration of Africa south of the equator under the command of Diogo Cao, who discovered the Congo River in 1483. Upon Cal's return in 1484, the Portuguese prepared for more vigorous exploratory activity. The crown appointing a junta dos mathematicos, composed of Bishop Diogo Ortiz and two Jewish physicians, to decide questions of navigation and exploration. Late in 1484, Columbus presented his plans to the junta for a westward voyage to China and Japan. However, as Cal was to begin his second expedition, it was hoped that he would discover the route to the Indies around Africa, so the junta decided to await Cal's return before accepting Columbus's project. Cal promptly extended Portuguese exploration by 1,500 miles, reaching Cape Cross in 1486. He also explored the Congo River and established diplomatic relations with the ruler of the Lower Congo. In the summer of 1487, an expedition under Bartholomew Diaz was sent to discover the sea route to India. Diaz sailed around the Cape of Good Hope in early 1488, making it clear that an ocean passage to the Indies would soon be found. Balked by Portugal... Columbus had gone to Spain to seek aid for his projected voyage, and although he was well received, Spain, too, made no decision on extending its support. Columbus then renewed his negotiations with the Portuguese and returned to Lisbon in late 1488. But when Diaz returned to Portugal in December 1488 with news of his exciting discovery, Portugal lost interest in Columbus's plan. Columbus then returned to Spain, meanwhile sending his brother Bartholomew to London to present his plan to Henry VII of England. After receiving no encouragement in England, Bartholomew Columbus went to the French court in 1490, where he received better treatment and remained as a map maker. When the Spanish court rejected his proposal in 1491, Christopher prepared to join Bartholomew in France. But Columbus was recalled to the Spanish court, partly because its conquest of the Moorish kingdom of Granada was completed in January 1492. The agreements between Columbus and the Spanish crown were completed in April 1492. They provided for Spanish financing of the bulk of expenses of the voyage, as well as for naming Columbus Admiral of the Ocean Sea and governor of any lands that he might discover en route. On August 3rd, Columbus departed from Paulos in three ships, sailing to the Canaries and then westward. Columbus discovered the Bahama Islands on October 12, 
1492, and explored the greater Antilles, Cuba, and Hispaniola, Columbus was convinced that he had discovered the shores of Asia, and so christened the natives he found there Indians. But despite his error, the new world was now to be open to the ambit of European society. Columbus left America in early January 1493, arrived in the Azores in February, and reached Lisbon early in March. Even though Diaz was busy supervising construction of the ships necessary for the voyage around Africa to India, the Portuguese king had the gall to claim the new lands as an extension of the Azores. When Columbus presented his report to the Spanish court in mid-March 1493, it sought to protect its claim from Portuguese encroachment. On the basis of the discovery and of the Treaty of 1480, Spain appealed to the Pope for a determination of its rights. As a neutral third power, the papacy made a diplomatic award affirming Spain's claim to monopoly possession of Columbus's discovery. The respective discoveries claimed by Portugal in Africa and Spain in the West were protected by drawing a boundary between Spain and Portugal west of the Portuguese Azores. The respective routes to the Indies were recognized by limiting the Spanish to the western and southern route and the Portuguese to their eastern and southern route around Africa. The Portuguese considered the papal opinions a useful base for negotiation, but refused to be bound by them. To gain Portuguese recognition for its claims, the Spanish government was obliged to make concessions to Portugal, and in June of 1494, the Treaty of Tordesillas extended the boundary 270 leagues further westward than in the papal mediation, which had the unintended effect of allowing Portugal to control the yet undiscovered coast of Brazil. As the dispute was strictly between Spain and Portugal, the treaty and boundary related only to the area that they had explored, and thus did not receive international recognition by the other powers until confirmed by effective occupation of the respective claims. Since the Spanish territorial claim was limited to the west and south of Columbus's discovery, that is, the West Indies and Central and South America, it did not exclude other states from North America, as witness the English, Portuguese, and French explorations. There was conflict only when they approached the West Indies. Meanwhile, in September 1493, Columbus had sailed again to the West Indies with 1,500 colonists on board in 17 ships fitted out by his friend, the Florentine merchant of Seville, Giannato Berardi. After exploring the Lesser Antilles, a colony was established in Hispaniola to be an agriculturally self-supporting mining town that would supply Spain with the much-needed gold believed to abound there. After further explorations, Columbus departed for Spain in March 1496, leaving his brother Bartholomew as governor. In March 1496, Henry VII of England granted a patent to John Cabot, a Genoese captain 
and merchant lately settled in Bristol, England, who had sailed for Venice and Portugal to explore to the west or north, thereby indicating that England would not intervene in Spanish or Portuguese colonies. Cabot was granted a monopoly of trade to any lands he might discover and claim for the crown, in the profits of which the government would share. And Bristol was made a monopoly or staple port for all voyages to or from the newly explored regions. In May 1497, Cabot and his son Sebastian sailed west from Bristol to Asia. They reached Cape Breton Island and sailed down the Atlantic coast to perhaps the site of Maine. In the spring of 1498, Cabot went to Lisbon and Seville to hire sailors who had sailed with Gao, Diaz, or Columbus and set sail for Japan and the Spice Islands in May 1498. He succeeded in exploring the coast of North America down to the Delaware Bay or the Chesapeake Bay. Zial Fernandez, called Labrador, a Portuguese who had advised Cabot, received a Portuguese patent for northern and western discoveries and explored Greenland. From 1501 on, a group of Bristol and Portuguese merchants, including Fernandez, explored North America under English patents, while several Portuguese, such as the Corte Real brothers, sailed to Newfoundland in the early 16th century. The Portuguese, however, were concentrating on the voyage to India, around Africa, for which Diaz had spent almost a decade preparing a fleet. In July 1497, the fleet departed, commanded by Vasco da Gama, and arrived at the Malabar coast of India in May 1498. It returned to Lisbon in September 1499 with a cargo of pepper and cinnamon. The Portuguese had finally found their eastern sea route to India. Early in 1500, a second expedition under Pedro Cabral was dispatched to India. Blown off course, Cabral discovered and claimed Brazil for Portugal. In 1501, the Portuguese spices reached Antwerp, which promptly became the major center of spices from Portugal, even as it was then the financial center of Europe. The Italian merchants were not immediately disturbed at the development of the new spice route, for they considered their competitive position assured by their capital, their commercial ability, and the security of their established routes. Lacking gold or specialized products, the Portuguese were not able to undersell the Arab and Venetian merchants. A major Portuguese voyage of 1505 was, in fact, financed by Genoese, Florentine and South German bankers, although the complications of bureaucracy led them to provide capital indirectly through investment in future cargoes. Similarly, Italian merchants and bankers in Spain provided the venture capital for exploration and discovery. In 1495, on the death of Giannato Berardi, who had contracted to fit out 12 ships, Amerigo Vespucci, a Florentine who was manager of the Medici Bank at Seville, assumed the contract. 
In succeeding years, Vespucci sailed in Spanish expeditions, and then from 1501 on, sailed in Portuguese voyages to explore Cabral's discovery, Brazil. Vespucci wrote accounts of his voyages. They were immediately printed and received wide circulation. As a result, the map makers irrevocably attach Amerigo's name to the newly discovered continents. The succession of the Habsburgs to the Spanish throne in the early 16th century promptly occasioned investments by South German banking houses in Spanish mines and then in American mines. The Fuggers leased mines in Hispaniola and Mexico, while the Welsers leased Venezuela for 20 years. However, the Italians, especially the Genoese merchants of Seville, dominated Spain's American trade during the 16th century, importing gold and tropical products into Europe and exporting manufactured goods as well as slaves under contracts or asientos to America. In 1498, 1500, and 1502-04, Columbus made two further voyages to America, which he still believed to be part of the East Indies. He finally reached the American mainland in 1498. Explorations of the interior of the mainland were begun in 1513, when Ponce de Leon explored Florida and Vasco de Balboa, crossed the Isthmus of Panama to discover the Pacific Ocean, which he believed could be easily crossed to reach the Spice Islands and the Orient. Portuguese entrance into the spice trade had led to mutual hostility with the Arab and Indian merchants, for these Muslim traders feared the competition afforded by the new sea route. The new route was expected to avoid the heavy expense and taxation that had greatly increased the cost of the route through the Levant. At the same time, the Portuguese feared that they could not compete in the spice trade for lack of capital, gold, or specialized products. In 1509, the Portuguese defeated a fleet of Arab and Indian Muslims and, under Alfonso de Albuquerque, established trading centers at Goa on the Malabar coast and at Malacca in Malaya. By 1513, Portuguese trade had extended to the East Indian Spice Islands and to Canton in China. Albuquerque's attacks on Muslim shipping and markets caused a shortage of spices in Alexandria, while the conquest of Egypt in 1517 by the Ottoman Turks temporarily cut off spice supplies to Venice. During the second decade of the 16th century, most of the spices for Europe arrived in Portuguese vessels by way of Cape of Good Hope, and the Venetian merchants were forced to purchase spices in Lisbon to supply their customers. Soon, however, Venice reached a trade agreement with the Turks, the spice trade of the Levant returned to normal, and the Levantin trade in spices and Mediterranean goods remained larger and more important during the 16th century than oceanic commerce. The Venetians bought goods of better quality, while the expenses of long voyages, shipwrecks, and military forces for Portugal and lack of goods for trading raised prices in the Portuguese trade. The Spanish finally reached the East Indies in a voyage under the command of Ferdinand Magellan, 
a Portuguese mariner who had lived in the East Indies. Proposing to follow a westward route around South America, Magellan, with a fleet equipped by capital provided by the Fugers, sailed from Seville in the summer of 1519. He passed through the Strait of Magellan, separating South America from Tierra del Fuego, the following summer, and arrived at the Philippine Islands, where he was killed in a native war in April 1521. In September 1522, one ship, commanded by Sebastian del Cano, returned to Spain by way of the Cape of Good Hope, and thus became the first to circumnavigate the world. Meanwhile, in 1519, Hernando Cortes crossed from Cuba to Mexico and by 1521 had conquered the Aztec Empire and begun a search for ports for trade with the East Indies. In 1532, Francisco Pizarro led an expedition to Peru, where after a number of years the Inca Empire was conquered. In 1532, Francisco Pizarro led an expedition to Peru where, after a number of years, the Inca Empire was conquered. In 1527, Sebastian Cabot was to lead an expedition over Magellan's route to the East Indies, but instead explored for gold on the Rio de la Plata in South America. During the early 1540s, the Spanish explored the southern part of North America. In 1539, Hernando de Soto landed in Florida from Cuba and traveled along the Gulf Coast and Lower Mississippi River, which he discovered in 1541. At the same time, Francisco Vasquez de Coronado traversed the southwestern part of North America up to Kansas while expeditions sailed along the Pacific coast of California to Oregon in 1542 and 43. France, too, undertook active explorations in the New World. In 1524, the Florentine captain Giovanni de Verrazzano explored virtually the entire east coast of North America. A decade later, Jacques Cartier sailed to Newfoundland, 1534, a second voyage found him exploring the Gulf of St. Lawrence and the St. Lawrence River, 1535-36, which he thought would lead to China. A dubious tradition says he named the falls at Montreal La Chine, a bitter gesture indicative of his failure to reach China. A colony was established temporarily by Cartier near Quebec in 1541-42, but the Spaniards were the only ones to establish important settlements in the New World in the first half of the 16th century. The pattern of Spanish colonization was based upon conditions in Spain in the late Middle Ages. In contrast to Europe generally, where aggressions against non-European territories had been checked by the growth of Turkish power, the Spanish and the English could still pursue the conquest of lands and peoples against the Spanish Arabs of Granada and the Celts of Ireland. Thus, the two major land-conquering and colonizing powers, Spain and England, preceded their respective transatlantic conquest by the conquest of neighboring peoples, the Moors of Granada, 
by Spain in the late 15th century and the Irish by the English, particularly during the 16th century. In these aggressions, both the Spanish and the English not only acquired the skills and appetites for further violence, but also established the attitudes and policies to be applied to alien peoples through conquest, extermination, or enslavement. Due to geographical and political conditions, Spain retained the military spirit of feudalism for a longer time than other European countries. The arid climate and the frontier wars with the Muslims caused the Spanish ruling class to remain essentially horsemen, who in place of agriculture emphasized sheep and cattle farming, occupations in which horsemen could be utilized and trained for war. This style of life had a profound influence on Spanish colonization. The Christian and Muslim farmers conquered by the Spanish nobles were kept in feudal serfdom to provide foodstuffs for the ruling class, to whom their villages had been granted. This feudal system, which had been imposed on the conquered lands of Granada and the Canary Islands, was then applied to the larger islands of the West Indies and later to Mexico, Venezuela, and Peru. The native villages were granted to Spanish conquistadors who were to govern them so as to live upon the work of the natives. The hapless natives were compelled to provide food, cotton, and forced labor for building the great cities where the Spanish lived and from which they governed, and to work for large mining operations of the Spaniards. Alongside the agriculture of the Indians, the conquistadors developed the raising of sheep, cattle, horses, and mules to provide profits for themselves as well as work and plentiful meat for their keepers. Generally, the Spanish colonists did not pursue productive work. Instead, they entered government and privileged occupations in which to live from the work of the natives whom they enslaved. The right to conquer, coercively convert, govern, and enslave the natives of the New World was subjected to intense criticism in a series of lectures in 1539 at the University of Salamanca by the great Dominican scholastic philosopher Francisco de Vitoria. In international law, based upon the natural law, insisted Vitoria, the native peoples as well as European peoples have full equality of rights. No right of conquest by Europeans could result from crimes or errors of the natives, whether they be tyranny, murder, religious differences, or rejection of Christianity. Having grave doubts of the right of the Spaniards to any government of the natives, Vittoria advocated peaceful trade, in justice and in practice, as against conquest, enslavement, and political power, whether or not the last mentioned were aimed at individual profit, tax revenue, or conversion to Christianity. Although the Spanish government prohibited further discussion of these questions, the Vittoria Lectures influenced the new laws of 1542, which gave greater legal protection to the natives in America. 
Nevertheless, there were defenders of imperialism in Spain who rejected international law and scholastic individualism and returned to the slave theories of the classical authors based on the theory of natural servitude, that the majority of mankind is inferior and must be subdued to government by the ruling class, of course, in the interest of that majority. These imperial apologists propose that the natives be taught better morals, be converted, and be introduced to the blessings of economic development by being divided among the conquistadors for whom they must labor. The serfdom of the Indians was most strongly and zealously opposed by the Dominican missionary Bishop Bartolome de las Casas. Tireless in working to influence European public opinion against the practices of Spanish officials in America, Las Casas argued that all men must have freedom so that reason, which naturally inclines men to live together in peace, justice, and cooperation, can remain free and unhampered. Therefore, concluded Las Casas, even pursuit of the great objective of conversion to Christianity cannot be used to violate these rights. Not only was all slavery evil, but the natives had a right to live independently of European government. The papacy in 1537 condemned as heretical the concept that natives were not rational men or were naturally inferior persons. These progressive views were also reflected in the abolition of conquistador feudalism in the new laws of 1542. However, this abolition was revoked by the Spanish crown three years later. Political control of the Spanish colonies was first exercised by a committee of the Council of Castile, and then from 1524 by the Council of the Indies. In the New World, provincial governments were created, with the two most important, Mexico and Peru, raised to status of viceroyalties. Economic control of the colonies was vested in the Casa de Contrastación, instituted in 1503, to license, supervise, and tax merchants, goods, and ships engaged in trade in the New World. In 1508, a Bureau of Pilots was established under the CASA, which advised the government on maritime matters and supervised navigation and navigators. Its first chief pilot was Amerigo Vespucci. Sebastian Cabot held that office for about 30 years after transferring from English to Spanish service, as England's maritime interest had shifted from exploration to the development of a government navy. The shift of English interest from exploration to naval construction was reflected in 1510 when the English government began to build a shipyard for making vessels for a navy. In 1512, the Comptroller of the Navy organized an association of pilots that would provide experienced navigators for the Navy in return for privileges in control of English shipping, privileges similar to those granted to the Spanish Bureau of Pilots. 
With the controller of the Navy as its first master, that association was chartered as the Master Wardens and Assistants of the Guild of the Trinity. The Trinity House Corporation advised the government on maritime affairs and controlled navigation and seamen. Just as Spain had made Seville, the staple port to and from which all colonial commerce was compulsorily channeled, so Bristol was made the staple port for monopolizing English commerce with the New World. Bristol's experience in colonial trade had begun with the grant of Dublin as a colony to the merchants of Bristol when England initiated its occupation of Ireland. That experience was enlarged when Bristol's oceanic trade to the Iberian countries was extended during the 15th century to the sugar colonies of Madeira and the Canaries. By artificially depressing the price of wool in England and raising it abroad from the mid-14th century on, the merchant staplers not only had greatly injured the growth and export of English wool, but had also unintentionally spurred the establishment of wool and textile manufacturers in England. For woolen manufacturers could now buy wool at significantly lower prices than could their competitors abroad. This rising cloth industry was organized in country districts and villages where it could be free of the restrictions and the excessively high prices and wage rates imposed by the privileged monopolies of the urban guilds. Furthermore, the merchants of Bristol were now able to bring to England the finer Spanish wool that formed the raw material for the developing manufacture of new drapery, a lighter and less expensive cloth than that woven from the heavier English wool. Since the technique of manufacture of the new drapery was new, it did not come under the controls and monopolies of the urban guilds, which manufactured the traditional heavy cloth. The period of peace from the mid-15th century on witnessed a rapid increase in population. But the rigid cartel restrictions of the urban guilds condemned large numbers to unemployment. Hence, the expansion to the countryside of both the new drapery and the traditional heavy cloth industries of England. Unburdened by guild regulations on production, prices, and labor, the new rural woolen cloth industry was sufficiently elastic to respond to the demands of large-scale export markets for cheap, plain cloth by developing a large-scale organization of production forbidden by the guilds. From the middle of the 15th century, indeed, there had begun to occur a great transformation of the entire economy of Western Europe. Stagnation and depression proceeded to give way to economic progress as the state-ridden system of protection and regulation broke apart and capital was accumulated and invested outside the controls that had encompassed the economy. In the Netherlands, in particular, a development occurred similar to England's, the rapid emergence of a rural cloth industry, free of urban guild and municipal regulations and taxation. Furthermore, the controls and high taxation of commerce in Bruges drove trade to Antwerp, where, free of hampering legislation, privileges, and taxes, 
business was able to organize itself on the basis of a new spirit of capitalist progress and economic growth. For a century, Antwerp now became the commercial capital of Europe, drawing by its freedom not only the traditional trades of English wool and cloth, Baltic grain and timber, and luxury goods of the Mediterranean, but also the growing trade in spices and sugars of the Indies, East and West. Antwerp became the main center of importation, not only of English wool, but also of English woolen cloth, for woven cloth would be sent to Antwerp for dyeing and finishing. As Henri Perrin has noted, never has any other port at any period enjoyed such worldwide importance because none has ever been so open to all commerce, and in the full sense of the word, so cosmopolitan. Antwerp remained faithful to the liberty which had made her fairs so successful in the 15th century. She attracted and welcomed capitalists from all parts of Europe, and as their numbers increased, so did their opportunities of making a fortune. There was no supervision, no control. Foreigners did business with other foreigners freely, as with the burgesses and natives of the country at their daily meetings. Buyers and sellers sought one another and came to terms without intermediaries. The rise of Antwerp as the great center of European commerce was complemented by the growth of the Dutch merchant marine, for the free-trading Dutch were the major carriers of goods to and from the unrestrictive and progressive port of Antwerp and were as motivated by the spirit of liberty and capitalism as was Antwerp. During the 15th century, the herring, upon which the Hanseatic trade had been founded, migrated from the Baltic to the North Sea and became a cornerstone of Dutch commercial development. Holland and Zeeland became the major herring fisheries of Europe. They improved the techniques of curing the herring and transporting it to all the ports of Europe, while simultaneously refining the methods of shipbuilding and fishing. Hence the Dutch were able to compete successfully with the Hanseatic traders in the Baltic, the North Sea, and the Atlantic to Bordeaux and Lisbon. Too many historians have fallen under the spell of the interpretation of the late 19th century German economic historians, for example, Schmoller, Bucher, Ehrenberg, that the development of a strong centralized nation-state was requisite to the development of capitalism in the early modern period. Not only is this thesis refuted by the flourishing of commercial capitalism in the Middle Ages in the local and non-centralized cities of northern Italy, the Hanseatic League, and the fairs of Champagne, not to mention the disastrous economic retrogression imposed by the burgeoning statism of the 14th century. It is also refuted by the outstanding growth of capitalist economy in free, localized Antwerp and Holland in the 16th and 17th century. Thus the Dutch came to outstrip the rest of Europe while retaining medieval local autonomy and issuing state building, mercantilism, government participation in enterprise, and aggressive war. Despite the rise of 
rival Dutch shipping, the continued importance of the Hanseatic League in the economic life of England was indicated by the Treaty of Utrecht, 1474, which confirmed the trading privileges of the Hansards in England, including the payment of lower duties than the English merchants paid. But the accession of the Tudor dynasty to the English throne in 1485 marked the beginning of a steady growth of the power of the English government. Medieval forms were transformed by the Tudors into a more efficient and complete machinery for repression, especially in regulating those economic activities that had achieved prosperity by freely evading the government's regulations, controls, and taxation. Monopoly rights were granted in 1486 to the Fellowship of the Merchant Adventurers of England in all trade to the Netherlands except in wool. Especially important was the export of cloth to the finishing and dyeing centers of the Netherlands. Furthermore, navigation acts restricted to English ships the importations of wines in the vain expectation of thus increasing the number of English sailors and ships sufficiently to develop a strong governmental naval force. In 1496, the English government negotiated with the government of Netherlands the Great Commercial Treaty, Intercursus Magnus, which provided favorable commercial conditions for English merchants at Antwerp. The important contribution of the Intercursus Magnus to international law was to recognize the freedom of English and Dutch fishermen on the high seas, especially on the North Sea, which had become the major European fishing area. The fishermen were to be free to fish anywhere and to use the ports of either country in an emergency. For a century and a half, the Intercursus Magnus remained the foundation of Anglo-Dutch commercial and maritime relations. However, by an act of 1497, the English government implemented its treaty power to monopolize and control trade to the other countries. Specifically, the act excluded English competitors of the merchant adventurers from the Netherlands trade by granting that company a monopoly in the trade with Antwerp. The cloth trade to the Netherlands now became the privileged monopoly of a limited number of London merchants who came more and more to have the closest fiscal relationships with the state through loans at favorable terms to the government. For more effective enforcement of government power under the Tudors, executive power was exercised by a specially selected group of government advisors that, because it met in secret, was called the Privy Council. The Privy Council acted by means of fiat proclamations rather than by legislation of Parliament. Judicial power was granted to the Court of Star Chamber, a prerogative court that tried the violations of the proclamations by the mere force and whim of government, rather than by the traditional common law, which guaranteed the rights of the people. Defending the government from the criticisms of the people, called libels, from conspiracy and riots, that is, any gathering protesting the oppressions of the government, 
and from infractions of its coinage, the Star Chamber was notorious for the imposition of ruinous fines, cruel imprisonment, whippings, brandings, and mutilations of those who came under its aegis. To aid its work, the Tudor government had set aside the common law prohibition of the use of torture. The Tudors also introduced the first permanent state military force in England, as they had established the foundation for a governmental navy. Military force was most generally used to subject the Irish to English rule. Poyning's Law, 1495, which established the model for the control of colonies by the English government, extended to Ireland the repressive and absolutist measures current in England and required all legislation in the Irish Parliament to receive prior approval from the Privy Council in England. When, a century more later, England acquired transatlantic territories and Englishmen fled there to escape the economic effects of mercantilism or the repressions of the Privy Council, the Star Chamber, or prerogative will, it was the English subjugation and domination of Ireland that furnished the earliest precedents and models for attempted imperial control of the peoples in America. During the 16th century, a principal office developed in the Tudor government that would later have the greatest importance for the English colonies in America. This was the Secretary of State, a title of Spanish origin, indicating some of the strong political and cultural influence derived from England's commercial and diplomatic relations with Spain. By 1540, there were two Secretaries of State, each of whom had full authority to act on a wide range of matters, dealing with the king and his officials and the king and foreign governments. The secretaries of state became responsible for the expanding areas that the Privy Council took under its jurisdiction. Judicial matters, internal government, taxation and economic controls, leadership of the Houses of Parliament, military and naval affairs, foreign affairs, and finally colonial affairs, when England acquired and governed colonies. During the first half of the 16th century, while the English government was neglecting the New World for state building and navy building, English fishermen quietly but regularly began to enjoy the abundant fishing in the waters off Newfoundland. Fishing ships put out from West Country ports such as Bristol and Plymouth and then sold the fish in Spain, Portugal, and Italy. On their return, these ships carried the goods of the Mediterranean to northern Europe. For with the decline and cessation in 1532 of the Venetian Flanders fleets that had been calling in Southampton, English merchants imitated the Dutch and themselves carried the trade of Italy, Spain, and Portugal to Antwerp. The Venetian fleets could no longer compete in the spice and Atlantic trade because of a growing shortage of, and therefore a high price for, timber in the Adriatic, and because Portuguese aggression against Venice's Arab allies at the ports of the Persian Gulf cut off its spice routes. Such oceanic voyages, however, were not at this time of interest to the English government which was pushing for the building of large ships 
and the maintenance of fishing fleets in the nearby North Sea, where the sailors could be regularly and immediately available to be pressed into the Navy for military adventures in Europe in alliance with Spain. To this end, a Navigation Act was introduced in 1540 requiring the use of the larger, more expensive, and less efficient ships of the English shipowners and captains instead of the smaller, less expensive Dutch ships. However, privileged merchants, such as the merchant adventurers, in trade with Spain or its possessions, for example Spain and the Netherlands, were exempted and could, by employing Dutch shipping, gain a competitive advantage over independent English merchants. Decreased English participation in the North Sea herring fishery, caused by the greater efficiency of the Dutch as well as by the Reformation, which greatly reduced the religiously based demand for fish in England, greatly alarmed the English government. To maintain the traditional source of impressment of men into the government's navy, a statute of 1549 imposed upon the English a political abstinence from meat under penalty of fine in place of the previous purely religious abstinence. This intensification of mercantilist policy was accelerated by the intervention of England into the dynastic wars on the continent in the 1540s. To support its military activity, the English government initiated a series of great debasements of the currency as a hidden form of taxation of the people. The depreciation of the currency made England's goods cheaper to foreigners who were able to purchase more English goods for the same amount of money. This taxation by inflation thus called forth an unnatural expansion in the production of the export commodities of wool and cloth, dislocating the economy both in agriculture and in industry. By 1550, the great increase in the cost of production brought about by the inflation caught up with the fall of the foreign exchange rate thus ending the artificial comparative advantage causing the increased export of cloth. The inevitable end to the overexpansion of export industry, stimulated by the government's debasement in the 1540s, resulted in a severe depression, prolonged during the 1550s by further restrictive and monopolizing economic intervention by the government. Thus, Parliament passed laws to protect the guild industry and to bring the free rural industry under the control of the traditional patterns of regulation and taxation. At the same time, the merchant adventurers, who were becoming the major tax collectors and lenders of money to the government, received a more complete monopoly of the export of cloths to Europe. The accession of Queen Elizabeth 1558-1603, was followed by the transformation of piecemeal, unsystematic government interventions into a comprehensive program of restrictions, privileges, and taxes. Elizabeth's reign brought to culmination the trend to absolutist government especially noticeable in the exercise of power by the prerogative courts. 
by the Statute of Laborers and Apprentices of 1563, Parliament extended to the whole nation the restrictions that had formerly been limited to the urban guilds. In order to check and control the free capitalist textile industry based on rural labor, the government bound rural workers to agricultural labor and extended restrictive seven-year apprenticeship requirements and maximum wage rates to the rural cloth industry. In this way, by crippling the free cloth industry, the government moved to confer special privilege on two powerful groups. The backward urban guilds, who were being outcompeted by the free and progressive rural cloth makers, and the quasi-feudal landlords, who had been losing workers to the higher-paying cloth industry. To overcome the protections afforded defendants in common law trials, the punishment for violating new laws was placed by the Privy Council into the hands of the prerogative courts where prisoners could be tortured and were deprived of the benefits of trial by jury. The Court of Star Chamber also developed censorship to control the reading of the people and the laws of seditious and slanderous libel to protect the government from criticism. Under the pressure of the financial crisis and of the control of markets by monopoly trading companies, the only possible avenue for the export of cloth appeared to be the opening of new areas of trade. As a result, there was a resumption of English maritime exploration by the merchants seeking markets for cloth and sources of raw material. The most successful of these attempts began in December of 1551 with the formation of the Mystery and Company of the Merchant Adventures for Discovery of Regions, Dominions, Islands, and Places Unknown. To it, Sebastian Cabot, the partner and son of John Cabot and chief pilot of Spain for 30 years, was appointed as governor for life. After consideration by the Trinity House Corporation, which was empowered to review petitions for charters of exploration and trade, the company received its charter. Organized according to Italian practice as a joint stock company, it was named the Russia or Muscovy Company. The company received a grant of monopoly in 1553 for all trade with Russia, Central Asia, and Persia through the White Sea port of Archangel. An expedition to Archangel and Moscow returned in 1554 with permission to sell English cloth and purchase Russian furs, plus the spices transported along the Volga River from Central Asia and Persia. The descendants and relatives of the founders of the Muscovy Company were important in later explorations, most of which were conducted under the auspices of the company. The English also looked to Spanish America as a market for the export of cloth and the purchase of raw materials. Although Spain maintained a system of monopoly trade to the New World, it could not supply large quantities of goods at low prices due to the regulations, taxes, and privileges of the mercantilist system. 
By the mid-16th century, the silver mines of Mexico and Peru were not only contributing greatly to a monetary inflation in Europe, but also making the Spanish commerce with America the most valuable part of transoceanic trade. While Europe had difficulty in selling goods in Asia in exchange for spices, and therefore had to re-export American silver for spices, it could not supply enough manufactured goods to Spain for purchasing the silver, hampered as it was by the restrictions, monopoly, and taxation imposed by the Spanish government. These restrictions and inefficiencies of the Spanish monopoly greatly encouraged smuggling by ships from other European countries. Large amounts of manufactured goods were re-exported to the Spanish colonies from the Portuguese colony of Brazil, which around the middle of the 16th century became, by virtue of the absence of restrictions and heavy taxes, the major sugar-producing area in the world. Just as the bullion from America in payment for manufactured goods and loans on the slave trade from West Africa through which goods were smuggled to the West Indies by the Genoese, now made Antwerp the banking capital of Europe. So the sugar trade from Brazil to Portugal by Jewish merchants and from Lisbon to Antwerp by Dutchmen and Portuguese Jews living in the Netherlands made Antwerp the center of the finest and cheapest sugar refining industry in 16th century Europe. The English, like the Portuguese, were able to engage in the illegal trade to the West Indies at reduced risks because of close diplomatic relations between England and Spain. In 1562, Sir John Hawkins of Plymouth, after acquiring 300 slaves in West Africa, received permission to sell them in slave-hungry Hispaniola and to purchase a valuable cargo of sugar. Hawkins made a second voyage in 1564 to sell English cloth. In return for a license to trade in the West Indies and promises as to his peaceful trade, Hawkins offered to aid the Spanish in destroying the colony established in Florida by the French, who were also the leading pirates in the West Indies. The Spaniards, however, decided to do this job themselves. In 1564, a group of French Huguenots under René de Laudinière settled at the mouth of the St. John's River on the east coast of Florida, and there constructed Fort Caroline. The Spaniards, worried about their bullion convoys and the threat of buccaneers and anxious to enforce their claims of monopoly power over Florida, sent Pedro Menendez de Avilés from Spain to crush the French. In 1565, Menendez founded the great base of St. Augustine, the first permanent city in the Western Hemisphere and 50 miles south of the French settlement. After a French fleet moving against the Spaniards was wrecked in a storm, Menendez, heavily outnumbering the French, then marched overland and butchered over two-thirds of the settlement, especially including prisoners, save for a hundred colonists who managed to escape to some French vessels in the harbor. Philip II, King of Spain, rejoiced at the news, 
Say to him, Menendez, that as for those he has killed, he has done well, and as for those he has spared, they should be sent to the galley, that is, into slavery. In retaliation, a French nobleman, Dominique de Gourges, outfitted an expedition at his own expense, landed in early 1568 near the fort, now renamed San Mateo, and mobilized many Indians who were happy to take revenge on the hated Menendez. Gourge now swept down on the Spanish garrison, taking it completely by surprise and conquering it easily. The entire Spanish force, prisoners again included, was now in turn put to the sword, although Menendez himself escaped punishment by being absent in Spain, Gourge was able to enforce poetic justice. Menendez had hanged several prisoners, publicly posting the notice that they were hanging as Protestants, not as Frenchmen. Now Gourge hanged a score of his prisoners on the same trees and posted the sign, not as Spaniards, but as liars and murderers. Due to English intervention into the constitutional and religious struggle of the Netherlands against Spain, English activity in the West Indies tended more and more toward piracy against Spanish shipping. The English freebooters were encouraged in their piratic attacks by the crown, which participated in the profits of the plundering voyages. Sir John Hawkins and his cousin Francis Drake were defeated at Veracruz in 1568, but in 1571 and 1573, Drake plundered the Spanish silver depots at Panama. In 1577-80, Drake dared to circumnavigate the globe. He was the first Englishman to challenge the concept of the Pacific Ocean as a vast Spanish lake. Along the way, Drake plundered Chile and Peru and purchased tons of spices in the East Indies. In 1585, Drake returned to the West Indies. On this voyage, his fleet plundered Santo Domingo, Cartagena, and St. Augustine. In 1587, he attacked Lisbon and Cadiz, and in 1588 participated in the defeat of the Spanish Armada which had attempted to retaliate against English attacks. This was a victory that brought to England domination of the seas. Although the distraction of Spanish bullion would continue to complicate English colonial activities in the future, the actual settlement of North America was founded on the search for trade by the Muscovy Company and the extension of land conquest and speculation from Ireland to America. A staunch defender of monopoly, special privilege, and the royal prerogative, Sir Humphrey Gilbert, after serving as an officer in the War of Extermination against the Irish, 1566, had proposed to establish English colonies on the confiscated Irish lands and was appointed governor of Southern Ireland in 1569. Gilbert emerged as the great leader of the feudal quest for a northwest passage around North America to the Orient. He published in 1576 his tract in behalf of this search. 
Discourse of a Discovery for a New Passage to Kataya, that is to China. The Muscovy Company, holding a monopoly privilege for exploration and trade in the Atlantic Ocean, north of London, desired to find a Northwest Passage, as well as stations for its whaling fleets for the whale oil used in the manufacture of soap. The Muscovy Company thereupon licensed Martin Frobisher, a nephew of one of the founders of the company, to explore Greenland and Labrador in search of a passage. Frobisher made three fruitless voyages in 1576, 1577, and 1578. Meanwhile, Gilbert perceived corollary possibilities of power and personal profit by the colonization of Newfoundland, both in the conquest of its fishing grounds and as a base for search for a northwest passage. Preparing to petition Queen Elizabeth for a monopoly patent of exploration and colonization of North America, Gilbert sought the advice of Dr. John Dee, mathematician, magician, astrologer, and mystic advisor to the Queen. Dee was much consulted in matters of exploration. To support the petition, Dee submitted reports extending previous historical fantasies that the English crown possessed the God-given right to North America and to sole ownership of all remotely adjacent seas and to all the fish therein. Gilbert received the patent for exploration and colonization in North America in 1578. Humphrey Gilbert made several preparatory voyages to Newfoundland, as did his brother Adrian, his half-brother and freebooter Walter Raleigh, and his associate John Davis. After further engaging in conquest and colonization in Ireland, Gilbert prepared during 1582-83 another voyage for western planting in Newfoundland to establish a fishing colony. He was lost at sea in 1583. In February 1584, Adrian Gilbert and Walter Raleigh were granted a patent for Northwest exploration, under which John Davis made three voyages, 1585 to 88, in a vain quest for a Northwest passage, while in the following months of 1584, Humphrey Gilbert's monopoly patent for North American colonization was renewed in favor of Walter Raleigh. Sir Walter Raleigh had been inspired by the Reverend Richard Hacklute concerning colonization of the New World. Hacklute, a friend of his and Gilbert's, had written paeans to the idea of English colonization. Indeed, Raleigh commissioned Hacklute to write Discourse of Western Planting, 1584, to be submitted to Queen Elizabeth in order to induce her to invest money in their colonization schemes. In this work, Hacklute promised virtually every boon to the English establishment, especially to the merchants in the crown, markets for its products, especially woolens, raw materials for its purchases, furs, timber, and naval stores, outlets for her surplus population and bases from which to loot Spanish shipping. Sir George Peckham, an associate of Gilbert and Raleigh, wrote in 1583 in support of Gilbert's project that a Newfoundland colony 
would provide a port to increase England's fishing fleet, a supply of valuable furs, and a northwest passage. But all of Hakluyt's and Peckham's propaganda could not induce the Queen to loosen her purse strings. The products that Peckham and Hakluyt expected America to produce and the trade with foreign countries that they expected American trade to replace, these expectations were not arrived at accidentally. Their program was founded on the experience of the Muscovy Company, which had established trading posts on the inhospitable coast and in the forest of Russia. But the project was not described merely to indicate the close comparisons between America and Russia, from whose forest had come furs, timber, and naval stores, and over whose roots came the spices and luxury of the Orient. Rather, the plan was offered as an alternative to the Russian trade that was desperately needed by the London merchants. For England's Baltic trade had been crippled by conflicts with the Hanseatic League, and the English government had granted to the newly chartered Eastland Company a monopoly of exports to the Baltic areas. The conflict between the Dutch and the Spanish in the Netherlands had brought upon Antwerp a series of calamities that ruined it as the great European center of commerce. Moreover, when the king of Spain acceded to the Portuguese throne in 1580, the Dutch were eliminated from the vital trade in spices from Lisbon, causing a rise in prices. Most important, in the 1580s, the Muscovy Company's trade with Russia suffered crippling blows when the Cossacks disrupted the Volga route, by which England had received spices from Persia and Central Asia, and when Russia lost its Baltic coast, including the port of Narva, to Sweden. To regain the spice trade, a group of leading merchants of the Muscovy Company formed the Turkey Company and the Venice Company in 1581, for direct trade with the Levant in spices and Mediterranean goods. Because of wars in the Levant, these companies sent English merchants overland to India to establish a direct trade in spices. When these merchants returned, the Turkey and Venice companies were merged into the Levant Company, 1592, with a charter to trade with India through the Levant and Persia. Having secured his monopoly grant of colonization, Sir Walter Raleigh planted, in 1585, the first English colony in what would later be the United States, on Roanoke Island, off the coast of present-day North Carolina. The area had been first explored by Ralph Lane and Richard Grenville, under Raleigh's direction the previous year, and was named Virginia in honor of England's virgin queen. The new colony had few dedicated settlers, however, and the people returned to England two years later. In 1587, still another Raleigh expedition headed by the painter John White tried to effect a permanent settlement of Roanoke Island. Indeed, the first English child born in America, Virginia Dare, granddaughter of John White, was born that summer at Roanoke Colony. 
But English interest in and communication with the tiny colony was cut off during the battle with the Spanish Armada, and White, stranded in England, could not return to Roanoke until 1591. He could then find no trace of any of the colonists. The first attempt at English colonization of America had totally failed. If Raleigh and Gilbert had received their inspiration for colonizing from such men as Hakluyt, their practical experience had been picked up in the course of subduing and enslaving Ireland. After serving in the army, attempting to impose English rule on Ireland, Gilbert had proposed in the late 1560s to plant Englishmen in Ulster, as the Irish were forcibly driven out. A few years later, Gilbert became governor of Munster in Southern Ireland. In the course of pacifying the Irish, he drove out Irish peasants and replaced them with West Country English. Even as late as 1580, Gilbert and Raleigh fought together to suppress the Irish in Munster, and were rewarded with sizable grants of land. After the American colonizing failures. Raleigh turned his attention back to Ireland. There, he planted English colonists to grow tobacco on the forty thousand acres of land he had been granted in Munster. In 1589, Raleigh, having expended forty thousand pounds on the American failure, and not succeeding in persuading the Queen to supply more, was happy to sell his patent for North American colonization to a group of associates and London merchants, largely connected with the Muscovy Company, and including John White, the Reverend Richard Hakluyt, and Sir Thomas Smith. Raleigh, however, reserved to himself the right of dominion over the prospective colony. Leading circles in and around the Muscovy Company had thus resumed the monopoly of rights to exploration and colonization of North America, which monopoly they had briefly held a decade earlier. But now they had a far greater incentive to pursue their grant to try to find compensation for the upheavals of the spice and Baltic trade and of Antwerp during the 1580s. Consideration was therefore given to establishing a sea trade direct to the East Indies by English and Dutch merchants. Thomas Cavendish, who had served on the Raleigh voyage to America in 1585, had sailed around the world during 1585-88 and had returned with a cargo of spices. The war with Spain now completely cut England off from the Levant spice trade, and in 1589, the London merchants received permission from the Privy Council to send three ships to the East Indies, carrying silver out of the country to pay for spices. Cavendish and John Davis, another old associate of Raleigh, made an unsuccessful attempt to circumnavigate the world. James Lancaster, who had been a merchant in Lisbon, was in 1591 dispatched with three ships to India. He returned in 1594 with one ship and a cargo of spices. In 1593, the Muscovy and Levant companies moved to the fore, sending George Weymouth to search for a northwest passage to India along the coast of North America. The Dutch began in 1594 
to form companies for distant voyages around Africa to India. Their first fleet returned in 1597, thereby giving a new impetus to the activity of English merchants. In 1598 alone, Dutch companies sent five fleets, totaling 22 ships, to the Indies. John Davis was the chief pilot of the Zealand fleet. By 1601, over a dozen Dutch fleets of almost 70 ships had sailed for the East Indies. Because of renewed English voyages and conflicts with the Portuguese, the Dutch merchants, forming the companies that had sent the ships to the East Indies, began to amalgamate them, and in March 1602, all the Dutch companies merged into the United East India Company. In September 1599, London merchants belonging to various trading companies, especially the Levant Company, formed an association on the model of the successful Dutch companies and petitioned the government to charter a company of London merchants having a monopoly of trade by sea to the East Indies. The charter to the East India Company was granted on December 31, 1600, under the title of The Governor and Company of Merchants of London Trading into the East Indies. The Levant Company was granted a new charter to distinguish the monopoly areas of the two companies. The governor named in the charter of the East India Company was Sir Thomas Smith, S-M-I-T-H or S-M-Y-T-H-E. Smith's grandfather, Andrew Judd, had been a principal founder of the Muscovy Company. His father had preceded him as a leading tax collector and had been a key royal official in erecting the edifice of royal absolutism, high taxation, and economic restrictionism during the Elizabethan era. Smith was governor also of the Muscovy Company and the Levant Company, of which he was a founder, and was also the principal member of the group of London merchants to whom Raleigh had in 1589 assigned his patent for American colonization. Indeed, Smith was the governor of every one of England's privileged companies, then interested in foreign commerce and colonization. Smith has been referred to as the greatest merchant prince of his era, but it is clear that his status and wealth arose not from private trade, but from the governmental privileges of tax farming and grants of monopoly. The first voyage of the East India Company went out under the direction of James Lancaster and John Davis in 1601, and was followed the next year by George Weymouth's second voyage along the coast of North America, sponsored by the East India and Muscovy companies. Meanwhile, Sir Walter Raleigh resumed his interest in the New World in 1602, sending out another feudal expedition to search for survivors of the Roanoke colony. But in the following year, Raleigh's colonizing activities were unceremoniously cut short by the accession of King James I to the throne of England. One of James's first acts was to consign Raleigh to an indefinite imprisonment in the Tower 
and abruptly to vacate his dominion over Virginia. Among the king's motives was the desire to give Spain a tangible token of the new king's wish to conclude peace between the two warring countries. For Raleigh was now perhaps the most ardent warmonger and plunderer against Spanish shipping and whose colonizing activities sought bases for aggression against Spain. His incarceration was therefore a particularly apt token of peace between the two nations. Indeed, peace was concluded the next year, in August 1604, after which King James cracked down on the formerly lionized captains of piracy and freebooting. The Treaty of London of 1604 provided for freedom of commerce between England and Spain as it had existed prior to the war. Since England had had the right to sail to Spain and Portugal, England now claimed that its ships could sail to the East and West Indies as well. Spanish America was the source of tobacco, and its use in England increased greatly once trade was reestablished on a regular basis, even though James disapproved of its use as a poisonous weed. Although the London merchants hoped to monopolize the renewed trade with Spain, the protest of the merchants of the West Country ports, especially Bristol and Plymouth, forced the government to backtrack. First, it tried to include the West Country merchants in the monopoly, and then it decreed for all English merchants freedom of trade to Portugal, Spain, and the Western Mediterranean, a policy that was later to apply to American merchants. At the same time, the privileged merchants of the Levant and Muscovy companies were suffering further losses because of local difficulties, especially foreign invasions of Russia. While economic pressure was turning the attention of English merchants once again to possible markets and supplies of raw materials in North America, and peace renewed attention to the new world that had been diverted by the war against Spain, the peace treaty also terminated the previously permanent employment of many military and naval officers engaged in the war. In 1605, Weymouth again explored the coast of New England, this time in behalf of a group of soldier courtiers, including Sir Ferdinando Gorgias, the Earl of Southampton, and the latter's brother-in-law, Sir Thomas Arundel. Weymouth's return in July 1605 led to several projects for trade and colonization in America, and in September of that year, petitions were presented to the Privy Council for the formation of companies to engage in these activities. Although the Privy Council was then considering a project to plant English colonists in the lands taken from the Irish in Ulster, the value of North American colonies to English shipowners and to the English Navy led the Trinity House Corporation and the Privy Council to approve the petitions. Finally, in April 1606, Raleigh's Old Dominion over Virginia was granted to two sets of powerful merchants, which included the merchants to whom Raleigh had sold his rights of trade. The new patent divided the monopoly powers of government over Virginia between two joint stock companies of merchants, the South Virginia Company 
was to have claim over the land between the 34th and 38th parallels, roughly from Cape Fear north to the Potomac River. The North Virginia Company was to rule between the 41st and 45th parallels, roughly from Long Island to Maine. To stimulate competition and to provide incentive for colonizing, the zone in between was thrown open to settlement by either company, with the stipulation that one could not settle within 100 miles of the other. Since the South Virginia Company was headed by leading merchants of London, it soon became known as the London Company, while the North Virginia Company, centered around merchants of Plymouth, came to be called the Plymouth Company. Each company was granted powers to allocate its land in any way it wished. The king reserved the then customary royalty of 5% of whatever gold or silver might be mined from the new land. Insisting upon overall royal control and dominion unique to monopoly charters of that era, the king vested supervisory control of the two companies in a Royal Council of Virginia, which was appointed by the king and which in turn was to appoint resident local councils to govern each of the two colonies. The settlers and their descendants were supposed to enjoy all the liberties, franchises, and immunities of Englishmen at home, a clause immediately contradicted by the absence of any provision for elections or home rule. The Plymouth Company for North Virginia was composed of West Country merchants, gentry, and soldiers, and was headed by the governor of Plymouth, Sir Ferdinando Gorgeous, who desired to establish a fishing and fur trading colony independent of the London merchant financiers. Also included in the group were Raleigh Gilbert, a son of Sir Humphrey, and Sir John Popham, Chief Justice of the King's Bench. Sir John had played a leading role in procuring the charter. The Plymouth Company dispatched an exploratory expedition in October 1606 and sent colonists to America in May 1607 under Raleigh Gilbert and George Popham, a relative of Sir John. A settlement was established on the Kennebec River in what is now Maine, but because of a severe winter and poor crops and the death of the two Pophams, the colony was abandoned in September 1608. Thereafter, the Plymouth Company did not attempt further colonization, but concentrated on the Newfoundland fisheries and some fur trade. The London Company for South Virginia was composed of members of leading political families. The leading member was the ubiquitous Sir Thomas Smith, the leader of the group that had purchased trade rights from Raleigh and the governor of the East India, Muscovy, and Levant companies. Other leading members were the Reverend Richard Hacklute, Robert Rich, Earl of Warwick, a leader in the monopoly-chartered East India, Burma, and Guinea companies, and the leading London merchants involved in the Muscovy, Levant, and East India companies. And just as the Levant Company had been founded by members of the Muscovy Company and a quarter of the stockholders in the East India Company were members of the Levant Company, 
So, over 100 members of the East India Company were now investors in the London, Virginia Company, a main purpose of which was to provide a source of raw materials, such as tropical products, spices, and furs. Another prominent member in the London Company was Sir Edwin Sandys, a prominent Puritan and friend of a royal favorite, the Earl of Southampton. The London, Virginia Company sent forth its first settlers in December 1606. They were carried then, as in succeeding years, on ships provided by the Muscovy Company, which long remained the major operator in the Virginia trade. With them, the colonists took the king's instructions to the company, which included the requirement of a public oath of obedience by the colonist and a death penalty for all manner of crimes, including tumults, sedition, conspiracy, and adultery. The president and the council of the company were empowered to make laws for the colonist, consistent with the laws of England, subject to revision by the royal council. The ships landed at Chesapeake Bay the following May 6. A settlement was founded 30 miles inland on the James River, called Jamestown in honor of the king. This was the first successful English settlement in North America. The colony of Virginia had begun. The new English colonial grants were placed between the French exploration and settlement to the north and the Spanish occupation to the south. Through trading and missionary posts, Spain had been effectively occupying the coast of what was later to become South Carolina, Georgia, and Florida. The French had been continually exploring and trading on the St. Lawrence for some years. Already they had established a trade in furs, which would become the most valuable French export from North America. In 1602, the patent for monopoly of the fur trade to France from North America had been granted to the Company of New France, which sent Samuel de Champlain to explore the St. Lawrence in 1603. The following years, Champlain established a fur post at Acadia, now Nova Scotia, and explored the coast of New England. In 1607, the Muscovy Company commissioned Henry Hudson, a descendant of the founder of the company, to explore the Arctic regions around Greenland. Two years later, Holland and Spain concluded a trade, which the Dutch claimed gave them rights, similar to those accorded to the English, to sail to the New World. Promptly, the Dutch sent Henry Hudson, under auspices of the Dutch East India Company, to explore the Arctic regions. Sailing along the North American coast from Newfoundland to the Carolinas, Hudson returned by way of Delaware Bay, South River, and the Hudson River, North River, which he explored up to Albany. He claimed the fur regions for the Dutch. In 1610, Hudson set forth under an English company headed by Sir Thomas Smith and discovered Hudson's Bay before being abandoned by his mutinous crew. Several of the companies of which Smith was governor were subject to reorganization in the spring of 1609 because of the new Dutch competition in North American waters resulting from the Dutch peace treaty with Spain. New charters were granted in May 1609 
to the English East India Company and the closely linked London Virginia Company. The East India Company was granted a perpetual monopoly charter and in the following year established its first trading post in India. Analogous to the East India Company Charter, the new charter granted to the Treasure and Company of the Adventurers and Planters of the City of London for the First Colony in Virginia, a corporate body politic, with Sir Thomas Smith filling the key royally appointed post of treasurer. The charter was completely distinct from the old joint charter of the unsuccessful Plymouth Company. The rechartering of an independent London-Virginia company for American colonization was complemented by the chartering of a new company for planting English and Scottish colonists in the lands recently conquered in Northern Ireland. In the spring of 1610, a group of London and Bristol merchants interested in founding a colony in proximity to the fishing banks off Newfoundland was chartered as the treasurer and company of adventurers and planters of cities of London and Bristol for the colony or plantation of Newfoundland. Under the direction of Sir Ferdinando Gorgias, the company prepared to send exploratory voyages along the New England coast. To improve the financial condition of the London-Virginia Company, a new charter was issued in 1612 to Smith as the treasurer and company of Virginia. The boundaries included the islands within 300 leagues of the continent, specifically the rediscovered Bermudas or Summers Islands, which in 1615 were placed under the Summers Islands Company, of which Smith was also the governor. Along with the 1612 Virginia Company Charter, Smith received a charter as the Governor and Company of the Merchants of London, Discoverers of the Northwest Passage, to follow up Henry Hudson's last voyage. In addition, Smith's Muscovy Company was rechartered in 1613. This enlarged the Muscovy Company's privileges in exploring Greenland, Hudson Bay, Newfoundland, and North America, and included a monopoly of the whale and seal fishing, which had become the company's major interest because of the troubles in Russia. As this was an attempt to exclude Dutch, as well as independent English whalers, the States General of the United Provinces of the Netherlands granted charters in 1614 to a company for the Greenland whale fishery, an informal recognition of the exploratory work of Henry Hudson, granted to the New Netherland Company the power to colonize and trade in the area about the South, Delaware, and the North, Hudson Rivers. Volume 1, Chapter 2, New World, New Land The Englishmen and other Europeans of the 16th and 17th centuries faced westward to the New World in awe and in hope. For here was a vast virgin continent, and its most striking feature was the millions of square miles of new and potentially highly productive land. To a Europe beset by the incubus of feudalism and statism, of absolute monarchy, of state-controlled churches, of state restrictions on human labor and human enterprise, 
to a Europe with scarce land, which was engrossed by feudal and quasi-feudal landlords whose vast government-granted estates drained in rents the surplus over subsistence earned by the peasantry. To this Europe, the new and vast land area appeared as potential manna from heaven. At home, the mass of Europeans, middle class and peasants alike, faced centuries of weary struggle against the frozen cake of status restrictions, a network of taxes, feudal dues and rents, and controls and shackles by states and state-fostered guilds. This was a relatively stagnant old world, whose population pressed heavily upon the means of subsistence. This was a Europe but recently emerged from the secular depression into which the growth of statism had plunged it at the beginning of the 14th century. But abroad, they saw a quite different vision, new, productive, and virtually unoccupied land, with the important exception of the rather thinly populated Indians, a land relatively unencumbered, with the feudalism and restrictions that humbled them at home. In short, here at last was the opportunity for the individual to leave his unsatisfactory conditions at home to try to carve out of the wilderness a better life for himself and his family, a life offering him the freedom and opportunity to make his own way, stand on his own feet, and keep what he himself had earned. It is not the privilege of many generations of men to experience a revolution, a breeze of fresh air upon the stagnant social structure, and an opportunity to break loose from the old mold and strike out afresh on one's own. Through the discovery of the new world, the men of the 17th century experienced at least the potential of such a revolution— for the escape hatch to the untapped storehouse of the new world lay always at hand. New land then confronted the old world, and this vast stretch of land furnished the most striking fact about the virgin American continent. But how was the ownership of this great new landmass to be allocated? Basically, New and previously unowned land can come into ownership in two different ways. Either the settler, the pioneer who, in the later phrase of John Locke, mixes his labor with the soil and brings the previously unused and fallow natural resources into productive use, is conceded ownership of the land he has in this way created, or he is not. If it be objected that the pioneer has not really created the land, it is also true that no producer creates matter. The builder of a factory has not, in the ultimate sense, created the matter in the factory. He has rather transformed by the use of his labor the previously nature-given matter. He has shifted this original matter into other forms more useful to himself and to his fellow men. This shifting is the meaning of production, and this is precisely what the pioneer has done in transforming the land. If he is not challenged, the pioneer settler of new land will naturally and automatically become its owner. There are two types of threats to this basic principle of first ownership to first user. 
either existing settler owners can be subjected to the arbitrarily imposed ownership of some overlord, or else new land can be parceled out to some person or persons before any settlement has taken place. In both cases, the arbitrary parceling is performed by the state, that institution that asserts its claim to a monopoly of legalized coercion in a given territorial area. The former is one of the chief methods of feudalism, the parceling out of peasant-owned land to the ownership of overlords favored by the state. But this method requires previously existing settlers. Clearly, in the case of a new and untapped continent, the second method would be the major threat to settler ownership of what the settlers would create. And this is precisely what happened in the case of North America. It is the propensity of the state to parcel out arbitrary subsidies in disregard of the individual's natural right to own what he has produced. This propensity is here aggravated by the fact that the state always assumes sovereign ownership over new and unused land, its self-proclaimed public domain. It hereby assumes the right to dispose of this domain in any way it sees fit, unless forced by the pressure of public opinion to do otherwise the state will naturally tend to dispose of such land in a way best calculated to maximize either its own revenue or the revenue of its privileged favorites. The crucial question then becomes, will the land pass after a time into the hands of the settlers, or will it remain permanently in the hands of privileged overlords dominating the settlers? England, the major sovereign over the lands of North America, had been subjected to feudalism since at least the Norman conquest of the 11th century. After the conquest of England in 1066, the conquerors parceled out large tracts of land to the ownership of their leading warlords, and this newly created nobility became the liege lords of the subdued peasantry. Since the overwhelming mass of Englishmen were still engaged in agriculture, feudalism became the crucial fact about English, as well as other European, society. The major attributes of the feudal system were the granting of huge estates to land-owning warlords, the coerced binding of the peasants' serfs to their land plots, and hence to the rule of their lords, and the further bolstering by the state of feudal status through compulsory primogeniture, the passing on of the estate to the oldest son only, and entail, prohibiting the landowner from alienating, selling, breaking up, and so on, his land. This process froze landlordship in the existing noble families and prevented any natural market or genealogical forces from breaking up the vast estates. But after the late 14th century, the serfdom aspect of feudalism began a steady decline in England, as compulsory labor service imposed on the peasants began to be commuted permanently into money rents, quit rents, which quit or freed one of the onerous obligations of feudal, including military, service. 
By the early 17th century, however, feudal military service had not been abolished, and the two other aspects of feudalism, primogeniture and entail, remained intact. An important specific spur to imposing feudalism on the colonies of the New World was England's experience in subjugating Ireland. In the process of conquering Ireland during the 16th century, the English concluded that the wild Irish were no better than savages and unreasonable beasts, and hence could be treated as such, a significant preview of English treatment of the American Indian. As a result, the English decided that, as in Ireland, a colony had to be planted under direction of a central monopoly organization run along military lines. They also decided to favor imposing on a colony a system of feudal land tenure. It was no coincidence that the leaders in the early English colonizing projects in America had almost all been deeply connected with the planting of Englishmen, largely a supposed surplus of poor, and feudal land ownership in Ireland. Indeed, many of the active incorporators of the Virginia Company had substantial interest in Irish plantations. As recently as 1603, in fact, a crushing defeat of the Irish had spurred renewed colonization in Ulster by the English government. The hapless Irish peasants were declared to have no rights in owning land. Instead, their lands were handed over by the crown in large grants to privileged courtiers and monopoly companies, all enjoying feudal powers over the new domain. The Irish were deliberately exterminated or driven off their land, and the vacant lands compulsorily planted with an alleged surplus of English poor, who were now little better than serfs. The treatment of the Irish and Ireland proved a directly illuminating model for the gentlemen colonizing in Virginia. That the first English settlements in the New World were organized not directly by the Crown, but by private monopoly companies, meant that the proprietary company would be interested in subdividing its granted land as quickly as possible to the individual settlers, in order to reap a rapid gain for its shareholders. The situation was, of course, not that of the free market. If it were, the British government would, A, have refrained from claiming sovereignty over the unused American domain, or especially, B, have granted ownership of the land titles to the actual settlers rather than to the company. The privileges to the chartered companies, however, did not prove disastrous in the long run. The companies were eager to induce settlers to come to their granted land and then dispose of the land to them at a profit. The cleansing acid of profit was to dissolve incipient feudalism and land monopoly. It is true that the fact of the land grant to the company engrossed the land for a time and raised its price to the settlers, thus restricting settlement from what it would have been under freedom, but the quantitative effects were not very grave. Defenders of pre-settler land speculation have claimed that speculators, such as the first charter companies, spurred settlement in the hope of profit. This is true, 
but it does not offset the net restriction on settlement by virtue of the land grants and the consequent raising of the price of otherwise free land to the settlers. In a free market, the same companies could simply have loaned settlement money to the colonists, and this productive credit could then have spurred settlement and earned them a profit without the arbitrary restrictions imposed by the land grants. Volume 1, Part 2, The Southern Colonies in the 17th Century. Chapter 3, The Virginia Company. The Virginia Colony did not enter existence as a new entity in a new world, devoid of the shackles of tradition. The two key areas of policy, land and commerce, were already clearly established before the Virginia Company was planned and before the Virginia Colony was established. In the period immediately preceding the formation of the Virginia Company and Colony, a policy toward colonial land, commerce, government, natives, and colonists became well established. A primary purpose for colonization was the belief that England was highly overpopulated and that colonies were a suitable outlet for the surplus poor of England. In 1603, the government issued an order for the forcible transportation of sturdy beggars, vagrants, and other troublesome persons to the English plantations across the sea in Ireland. During the preceding decade, Ireland had suffered the ravages of the English army battling against a movement of national liberation seeking self-government, freedom of religion, and abandonment of the plantation of English colonists on Irish lands. The defeat of the Irish in 1603 by the studied English policy of destruction of crops, cattle, homes, and people opened Ireland to renewed colonization by the English government. The Irish had no land rights. They were mere tenants at the will of their lords. The system of plantations in Ireland provided the pattern for establishing plantations in America. Grants of land were made to courtiers, privileged companies, and purchasers of feudal domains with feudal powers. Like the American Indians, the Irish were subjected to raids whose purpose was to destroy their subsistence and shelter and to drive them out of the proposed area of plantation. These new feudal domains were settled by the poor of England who were subjected to feudal disabilities. In consequence, these poor not only did not own their own lands, they barely owned themselves. The colonial government of Ireland remained the despotism that was established by the Tudors. Since the English government was deeply engaged in the development of a program for Irish colonization, when the Virginia Company was being organized, there were complaints that the proposals for American colonies would interfere with the plantation of Ulster. It was absurd folly to run over the world in the search of colonies in Virginia or Guiana, whilst Ireland was lying desolate. However, colonies in Virginia or Guiana would not only contribute to the decrease of the burden of overpopulation, they would also be a source of important tropical or semi-tropical products that were objectives of the privileged trading companies of London. The London financiers purchased from the government 
the right to retain general customs as well as tobacco duties, since tobacco was becoming a significant imported commodity. Spanish America, especially the lands and islands about the Caribbean, was the source of tobacco, and its use in England grew rapidly once trade was established with Spain in 1604. However, the use of tobacco was much disliked by James I because it not only was a drain of money from England to Spain, but also was considered poisonous and a sign of intemperance and vice by which Englishmen allowed themselves to be debased by the barbaric practices of the Indians. But the habit became widespread and an important source of tax revenue. In 1604, the English government initiated new increases in the customs duties, making the farming of the duties even more profitable. Tax farming was the sale by government of the right to tax. At the same time, the increases in tariffs made smuggling such a profitable business that it became organized on a professional basis. The smuggling business was a well-organized system of purchase, transportation, delivery, and distribution in which the free trader was not only sailor and merchant, but also policeman to protect his property from attacks by government officials. Tobacco became one of the most important of the basic items for smuggling. Besides increasing direct taxation, the government, in effect, encouraged smuggling through indirect taxes via sale of monopoly privileges. James I's first parliament in 1604 established the tone for the future parliaments of the 17th century, opposition to the government. The parliament of 1604 strongly stated the grievances felt against the government and among the fiscal reforms demanded by the House of Commons was the abolition of the foreign trading companies having monopolies. A committee under the chairmanship of Sir Edwin Sandys presented a bill for all merchants to have free liberty of trade into all countries as is used in all other nations. Sandys said... All free subjects are born inheritable as to their land, as also to the free exercise of their industry in those trades whereto they apply themselves and whereby they are to live. The Parliament of 1605 continued to state the grievances of the people against the monopolies of London financiers. After the closing of Parliament, the government sought to quiet opposition by co-opting provincial capitalists into the monopoly privileges. However, the desire for the advantages of freedom of trade outweighed the advantages of monopoly privileges and the attempt to force the investors of the West Country ports such as Plymouth and Bristol into the London monopolies proved unsatisfactory. Thus, the colonization activities of the West Country promoters had to be separated from those of the London colonial promoters. This resulted in the creation of two Virginia companies and charters, September 1605 and April 1606. In 1606, the Parliament declared void the charters of the monopoly companies trading with Southern Europe which action freed and opened that trade to all English merchants. In response, 
The government refused to call Parliament for almost three years, hoping to raise money by prerogative power, by increasing the duties on imports and exports without parliamentary consent, and by the creation or extension of monopolies. The Parliament of 1610 protested the imposition of increased taxes and deprivation of civil liberties by the prerogative courts and refused to vote any taxes. The government continued to gain its income by prerogative power, granting increased privileges in 1612 to such companies as the Virginia Company and the East India Company. Despite the financial manipulations of the government, its debt more than doubled, and it sought to gain taxes by controlling elections to the House of Commons. But a house opposed to the government was elected, and by a unanimous vote, it criticized the imposition of taxes by the government. Sir Edwin Sandys said of the monopolies and taxes imposed by the government that what in the past had been done only temporarily and in emergencies was now being claimed by right. The Parliament refused to pass any legislation or approve any taxation until the grievances of the people were redressed by the government. The government dissolved the Parliament and over a dozen members were punished by the government by imprisonment or house arrest, including Sir Edwin Sandys. Although the government continued to create and enlarge its inspections, regulations, controls, and monopolies, the rationalization of government power was further undermined in 1614 by common law court decisions against monopolies. During the constitutional struggle of the 17th century, the common law was often used against the government's positive laws. An important aspect of the struggle was the provision of Magna Carta, guaranteeing complete freedom of trade as part of the protection of liberty and property. Any interference in economic activity by the government or by any group privileged by the government constituted restraint of trade contrary to the principles of common law. It became evident that there could not be any restraint of trade without government action, and the common law courts refused to enforce the monopolies whenever the government did not interfere with the freedom of the courts. Among the bill's failing passage in 1614 was one for a navigation act. Following the peace of April 1609 between Spain and the Netherlands, the Dutch were able to compete favorably with English ship owners in the fishing, coastal, and distant trades because of cheaper costs due to more efficient construction. The English government occasionally harassed Dutch shipping at the insistence of English shippers by intermittently enforcing old laws and collecting fines. Although in 1602 the English government had insisted to Denmark that the law of nations alloweth of fishing in the seas everywhere, the increased competitive ability of the Dutch caused the English government to issue a contrasting proclamation in May 1609. This proclamation claimed that the English government had dominance and political authority over those high seas in which England possessed exclusive fishing rights. Therefore, the Dutch should withdraw from these seas or pay taxes to the English government. 
To the Dutch, the fishing industry was highly important, and thus the English sought to strike at the basis of Dutch prosperity. After thirty years, the fantasies of the magician, Dr. John Dee, had become the program of the English government, a program for which Englishmen would be forced to sacrifice their lives. In place of that spirit of freedom and mutual advantage of the intercursus magnus, which had guided English maritime policy for over one hundred years and would remain the letter of the law for another several decades, there was entering into the policy of the English government a spirit of increased restriction and belligerency. This spirit was reflected in the expansion of the mercantilist system during the 17th century, aimed especially at the Dutch. In opposition to the claims of exclusive control of the high seas by England in the North Sea and the North Atlantic, and by Spain and Portugal in the East and West Indies, the Dutchman Hugo Grotius contended for the freedom of the seas in his work Mare Liberum, 1609. That the seas were to be open to all and free from government control was an idea that Grotius, the founder of international law, derived from Spanish philosophical thought, especially from the work of Francisco Suarez. Suarez had established the basis for international law by deducing from the variety of peoples and states that the unity of the human race can only be represented by a general, rational, international law and not by a general political organization or domination, whether over the lands or over the seas. In 1613, a Dutch diplomatic delegation, including Hugo Grotius, came to London to negotiate for improved commercial relations, and one of the matters raised was the possibility of greater cooperation between the Dutch and English East India companies, which had traded together in the Indies in amity. There was heavy Dutch investment in England because of the higher interest rates there, and the English East India Company was one of the businesses in which the Dutch had invested heavily. Because of the adoption of a permanent joint stock, similar to that of the more advanced Dutch business organization, and the common concern of defense against Portuguese fleets, there was increased Dutch interest in the English East India Company. A merger of the companies was proposed that would have maintained the autonomy of the English body. Although the English would have benefited from the superior Dutch capacity, trading experience in the Indies, and technical competence, the English East India directors rejected this proposal and engaged in armed conflict with the merchants and ships of the Dutch East India Company. Apparently, the English preferred the returns of hostile conflict to the profits of peaceful cooperation. This hostility would have been increased and generalized by the proposed Navigation Act of 1614 that would have imposed upon English merchants the requirement to ship English goods on English ships. The English ship owners had maintained that English regulations forced them to use uneconomical ships. 
The regulations required that ships be built so that they could be transformed into auxiliary warships built for speed and maneuverability rather than for carrying cargoes at low operational cost. The English shippers desired compensation in the form of a navigation act forcing English merchants to use the uneconomical English ships rather than the more efficient Dutch ships. In reply to the ship owners and the monopoly companies, the merchants said the navigation acts were poison that would destroy the competitive position of the English merchants in foreign trade and reduce the standard of living of the English public as consumers of imports and producers of exports. To use English ships with their much larger crews and smaller capacities, the merchants insisted, would greatly raise their cost and thus reduce English competitive ability in the world market. The monopoly companies headed by Sir Thomas Smith became the focus of increasing popular criticism leveled against the government's attempt to expand further the system of privileges. Representative of the literate attacks on monopoly and the navigation acts in the commons was the Trades Increase, 1615, which centered its attack upon the power nucleus of the London financiers headed by Thomas Smith and the East India Company. The pamphlet declared that monopoly privileges were contrary to the freedom of Englishmen and that no one should be barred from carrying on trade equally in all parts of the world. The East India Company directors considered the pamphlet particularly dangerous, even treasonable, and commissioned the writing of an answer, The Defense of Trade. The trade's increase favored the establishment of colonies in America, but charged that the growth of colonies there had been stunted by the grants of monopoly privileges that discouraged settlement. In fact, the Virginia colony was not doing very well in drawing off England's surplus poor. Besides transporting vagrants and criminals to Virginia, the London Company and the City of London agreed to transport poor children from London to Virginia. However, the poorest refused the proffered boon, and the company moved to obtain warrants to force the children to migrate. It seemed, indeed, that the Virginia colony, failing also to return profits to the company investors, was becoming a failure on every count. The survival of the Virginia colony hung, in fact, for years by a hairbreadth. The colonists were not accustomed to the labor required of a pioneer, and malaria decimated the settlers. Of the 104 colonists who reached Virginia in May 1607, Only 30 were still alive by that fall, and a similar death rate prevailed among new arrivals for many years. As late as 1616, only 350 colonists remained, of a grand total of over 1,600 immigrants. One major reason for the survival of this distressed colony was the changes that the company agreed to make in its social structure, The bulk of the colonists had been under indenture contracts and were in servitude to the company for seven years in exchange for passage money and maintenance during the period, and sometimes for the prospect of a little land at the end of their term of service. The contract was called an indenture because it was originally written in duplicate on a large sheet 
the two halves separated by a jagged line called an indent. While it is true that the original contract was generally voluntary, it is also true that a free society does not enforce even temporary voluntary slave contracts, since it must allow for a person to be able to change his mind and for the inalienability of a person's control over his will and his body. While a man's property is alienable and may be transferred from one person to another, a person's will is not. The creditor in a free society may enforce the collection of payment for money he may have advanced, in this case passage and maintenance money, but he may not continue to enforce slave labor, however temporary it may be. Furthermore, many of the indentures were compulsory and not voluntary. For example, those involving political prisoners, imprisoned debtors, and kidnapped children of the English lower classes. The children were kidnapped by professional spirits or crimps and sold to the colonist. In the concrete conditions of the colony, slavery, as always, robbed the individual of his incentive to work and save, and thereby endangered the survival of the settlement. The new charter granted in 1609 by the Crown to the Company, now called the Virginia Company, added to the incentives of the individual colonist by providing that every settler above the age of ten be given one share of stock in the company. At the end of seven years, each person was promised a grant of 100 acres of land and a share of assets of the company in proportion to the shares of stock held. The new charter also granted the company more independence and more responsibility to its stockholders by providing that all vacancies in the governing royal council be filled by the company, which would thus eventually assume control. The Charter of 1609 also stored up trouble for the future by adding wildly to the grant of land to the Virginia Company. The original charter had sensibly confined the grant to the coastal area, to 100 miles inland, the extent of English sovereignty on the continent. But the 1609 charter grandiosely extended the Virginia Company from sea to sea, that is, westward to the Pacific. Furthermore, its wording was so vague as to make it unclear whether the extension was westward or northwestward, not an academic point, but a prolific source of conflict later on. The Charter of 1612 added the island of Bermuda to the vast Virginia domain, but this was soon farmed out to a subsidiary corporation. The incentives provided by the Charter of 1609, however, were still only future promises. The colony was still being run on communist principles. Each person contributed the fruit of his labor according to his ability to a common storehouse run by the company, and from this common store... Each received produce according to his need. And this was a communism not voluntarily contracted by the colonists themselves, but imposed upon them by their master, the Virginia Company, the receiver of the arbitrary land grant for the territory. The result of this communism was what we might expect. 
Each individual gained only a negligible amount of goods from his own exertions, since the fruit of all these went into the common store, and hence had little incentive to work or to exercise initiative or ingenuity under the difficult conditions in Virginia. And this lack of incentive was doubly reinforced by the fact that the colonist was assured, regardless of how much or how well he worked, of an equal share of goods from the common store. Under such conditions, with the motor of incentive gone from each individual, even the menace of death and starvation for the group as a whole, and even a veritable reign of terror by the governors, could not provide the necessary spur for each particular man. The communism was only an aspect of the harshness of the laws and the government suffered by the colony. Absolute power of life and death over the colonist was often held by one or two counselors of the company. Thus, Captain John Smith, the only surviving royal council member in the winter of 1609, read his absolute powers to the colonist once a week. There are no more councils to protect or curb my endeavors, he thundered, and every violator of his decrees would assuredly expect his due punishment. Sir Thomas Gates, appointed governor of Virginia in 1609, was instructed by the company to proceed by martial law as of most dispatch and tenor and fittest for this government of Virginia. Accordingly, Gates established a code of military discipline over the colony in May 1610. The code ordered strict religious observance, among other things. Some twenty crimes were punishable by death, including such practices as trading with Indians without a license, killing cattle and poultry without a license, escape from the colony, and persistent refusal to attend church. One of the most heinous acts was apparently running away from this virtual prison to the supposedly savage Indian natives. Captured runaway colonists were executed by hanging, shooting, burning, or being broken on the wheel. It is no wonder that Gates' instructions took the precaution of providing him with a bodyguard to protect him from the wrath of his subjects, for, as the succeeding governor wrote in the following year, the colony was full of mutiny and treasonable inhabitants. The directors of the Virginia Company decided, unfortunately, that the cure for the grave ailments of the colony was not less, but even more discipline. Accordingly, they sent Sir Thomas Dale to be governor and ruler of the colony. Dale increased the severity of the laws in June 1611. Dale's laws, the laws divine, moral, and martial, became justly notorious. They provided, for example, that every man and woman in the colony be forced to attend divine service, Anglican, twice a day or be severely punished. For the first absence, the culprit was to go without food, for the second to be publicly whipped, and for the third to be forced to work in the galleys for six months. This was not all. Every person was compelled to satisfy the Anglican minister of his religious soundness and to place himself under the minister's instructions. 
Neglect of this duty was punished by public whipping each day of the neglect. No other offense was more criminal than any criticism of the 39 articles of the Church of England. Torture and death were the lot of any who persisted in open criticism. This stringent repression reflected the growing movement in England of Puritans and other dissenters to reform or to win acceptance alongside the established Church of England. Dale's laws also provided that no man speak impiously against the holy and blessed Trinity or against the known articles of the Christian faith upon pain of death, that no man shall use any traitor's words against his majesty's person or royal authority upon pain of death. No man shall dare to detract, slander, columnate, or utter unseemly speeches, either against counsel or against committees, assistants, and others. First offense to be whipped three times, second offense to be sent to galleys, third offense, death. Offenses such as obtaining food from the Indians, stealing food, and attempting to return to England were punishable by death and torture. Lesser offenses were punished by whipping or by slavery in irons for a number of years. Governor Dale's major constructive act was to begin slightly the process of dissolution of communism in the Virginia colony. To stimulate individual self-interest, he granted three acres of land and the fruits thereof to each of the old settlers. Dale's successor, Captain Samuel Argyll, a relative of Sir Thomas Smith, arrived in 1617 and found such increased laxity during the interim administration of Captain George Yeardley that he did not hesitate to reimpose Dale's laws. Argyll ordered every person to go to church Sundays and holidays or suffer torture and be a slave the week following. He also imposed forced labor more severely. Fortunately for the success of the Virginia colony, the Virginia Company came into the hands of the Puritans in London. Sir Thomas Smith was ousted in 1619, and his post as treasurer of the company was assumed by Sir Edwin Sandys, a Puritan leader in the House of Commons who had prepared the draft of the amended charter of 1609. Sandys, one of the great leaders of the liberal dissent in Parliament, had helped to draw up the remonstrance against the conduct of James I in relation to the King's First Parliament. Sir Edwin had urged that all prisoners have benefit of counsel, had advocated freedom of trade and opposed monopolies and feudalism, had favored religious toleration, and generally had espoused the grievances of the people against the crown. For Virginia, Sandys wanted to abandon the single company plantation and to encourage private plantations, the ready acquisition of land and speedy settlement. The relatively liberal Puritans removed and attempted to arrest Argyll and sent Sir George Yeardley to Virginia as governor. Yeardley at once proceeded to reform the despotic laws of the colony. He substituted a much milder code in November 1618, called by the colonists the Great Charter. Everyone was still forced to attend Church of England services, but only twice each Sunday, and the penalty for absence was now reduced to the relatively innocuous three shillings for each offense. 
Yearly also increased to 50 acres the allotment of land to each settler, thereby speeding the dissolution of communism and also beginning the process of transferring land from the company to the individual settler who had occupied and worked it. Furthermore, land that had been promised to the settlers after a seven-year term was now allotted to them immediately. The colonists themselves testified to the splendid effects of the yearly reforms in a declaration of 1624. The reforms gave such encouragement to every person here that all of them followed their particular labors with singular alacrity and industry, so that within the space of three years our country flourished with many new erected plantations. The plenty of these times likewise was such that all men generally were sufficiently furnished with corn, and many also had plenty of cattle, swine, poultry, and other good provisions to nourish them. In his greater charter, Yearly also brought to the colonists the first representative institution in America. The governor established a general assembly, which consisted of six councillors appointed by the company and burgesses elected by the freemen of the colony. Two burgesses were to be elected from each of eleven plantations, four general plantations denoting sub-settlements that had been made in Virginia, and seven private or particular plantations, also known as hundreds. The four general plantations or sub-settlements, each governed locally by its key town or city, were the city of Henrico, Charles City, James City, the capital, and the borough of Kecotton soon renamed Elizabeth City. The assembly was to meet at least annually, make laws, and serve as the highest court of justice. The governor, however, had veto power over the assembly, and the company's edicts continued to be binding on the colony. The first assembly met at Jamestown on July 30, 1619, and it was this assembly that ratified the repeal of Dale's laws and substituted the milder set. The introduction of representation thus went hand in hand with the new policy of liberalizing the laws. It was part and parcel of the relaxation of the previous company tyranny. The other major factor in the survival of the colony was the discovery by John Rolfe about 1612 that Virginia tobacco could be grown in such a way as to make it acceptable to European tastes. Previously, Virginia tobacco had been regarded as inferior to the product that had been introduced to the Old World by the Spanish colonies in America. By 1614, Rolfe was able to ship a cargo of tobacco to London and meet a successful market. Very rapidly, Virginia possessed a staple and an important economic base. Tobacco could be readily exported to Europe in exchange for other goods needed by the colonists. By 1617, tobacco was being planted even in the streets of Jamestown. An index to the extremely rapid rate of growth of the tobacco production is the quantity of Virginia tobacco imported by England, two and a half thousand pounds in 1616, 50,000 pounds in 1618, 119,000 pounds in 1620, 
and 203,000 pounds in 1624. Even though tobacco was truly the lifeblood of the little colony, the government of Britain and of Virginia could not keep from trying to cripple its growth. King James was aesthetically offended by the spread of the fashion for that idle vanity, smoking, and so placed a heavy duty on tobacco to limit its import. In that way, presumably, Englishmen would only smoke with moderation to preserve their health. Sir Thomas Dale, alarmed at the prospects of monoculture, decreed it a crime for a planter not to raise an additional two acres of corn for himself and each servant. Presumably, no person was to be trusted with the far more efficient procedure of raising tobacco and with the proceeds buying his own corn from whomever he desired. Even the patron saint of Virginia tobacco, John Rolfe, was appalled at its rapid spread, thus showing a far skimpier knowledge of economics than of the technology of tobacco. Even the liberal Sir Edwin Sandys took this position and deplored the spread of tobacco in the de-emphasis on corn. Only Captain John Smith showed economic sense by pointing out that the reason for the colonists' seemingly peculiar emphasis on tobacco over corn, a man's labor in tobacco could earn six times as much as in grain. The first General Assembly added to the regulations on tobacco. Every settler was forced to plant each year a certain quota of other plants and crops. The price of tobacco was fixed by law, and any tobacco judged inferior by an official government committee was ordered burned. The latter regulation was the first of continuing attempts by tobacco planters to restrict the supply of tobacco, in this case low-priced inferior leaf, in order to raise the price received from the buyers and ultimately from the consumers. If tobacco was partly responsible for the survival of the colony, it was also indirectly responsible for the introduction into America of grievous and devastating problems. For one thing, the natural process of transferring the land from a ruling company to the individual settler roughly to the extent to which he brought the land into use, was sharply altered and blocked. Tobacco farming required much larger estates than truck or other individual farms. Hence, the wealthier tobacco planters sought and obtained very large land grants from the company. One method of obtaining land was distributing to the colonist by headright. That is, each immigrant received 50 acres and anyone who paid for an immigrant's passage received 50 acres of land per immigrant from the company. As a result, the wealthier planters could acquire vast tracts by accumulating numerous headrights. Furthermore, large grants of land were made to leading stockholders of the company. For one thing, each individual planter received a grant of 100 acres for each share of stock he held in the company. To raise cash for its hard-pressed finances, the company also sold bills of adventure, entitling the holders not to stock, but specifically to 100 acres of Virginia land per bill. Each bill was the same denomination as a company share, 12 pounds, 10 shillings. 
Often, bill holders join together to take up allotments of lands to be held for speculation. As a result of these practices, several particular plantations emerged as settlements in large land grants, presided over by the private government of the grantee. The largest particular plantation was Berkeley's Hundred, 4,500 acres on the north side of the upper James River, granted as a first dividend to five prominent stockholders headed by the Berkeleys and settled in 1619. Other plantations were Smith's Hundred, Martin's Hundred, Bennett's Plantation, and Martin's Brandon. Arbitrary land allocations were also made by the governor and the assembly, Thus, 3,000 acres in the capital and three other general plantations were reserved to the company, with the settlers being confined to tenants. The proceeds were to go toward the expenses of government. Land was also reserved for support of the local officials and ministers and as a subsidy for local artisans. A substantial grant was given to Governor Yeardley, and 10,000 acres was reserved for a proposed university at Henrico. The crucial point, however, is that the planters would not have been able to cultivate these large tobacco plantations and therefore would not have been moved to acquire and keep so much land if they had had to rely on free and independent labor. So scarce was such labor in relation to land resources that the hiring of free labor would not have been economically feasible. But the planters then turned to the use of forced labor to render their large plantations profitable, specifically the labor of the indentured servants and of the even more thoroughly coerced Negro slaves. In slavery, The laborer is coerced not only for a term of years or for life, but for the lives of himself and all his descendants. It was an ironic commentary on the later history of America that 1619, the very year of the yearly reforms, saw the first slave vessel arrive at Jamestown with 20 Negroes aboard to be sold as slaves to the tobacco planters. Until the mid-17th century, the planters preferred to rely on indentured serf labor. These white servants, once their term had expired, could obtain their land, generally 50 acres each, on the western fringe of the settlement and become independent settlers. But Negro slavery, unlike indentured service, had no means of dissolving into the general society. Once introduced, it became the backbone of the Virginian and other Southern labor system. It could only remain as a continual canker on the American body social. The tiny colony was apparently not too young to have foreign affairs, and indeed it learned all too quickly the ways of interstate relations. French settlers had the temerity to found a colony of their own at Mount Desert in what was later to be Maine, and on the banks of the Bay of Fundy in what was later to become Nova Scotia. This trespassed upon the land that King James had arbitrarily granted to the Plymouth Company, which had not yet made any settlement in North America. It also trespassed on the greater glory of England. And so Southern Virginia did the honors, 
Captain Samuel Argall, disguising his ship as a fishing vessel, sailed from the colony up to Mount Desert in 1613, eradicated the French settlement, and kidnapped 15 French settlers, including two Jesuit priests. Hauled to Virginia, the prisoners were badly treated. Over a dozen of the hapless French settlers were turned loose by Argall on the Atlantic in an open boat, but they had the good fortune to be rescued by fishing vessels. Later in the year, Argall returned north and expanded his work of destruction, putting to the torch the settlements of St. Croix and Port Royal, the latter in Nova Scotia, and driving the settlers into the woods. A few years later, Captain Argall, now governor of Virginia, continued the tradition by participating in piratical activities against Spanish shipping. He sailed under the aegis of the king's favorite among the company stockholders, the Earl of Warwick. Volume 1, Chapter 4 From Company to Royal Colony King James I encountered growing troubles with the Puritans at home and grew increasingly restive about the Puritan Virginia Company. For one thing, the king had ousted Sandys from his post as treasurer, only to find him replaced by Sandys' liberal ally, the Earl of Southampton. The disgruntled and influential Sir Thomas Smith persisted in advising the king to confiscate the company. Finally, King James managed in 1624, to obtain from a court under his domination the annulment of the charter of the Virginia Company. One of King James's maneuvers against the company was to have the Privy Council suspend, in 1622, the use of the lottery as a fundraising device, although it had been authorized in the amended charter of 1612. This turnabout contributed greatly to the financial difficulties of the company and its going into receivership in 1623. Lotteries had accounted for 8,000 pounds of the total Virginia Company budget of less than 18,000 pounds in fiscal year 1621. Pressures against the company's right to finance itself by lottery came also from the ousted Smith Group, and from capitalists who feared the competition for funds of the lottery device. The abrupt change in government, although unwelcome to the Virginia settlers, scarcely altered the social structure of the Virginia colony, for surprisingly the king did not disturb the land titles and land privileges that had been allocated to individuals and groups by the company. For many years, indeed, the colony continued to grant land in exchange for the company's shares. These allotments continued to be made in large tracts, and generally the best tracts, in contrast to the small frontier settlements of the indentured servants along the navigable rivers. One result of this pattern of land allocation and of the heavy reliance on forced labor was that Virginia, in contrast, as we shall see, to the New England system, was thinly settled over an extended area with few towns or villages. The tobacco planters prospered and increased their reliance on indentured service and, after mid-century, on Negro slavery. The London Company, after granting land to the individual settlers, had reserved to itself the feudal quit-rent, in this case, of two shillings per 100 acres. 
Since the quit rent was not payable for seven years until 1625, the Crown, upon seizure of the assets of the London Company, took over the proprietary privilege and collected the first quit rents from the settlers. However, the British government did not bother to enforce collection of the dues. At first, the governor, now appointed by the king, his council, chosen by the king from among the wealthiest and most prominent of Virginians nominated by the governor, and the representative burgesses continued to sit together. But soon they were divided into two houses, the council and the house of burgesses. The council also functioned as the supreme judicial body of the colony when sitting as the general court. Thus, the legislative and judicial powers were combined. Before this court came all the major criminal and civil cases. The local county courts had direct jurisdiction over minor cases with appeals permitted to the general court. The councillors held office indefinitely. They were usually reappointed whenever a new governor arrived. The increase in the number of settlers and settlements as well as a decline of the importance of the particular plantations, brought about in 1634 a change in the political divisions of the colony. Hence, a change occurred in the composition of the House of Burgesses. Instead of the system of general and particular plantations, eight counties were created, counties that followed settlement westward along the rivers of Virginia. The eight original counties were on the James River, Elizabeth City, Wanasquawak, later Isle of Wight, Warwick River, later Warwick, James City, Charles City, and Henrico. On the Charles, New York River, Charles River County, and encompassing the eastern shore, Accomac County. Two burgesses were now chosen from each county and one from each of the leading towns, by qualified property holders. Thus emerged an English parliament in miniature. The governor, however, as the king's proconsul in the colony, was the dominant governing influence. He commanded the army and navy, directed religious affairs, appointed justices of the peace and other court officials, and called together or dissolved the assembly at will. He could also veto any law that the assembly might pass. He presided over the council, which consented to the judicial appointments and, as we have seen, effectively controlled its membership. He was the major ruler of the colony. Local officials were all appointed directly by the governor and his council. The major local officials were the justices of the peace, who performed both the judicial and the executive functions for their areas. Volume 1, Chapter 5 The Social Structure of Virginia planters, and farmers. But if the royal governor was the leading governing power, de facto he shared the rule over Virginia society with an oligarchy of very large tobacco planters, who, as we have seen, were granted large tracts of choice river land and who were able to command and exploit the labor of slaves and indentured servants for their plantations. This ruling class of large planters permeated the officers of colonial government. They constituted the entire council, the upper house of the assembly and supreme judicial body, and a majority of the house of burgesses. 
In addition, they were the major county officers, judges, colonels of the militia, and revenue officers. The large planters also made up the vestry that governed each parish, the smallest political unit. The next larger unit, the county, was ruled by several justices of the peace appointed by the governor from among the planters. The justices of the peace held county court, administered roads and police, and assessed taxes. Orders of the county court were executed by the sheriff and the county lieutenant, commander of the local militia. Both were appointed by the governor with the advice of the county court. The great bulk of the free populace were not large planters, but small farmers with holdings of fifty to a few hundred acres. These were independent yeomen who had acquired titles to the land they were to settle by headright grant or at the end of their indentured term of service. A few small farmers had one or two indentured servants, but most had none, the labor being performed by the farmer and his family. Despite the rule of the royal governor and the preemption of choice land and the use of slaves by the large planters, the yeomen enjoyed a far freer, more mobile society than they had ever known. They were free above all from the hopelessness of the rigid feudalism and caste structure that they had left behind in England. Here they were, at last, owners of their own land and products. They were pioneers, hewing out their living from a new and untapped continent. The bulk of Virginians in the colonial era made their living from the soil, and so the society and the economy were almost wholly agrarian. Even the few town dwellers were close to agrarian life and traded agrarian produce. Scattered thinly over a wide area, the agricultural population used the rivers as the primary method of transportation. Roads by land were poor and travel difficult. Even merchants were scarce, and the planters depended on English ships for their merchandise. Far off London and Bristol were virtually their nearest market towns, There they maintained factors as agents in trade. The poorer farmers were often served by neighboring planters, who would thus function intermittently as middlemen in lieu of specialized merchants nearby. The wealthy planters were able to trade in quantity and to break bulk for the smaller farmers. While the great export staple was tobacco, each of the large plantations functioned like the feudal manor. Each was a nearly self-sufficient economic entity, producing its own food, clothing, and shelter, and importing large equipment and luxury items of consumption for the planters. Tobacco production continued to grow spectacularly, American tobacco imported by England amounted to 203,000 pounds in 1624, reached over 17.5 million pounds by 1672, and 28 million pounds in 1688. As tobacco production grew, its price naturally fell from sixpence to a penny or less a pound. As a result, the lot of the small tobacco farmers became increasingly difficult, and they found it harder and harder to compete with the larger plantations, which were staffed with slave and bond servant labor. 
an increased use of slave labor after 1670 widened the gulf between the planters and the small farmers. The ruling planters, naturally enough, aspired to the life of the English country nobility. As their prosperity improved, so did their culture and learning. In the colonial period, there was little of that aura of magnolia and roses or of the pampered idleness often attributed to the Virginia aristocracy. As we have seen, they were often deep in trade, and the Virginia planters had none of the traditional aristocratic contempt for hard work or for trading. They were not securely wealthy enough to afford shirking the unremitting task of managing their estates. They were, in short, not yet established enough in privilege to assume an European aristocratic attitude toward business. Even the large planters could not relax from their task of trying to make profits and avoid losses. Despite their privileges, a life of idle dandyism would have led to rapid bankruptcy. Neither did the pseudo-heroics of song and story abound, and dueling was virtually unknown anywhere in the colonies. Increasingly, the planters cultivated learning. They amassed home libraries of the best knowledge of the time, and they sent their sons to good schools in England. Culturally, spiritually, and economically, they felt themselves to be outposts of Europe rather than adjuncts to the wild interior of the American continent. Typical of the great Virginia planters was William Byrd II. Toward the end of the 17th century, Byrd was sent by his father to school in England. There he had a legal training and later studied business methods in Holland and then was apprenticed to a firm of merchants in London. While in London, he became a friend of such leading writers as William Congreve. Byrd himself wrote literary and scientific papers. Back in Virginia, he corresponded with various English noblemen and amassed one of the best libraries in the colonies, over 3,600 volumes, and a handsome collection of paintings by English artists. Books in birds and other libraries included works of law, science, history, philosophy, the classics, theology, sermons, agriculture, indeed virtually every branch of learning of the time. In addition to the birds, some of the other ruling planter families by the end of the 17th century were the Carters, the Fitzhughes, the Beverleys, the Lees, the Masons, and the Harrisons. For those who could not afford schooling in England, the scattered peopling of Virginia made education difficult to come by. The planter would try to hire a tutor for his children, and often several neighboring planters would jointly hire tutors. Often the teachers were indentured servants, bought from other masters for the purpose. Early in the colony's history, King James and the Virginia Company tried to found a school, but their efforts came to naught. The first successful school in Virginia was founded by the planter Benjamin Sims, who in 1635 left 200 acres and eight cows for the education of children from Elizabeth City and Kecotton parishes. This school was soon established as the Sims Free School. 
The Eaton Free School was established in 1659 in Elizabeth City by Thomas Eaton with a gift of 500 acres of land. These schools began a pattern of many private free schools founded by wealthy planters of Virginia, generally in their wills. The schools collected tuition from parents able to pay and admitted poor children and orphans free. The schools generally taught the three R's and a little Latin. Children on farms remote from the schools were taught, if at all, by their parents or by the local parson. Volume 1, Chapter 6, The Social Structure of Virginia, Bond Servants and Slaves. Until the 1670s, the bulk of forced labor in Virginia was indentured service, largely white but some Negro. Negro slavery was negligible. In 1683, there were 12,000 indentured servants in Virginia and only 3,000 slaves of a total population of 44,000. Masters generally preferred bond servants for two reasons. First, they could exploit the bond servants more ruthlessly because they did not own them permanently as they did their slaves. On the other hand, the slaves were completely their owner's capital, and hence the masters were economically compelled to try to preserve the capital value of their human tools of production. Second, the bond servants, looking forward to their freedom, could be more productive laborers than the slaves, who were deprived of all hope for the future. As the colony grew, the number of bond servants grew also, although as servants were repeatedly set free, Their proportion to the population of Virginia declined. Since the service was temporary, a large new supply had to be continually furnished. There were seven sources of bond service, two voluntary, initially, and five compulsory. The former consisted partly of redemptioners, who bound themselves for four to seven years in return for their passage money to America. It is estimated that 70% of all immigration in the colonies throughout the colonial era consisted of redemptioners. The other voluntary category consisted of apprentices, children of the English poor who were bound out until the age of 21. In the compulsory category were A. Impoverished and orphaned English children shipped to the colonies by the English government. B. Colonists bound to service in lieu of imprisonment for debt, the universal punishment for all non-payment in that period. C. Colonial criminals, who were simply farmed out by the authorities to the mastership of private employers. D. Poor English children or adults kidnapped by professional crimps, one of whom boasted of seizing 500 children annually for a dozen years and E, British convicts choosing servitude in America for seven to fourteen years in lieu of all prison terms in England. The last were usually petty thieves or political prisoners, and Virginia absorbed a large portion of the transported criminals. As an example of the grounds for deporting political prisoners into bondage, an English law in force in the mid-1660s banished to the colonies anyone convicted three times of attempting an unlawful meeting, a law aimed mostly at the Quakers. Hundreds of Scottish nationalist rebels, 
particularly after the Scottish uprising of 1679, were shipped to the colonies as political criminals. An act of 1670 banished to the colonies anyone with knowledge of illegal religious or political activity who refused to turn informer for the government. During his term of bondage, the indentured servant received no monetary payment. His hours and conditions of work were set absolutely by the will of his master, who punished the servant at his own discretion. Flight from the master's service was punishable by beating or by doubling or tripling the term of indenture. The bond servants were frequently beaten, branded, chained to their work, and tortured. The frequent maltreatment of bond servants is so indicated in a corrective Virginia Act of 1662. The barbarous usage of some servants by cruel masters being so much scandal and infamy to the country that people who would willingly adventure themselves hither are through fears thereof diverted, thus diminishing the needed supply of indentured servants. Many of the oppressed servants were moved to the length of open resistance. The major form of resistance was flight, either individually or in groups. This spurred their employers to search for them by various means, including newspaper advertisements. Work stoppages were also employed as a method of struggle, but more vigorous rebellions also occurred, especially in Virginia in 1659, 1661, 1663, and 1681. Rebellions of servants were particularly pressing in the 1660s because of the particularly large number of political prisoners taken in England during that decade. Independent and rebellious by nature, these men had been shipped to the colonies as bond servants. Stringent laws were passed in the 1660s against runaway servants striving to gain their freedom. In all cases, the servant revolts for freedom were totally crushed and the leaders executed. Demands of the rebelling servants ranged from improved conditions and better food to outright freedom. The leading example was the servant uprising of 1661 in York County, Virginia, led by Isaac Friend and William Cluton. Friend had exhorted the other servants that he would be the first and lead them and cry as they went along who would be for liberty and freed from bondage, and that there would be enough come to them and they would go through the country and kill those who made any opposition and that they would either be free or die for it. The rebels were treated with surprising leniency by the county court, but this unwanted spirit quickly evaporated with another servant uprising in 1663. This servant rebellion in York, Middlesex, and Gloucester counties was betrayed by a servant named Birkenhead, who was rewarded for his renegacy by the House of Burgesses with his freedom and 5,000 pounds of tobacco. The rebel leaders, however, former soldiers under Cromwell, were ruthlessly treated. Nine were indicted for high treason and four actually executed. In 1672, a servant plot to gain freedom was uncovered and a Catherine Nugent suffered 30 lashes for complicity. 
a law was passed forbidding servants from leaving home without special permits, and meetings of servants were further repressed. One of the first servant rebellions occurred in the neighboring Chesapeake tobacco colony of Maryland. In 1644, Edward Robinson and two brothers were convicted for armed rebellion for the purpose of liberating bond servants. Thirteen years later, Robert Cheswick, a recaptured runaway servant in Maryland, persuaded several servants of various masters to run away to the Swedish settlements on the Delaware River. Cheswick and a dozen other servants seized a master's boat, as well as arms for self-defense in case of attempted capture. But the men were captured, and Cheswick was given 30 lashes. As a special refinement, one of Cheswick's friends and abettors in the escape, John Beale, was forced to perform the whipping. In 1663, the bond servants of Richard Preston of Maryland went on strike and refused to work in protest against the lack of meat. The Maryland court sentenced the six disobedient servants to 30 lashes each, with two of the most moderate rebels compelled to perform the whipping. Facing force majeure, all the servants abased themselves and begged forgiveness from their master and from the court, which suspended the sentence on good behavior. In Virginia, a servant rebellion against a master, Captain Sisby, occurred as early as 1638. The lower Norfolk court ordered the enormous total of 100 lashes on each rebel. In 1640, six servants of Captain William Pierce tried to escape to the Dutch settlements. The runaways were apprehended and brutally punished, lest this set a dangerous precedent for the future time. The prisoners were sentenced to be whipped and branded, to work in shackles, and to have their terms of bondage extended. By the late 17th century, the supply of bond servants began to dry up, while the opening of new colonies and wider settlements increased the demand for bond servants, the supply dwindled greatly as the English government finally cracked down on the organized practice of kidnapping and on the shipping of convicts to the colonies, and so the planters turned to the import and purchase of Negro slaves. In Virginia, there had been 50 Negroes, the bulk of them slaves, out of a total population of 2,500 in 1630. 950 Negroes out of 27,000 in 1660, and 3,000 Negroes out of 44,000 in 1680, a steadily rising proportion, but still limited to less than 7% of the population. But in 10 years... By 1690, the proportion of Negroes had jumped to over 9,000 out of 53,000, approximately 17 percent, and by 1700, the number was 16,000 out of a population of 58,000, approximately 28 percent. And of the total labor force, the working population, this undoubtedly reflected a considerably higher proportion of Negroes. How the Negro slaves were treated may be gauged by the diary of the aforementioned William Byrd II, who felt himself to be a kindly master and often inveighed against brutes who mistreat their slaves. Typical examples of this kindly treatment were entered in his diary. 2809 
Jenny and Eugene were whipped. 5.13.09. Mrs. Bird whips the nurse. 6.10.09. Eugene, a child, was whipped for running away and had the bit put on him. 11.30.09. Jenny and Eugene were whipped. 12.16.09. Eugene was whipped for doing nothing yesterday. 4.17.10. Bird helped to investigate slaves tried for high treason. Two were hanged. 7.1.10. The Negro woman ran away again with the bit in her mouth. 7.15.10. My wife, against my will, caused little Jenny to be burned with a hot iron. 8.22.10. I had a severe quarrel with little Jenny and beat her too much, for which I was sorry. 122.11. A slave pretends to be sick. I put a branding iron on the place he claimed of and put the bit on him. It is pointless to criticize such passages as only selected instances of cruel treatment counterbalanced by acts of kindness by bird and other planters toward their slaves. For the point is not only that the slave system was one where such acts could take place. The point is that threats of brutality underlay the whole relationship. For the essence of slavery is that human beings, with their inherent freedom of will, with individual desires and convictions and purposes, are used as capital, as tools for the benefit of their master. The slave is therefore habitually forced into types and degrees of work that he would not have freely undertaken. By necessity, therefore, the bit and the lash become the motor of the slave system. The myth of the kindly master camouflages the inherent brutality and savagery of the slave system. One historical myth holds that since the slaves were their master's capital, the master's economic self-interest dictated kindly treatment of their property. But again, the masters always had to make sure that the property was really theirs, and for this, systematic brutality was needed to turn labor from natural into coerced channels for the benefit of the master. And second, what of property that had outlived its usefulness, of capital that no longer promised a return to the master, of slaves too old or too ill to continue earning their masters a return, What sort of treatment did the economic self-interest of the master dictate for slaves who could no longer repay the cost of their subsistence? Slaves resisted their plight in many ways, ranging from such nonviolent methods as work slowdowns, feigning illness, and flight, to sabotage, arson, and outright insurrection. Insurrections were always doomed to failure outnumbered as the slaves were in the population. And yet the slave revolts appeared and reappeared. There were considerable slave plots in Virginia in 1687, 1709 and 10, 1722 and 23, and 1730. A joint conspiracy of great numbers of Negro and Indian slaves in Surrey and Isle of Wight counties was suppressed in 1709, and another Negro slave conspiracy crushed in Surrey County the following year.
the slave who betrayed his fellows was granted his freedom by the grateful master. The 1730 uprising occurred in five counties of Virginia and centered on the town of Williamsburg. A few weeks before the insurrection, several suspected slaves were arrested and whipped. An insurrection was then planned for the future, but was betrayed and the leaders executed. Joint flight by slaves and servants was also common during the 17th century, as well as joint participation in plots and uprisings. In 1663, Negro slaves and white indentured servants in Virginia plotted an extensive revolt, and a number of the rebels were executed. The colonists appointed the day as one of prayer and thanksgiving for being spared the revolt. Neither slave nor indentured servant was permitted to marry without the master's consent. Yet there is record of frequent cohabitation despite prohibitory laws. It has been maintained in mitigation of the brutality of the American slave system that the Negroes were purchased from African chieftains who had enslaved them there. It is true that the slaves were also slaves in Africa. But it is also true that African slavery never envisioned the vast scope, the massive dragooning of forced labor that marked American plantation slavery. Furthermore, the existence of a ready white market for slaves greatly expanded the extent of slavery in Africa, as well as the intensity of the intertribal wars through which slavery came about. As is usually the case on the market, demand stimulated supply. Moreover, African slavery did not include transportation under such monstrous conditions that a large percentage could not survive, or the brutal seasoning process in a West Indies way station to make sure that only those fit for slave conditions survived, or the continual, deliberate breaking up of slave families that prevailed in the colonies. From the earliest opening of the New World, African slaves were imported as forced labor to make possible the working of large plantations, which, as we have seen, would have been uneconomic if they had had to rely, as did other producers, on free and voluntary labor. In Latin America, from the 16th century on, Negro slavery was used for large sugar plantations concentrated in the West Indies and on the north coast of South America. It has been estimated that a total of 900,000 Negro slaves were imported into the New World in the 16th century and two and three quarter million in the 17th century. Over the 17th and 18th centuries, only about one-fifteenth of the total Negro imports into the New World arrived in the territory of what is now the United States. That the slaves fared even worse in the Latin American colonies is seen by the far higher death rate there than in North America. Negroes came into use as slaves instead of the indigenous American Indians because, A, the Negroes proved more adaptable to the onerous working conditions of slavery. Enslaved Indians tended, as in the Caribbean, to die out. B. It was easier to buy existing slaves from African chieftains than to enslave a race anew. And C. 
of the great moral and spiritual influence of Father Bartolome de las Casas in Spanish America, who in the mid-16th century invade against the enslavement of the American Indians. Spanish consciences were never agitated over Negro slavery as they were over Indian. Even Las Casas himself owned several Negro slaves for many years. Indeed, early in his career, Las Casas advocated the introduction of Negro slaves to relieve the pressure on the Indians, but he eventually came to repudiate the slavery of both races. In the 17th century, two Spanish Jesuits, Alonso de Sandoval and Pedro Claver, were conspicuous in trying to help the Negro slaves, but neither attacked the institution of Negro slavery as unchristian. Undoubtedly, one reason for the different treatment of the two races was the general conviction among Europeans of the inherent inferiority of the Negro race. Thus, the same Montesquieu, who had scoffed at those Spaniards who called the American Indians barbarians, suggested that the African Negro was the embodiment of Aristotle's natural slave, and even the environmental determinist David Hume suspected the Negroes to be naturally inferior to the whites. There scarcely ever was a civilized nation of that complexion, nor even an individual eminent either in action or speculation, no ingenious manufacturers amongst them, no arts, no sciences. On the other hand, the most rude and barbarian of the whites have still something eminent about them. Such a uniform and constant difference could not happen in so many countries and ages if nature had not made an original distinction between these breeds of men. Contrary to the views of those writers who maintain that Negroes and whites enjoyed equal rights as indentured servants in Virginia until the 1660s, after which the Negroes were gradually enslaved, Evidence seems clear that from the beginning, many Negroes were slaves and were treated far more harshly than were white indentured servants. No white man, for example, was ever enslaved into perpetuity, lifetime service for the slave and for his descendants in any English colony. The fact there were no slave statutes in Virginia until 1660 simply reflected the small number of Negroes in the colony before that date. Jordan cites many evidences of Negro slavery, including court sentences, records of Negroes, executions of wills, comparative sale prices of Negro and white servants, dating from 1640, before which time the number of Negroes in Virginia was negligible. From a very early date, owned Negroes were worked as field hands, whereas white bond servants were spared this onerous labor. And also from an early date, Negroes in particular were denied any right to bear arms. An especially striking illustration of this racism pervading Virginia from the earliest days was the harsh prohibition against any sexual union of the races. As early as 1630, a Virginia court ordered Hugh Davis to be soundly whipped before an assembly of Negroes and others for abusing himself to the dishonor of God and shame of Christians by defiling his body in line with a Negro.
By the early 1660s, the colonial government outlawed miscegenation and interracial fornication. When Virginia prohibited all interracial unions in 1691, the assembly bitterly denounced miscegenation as that abominable mixture and spurious issue. Spurious in colonial legislation meant not simply illegitimate, but specifically the children of interracial unions. Other regulations dating from this period and a little later included one that forbade any slave from leaving a plantation without a pass from his master. Another decreed that conversion to Christianity would not set a slave free, a fact which violated a European tradition that only heathens, not Christians, might be reduced to slavery. By the end of the 17th century, the growing Virginia colony had emerged from its tiny and precarious beginnings with a definite social structure. This society may be termed partly feudal. On the one hand, Virginia, with its abundance of new land, was spared the complete feudal mold of the English homeland. The Virginia Company was interested in promoting settlement, and most grantees such as individual settlers and former indentured servants, were interested in settling the land for themselves. As a result, there developed a multitude of independent yeoman settlers, particularly in the less choice upcountry lands. Also, the feudal quit-rent system never took hold in Virginia. The settlers were charged quit-rents by the colony or by the large grantees who, instead of allowing settlers to own the land or selling the land to them, insisted on charging and trying to collect annual quit-rents as overlords of the land area. But while Virginia was able to avoid many crucial features of feudalism, it introduced an important feudal feature into its method of distributing land, especially the granting of large tracts of choice tidewater river land to favorite and wealthy planters. These large land grants would have early dissolved into ownership by the individual settlers were it not for the regime of forced labor, which made the large tobacco plantations profitable. Furthermore, the original settlers, those who brought the new land into use, were in this case the slaves and bond servants themselves, So it might well be said that the planters were in an arbitrary quasi-feudal relation to their land, even apart from the large grants. Temporary indentured service, both voluntary and compulsory, and the more permanent Negro slavery formed the base of exploited labor upon which was erected a structure of oligarchic rule by the large tobacco planters, The continuance of the large land tracts was also buttressed by the totally feudal laws of entail and primogeniture, which obtained, at least formally, in Virginia and most of the other colonies. Primogeniture compelled the undivided passing on of land to the eldest son, and entail prevented the land from being alienated, even voluntarily, from the family domain. However, primogeniture did not exert its fully restrictive effect, for the planters generally managed to elude it and to divide their estate among their younger children as well. 
Hence, Virginia land partly dissolved into its natural division as the population grew. Primogenitor and entail never really took hold in Virginia because the abundance of cheap land made labor, and hence the coerced supply of slaves, the key factor in production. More land could always be acquired. Hence, there was no need to restrict inheritance to the eldest son. Furthermore, the rapid exhaustion of tobacco land by the current methods of cultivation required the planters to be mobile and to be ready to strike out after new plantations. The need for such mobility militated against the fixity of landed estates that marked the rigid feudal system of land inheritance prevailing in England. Overall, the wealth and status of Virginia's large planters was far more precarious and less entrenched than were those of their land-owning counterparts in England. Volume 1, Chapter 7, Religion in Virginia Religion played an extremely significant role in the life of the man of the 17th century, a century of great religious wars, schisms, and revolutions ensuing from the Protestant Reformation of the 16th century. England suffered not only under feudalism, but under its corollary, the established state church. Indeed, one of the causes of the Reformation, especially in England, was the desire of the rising absolutism of the crown to bring the church in Great Britain under its domination. As always, a corollary to power was loot, and one of the attractions of the Reformation to England was the opportunity it afforded Henry VIII to confiscate the property of the monasteries and to distribute and sell the seized assets to favorites of the crown. The Church of England, appointed and controlled by the crown, fulfilled this ambition. The original founders naturally believed that Virginia would be as rigorously Anglican as the old country itself. King James I, that scholarly enthusiast for his own divine right, enjoined the Virginia colonist in the first charter of 1606 to propagate the true religion. We, greatly commending the desires for the furtherance of so noble a work, which may hereafter tend to the glory of his divine majesty in propagating of Christian religion to such people as yet live in darkness and miserable ignorance of the true knowledge and worship of God and man, in time bring the infidels and savages living in those parts to human civility and to a settled and quiet government. Much of the motivation at least as officially proclaimed for the founding of the colony, was the desire to establish a Protestant bulwark against Catholic Spain. Many leading Anglican ministers, including John Dunn, Dean of St. Paul's, propagandized for the Virginia Company's settlement on these grounds. One of the preachers in the earliest settlement, the Reverend Alexander Whitaker, wrote a tract Good News from Virginia, which was published by the Virginia Company in 1613 and which proclaimed that to doubt the future of the Virginia colony was to doubt the promises of God. 
From the first settlement at Jamestown, the Anglican religion was the established church of the colony. The Virginia General Assembly periodically enacted laws to compel conformity, but the lure of profits led the landowners, eager for new settlers and servants, to relax de facto religious pressures on the immigrants, and such laws as compulsory church attendance were rarely enforced. The new conditions faced in America, the great distance from home, the new lands, the freer social structure, caused Virginia's Anglican Church to develop very differently from the Mother Church. From the beginning, control by the Bishop of London was loose, and each church came to be controlled by its own vestry, elected by vote of its parishioners, but in practice by the leading planters of the parish, rather than by the central government of the Church of England. Whereas the governor of Virginia had the right to induct ministers for life, the vestries called ministers for a year or a term of years and rarely offered ministers for induction. Thus, Virginia developed a decentralized, almost a congregational, government in its dominant Anglican church. Although the church was decentralized, Virginia was nonetheless theocratic. The affairs of the smallest political unit, the parish, were governed by the church vestry, which had the power to levy local taxes. While theoretically elected by the parishioners, the vestrymen actually filled their own vacancies and so became a self-perpetuating oligarchy. Informality and decentralization were also fostered by the thin, extensive settlement of the land, hence the scattering of churches over the Virginia countryside. Time and again the high church hierarchy in England deplored the disorder, the neglect of ritual, the informality of prevailing low church Virginia practice. One of Virginia's leading planters, Robert Carter, expressed a typical sentiment when in 1720 he wrote, I am of the Church of England way, but the high-flown, up-top notions and great stress that is laid on ceremonies, any further than decency and conformity, are what I cannot come into reason of. Practical godliness is the substance. These are but the shell. Liberalism in religion, however, proceeded but part way, and the hand of theocracy was often evident. Virginia, alarmed at Roman Catholicism in the neighboring colony of Maryland, passed an act concerning popish recusance. The act levied the very heavy fine of 20 pounds per month for any failure to attend Anglican services. It also imposed life imprisonment and the confiscation of property on anyone who refused to take the oath of allegiance of 1605. This loyalty oath had been decreed by King James I in 1605 as a method of cracking down on Catholics following the abortive gunpowder plot. From the granting of the first charter, King James had imposed a loyalty oath of allegiance and supremacy on all Virginia colonists. Refusal was supposed to incur the death penalty. Indeed, the laxity of the London Company in enforcing the loyalty oath, caused by its desire to encourage settlement, was one of King James's major charges against the company that led to its dissolution. 
As a further persecution of the few Roman Catholics, they were virtually non-existent in the colony, the mass and the sacraments were prohibited, tutoring one's children in the Catholic religion was outlawed, and life imprisonment and confiscation of property were decreed for anyone sending their children to English-speaking Catholic schools in France or Spain. This extreme legislation remained in force until 1662, the Restoration Period, when the Act was quietly allowed to lapse. In 1643, a law was passed forbidding Catholics from holding office and outlawing all priests in the colony. After the Restoration, apart from the imposing of oaths of loyalty to the state church for public officials, the theocratic rule relaxed somewhat, although the heavy fine for non-attendance at Anglican services continued. Again, a partially mitigating factor was that these harsh laws were not always rigorously enforced. Thus, the leading and virtually the only Catholic family in the colony, headed by planter George Brent, a relative of the Maryland Carrolls, was allowed to move to Virginia about 1650 and remained there relatively undisturbed. In Brent's case, laxity was encouraged by the thinness of the population in Virginia, the virtual non-existence of Catholics in the colony, and the prominence and pronounced royalist sympathies of this tobacco planter. Volume 1, Chapter 8, The Royal Government of Virginia From their earliest days, Virginians engaged in conflicts with their government. The first open rebellion while Virginia was under royal rule occurred in 1635. This arose from a territorial dispute with the new neighboring colony of Maryland. William Claiborne, a leader of the Virginia colony and secretary of its council, had obtained a royal license to establish a fur trading post on Kent Island between Maryland and Virginia, which he had purchased from the Indians. The Virginia House of Burgesses, which included a representative from Kent Island, backed Claiborne in his refusal to recognize the overlordship of the Maryland feudal proprietor, Lord Baltimore. Egged on by a competing Virginia fur trader's accusation that Claiborne was inciting the Indians to attack the Marylanders, Lord Baltimore ordered the seizure of Claiborne and the confiscation of his property. Maryland's ships attacked and seized a vessel of Claiborne's and not only killed several Kent Islanders in the process, but also hanged one as a pirate after the battle. Governor John Harvey of Virginia angered the Virginians by taking the side of Lord Baltimore, removing Claiborne from his office as secretary and jailing an official who sided with Claiborne. Harvey here showed his ability to judge the winning side as the Crown also ruled against Claiborne in 1638. This and other tyrannical actions by Governor Harvey brought about an open revolt by the council led by Samuel Matthews, a former indentured servant at the head of several hundred armed men. Aside from high-handed personal actions, Harvey was accused of making unauthorized expenditures, levying export taxes on tobacco and fees on each immigrant, and requisitioning ammunition from ships entering the colony. 
However, among the rash of legitimate complaints against Harvey was the charge that he had made a dangerous peace with the Indians without the council's consent. It must be remembered that the settlers not only protested against despotic actions of the government, but were also hell-bent for grabbing as much land as possible from the Indians. Accordingly, peace with the natives was the last thing that the settlers desired. Thus, the council was driven to meeting, and it thrust out Harvey from the colony in 1635. Harvey was shipped back to England, and Captain John West appointed in his place until the king's wishes could be known. As soon as he arrived in England, Harvey again showed his character by having arrested the two negotiators whom the council had sent to England to plead its case. One of them, Francis Pott, was still languishing in prison a year later and under harsh conditions. Harvey was reappointed by the crown and returned to Virginia in 1637, thirsting for vengeance against the rebellious colonists. First, Harvey, backed by Lord Baltimore, had his chief enemies arrested for treason and hauled to England to appear before the Court of Star Chamber. Those arrested included Captain John West, Samuel Matthews, and George Menifee, as well as William Claiborne. True to his personal vow that he would not leave Captain Matthews with assets worth the cow's tail, Harvey confiscated his enemy's property in Virginia. The Crown, however, forced Harvey to disgorge the seized property. Harvey also concluded that humor was dangerous to the state, and he consequently arrested the Reverend Anthony Panton, rector for some of the leading rebels. Panton's crime was apparently calling the man who Harvey had appointed secretary of the colony instead of Claiborne, a jackanapes. The trial of Panton was conducted by none other than Richard Kemp himself, the new secretary in question, who acted as both prosecutor and judge. Sentence was meted out by Kemp with appropriate severity, the seizure of Panton's possessions, his expulsion from his parish, and exile from Virginia, with the penalty of death should he return to the colony. Harvey also moved to impose a tithing tax on the corn of Panton's parishioners, presumably a special punishment for their lack of wisdom in having Panton as their rector. This monstrous procedure was too much for even the rather callous sensibilities of the day. The Crown suspended the sentence and finally removed Harvey in 1639. The decision against Panton was reversed and his property and parish restored. The imprisoned council leaders were released and restored to their positions. The mutiny of the Virginia leaders against Governor Harvey's despotic rule had finally succeeded. It was Harvey's successor, Governor Francis Wyatt, who was instructed to convene periodic meetings of the Virginia Assembly, thereby making Virginia's representative body a permanent one. One lasting consequence of Claiborne's colony was the settlement in 1645 of the northern neck of Virginia, the peninsula between the Rappahannock and the Potomac Rivers, by refugees from Kent Island. The most prominent figure in the government of Virginia in the 17th century was the governor, Sir William Berkeley, whose term of office began in 1642 
and continued with interruption until 1677. In contrast to the later years of his term, Berkeley's first years found him a liberal reformer. The entire poll tax, both the tax paid to the governor and the general tax, was repealed. Peace was made with the Indians. Taxes on estates were lowered. Impoverished debtors in prison were given relief. And such relics of Virginia Company oppression as condemnations were abolished. In addition, a law was reenacted to prevent the governor and the council from levying any taxes or appropriating any new money except by authority of the assembly. Berkeley also ended some of the land abuses in Virginia by removing arbitrary James River Valley particular plantation grants that had never been settled and allowing settlers to enter these lands and gain title to them. Soon after Berkeley took office, the Virginia colony found itself confronted with a revolution in Great Britain. Staunchly royalist in that era, Virginia stood firm for the crown. Virginia's devotion to the royal cause was shaped by its own particular experience. For one thing, Charles I's rule in Virginia had been relatively moderate, far different indeed from the tyranny he was imposing on England. Virginians had been permitted to enjoy more freedom and local rule than Englishmen had ever enjoyed before. The oppressive navigation acts had not yet been imposed. The king had removed the hated John Harvey. Governor Berkeley's reforms had been welcomed. Moreover, Anglican-Puritan relations were not nearly as exacerbated as in the home country. As we have seen, Virginia's own Anglicanism was decidedly low church. The Pilgrim Fathers had been invited to Virginia in 1620 and an influential moderate Puritan group settled during the 1640s in Southside, Virginia. This is not to say that religious liberty prevailed. Puritans were sporadically persecuted and dissenting ministers driven from the colony. Finally, to the Virginians, the rule of the old Virginia Company had been far worse than royal rule. Petitioning against any reimposition of the company, the assembly exclaimed that the colonist, if under the scepter of the company, would be subject to arbitrary rule, their property rights would be taken from them, and their freedom of trade, the blood and life of a commonwealth, would be sacrificed to the monopoly of the company. While attached to the crown, many Virginians protested immediately, when in 1648 the governor and the council claimed authority to conscript, impress soldiers without the concurrence of the House of Burgesses, and when they proceeded to conscript a ten-man bodyguard for the governor. The assembly gave as one excuse for agreeing to this conscription the existence of a schismatical party, the Puritans and dissentered, disaffected from the government. In 1649, when Parliament had executed Charles I, Virginia stood stubbornly by the old order and proclaimed its continued allegiance to the House of Stuart. Indeed, the Virginia Assembly denounced the king's execution bitterly, defied the proclaimed authority of Parliament, and proceeded to uphold this view savagely by decreeing it a crime carrying the death penalty, 
for anyone even to defend the execution. In fact, anyone making so bold as to question the right of succession of Charles II or to propose any change in the existing government of Virginia was to be charged with high treason. Even speaking any evil of the king was to be punished at the arbitrary discretion of governor and council. Virginia also offered refuge to prominent emigres, the Cavaliers, for example, faithful supporters of the crown. The Cavaliers, largely of wealthy merchant and landed families, took their accustomed place among the leading planting families in Virginia, including the prominent Lees, Carters, Randolphs, and Masons, and indeed the bulk of the men who remained as the dominant planters of Virginia. In retaliation, Parliament in 1650 passed the embryo of the First Navigation Act, which forbade Virginia from trading with foreign countries or with any foreign ships lacking a special license, thus hitting at England's efficient Dutch competitors. It is instructive that this first important measure of restrictive mercantilism was specifically proclaimed to be a punishment to a rebellious colony. Parliament concluded by denouncing the Virginians as rebels and traitors. When news of Parliament's punitive action reached Virginia in early 1651, the reaction of the Virginia rulers was both perceptive and heroically defiant. Comparing the situation in Virginia with that in England, Governor Berkeley told the Assembly, Consider yourselves how happy you are and have been, how the gates of wealth and honor are shut on no man, and that there is not an arbitrary hand that dares to touch the substance either rich or poor. What can be hoped from submission to parliamentary dictates? Now, Berkeley went on, the Virginians enjoyed freedom from oppression, peace, and the opportunity to gain wealth, and the security to enjoy this wealth when gotten. We can only fear the Londoners, who would fain to bring us to the same poverty, wherein the Dutch found and relieved us, would take away the liberty of our consciences and tongues, and our right of giving and selling our goods to whom we please." The governor and the members of the assembly then unanimously adopted a vindication for their actions. The vindication perceptively concluded that Parliament was punishing the trade of Virginia in order to appease the avarice of a few interested persons, the big London merchants, who endeavored to rob us of all we sweat and labor for. In 1652, Parliament sent a fleet with four commissioners to Virginia to bring the recalcitrant colony to heel. Fortunately, the commissioners were moderates in the instructions liberal. Furthermore, the Virginians, after raising an army of over a thousand men, wisely decided that discretion was the better part of warfare and submitted to the commissioners' force. In return, the rule of the parliamentary commissioners turned out to be liberating rather than vindictively repressive. Not only was the royalist Berkeley deposed and Commissioner Richard Bennett substituted as governor with the agreement of the Burgesses, but executive and judicial powers were shorn from the governor and the governing power placed in the House of Burgesses, the colony's elected house and miniature parliament.
the supreme legislative, executive, and judicial power was now vested in the House of Burgesses, where at least the Virginians themselves could exercise some check on state power. Virginia was declared free from all taxes, customs, and impositions, and it was affirmed that none could be levied without consent of the assembly, and that no garrisons could be maintained there without the same consent. Virginia trade was no longer to be singled out for discriminatory treatment. Berkeley himself was permitted to retire undisturbed to his Virginia estate. Again, as in other matters, liberalism went only so far, and all inhabitants who refused to swear an oath of allegiance to Parliament were ordered exiled from the colony. On the other hand, the majority of the people of any parish was permitted to keep using the Anglican Book of Common Prayer, partially in fidelity to its revolutionary principles, partially from preoccupation with pressing affairs at home, Parliament left Virginia pretty much alone during the decade of the Republic. In one sense, too much alone, for Bennett and the new Secretary of the Colony, William Claiborne, the veteran anti-Marylander, determined to take up the cause of the Virginia Irredenta and forcibly bring Maryland back under the Virginia motherland. However, the new Lord Protector, Oliver Cromwell, soon scotched these efforts, and in a few years, Virginia and Lord Baltimore finally settled peacefully the Virginia-Maryland boundary. The leading home rule problem within Virginia in those years was the grievance of Northampton County on the eastern shore. Northampton protested in May 1652 against paying poll taxes of 40 pounds of tobacco when it had not been represented in the Virginia Assembly for five years. In short, a cry against taxation without representation. There were some difficulties between Governor Samuel Matthews, Jr. and the Burgesses during the late 1650s over unauthorized actions of the governor, as well as his attempt to dissolve the assembly in a dispute. But the disagreements were amicably resolved, and the Burgesses left in unchallenged control. With the collapse of the Republican Protectorate in 1659 and the virtually coincidental death of Governor Samuel Matthews, the Virginia House of Burgesses proclaimed its supreme power until England should reassert a legitimate authority. The Burgesses then voluntarily elected the Royalist Berkeley governor once more, achieving total, if temporary, independence from Britain, however, did not improve the civil libertarian attitude of the assembly, for it decreed that anyone who should say or act anything in derogation of the present government would be punished as an enemy of the peace. The election of Berkeley in March 1660 preceded the restoration of the monarchy in England by two months, and the new king, Charles II, quickly extended the official commission to Berkeley. Granting the extreme royalism motivating Virginia's action and its purely temporary character, the fact remains that Virginia had the boldness to battle England and even to declare a short-lived 
independence from the motherland. Surely, whatever the motives, here was an unwitting training ground in revolution, a testing of Virginia's willingness to stand on its own feet and defy the mighty imperial country to which all the colonists had sworn allegiance. Volume 1, Chapter 9 British Mercantilism Over Virginia Rule in the European governments of the 17th century was exercised not only by the great landowners through feudalism, but also by groups of merchants and capitalists specially privileged and subsidized by the state in the system that later came to be known as mercantilism. The essence of mercantilism was the granting or selling of monopolistic privilege and subsidy by the state to favored groups of businessmen. Thus, crown, feudal nobility, and privileged capitalist exercised rule over the exploited remainder of the populace, which included the bulk of merchants and capitalists who sought profit by voluntary service in the marketplace rather than by obtaining privileges from the coercive power of the state. From the beginning, government meddling, especially by the English government, fastened the mercantile system on the American colonies. As early as 1619, the Crown imposed a duty of one shilling per pound of tobacco imported by the Virginia Company, and in 1622 prohibited any tobacco from being grown in England or Ireland. The motivation for the latter act was not to benefit Virginia, but to increase the revenue seized by the Crown. Domestic tobacco producers, after all, paid no customs duty. In 1621, the Crown indeed delivered a grave blow to the company and to Virginia by prohibiting the colonists from exporting tobacco or any other commodity to any foreign country without first landing in England and paying customs duty there. It was in vain that the company protested that other English subjects and companies were allowed to sell their goods in the best markets, that the edict would cripple the tobacco cattle trade with Ireland, that many Virginia products were not saleable in England. The sweetener for the company in this network of restriction was the granting in 1622 to the Virginia Company of the monopoly privilege of importing tobacco into England and Ireland. The supposedly liberal Sir Edwin Sandys had led the intra-company fight to accept the monopoly, and he and his faction were appointed to manage the monopoly at extravagant salaries. In the period of the Republic, Parliament, as we have seen, hardly reluctant to impose mercantile restrictions for the benefit of merchant groups, began the famous series of Navigation Acts. In 1650, it outlawed foreign ships from trading in the colonies without a license, thus striking a blow at efficient Dutch shipping. The following year, it decreed that no goods from Asia, Africa, or America could be imported into England or its colonies except when the owner and most of the crew were English or English-American. It also prohibited imports of foreign goods in entrepot trade from countries where the product did not originate. 
prohibited the importation of fish by aliens and outlawed all participation of foreign ships in the English coastal trade. These were blows to the efficiency and prosperity of interregional trade and to the property, actual and potential, of the colonies, all for the special privileges accorded to inefficient ship owners. To enforce these sweeping prohibitions required a bureaucratic apparatus mighty for the time and place, including a network of paid government informers, So strict was the enforcement that not enough English vessels existed to replace the outlawed Dutch shipping, and grave complaints of shortages spread throughout the English colonies in the Americas, including the West Indies. The rebellious Virginia Assembly asserted in 1655 that freedom of trade would be maintained and demanded that sea captains pay bond not to molest Dutch or other foreign shipping. England, however, continued to tighten its mercantile restrictions, especially after monarchical rule had been restored. Thus, the Navigation Act of 1660 provided that no goods whatever could be imported into or exported from any English colony except in English-owned ships, of which at least three-fourths of the crew must be English, and compelled certain important enumerated colonial products, including tobacco, to be shipped only to England, thus outlawing colonial export trade in these goods to any other country. All ships leaving the colonies were required to give bond that they would not ship the goods elsewhere. The Navigation Act of 1662 extended these privileges, All future ships not built in English shipyards were now to be excluded from this colonial trade. The mercantilist structure of the Navigation Acts was completed in 1662 with the exclusion of all European goods, except for a few commodities, from the colonial market, except as shipped from English ports and in English-built ships. Colonial governors were charged with the responsibility of enforcement of the navigation laws, but in practice the power was delegated to a naval officer appointed in England. The navigation laws continued to be tightened still further. The Navigation Act of 1673 moved against the attempt of the planters to maintain some of their tobacco trade by selling to other colonies. The Act placed a prohibitive tax of one penny on each pound of tobacco shipped from one colony to another and appointed customs commissioners to collect the duty. This Act crippled the flourishing tobacco trade with New England. More sweeping was the Navigation Act of 1696, which confined all colonial trade to English-built ships, enlarged the powers of the colonial naval officers, and gave the provincial custom officers the right of forcible entry, which they already enjoyed in England. The act led to the establishment of vice-admiralty courts in the colonies to enforce the regulations. Operating under Roman law, a vice-admiralty court could try and convict without having to submit the cases to colonial juries which were almost unanimous in their sympathy with any arraigned smugglers. 
We have mentioned the drastic fall in the prices of tobacco in the 17th century. Much of this drop was due not to the great expansion of the Virginia tobacco crop, but to the Navigation Acts and their smashing of the export market for tobacco in Holland and other countries in Europe. Before the Navigation Acts, the Dutch had paid three pence per pound for Virginia tobacco. After the Acts, the tobacco price had fallen to half a penny per pound by 1667. The fall was aggravated by the heavy losses of the English tobacco fleet in the wars with Holland, the Dutch wars of 1664-67 and 1672-73. To offset the crisis, Virginia turned to domestic mercantilism, compulsory cartels to raise tobacco prices. But since such an increase could only be accomplished by coerced restrictions on tobacco acreage, this meant that tobacco markets were not being widened and prosperity could not be restored to the colony as a whole. In a compulsory tobacco cartel, some tobacco producers could only benefit at the expense of others and of the rest of the colony's population. In brief, quotas based on existing production must privilege the inefficient grower and the large grower about to fall behind in the competitive race and discriminate against the efficient and the new up-and-coming planters. In the plant-cutting riots of 1682, the planters benefiting from the quotas organized bands of vandals to go from plantation to plantation, destroying the tobacco crop. The protection from foreign competition accorded by the Navigation Acts to British shippers not only ruined the Virginians' tobacco market and that of neighboring Maryland's planters as well, it also raised the price of the gamut of imported goods now confined to British ships. Thus, Virginians suffered doubly from the imperial restrictions. English enforcement of the Navigation Acts was unfortunately rigorous, especially in the southern colonies. Three wars of aggression against the Dutch between 1652 and 1675 drove the Dutch, the more efficient of England's competitors, out of the Chesapeake trade. The very geography of the Chesapeake Bay Area made enforcement easy. The English Navy needed only to control the narrow entrance of the bay to keep foreign ships from buying or selling to the Virginia or Maryland plantations. Thus, the English orientation of Virginia trade and finance was compelled by the Navigation Acts, which gravely injured Virginians and retarded Virginia development. Furthermore, the canker of slavery was also due partly to the Navigation Acts, The economic pressure of the acts on the planters led them to look to slavery as a way to cut costs by exploiting forced labor. Moreover, the English government forbade Virginia from restricting the infamous slave trade, the monopoly of which had by the wars against the Dutch been assured to British traders. John Bland, a London merchant who had traded with the Dutch in Virginia tobacco, presented the excellent case of the Chesapeake planters against the Navigation Acts, but unfortunately to no avail. Added to the devastation caused by the Navigation Acts was the burden of increased taxes. 
In addition to the crippling penny a pound on all coastal tobacco trade imposed in 1673, the hated poll tax was reimposed. In his first years of rule, Governor Berkeley had abolished the poll tax, which, being levied equally on all, particularly burdened the poorer strata of the population. In 1674, however, when Berkeley reintroduced the poll tax, a number of farmers assembled with their arms in Kent County to prevent collection of the new taxes by force if necessary. This incipient tax rebellion was dispersed upon Berkeley's proclamation that tax rebels would be accounted guilty of treason and punished accordingly. Greatly adding to the grievances of most Virginians was the steady accumulation, ever since his reappointment, of absolute rule in the hands of Governor Berkeley and his clique of allies in the great planter oligarchy. No sooner was he reappointed governor than Berkeley seized control of the House of Burgesses. He filled the seats with his own henchmen and repudiated the Virginia tradition of frequent elections. In fact, he refused to call any election for the House of Burgesses from 1661 on and only called meetings of the assembly at his pleasure. Any recalcitrant Burgesses were bribed with public offices, all of which were appointed by the governor. Berkeley's absolute control of the council, always dominated by the governor, was assured by the fact that the bulk of the councillors were allowed to die without being replaced, were not called together, or were out of reach. Now Berkeley was in full control of both houses of the assembly. In 1670, Berkeley and the assembly further tightened oligarchic control by taking the franchise away from non-land owners. Berkeley also assumed supreme judicial power as president of the general court of the colony. Oligarchic control by the leading planters over local government was further tightened. The vestries, for example, became self-perpetuating local governing bodies. County courts made up of the great planters met in secret to impose the county levy, which more and more placed tax burdens on the poor. Exorbitant fees were paid to sheriffs, clerks, and other local officials out of these taxes, and there was considerable graft involved in the heavy expenditures needed to construct forts westward on the rivers. Power is always used to acquire wealth, and here was no exception. Berkeley and his allies granted themselves the best lands, most of the public offices, and a monopoly of the lucrative fur trade with the Indians. Another of Berkeley's tyrannical actions was to have the assembly reestablish the Anglican Church and also to bring pressure for a governmental college that would include Anglican teaching of the youth. Whenever anyone in the American colonies in the 17th century decided to embark on a policy of tyranny and religious persecution, the first group to bear the brunt was usually the hapless Quakers, of all sects the least devoted to idolatry of church or state. Upon embarking on the dictatorial rule of his second term, Governor Berkeley did not hesitate to revive the old laws against dissenters and naturally concentrated on the handful of Quakers. 
An English Quaker, George Wilson, upon arriving at Jamestown in 1661, was thrust into a dungeon, scourged and kept in irons until death. While dying, he wrote in a truly saintly manner, For all their cruelty, I can truly say, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. The previous year, 1660, the Assembly had passed an act outlawing an unreasonable and turbulent sort of people commonly called Quakers, who are endeavoring to destroy religion, laws, communities, and all bonds of civil society. Apparently, these bonds of civil society were to rest not on voluntary consent, but on the dungeon and the torture rack. In 1662, Berkeley decreed heavy fines on any nonconformist who refused to have their children baptized and threatened to exile any shipmasters who brought any dissenters into the colony. The next year, two Quaker women entered Virginia, spreading the message in the colony. The two, Mary Tompkins and Alice Ambrose, were imprisoned and inflicted with thirty-two lashes from a whip of nine cords. After this, their property was seized, and they were expelled from Virginia. It stands to reason that a man with this sort of attitude toward religious liberty and search for truth should be vehemently hostile toward education, freedom of inquiry, and individual and collective search for the truth. We are fortunate to have on record, however, a classic statement by Berkeley revealing the despot's fury toward learning and free inquiry. When asked in 1671 by the crown what he had been doing to instruct the people in the Christian religion, Berkeley, in the course of his answer, declared, I thank God there are no free schools nor printing, and I hope we shall not have these hundred years, for learning has brought disobedience and heresy and sext into the world, and printing has divulged them and libels against the best government. God keep us from both. Learning and culture apparently were to be reserved to the safe hands of the ruling class, and were not to be permitted the ruled who might learn enough to want to cast off their chains. The inherent conflicts within Virginia's society, as well as between Virginia and England, were further aggravated by an enormous land grant made by Charles II to Lord Hopton and a group of his friends, including Berkeley's brother Sir John, in 1649. This was a grant of over five million acres, constituting the partially settled northern neck of Virginia between the Potomac and Rappahannock rivers. The Hopton Grant was assigned to Lord Culpepper in 1689. Even more startling was the joint proprietary grant of all Virginia in 1673 to two royal favorites, Lords Arlington and Culpepper for a term of 31 years. 
The latter grant generated fierce opposition in Virginia because, for one thing, the Crown had been collecting the quit rents on Virginia lands in haphazard fashion, whereas Lords Culpepper and Arlington could be expected to make the best out of their feudal grant. The new proprietors were given the power to establish churches and schools to appoint ministers and teachers and they were given the power to appoint the sheriffs and other officers to grant lands and to create towns and counties. Suddenly, the Virginians were now confronted with the specter of absolute proprietary feudal rule, as well as the deprivation of all their liberties in their considerable measure of home rule. Indeed, no guarantees for the rights of Virginians were included in the Arlington Culpeper Grant. The alarmed assembly met the following year, 1674, and protested that the grants would threaten the rights of the people, impose upon them new rents and dues, new grants and levies, and deprive them of the present protection of their rights and properties. The Virginians insisted that they wanted no privileged proprietors, whether individuals or chartered company, standing between them and the crown and exploiting them still more. At heavy expense, the assembly sent commissioners to London to ask for removal of the grant. The negotiators eventually persuaded Lords Arlington and Culpepper to abandon all claims on the colony, except quit rents and escheats, revenue from intestate estates. Pressures by the indignant Virginians had ended the threat of proprietary government over the Virginia colony. In the course of the negotiations, the commissioners and the two proprietors agreed that Virginia should buy back the vast northern neck grant for 400 pounds to each proprietor and that the quit rents on the remaining lands should continue to be paid to the crown thus ending feudal quit rents in the colony. The proprietary grant of 1673 was to be revoked and no further grants made without consulting the Virginia Council. A new liberal charter in preparation would have provided that the governor and the members of the Council of Virginia must be residents of the colony and that no taxes could be imposed on Virginia without consent of the House of Burgesses. The charter drawn up by the King's Solicitor General declared that the taxation provision contains that which we humbly conceive to be the right of Virginians, as well as all other Englishmen, which is not to be taxed but by their consent expressed by their representatives. Unfortunately, this new charter was blocked upon the outbreak of rebellion in Virginia in 1676. Neither did the losses suffered by Berkeley's administration in the Dutch War during 1673 endear the government to the people of Virginia. One of the principal motives of the aggressive English war against the Dutch, beginning in 1672, was to drive the Dutch out of the Virginia trade. The Dutch attacked Virginia and succeeded in sinking 11 Virginia merchantmen laden with tobacco. Neither the war nor the losses were calculated to gain the support of the populace. Indeed, many Virginians, oppressed by English rule, welcomed the Dutch invasion and the prospective shift of sovereignty to the Netherlands. If we consider, then, 
the situation in Virginia in the mid-1670s, we can see the accumulation of grievances and the aggravation of conflicts. The sudden feudal proprietary grant of all Virginia to Lords Arlington and Culpeper in 1673, the exclusive landed property franchise in 1670, the reimposition of the poll tax in 1674, and the general increase in taxation, and the establishment of tight rule by the Berkeley clique. To these we might add Berkeley's persecution of the dissenters, virtually driving them out of the colony. Hints of revolt and mutiny against Berkeley began to emerge in the 1670s. On December 12, 1673, 14 people met at Lawns Creek Parish Church in Surrey County to protest against excessive taxation and to insist that they would thereafter refuse to pay their taxes. Here was one of the first tax rebellions, or organized refusals to pay taxes in America. On January 3rd, the very day that Berkeley's judges issued a writ to haul the 14 into court for sedition, the group met again in a field, and one of their leaders, Roger Delk, declared that we will burn all before one shall suffer. Berkeley lost no time in hauling the rebels into court, where Delk explained that they had met by reason their taxes were so unjust and they would not pay it. Very heavy fines were levied on the protesters, especially on the main leader of the Surrey tax protest, Matthew Swan, who continued to insist that the taxes were unjust. Proceedings against Swan lasted longer than against the others, and in April 1674, Swan was brought before the Council and General Court of Virginia for his dangerous contempt and unlawful project and his wicked persisting in the same. Berkeley was forced, however, by popular resentment at the treatment according the tax rebels, to remit all the fines some months later. Many of the tax strikers were prominent landowners of the county. Matthew Swan was possibly related to Colonel Thomas Swan, a member of the council. Delk's father had been a member of the House of Burgesses. Several other protesters were related to former Burgesses, and one was relative of one of the judges issuing a writ for their arrest. Furthermore, a near uprising was called off in 1674, and two mutinies occurred in the following year. All in all, the stage was set for one of the most important American armed rebellions against English authority in the colonial era, Bacon's Rebellion of 1676. Volume 1, Chapter 10, Relations with the Indians The spark that set off the Great Rebellion of 1676 came from the tinderbox of Indian relations. To explain them, we must first go back to chart the history of Indian-white relations in 17th century Virginia. First, we may ask, how did the colonists go about the task, urged upon them by King James, of bringing the infidels and savages living in those parts, the Native American Indians, to human civility? Generally, we must say that the Native American Indians regarded the newcomers 
with a mixture of brotherly kindness and eagerness to make contact with the world outside. This, however, was countered by hostility based on the well-founded fear that the colonists were out to seize their lands. The whites generally regarded the Indians as possessors of land ripe for expropriation. This attitude of the whites was partially justified, as Indian land was typically owned not by the individual, but by the collective tribal unit, and furthermore was inalienable under tribal law. This was particularly true of the land itself as contrasted to its annual use. Furthermore, tribal law often decreed land ownership over large tracts of even unused acreage. Still, however, this land inequity provided no excuse for the physical dispersion of individual Indians from their homes and from land actually used, let alone the plundering of their crops and the slaughtering of the Indian people. Relations with the Indians were therefore a combination of hostility and friendship, underlain by the relentless white urge to push westward. Thus, from the very beginning of the Virginia colony, the Indians first attacked the whites, only to save the starving infant colony a few months later by coming to its rescue with abundant gifts of bread, meat, fish, and corn. A few years of conflict was followed by the Peace of 1614, which was effectively wrecked two years later by Governor Yeardley's seizure of corn from the Chickahominy Indians, an ironic contrast to the Indians supplying needed corn to the infant colony. From that point on, relations with the Indians began to deteriorate. Captain Argall, upon assuming his duties as governor, decided that the colonists were too friendly with the Indians and took harsh steps to rectify this error. He outlawed all private trading with the Indians and prohibited the hiring of Indian hunters for the shooting of game. Worse still, Argall decreed the death penalty both for anyone teaching an Indian the use of a gun and for the Indian eager to learn. Thus, Argall moved to cripple the economy of the whites and Indians alike. But perhaps trade and education were not considered part of the civilizing process. Guns, of course, as in the case of most weapons, can be used for offense or defense, for highly productive economic, hunting, as well as for martial purposes. When the Virginia Assembly first convened in 1619, a part of its liberal reforms forbade any injury to the Indians that might disturb the peace. The brief period of peaceful coexistence, however, was shattered in 1622, when Opekunkano, head of the Powhatan Confederacy, led an all-out surprise attack against the colonists. The colony survived, but the massacre of over 350 colonists, almost one-fourth of the colony, embittered the whites from that point on, even though the colonists were very quick to wreak vengeance on the Indians, destroying as many crops, homes, and Indians as they could. The massacre was also seized as one of the Crown's excuses for dispossessing the Virginia Company. During the crisis, every settled community was placed under absolute martial rule, and any communication with an Indian was outlawed except by consent of the commander.
perhaps the most unfortunate aspect of the affair for its long-run consequence in poisoning Indian-white relations in Virginia was the white aggression later in 1622 against the friendly Potomac Indians. The powerful Potomac tribe had refused to join the Powhatan Confederacy plot to massacre the whites and indeed had helped to save the colony from destruction by warning the colonists of Opakunkano's plot. While on an expedition to the Potomacs to obtain corn, Captain Isaac Madison allowed himself to believe, without proof, the false tale of an exiled Potomac chief and of a renegade Polish interpreter, Robert Poole, that the Potomacs were planning to massacre the expedition. Madison then kidnapped the Potomac king and suddenly attacked and massacred any Potomac Indian he could lay his hands on. From then on, savage treachery marked the actions of both sides, and relations were permanently embittered. Most vicious was the colonist invitation to the Indians in 1623 for a peace parley, at which the whites poisoned 200 Indian leaders and shot 50 others, taking home the scalps of many Indians with them. Doubtless worst of all, the colonists adopted the barbaric policy of deliberately seeking out and destroying all Indian plantings of corn. Total war by any means was now the watchword, and no peace was even contemplated. When the Virginia Company leaders expressed shock at this despicable method of making war by breaking treaties, poisoning peace negotiators, and so forth, the Virginians replied, Whereas we are advised by you to observe rules of justice, we hold nothing unjust that may tend to their ruin with these enemies. Neither fair, war, nor quarter is ever to be held. For years after the massacre, the attitude of the whites was continued aggression against the Indians, who were simply considered unreconcilable enemies. Laws were passed prohibiting any trading with the Indians. Peace for a time was unthinkable. As we have seen, one of the main charges against Governor Harvey was making peace with the Indians. Finally, however, the advantages of peaceful and mutually beneficial trade with the natives began to become evident and the law to be ignored by enterprising individuals in the colony. During the first Berkeley administration, a treaty of peace and friendship was made with the Indians in 1642, and the laws against trading with the natives were repealed. Unfortunately, the fair prospects for genuine peace were once again ruptured by the old chief Opec Uncano, the very man responsible for the tragic massacre 22 years earlier. Opec Uncano was a hardliner who would settle for nothing less than total victory over the whites, whom he regarded as invaders of the land. He certainly had a point. The whites were indeed adept at land grabbing. But the point was not good enough. A genuine climate of peaceful coexistence could have permitted voluntary purchase of Indian lands and white settlement on lands which the Indians, while grandiosely claiming them, were not really using. But Opec and Kano, hearing of civil war in England, decided that now was his time or never to root out all the English and drive them into the sea. Again in April 1644, 
Opekunkano organized a surprise massacre that killed 500 settlers, a greater number than earlier, but, of course, a vastly smaller proportion of the colony. One of the problems of a hard line is that it begets hard lining by the other side, and this massacre came at a time when genuine peace seemed at hand. The English quickly counterattacked, burning Indian villages and destroying their corn. Opekunkano was taken prisoner and shot in the back by one of the Virginia soldiers. The Indians then sued for peace, but unfortunately the Peace Treaty of 1646, instead of providing for peaceful trade and other contacts between the two peoples, forced the Indians to cede territory and drew arbitrary boundaries beyond which the Indians were forbidden to come. Moreover, neither the Virginians nor the Indians were permitted to go into each other's territory on pain of very heavy punishment, and trading could only be conducted at certain specified and therefore monopolized forts. This type of quasi-peace greatly restricted white exploration and settlement of Virginia west of the fall line, as well as fruitful trade with the Indian people. Since a few military forts were given the monopoly privilege of all trade with the Indians, the commander of each fort now occupied a highly lucrative and privileged position in the colony. The Virginia government not only built the forts, but granted them and their surrounding land to their commanders. Typical was Captain Abraham Wood, a former indentured servant of Samuel Matthews, who was placed in command of the most important of these forts, Fort Henry, at the Appomattox Falls. Settling there for 30 years, Wood exploited his position as sole authorized trader for the area. Often he had to guard his pack trains against the use of force by rival traders, understandably resentful at Wood's compulsory monopoly of the Indian trade. The town at the fort took the name of Wood, and Wood acquired over 6,000 acres of plantation land in the neighborhood. He was also for many years a counselor of the colony. Yet the inexorable march of settlement westward could not be halted, and once again the English came to settle near the Indians. The arbitrary peace terms of the 1646 treaty clearly needed revision. Happily, after 1656, an Indian found without a badge in white territory was no longer liable to be shot, and all free men were allowed to trade with the Indians. Other provisions of the new law constituted a rather limited advance. For example, Indian children, kidnapped as hostages, were not to be treated simply as slaves, but to be trained as Christians and taught a trade. Other policies were so arbitrary as to deal unjustly, not only with the Indians, but also with the white settlers. Thus, in 1653, as supposed compensation to the Indians, lands in York County were set aside and reserved for them. Even though this meant that already existing white settlers had to be forcibly removed. However, peace and justice to the Indian, as always, went only so far. In 1656, several hundred Indians settled near the falls of the James River, which the whites had decided was to be barred from any Indians, even peaceful settlers. The assembly sent Colonel Edward Hill with an armed force to drive out the Indians. 
Though joined by Indian allies, the attacking force was smashed by Indian defenders near the present site of Richmond. Hill met not with sympathy for his defeat, but with an angry assembly that tried him and unanimously found him guilty of crimes and weaknesses and suspended him from his post. The relatively sound peace of 1656 with the Indians was shattered by the onset of the second Berkeley administration. It is not surprising that Berkeley's onslaught on the liberties and rights of Virginians should have extended to Indian relations. His first step in 1661 was the suppression of free trade with the Indians and the reviving of trade monopoly. The assembly decreed that henceforth no one might trade with the Indians without a commission from the governor, who, of course, would license only persons of known integrity rather than the diverse, ill-minded, idle, and unskillful people currently engaged in the trade. The assembly followed this with a decree outlawing all trade by Marylanders and Indians north of Virginia with the Virginia Indians, thus further tightening the trading monopoly. Ironically, the old trade monopolist, Abraham Wood, now a colonel, was charged with the enforcement of this prohibition. The next year, Captain Giles Brent, one of the leading planters of the Northern Neck, hauled the chief of the Potomac Indians, Wahanganoche, into court on the false charges of high treason and murder. And even though Wahanganoche was acquitted and his false accusers forced to pay him an indemnity for the wrong suffered, the assembly arrogantly proceeded to require the Potomac and other northern tribes to furnish as hostages a number of Indian children to be enslaved and brought up by whites. It is no wonder that under this treatment, the Indians of Virginia began to get a bit restive, a restiveness due also, as the assembly admitted, to violent intrusions of diverse English into Indian lands. But this was only the beginning of white aggression. In 1665-66, the assembly set further arbitrary bounds to Indian settlement, pushing back the Indians once more. It also prohibited any white sales of guns and ammunition to the Indians and decreed that the governor select the chieftains for the Indian tribes. Militarism was imposed on the white settlers by ordering them to go armed to all public meetings, including church services. Even collective guilt was imposed on the Indians, it being provided that if an Indian murdered a white man, all the people of the neighboring Indian town would be answerable for it with their lives or liberties. But this law taxed even the often elastic consciences of the Virginians of the day and was soon repealed. During the same year, 1666, Governor Berkeley declared war on the Dogue and Potomac tribes as an even more massive form of collective guilt and punishment for various crimes committed over the years by individual Indians against individual whites. But since this act of slaughter was called war, even its far greater magnitude did not evoke the reproofs of conscience following upon the collective punishment of the previous year. By the end of the 60s, 
the Indians had been so effectively cowed and suppressed that the administration believed the situation well in hand. In the words of Berkeley, the Indians are absolutely subjected so that there is no fear of them. But Governor Berkeley was soon to learn that the use of terror and subjection does not always quiet fears. Particularly aggrieved was the Dogue tribe, which had been attacked and expelled from its lands by the Berkeley administration. The Dogues found new compatriots in the Susquehannocks, a powerful tribe that had been expelled from its land at the head of the Chesapeake Bay by the Seneca Nation and had then settled on inadequate lands on the Potomac River in Maryland. In July 1675, the Dogues, who had also settled across the Potomac, found that a wealthy Virginia planter, Thomas Matthew, refused to pay them a debt which they were not allowed to collect in the Virginia courts. They decided, therefore, to collect the debt themselves, and a party of Dogues crossed the river and took some hogs from Matthew. The Virginians immediately pursued the Indians upriver and not only recovered the hogs, but killed the Indians. Again, the Indians had no recourse against this murder in the Virginia courts, and so they decided to exact punishment themselves. They raided and devastated the Matthew plantation, rough if inexact justice, in the course of which one of Matthew's herdsmen was killed. Errant self-righteousness and flagrant double standard of morality are often characteristic of the side with the superior weapons in any dispute, for its one-sided version of morality can be supported by force of arms, if not by force of logic. Such was the case with the white Virginians, murdering a group of Indians whose only crime was the theft of a few hogs, and this justified as the only available means of collecting a debt, was, well, just one of those things, whereas retaliatory retribution against the one white largely responsible for the whole affair was apparently considered so monstrous that any method of vengeance against the Indians was justified. When the raising of the Matthew Plantation became known, Major George Brandt and Colonel George Mason, leading persecutors of Chief Wahanganochi a decade before, gathered an armed force and invaded Maryland. Upon finding the Indians, Brent asked for a peace parley, at which he seized and then shot the Dogue Chief, thus continuing a white tradition of treachery in dealing with Indians. Brent followed this up by shooting ten other Indians who had then tried to escape. Mason's party shot fourteen other fleeing Indians, many of whom were Susquehannocks, up to now wholly friendly to the whites and who had not participated in dogue actions. The Susquehannocks were now naturally embittered. The treachery at the peace parley and the murdering of twenty-four Indians only began the massive white retaliation. Berkeley completely ignored the protest of the Maryland governor against the Virginia invasion of its territory and the killing of innocent Indians. Instead, on August 31, 1675, Berkeley called together the militia officers of the Northern Neck counties, led by Colonel John Washington, and armed them with powers to organize the militia and to demand satisfaction or take any other course necessary against the Indians. 
This could include attack and such executions upon the Indians as shall be found necessary and just. The officers duly organized the militia and secured aid from the Maryland government. A full-fledged war of aggression against the Indians was then unleashed by Virginia and Maryland. On September 26, the joint Virginia-Maryland force besieged the main fort of the Susquehannocks on the Maryland side of the Potomac and sought to starve the Indians into submission. An army of 1,000 whites surrounded 100 Indian braves and their women and children. On the invitation of Major Thomas Truman, head of the Maryland force, five of the Susquehannock chiefs came out to parley and seek peace. When the chiefs asked what the army was doing there, Major Truman declared that they were retaliating for various outrages, and he proceeded to murder them on the spot. Even a silver medal held up by one chief, a token of a supposedly permanent pledge of protection by a former governor of Maryland, was of no avail in saving his life. The starving mass of Indians finally escaped their tormentors by rushing out at night in a surprise breakout and fled into Virginia, where during January they retaliated against many of the frontier plantations. One of the plantations raided was that of Nathaniel Bacon, Jr., a leading planter and one of the counselors of the colony. Some writers attribute to this incident Bacon's hostility to the Indians, but already the previous fall, Bacon had seized some friendly Appomattox Indians, charging them falsely with stealing corn, even though the corn in question was neither his nor his neighbor's. Ready to send out an even larger armed force against the Indian party, Berkeley received word from the Indians that, having killed ten whites for each of their chiefs murdered at the peace parley, they were ready to make peace and ask for compensation for damages. Grateful for a chance to stop the spiraling bloodshed, Berkeley disbanded his new army. But when Berkeley categorically rejected the peace offer as violating honor and self-interest, the Indian raids continued. Instead of peace, Berkeley and his assembly decided on an uneasy compromise— a declaration of war not only against all Indians guilty of injuring white persons or property, but also against those who had refused to aid and assist the whites in uncovering and destroying the guilty Indians. However, Berkeley also decided to fight a defensive rather than an offensive war by constructing at great expense ten forts facing the enemy at the heads of the principal rivers, and by not attacking the Indians unless they were attacked themselves. The large force needed to garrison these forts was financed by burdensome new taxes, which aggravated Virginia's grievances against the Berkeley regime. It is another common rule that militarization of a society ostensibly to bring force majeure against an enemy often succeeds also, or even only, in bringing that force against the very society being militarized. Thus, soldiers conscripted into the garrisons were to be subject to highly rigorous articles of war. Any blasphemy, for example, when either drunk or sober, was punished by forcing the soldier to run the terrible gauntlet. 
Public prayers were to be read in the field or garrison twice a day, and any soldier refusing or neglecting to attend the prayers or the preaching or to show proper diligence in reading homilies and sermons was to be punished at the whim of the commander. A great many Virginians, driven forward by war hysteria, by ingrained hatred of the Indians, and by the desire to grab Indian lands, began to accuse Berkeley of being soft on the Indians. The softness was supposed to be motivated by economic interest, as Berkeley's monopoly of the fur trade was supposed to give him a vested interest in the existence of Indians with whom to trade. The common expression of the day was that no bullet would pierce beaver skins. The charge, if charge it be, was probably partially correct, at least insofar as trade between peoples generally functions as a solvent of hatreds and of agitations for war. At any rate, in deference to these charges, the assembly took the Indian trade from Berkeley and his licensees and transferred the authority for licenses to the county justices of the peace. The middle-of-the-road policy of defensive war, however, was probably the most unpolitic course that Berkeley could have taken. If he had concluded peace, he would have ended the Indian raids and thus removed the constant spark plug for war hysteria among the whites. As it was, the expensive policy of constructing mighty defensive forts prolonged the war, and hence the irritant, and did nothing to end it. The only result, so far as the Virginians were concerned, was a highly expensive network of forts and higher taxes imposed to pay for them. Furthermore, Berkeley reportedly reacted in his usual tyrannical fashion against several petitions for an armed troop against the Indians by outlawing all such petitions under threat of heavy penalty. With peace still not concluded, the frontier Virginians found themselves suffering Indian raids and yet being refused a governmental armed force by Berkeley. They finally determined in April to raise their own army and fight the Indians themselves. While three leaders of this effort were frontier planners on the James and Appomattox rivers, they were hardly small farmers. On the contrary, they were among the leading large planters in Virginia. The chief leader was the eloquent 28-year-old Nathaniel Bacon, Jr., descended of Francis Bacon, a cousin of Lady Berkeley and a member of the Select Council of Virginia. The other leaders were William Byrd, founder of the Byrd Planter Dynasty, and Captain James Cruz, another large planter and neighbor of Bacon. The effort quickly emerged, however, not as a new armed force, but as a mutiny against the Virginia government. When the three founders and their friends went to visit a nearby force of militiamen at Jordan's Point in Charles City County, the soldiers decided to mutiny and follow Bacon, 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 and swore damnation to their souls to be true to him. The Mighty Bacon's Rebellion had begun. Volume 1, Chapter 11, Bacon's Rebellion. Why? Why revolution? This question is asked in fascination by contemporary observers and historians of every revolution in history. What were the reasons, 
the true motives behind any given revolution. The tendency of historians of every revolution, Bacon's rebellion included, has been to present a simplistic and black and white version of the drives behind the revolutionary forces. Thus, the orthodox version holds Nathaniel Bacon to have been a conscious torchbearer of the later American Revolution, battling for liberty and against English oppression. The version of revisionist history marks down Bacon as an unprincipled and Indian-hating demagogue, rebelling against the wise statesman Berkeley. Neither version can be accepted as such. The very search by observers and historians for purity and unmixed motives in a revolution betrays an unrealistic naivete. Revolutions are mighty upheavals made by a mass of people, people who are willing to rupture the settled habits of a lifetime, including especially the habit of obedience to an existing government. They are made by people willing to turn from the narrow pursuits of their daily lives to battle vigorously and even violently together in a more general cause. Because a revolution is a sudden upheaval by masses of men, one cannot treat the motives of every participant as identical, nor can one treat a revolution as somehow planned and ordered in advance. On the contrary, one of the major characteristics of a revolution is its dynamism, its rapid and accelerating movement in one of several competing directions. Indeed, the enormous sense of exhilaration or of fear, depending on one's personal values and one's place in the social structure, generated by a revolution is precisely due to its unfreezing of the political and social order, its smashing of the old order, of the fixed and relatively stagnant political structure, its transvaluation of values, its replacement of reigning fixity with a sense of openness and dynamism. Hope, especially among those submerged by the existing system, replaces hopelessness and despair. The counterpart of this sudden advent of unlimited social horizons is uncertainty. For if the massive gates of the political structure are at last temporarily opened, what path will the people now take? Indeed, the ever-changing and developing revolution will take paths and entail consequences, perhaps only dimly, if at all, seen by its original leaders. A revolution, therefore, cannot be gauged simply by the motivations of its initiators. The paths taken by the revolution will be determined not merely by these motives, but by the resultant of the motives and values of the contending sides, as they began and as they change in the course of the struggle, clashing with and interacting upon the given social and political structure. In short, by the interaction of the various subjective values and the objective institutional conditions of the day. For masses of men to turn from their daily lives to hurl themselves against existing habits and the extant might of a ruling government requires an accumulation of significant grievances and tensions. 
No revolution begins in a day and on arbitrary whim. The grievances of important numbers of people against the state pile up, accumulate, form an extremely dry forest waiting for a spark to ignite the conflagration. That spark is the crisis situation, which may be intrinsically minor or only distantly related to the basic grievances, but it provides the catalyst, the emotional impetus for the revolution to begin. This analysis of revolution sheds light on two common but misleading historical notions about the genesis of revolutions in colonial America. Conservative historians have stressed that revolution in America was unique in contrast to radical European revolutions. American rebellion came only in reaction to new acts of oppression by the government. American revolutions were, therefore, uniquely conservative reacting against the disruption of the status quo by new acts of tyranny by the state. But this thesis misconceives the very nature of revolution. Revolutions, as we have indicated, do not spring up suddenly and in vacuo. Almost all revolutions, European or American, are ignited by new acts of oppression by the government. Revolutions in America, and certainly this was true of Bacon's rebellion, were not more conservative than any other. And since revolution is the polar archetype of an anti-conservative act, this means not conservative at all. Neither, incidentally, can we credit the myth engendered by neo-Marxian historians that revolutions like Bacon's rebellion were class struggles of the poor against the rich, of the small farmers against the wealthy oligarchs. The revolution was directed against a ruling oligarchy, to be sure, but an oligarchy not of the wealthy, but of certain wealthy, who had gained control of the privileges to be obtained from government. As we have pointed out, the Bacons and Birds were large planters, and the revolution was a rebellion of virtually all the people, wealthy and poor, of all occupations, who were not part of the privileged clique. This was a rebellion not against a Marxian ruling class, but against what might be called a ruling caste. No common purity of doctrine or motive can be found among the Bacon rebels, or for that matter in the succeeding rebellions of the late 17th century in the other American colonies. But the bulk of their grievances were certainly libertarian, a protest of the rights and liberties of the people against the tyranny of the English government and of its Virginia agency. We have seen the accumulation of grievances against English mercantilist restrictions on Virginian trade and property rights, increasing taxation, monopolizing of trade by political privilege, repeated attempts to impose feudal land holdings, tightening rule by the governor and his allied oligarchs, infringements of home rule and local liberties, and, to a far lesser extent, persecution of religious minorities. On the other hand, there is no denying that some of the grievances and motives of the rebels were the reverse of libertarian, hatred of the Indians and a desire for land-grabbing, or, as in the allied and later rebellions in neighboring Maryland, hatred of Roman Catholicism. Another motive in later rebellion was a desire for a compulsory cartel 
in unsound and desperate attempts to force a rise in tobacco prices. But even though the spark of Bacon's rebellion came from an anti-libertarian motif, pursuit of more rigorous war against the Indians, and Bacon's motives were originally limited to this, it is also true that as the rebellion developed and the dynamics of a revolutionary situation progressed, the other basic grievances came to the fore and found expression, even in the case of Bacon himself. It should also be recognized that any revolt against a tyrannical state, other things being equal, is ipso facto a libertarian move. This is all the more true because even a revolution that fails, as did Bacon's, gives the people a training ground and a tradition of revolution that may later develop into a revolution more extensively and clearly founded on libertarian motives. If cherished in later tradition, a revolution will decrease the awe in which the constituted authority is held by the populace and in that way will increase the chance of a later revolt against tyranny. Overall, therefore, Bacon's rebellion may be judged as a step forward to liberty and even a microcosm of the American Revolution, but despite rather than because of the motives of Bacon himself and of the original leaders. Nathaniel Bacon was scarcely a heroic and conscious torchbearer of liberty, and yet the dynamics of the revolutionary movement that he brought into being forged such a torch out of his rebellion. After the start of the mutiny at Jordan's Point, Berkeley, having tried to stop the movement, denounced Bacon and his followers as rebels and mutineers and proceeded west against them. He missed Bacon, however, who had gone north to New Kent County to gather men who were also ripe for rebellion. Meanwhile, masses of Virginians began to join Bacon on the most hysterical and bigoted grounds. Berkeley's unfortunate act of war of March 1676 had declared war not only against enemy Indians— but just as roundly against neutrals. The peaceful and neutral Pamunkey Indians, fearful and unhappy at this prospect and terrorized by the Baconians, fled to the wilderness of Dragon Swamp on the Gloucester Peninsula. To many Virginians, it was incomprehensible that Berkeley should proclaim men as traitors whose only crime seemed to be hard-line pursuit of victory against all Indians. At the same time, Berkeley was clearly soft on the Pamunkeys. The protests poured in. How can anyone tell friendly Indians from enemy Indians? Are not the Indians all of a color? Thus, racism and war hysteria formed a potent combination to sweep away reason as a time-honored phrase of the racist, you can't tell one from another, became logically transmuted into the only good Indian is a dead Indian. Or, as the Baconian rebels put it, away with these distinctions. We will have war with all Indians which come not in with their arms and give hostages for their fidelity and to aid against all others. We will spare none. If we must be hanged for rebels for killing those that will destroy us, let them hang us. 
Alarmed, Berkeley rushed back to the Capitol and, to appease the people, called an election at long last for the House of Burgesses. The election was called in mid-May for a session to begin in early June. This was the first election since the beginning of Berkeley's second reign. This in itself was a victory against tyranny. Meanwhile, Bacon and his band of Indian fighters proceeded against the Susquehannocks, but soon veered their attention, as usual, to the friendly but far less powerful Okaniches, whom Bacon had even persuaded to attack the Susquehannocks. The Okaniches had given Bacon's exhausted and depleted band food and shelter and had attacked the Susquehannocks themselves in Bacon's behalf. The Okaniches presented their prisoners to Bacon, and the prisoners were duly tortured and killed. A dispute, however, arose over the plunder from the raid, and especially over a half-dozen friendly Manikin and Analectan Indians who had been prisoners of the Susquehannocks and had helped the Okaniches destroy the Susquehanna camp. The Okaniches naturally wanted to keep the plunder from the Susquehannock raid and to free the friendly Indians they had liberated, but Bacon demanded the plunder for himself and insisted that the Manikins and Analectans be turned over to him as slaves. Bacon fell into a dispute with the Okaniche chief, who balked at selling food to his men, whereupon Bacon launched a surprise attack on the Indians, burning and slaughtering over a hundred Indian men, women, and children, and kidnapping others. To Bacon went the plunder, and in addition, an Okaniche stock of valuable beaver fur. Some contemporary accounts assert the fur was Bacon's major aim in the surprise attack. In any case, Bacon returned from this irrelevant act of butchery as the leader of a band of heroes in the eyes of the bulk of the Virginia people and insisted more than ever that all Indians were enemies. This I have always said and do maintain. Undaunted by Berkeley's denunciation of Bacon for treason and rebellion and his expulsion of Bacon from the council, the free men of Henrico County unanimously elected Bacon and his associate James Cruz as Burgesses. Joining the inner councils of Bacon's rebellion were two wealthy and influential Virginians, William Drummond, tobacco planter and former governor of Albemarle Colony, and the intellectual Richard Lawrence, who had lost land through legal plunder to a favorite of Berkeley's. Ignoring the election results, Berkeley sent an armed force to capture Bacon and bring him back to Jamestown. Here ensued a patently spurious reconciliation scene, with Bacon in open assembly confessing his guilt and Berkeley out of character, granting him forgiveness. Clearly an uneasy truce had resulted from the glowering confrontation of armed force and the threat of full-fledged civil war, for Berkeley knew that 2,000 men were armed and ready to come to Bacon's rescue. Berkeley also restored Bacon to his seat in the council, perhaps to retire him to what, at this point, was a less important seat. With Bacon quieted, the House of Burgesses, largely supporters of Bacon and certainly anti-Berkeley, did very little. A few fable essays in reform were quickly stifled by the domineering governor, 
except for acts restricting trade with the Indians and imposing dictates on avowedly friendly Indians by forbidding them to hunt with guns, even on their own reservations, the assembly did little and certainly nothing against Berkeley. Indeed, they saw fit to eulogize Berkeley's rule. Bacon, warned of a plot on his life and seeing how reconciliation had only succeeded in dangerously weakening the revolutionary movement, calming the people and taming the assembly, escaped from Jamestown. He still lacked official sanction to fight Indians. Returning home, Bacon raised an armed troop and on June 23rd invaded Jamestown, where under bayonet he forced Berkeley and the assembly to grant him the commission to fight the Indians, the original point of the rebellion. But now the Baconian assembly, emboldened by the Bacon victory, pushed through in a few days a series of reform measures that became known as Bacon's Laws. Several of these measures were invasive of liberty, the inevitable laws for more stringent war and regulation against the Indians, prohibition on the export of corn, restrictions on the sale of liquor. But the bulk of the laws were in a libertarian direction, requiring annual rotation of the powerful office of sheriff, prohibiting anyone from holding two local offices at the same time, penalizing excessive charges levied by public officials, providing for triennial elections for the local vestry boards by the freemen of the parish, thus ending the closed oligarchical control of the vestries. Moreover, the assembly ended the absolute control of the appointed justices of the peace, meeting in secret conclave over county taxes and expenditures. Annual election by all the free men was provided for choosing an equal number of representatives to sit with the judges imposing the county levies and expenditures. Furthermore, the law of 1670, taking the voting for Burgesses away from non-landholding free men, was repealed. Thus, a true revolution had developed from a mere movement to crush Indians more efficiently. Indeed, some leading conservatives hinted darkly of anarchy and menace to private property. One leading Berkeleyan sneered that Bacon's followers were too poor to pay taxes and therefore wanted none levied at all. In the meanwhile, Bacon protested that revolution was farthest from his mind, as perhaps it was, that all he wanted was to fight the Indians. Armed with his coveted commission, he proceeded west to do so. Governor Berkeley, however, was not content with this relatively peaceful resolution of the problem, and he determined on civil war. Berkeley once more cried treason and rebellion against Bacon and proceeded into Gloucester County to raise a counter-revolutionary armed force. Hearing of this treachery, Bacon and his men marched eastward, where the militia of Gloucester County mutinied and to the governor's face chanted, Bacon, Bacon, Bacon. Berkeley, in disgrace and opposed by the bulk of the people, fled to obscure Accomac County on the eastern shore, where he lamented, How miserable that man is that governs a people. Bacon was now impelled by the logic of events to a radical and revolutionary position, for despite his wishes, he was now irrevocably a rebel 
against Governor Berkeley. And since Berkeley was the agent of the king, a rebel against the king of England as well. The logic of events now compelled Bacon to favor total independence from England. For him, it was now independence or death. So swiftly had the dynamic of revolution pushed events forward that the man who just three months before had had no thoughts of rebellion, who only a few weeks before had only wished to crush Indians more effectively, was now forced to fight for the independence of Virginia from the crown. Grievances were abounding in neighboring Maryland and Albemarle. Bacon began to envisage a mighty all-Chesapeake uprising, Maryland, Virginia, North Carolina, to gain freedom from subjection to England. The neighboring colonies were indeed ripe for rebellion, and William Drummond, a leading Baconian and former governor of North Carolina, helped stir up a rebel movement there led by John Culpepper, who visited Jamestown during the turbulent rebellion of 1676. But Bacon had a critical problem. If the choice was only independence or death for him, that choice did not face the rest of the Virginians. Thus, one of Bacon's followers, on hearing him talk of plans to fight English troops, exclaimed, Sir, you speak as though you designed a total defection from his majesty and our country. Why have not many princes lost their dominion so? Bacon calmly replied. Last cherry of a radical policy was Sarah, wife of William Drummond, who, breaking a stick in two, exclaimed, I care no more for the power of England than for this broken straw. Bacon now faced a twofold chore, the cementing of the Virginian people behind the new, difficult, and radical task, and the smashing of the Berkeley forces before they could rally. Unfortunately, it is not surprising that a man dedicated to a hard line against the Indians would not hesitate in a hard line against his own people. Bacon began to wield the weapon of the compulsory public loyalty oath from his headquarters at the Middle Plantation, later Williamsburg. Bacon issued a call for a convention of the leading men of the colony. Once at the convention, Bacon issued a manifesto, grandiosely entitled The Declaration of the People, demanding surrender of Berkeley and 19 of his closest cohorts in four days. Refusal to surrender would mean arrest for treason and confiscation of property. In the Declaration, several accusations were leveled against Berkeley. One, that upon spacious pretense of public works, he raised great unjust taxes upon the commonality. Two, advancing favorites to high public offices. Three, monopolizing the beaver trade with the Indians. Four, being pro-Indian. Bacon now assumed dictatorial authority over the colony. He forced the convention to subscribe to an oath of allegiance. The first clause caused no trouble, a pledge not to join Berkeley's forces. The second part caused a great deal of trouble, a pledge to oppose any English forces sent to aid Berkeley. The Virginians balked at open revolution against the crown. 
Bacon, however, locked the doors and forced the assembled men to take the entire oath. Bacon now proceeded to terrorize the mass of Virginians to take the same oath and arrested any who refused. Terror is a poor way to persuade someone to be loyal. And from this moment, Bacon's formerly great popularity in the colony began to ebb. At this juncture, when smashing Berkeley's forces was the order of the day, Bacon permitted himself to be diverted to the old sport of killing Indians. Instead of pursuing the Indian war against the tribes actually fighting, Bacon again found it convenient to attack the hapless and neutral Pamunkey Indians, who had fled to the swamps and wilderness of Gloucester County to be left alone. After wasting many days trying to find the Pamunkeys in the swamps and, of course, plundering as they went, Bacon's forces found the Pamunkeys' camp and plundered, captured, and slaughtered the unresisting Indians. Bacon was a hero once more. While Bacon was off to raid the Pamunkeys, Berkeley had seized the opportunity to win control of the fleet, Jamestown, and the principal river areas. In contrast to Bacon's reliance upon volunteers for his army, Berkeley raised his counter-revolutionary force by the promise of plunder from the estates of those who had taken Bacon's oath and the promise of subsidy and exemption from virtually all taxes. Each party was soon promising liberty to the servants of the opposing side. Marching on Jamestown again, Bacon now drove Berkeley out of the capital. In the course of the battle, Bacon used a new stratagem. He kidnapped some of the wives of the Berkeley leaders and threatened to place them in the front line if the Berkeley forces fired upon their fortifications. Power corrupts, and the repeated use of aggressive violence spirals inevitably upward and outward. So with Nathaniel Bacon, Jr., Beginning with the Indians, Bacon increasingly extended despotism and violence against Virginia citizens. After capturing Jamestown, Bacon burned it totally to the ground on the flimsy excuse of hypothetical military necessity. The forces of Giles Brent, now a colonel in the northern counties, which had shifted from Bacon's to Berkeley's cause, were marching south but Brent's men deserted him completely when they heard of Bacon's victory at Jamestown. After driving Berkeley's forces back to the eastern shore, Bacon enforced his loyalty oath on more masses of people, seized provisions for his army from the populace, and punished several citizens by martial law. Even his cousin, Nathaniel Bacon Sr., was not spared the plunder meted out to the leading opponents of the rebellion, even though the elder Bacon had previously warned his cousin of an attempt on his life. The elder Bacon's property was looted to the loss of a thousand pounds. Just as Bacon made ready to proceed against Berkeley and the eastern shore, this leader of revolution fell ill and died on October 26, 1676. In a few short months, he had brought Virginia and perhaps the neighboring colonies to the brink of revolutionary independence from Great Britain. Who knows what might have happened had Bacon lived? Without the inspiration provided by their leader, 
the rebellion fell apart and Berkeley's forces conquered the disorganized rebel units. One of the last of the rebel bands to yield was a group of 400 Negro slaves and white servants fighting for their freedom in Bacon's army. Captain Thomas Grantham of the Berkeley forces persuaded them to disarm by promising them their freedom, after which he delivered them back to their masters. Governor Berkeley was not a forgiving soul, and he now instituted a veritable reign of terror in Virginia. As he defeated each of the rebel units, he court-martialed and hanged the leaders. Neither was Berkeley very discriminating in his court-martialing and hanging parties. In one of them, he included Thomas Hall, clerk of New Kent County, who had never taken up arms in the rebellion, but who had angered Berkeley in other matters. It was enough, however, that Hall, by diverse writings under his own hand, a most notorious actor, aided and assisted in the rebellion. One of the hanged rebels protested, no doubt truthfully, that he had always been a loyal subject of the crown and only meant to take up arms against Indians. As in the case of many rebels, he was hanged in a cause the rapid progress of which had traveled far beyond his understanding. When the eminent William Drummond, who had incurred the dislike of Berkeley even before the year's events, was captured in the swamps and dragged in before the governor, Berkeley gloated, Mr. Drummond, you are very welcome. I am more glad to see you than any man in Virginia. Mr. Drummond, you shall be hanged in half an hour. To which Drummond steadfastly replied, I expect no mercy from you. I have followed the lead of my conscience and done what I might to free my country from oppression. Allowing for a few hours missed, the promise was indeed carried out, and Drummond's ring confiscated by Berkeley for good measure. Most defiant of the captured rebels was Anthony Arnold, who delivered a trenchant attack on the rights of kings. They have no rights but what they got by conquest and the sword, and he that can by force of the sword deprive them of it has as good and just a title to it as the king himself. If the king should deny to do me right, I would make no more to sheath my sword in his heart or bowels than that of my mortal enemies. The court hung the horrible, resolved rebel and traitor, Arnold, in chains, openly regretting that it could not draw and quarter him as well. Berkeley also proceeded to confiscate the estates of one rebel after another, thus recouping his own personal fortunes. Unfortunately for Berkeley's uninterrupted pleasure, the king's commissioners arrived in January with a general pardon for all rebels. What is more, the commissioners promised that they would redress the grievances of the people. The king further ordered Berkeley back to England. But Berkeley, defying the commissioners, continued imposing his own loyalty oaths, seizing more property for his own use, and delaying publication of the king's pardon. He finally published the pardon, but exempted 18 nameless people, an excellent way of cowing the Virginians so as to keep them from bearing their grievances to the commissioners. Civil trials for treason proceeded apace, and several more were hanged. Furthermore, the subservient assembly now met and quickly repealed all of the bold acts of liberal reform of Bacon's assembly of June 1676. Under Berkeley's direction, the assembly proceeded to hang many more rebels, 
by acts of attainder, and to fine, imprison, banish, and expropriate still more. Some rebels were ordered to pay heavy fines and appear before the assembly with halters around their necks, kneeling to repent of their guilt and beg for their lives. If freed by the assembly, they were forced to repeat the same ordeal before the county court. All leading supporters of the rebellion were barred thereafter from holding public office. Even the hapless indentured servants who followed Bacon were sentenced to imprisonment whenever their terms of service should expire. Anyone who had written or spoken anything favoring the rebellion or even criticizing anyone in authority received heavy fines, the pillory, flogging, or branding on the forehead. Yet the jails were not filled, being kept clear by banishments and executions. Some hapless Virginians were caught in the middle of the Civil War, thus Otto Thorpe. Wishing not to sign Bacon's compulsory loyalty oath, Thorpe finally did so when his wife was threatened. Later in the rebellion, Thorpe refused to aid Bacon further and had his property confiscated by the rebels as a consequence. Then, when Berkeley returned to power, he sent Thorpe to jail for swearing to the Baconian oath and confiscated his property once more. The commissioners sadly concluded that no peace could come to the colony, either internally or with the Indians, until Berkeley had been completely removed from his post and the general pardon carried out. The only real supporters of Berkeley in his fanatic campaign of vengeance were twenty friends of his among the oligarchy, known as the Green Spring Faction. The commissioners reported that the Greenspring group was continually pleading for the punishment of the guilty, who were little less than the whole country. The commissioners indeed estimated that of all the people in Virginia, who now numbered about 40,000, only 500 had never supported the rebellion. Finally, the assembly, under pressures of the commissioners, forced the reluctant Berkeley to stop the hangings. As one assemblyman stated, if not for this interference, the governor would have hanged half the country. Under pressure of the commissioners, the assembly of February 1677 also reenacted a few of the most innocuous of the reform laws of the previous year. Despite the intimidation and terror, a large number of grievances were sent to the assembly and the commissioners by the people of Virginia. The most common grievance concerned the levying of heavy and unjust taxes by officials, taxes that were used for expenditures over which the people had no control. Typical was a petition from Surrey County, which prayed the authorities to ease us, His Majesty's poor subjects, of our great burdens and taxes. The petition asked, Whereas... There yearly came a great public levy from James City we never knew for what to the great grief and dissatisfaction of the poor upon whose shoulders the levy chiefly lay. We most humbly pray that for the future the collectors of the levy, who instead of satisfaction were wont to give churlish answers, may be obliged to give an account in writing what the levy is for to any who shall desire it. The Surrey County petition also humbly asked for a free election for every assembly so that they could find redress for their grievances. Not surprisingly, this humble petition received its typical answer, 
severe punishment for the petitioners by the assembly for the high crime of speaking or writing disrespectfully of those in authority. Other grievances mentioned in petitions were favoritism, illegal fees charged by local officials, restriction of the right to vote, monopoly of the Indian trade, and the arbitrary seizing of property by the government. While the commissioners were hardly zealous in defending the people against Berkeley's oppression, they at least arranged a peace with the Indians, and the Great Indian War was happily ended. Finally, the commissioners decided to carry the king's order into effect, and they ousted Berkeley. Leaving for England, Berkeley made his exit in characteristic fashion, kicking and snarling all the way, and bitterly denouncing the ambition, incompetence, and ignorance of the appointed lieutenant governor left in charge. At long last, on May 5, 1677, Berkeley embarked for England, dying soon after his arrival. Perhaps Berkeley's most appropriate epitaph was the reported comment on the Virginia affair by King Charles II. That old fool has hanged more men in that naked country than I did here for the murder of my father. The shadow of Berkeley still fell over the unhappy colony, however, as Virginia, not knowing of his death, still believed that Berkeley would soon engineer his return. The colony was still in the hands of Berkeley's henchmen, the Greenspring oligarchs, who had been reestablished in their lucrative and powerful offices. Leading members of this faction were Colonel Philip Ludwell, Colonel Thomas Ballard, Colonel Edward Hill, and Major Robert Beverly. It also included Colonel John Washington and Richard Lee. Greenspring's control was especially strong after the commissioners had returned to England in July. The Greenspring faction ran the council and engineered corrupt elections to the House of Burgesses. They continued to drag rebels into court to seize their property, and they levied another large poll tax on the colony, again laying the heaviest burden on the poorest citizens. Petitions from the counties to redress grievances continued to be punished in the by-now-traditional manner, severe punishment for statements highly scandalous and injurious to authority. Finally, in October, news of Berkeley's death arrived in Virginia, and the king was finally able to get his complete and general pardon published. The Baconian remnants still hiding in the woods were able to emerge and resume their normal lives. But if Berkeley was at last truly dead, his system was not. Berkeleyism and the Green Spring faction continued to rule the colony. In fact, the next governor, Thomas Lord Culpepper, was a relative of Lady Berkeley. The revolution had failed, but it continued to live on in the hearts of Americans who cherished the memory of its near victory, a beacon light for future rebellions against tyranny. Volume 1, Chapter 12, Maryland. Virginia, as we have seen, was England's first chartered colony and the first royal colony in America. The remaining type of English colony was the proprietary, and the first proprietary colony was founded in the early 17th century, just north of the Virginia border. A proprietary grant was a far more feudalistic device than the chartered company. 
for a company, being a joint venture of capitalists, was bent on parceling out land to its shareholders, on earning rapid profits rather than acting as a long-time or permanent feudal landlord. But the gift of a huge tract of land to a single proprietor was a more enticing invitation to feudalism to come to American shores. The first American proprietary was a grant of land in 1632 by King Charles I to Cecilius Calvert, the second Lord Baltimore. The grant was carved out of Virginia territory and extended from the Potomac River north to the 40th parallel, including, but rather larger than, the present boundaries of Maryland. The king reserved for himself but one-fifth of the gold and silver that might be mined each year in the province. Otherwise, Lord Baltimore was as free to govern in his vast domain as the king was in England. The king even expressly granted the power to levy any taxes on Maryland, so named in honor of the English queen, Henrietta Maria. The charter granted to Lord Baltimore ownership of all the land, minerals, rivers, and fisheries in the area as well as the right to confer titles, incorporate cities and towns, levy taxes, erect churches and feudal manors, and constitute courts. This was a veritable feudal government, a Palatinate, as existed in Europe, specifically like the Palatinate of Durham in England. One important limitation on Calvert's absolute rule, as in the case of the king himself, was that he could levy taxes only with the consent of an assembly representing the freemen or landholders of the province. The first settlement in Maryland was made in 1634, by two small ships, the Ark and the Dove, carrying about 220 people and landing at St. Mary's, near the mouth of the Potomac River. From the first, Roman Catholicism was a uniquely important issue in this colony. For Calvert's father, George, the first Lord Baltimore and a leader of the monarchical party in England, had turned Catholic after receiving a promise of the grant. From the first, Cecilius wanted to make Maryland a haven from persecution for Catholics in England. But, eager to encourage settlement, for without settlers there would be no profit from his feudal domain, Calvert made no religious test for settling in the colony. As a result, Protestants outnumbered Catholics among the settlers by nearly ten to one from the beginning, with the Protestant faith predominating among the poorer classes and Catholicism among the gentlemen. Both Protestants and Catholics enjoyed full religious liberty, and there was no established church in the colony. Early relations with the Indians were peaceful, with the land acquired from them by voluntary purchase rather than by force. This peaceful coexistence was assured by Calvert's simple expedient of instructing his men to deal fairly with the Indians. Indeed, the largest wigwam in St. Mary's was, after purchase, consecrated as a church by the two Jesuit priests of the first expedition. In a few years, however, Calvert became dissatisfied with the Jesuit missionaries in Maryland and their very extravagant demands for privileges— and took measures to prevent any increased supply of Jesuits to the colony. 
The land system, however, in keeping with the vast feudal powers given to Calvert, was established on the most rigidly feudal lines in America. Calvert early advertised that every settler who would finance the transport of five other settlers to the colony would receive a grant as Lord of the Manor of 2,000 acres of land. Not outright, however, or in fee simple, but as a feudal tenancy with a quit rent of 400 pounds of good wheat per year to the proprietor. The manor lords, most of them Catholic, in turn rented their land to smaller planters in exchange for rent in produce. This restrictive method of allocating land or land ownership decidedly hampered the growth of the entire colony during the 17th century. Furthermore, Calvert gave vast estates as manors to his friends and relatives. The first governor of the colony was Calvert's brother, Leonard, and Calvert appointed a council to advise his brother. While the Calverts tried to keep representative government to a minimum, an assembly soon developed after persistent pressure from below on the proprietors. The proprietor and the assembly soon quarreled over the extent of their relative powers, the proprietor claiming the sole right to initiate legislation, which the assembly could then reject. The assembly, with the power to hold up the enactment of laws, refused to consent to any imposition of a code by Calvert, and thus won the fight to initiate legislation. At first, all the landowners sat in the assembly, but soon the representative principle was adopted. In 1650, the assembly turned into the familiar two-house type, the council sitting as the upper house and the elected members as the lower. The governor and the proprietor, who appointed the governor, had veto power over all legislation, and the governor could also dissolve the assembly at will. However, the assembly assured its continuing existence by refusing to grant taxes for more than a year at a time. The supreme judicial power as in Virginia, was vested in the governor and the council. Although eventually this provincial court set up subsidiary county courts for minor cases and judges appointed and removable by the governor were appointed as higher courts. We have already alluded to the conflict between Lord Baltimore and William Claiborne, a Virginian who had established a trading post on Kent Island in Chesapeake Bay. This quarrel was embittered by Claiborne's virulent anti-Catholicism, which had spurred him to play a leading role in ousting Calvert from Virginia before the founding of the Maryland colony. With Claiborne refusing to recognize Calvert's overlordship of Kent Island, Calvert moved to assert his dominion over Claiborne, wielding his land grant as his claim. The conflict was punctuated by a naval battle between the ships of Lord Baltimore and of Claiborne. Finally, the king decided the issue by ruling in Lord Baltimore's favor. In the mid-1640s, as the Puritan Revolution arose in England, Lord Baltimore sided with the king, and Leonard Calvert received privileges, or letters of mark, from the king to capture vessels belonging to Parliament. On the other hand, the Protestant tobacco trader, Captain Richard Ingle, a friend of Claiborne's, received a similar commission from Parliament. 
The governor ordered Ingle's arrest for high treason in denouncing the king, whereupon Ingle escaped and in 1645 mounted a successful attack on Maryland. Captain Ingle took the opportunity, for conscience' sake, to plunder and pillage papist and malignants, seizing property and jailing his enemies. The Venerable Father Andrew White, a Jesuit missionary who had arrived on the first ships to land in Maryland, was sent to England in irons to be tried for treason. Happily, the old missionary was acquitted. In the meanwhile, Claiborne took the opportunity to retrieve Kent Island from Maryland's seizure. Under Ingalls' attack, Leonard Calvert escaped to Virginia, from where Berkeley helped him to recapture Maryland and Kent Island. Returning to England, Ingall almost succeeded in revoking Maryland's charter, but Calvert retained it by taking pains to placate Parliament. Calvert, for example, encouraged a group of dissenters exiled from Virginia to settle in Maryland. A little further up the Chesapeake Bay from St. Mary's in what is now Annapolis. Furthermore, after Leonard Calvert died in 1648, Lord Baltimore appointed the Protestant William Stone as governor. He required the governor to take an oath not to violate the free exercise of religion by any Christians, specifically including Roman Catholics. Subsequently, in April 1649, the Maryland Assembly passed the famous Toleration Act, which guaranteed all Christians the free exercise of their religion. However, tolerance and religious liberty went only so far, and the death penalty was levied against all non-Christians, including Jews and Unitarians. Neither did toleration extend to freedom of speech for any use of such religious epithets as heretic and popish priest was outlawed. Also prohibited on the Sabbath were swearing, drinking, unnecessary work, and disorderly recreation. Actually, the much-vaunted Toleration Act was a retreat from the religious liberty that had previously prevailed in Catholic-ruled Maryland and was a compromise with the growing spirit of Puritan intolerance. Charles II, still in exile, embittered by what he regarded as acts of treachery by Lord Baltimore, deposed him and appointed instead Sir William Davenant as royal governor. For Baltimore did visibly adhere to the rebels in England and admit all kinds of sectaries and schismatics and ill-affected persons into the plantation. Davenant sailed from France to try to seize Maryland, but was himself captured by the English. Walking the tightrope of religious liberty between the demands of Parliament and those of the Crown was a difficult feat and in 1651, the rulers of Maryland fell off. The Catholic Royalist Deputy Governor Thomas Green foolishly decided to recognize Charles II in the same year as the legitimate ruler of England. This proclamation naturally angered Parliament and precipitated severe reaction. The following year, Parliament sent to the Chesapeake colonies commissioners, of whom the angry Claiborne was one, to subdue the recalcitrants. After settling matters in Virginia, the commissioners proceeded to Maryland, where they removed the governor and ousted the proprietary. Governor Stone was reinstated, but he in turn persisted in trying to reinstate the authority of the proprietor, 
he compounded his difficulties by insisting on imposing an oath of allegiance on Lord Baltimore. The oath offended Puritans. Stone then denounced the Puritans and the commissioners as fomenters of sedition. The result was the capture of St. Mary's by the commissioners in 1654 and their appointment of a Puritan council and of Captain William Fuller as governor. Catholics were now excluded from voting and from the assembly, and the Toleration Act, as well as the rule of the proprietor, were canceled. A law of 1654 declared that none who professed and exercised the popish religion could be protected in this province. The law disfranchised not only Catholics, but also Anglicans, The Puritans made it clear that freedom of worship would now be extended only to Protestants free of either popery or prelacy. Former Governor Stone now raised his insurrectionary army loyal to the proprietary and in 1655 attacked Providence, the principal Puritan settlement in Maryland. The erstwhile governor was crushed by a force of Puritan planters. Stone was imprisoned and several of his followers executed, even though they had been promised their lives before surrender. Calvert, however, proved extremely agile and managed to convince Cromwell and Parliament that religious toleration and hence his own rule should be reestablished. Calvert was permitted to appoint a new governor in 1656, and this governor, Josiah Fendel, joined with the Puritans in agreeing to establish religious toleration, including toleration for Catholics. With the death of Cromwell, Fendel tried to seize the opportunity to liberalize the colony further by casting off proprietary rule and submitting himself to appointment by the Maryland Assembly. The restoration of Charles II, however, ended such hopes for the remainder of the century, and Baltimore moved swiftly to crush this move for independence, appointing Philip Calvert as governor. After the restoration, tensions and grievances accumulated in Maryland, somewhat as they did in Virginia. Falling tobacco prices, the crippling effects of the English Navigation Acts, the raising of the quit rents, each conduced to this effect. In Maryland, too, suffrage was restricted to freeholders in 1670. Furthermore, proprietary rule aggravated the problem of quasi-feudal landholdings. Moreover, anti-Catholic sentiment grew among the Protestant masses and focused both against the proprietor and against religious toleration. Another important grievance The Calverts had tampered with the election to the Burgesses in 1670, and after that, in imitation of Berkeley, suspended elections until 1676. The ambivalence of religious toleration in Maryland may be seen in its treatment of the Quakers. Quakers were people who had no priest, declined to swear oaths, and refused determinedly to fight or bear arms. They were, accordingly, highly unpopular, wherever adoration of the state ran high. They proclaimed, indeed, that they were governed by God's laws and the light within, and not by man's laws. In Maryland, the Quakers were steadily persecuted. 
Forty were publicly whipped within one year. Finally, the Quakers were branded as rebels and traitors, and in a law of 1659, Maryland ordered their expulsion from the colony. The law decreed that any of the vagabonds or idle persons known by the name of Quakers who should again enter the province should be whipped from constable to constable out of it. The proprietary, however, soon ceased to enforce the law, and before long many Quakers were reestablished in the colony. When the founder of the Quakers, George Fox, visited Maryland in 1672, he welcomed the full religious liberty in the province and rejoiced in the number of public officials who had been converts. Maryland's economy and social structure developed in a way similar to neighboring Virginia's. After a brief period of growing subsistence crops of maize, pork, and vegetables, the colony turned to specialization in tobacco. A large tobacco plantation society and economy, in short, prevailed in the whole Chesapeake Bay area, Maryland as well as Virginia. The plantations were located in the fertile river plains of the coastal tidewater region, and trade was oriented to London and Bristol. Again, quasi-feudal land allocation led to large plantations, although small upcountry farms growing subsistence crops and tobacco were more numerous, but not dominant in the colony. Once more, the land was extensively settled and thinly populated. The labor base for the plantations was indentured service and Negro slavery. Perhaps the major economic and social difference between Maryland and Virginia was Maryland's far more feudal structure. The land was kept in a hierarchy of overlordships and tenancies, with the Calverts owning all the land and collecting a quit-rent from all the landholders, while the manor lords of the vast estates given to them by the overlords leased the land to small planters. The small yeoman farmers of the back country could not therefore gain their land outright, but could only stay as tenants, paying quit-rents to the proprietary overlord. Large stretches of tidewater land were held by a few large planters. Although beginning as a rigidly feudal structure, even the Maryland land system could not survive the liberating conditions of America, in particular the enormous abundance of new land and the need to stimulate settlement upon it. By the late 17th century, the land was being increasingly transferred to the settlers, through purchases, the feudal land structure was dissolved into its component parts, and ownership progressively devolved upon the actual users of the land. Feudal land holdings, in short, began to dissolve into the market economy. One of the most important single manifestations of feudal land holdings, especially in a proprietary colony, was the quit-rent, exacted from all landowners as tenants of the proprietary. Originally, Cecilius Calvert had fixed a quit rent of 10 pounds of wheat for each 50 acres, and then of one shilling per 50 acres to be paid in kind. In 1648, Calvert attempted a drastic increase in quit rents, ranging now from one shilling per 50 acres up to 20 shillings per 50 acres, or 10 pounds per manor of 2,000 acres after a term of years. Pressure of the settlers and the need to encourage settlement forced abandonment of this plan, 
and the Maryland Assembly felt the need in 1654 to pass a law upholding the rights in the land of the settlers as well as of the proprietary. After the restoration in England, the cocky Lord Baltimore doubled the quit rent to four shillings per 100 acres, which began to be enforced in 1669. In addition, in an attempt to block the quiet dissolution into the market of feudal tenure, the proprietors imposed in 1660 a fine on any alienation of landed property. Happily, the fine was never thoroughly enforced. The proprietors also imposed on the settlers a purchase price, known as caution money, which considerably restricted the growth of the colony. First levied in 1683 at 200 pounds of tobacco per 100 acres, the purchase price was increased the next year to 240 pounds and by 1717 had reached the sum of 40 shillings per 100 acres. As in Virginia, the chief money was tobacco, and so quit rents were paid in that commodity. As the price of tobacco fell drastically, the assembly began to fix the exchange rate in order to try to keep the tobacco prices above the market rate. Such minimum price control could only create unsold surpluses of tobacco and aggravate conditions further for many tobacco planters as well as for tobacco consumers. However, an incidental boon was to relieve the burden of quit rents on the inhabitants. Thus, in 1662 and again in 1671, the assembly fixed the tobacco price at two pence per pound, while the market price was a penny a pound, thus reducing the quit-rent burden by letting it be paid in arbitrarily overvalued tobacco. The quit-rents, furthermore, were enforced by forfeit of land for non-payment and by making every debt due to Lord Baltimore a prior lien on the land. Where there were no goods to seize, the delinquent tenant was imprisoned. The relative growth of Maryland may be gauged by comparing its population with Virginia's, less than 600 as compared with Virginia's more than 10,000 in 1640. Maryland's population rose to 4,500 in 1650, 8,400 in 1660, and almost 18,000 in 1680, compared with Virginia's 44,000. The Negro, almost all slave, population of Maryland was proportionately greater in 1680, over 1,200 compared with Virginia's 2,000, but then fell behind because of an enormous spurt in Virginia's slave population. By 1,700, there were 3,200 slaves in Maryland, while over 16,000 in Virginia. Slave revolts broke out in Maryland in the early 1680s, in 1688, 1705, 1738, and 1739. A Negro slave in Maryland had the distinction of staging perhaps the first demonstration of nonviolent resistance in America. In 1656, Tony, a slave of one Simon Overzee, ran away and was captured with the aid of bloodhounds. When he ran away and was captured a second time, Tony sat down and refused to rise and work as a slave. Mr. Overzee bound and beat him repeatedly, but Tony still refused to act as a slave. Enraged because his property was refusing to function as property, 
Overzee poured hot lard over Tony and killed him. A court acquitted Overzee of the murder because, after all, Tony had proved to be incorrigible. Volume 1, Chapter 13, The Carolinas In the mid-17th century, many settlers from Virginia, disgruntled by the domination of society by the planter aristocracy or by the Anglican Church, moved down to the southern part of the Virginia Grant on the north of Albemarle Sound in what is now North Carolina. The leader of the first settlement was the Presbyterian Roger Green. Many of these settlers were Quakers. At first, part of Virginia, this settlement, which was also largely devoted to raising tobacco, was relatively independent. Soon, however, it was to feel the heavy hand of a feudal proprietary grant, for the large territory south of Virginia and down to the border of Spanish Florida was still up for seizure. In 1663, the newly installed Charles II granted a feudal proprietary gift of the territory between the 31st and 36th parallels from what is now slightly north of the Florida-Georgia border to the northern boundary of North Carolina, to a proprietorship comprising eight of his favorite courtiers and supporters. This grant whittled away the southern portion of the Virginia grant, which had been bounded by the 34th parallel. The eight proprietors were Sir Anthony Ashley Cooper, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, later First Earl of Shaftesbury, the Governor of Virginia, Sir William Berkeley, his brother, John Lord Berkeley, a high-ranking naval officer, the Earl of Clarendon, Chief Minister to the King, General George Mack, the new Duke of Albemarle, Sir George Carteret, the wealthy Earl of Craven, and Sir John Colleton a wealthy Barbadian planter and slave trader. As in the Virginia Grant, the territory grandiosely extended west to the South Seas. The idea of the grant originated with those proprietors already interested in the Americas. Colleton, William Berkeley, Ashley Cooper, also a Barbadian landholder, and Clarendon, a landowner in Jamaica, John Berkeley acted as agent of the others to persuade the king to make the grant. The grant was known as Carolina, after a previous land grant to the area. In 1629, King Charles I made his first land grant of the area between the 31st and 36th parallels to Sir Robert Heath and called it New Carolina. Heath transferred his grant in 1630 to Samuel Vassal and others, but they failed to settle the Virgin Territory. In 1632, Heath conveyed his rights to Henry Lord Maltraven, who also failed to settle the area. The Duke of Norfolk, heir of Maltraven, Samuel Vassal, and the Cape Fear Company of London and New England merchants, who had settled on the Cape Fear River of North Carolina in 1662 but quickly abandoned the settlement, all now tried to invalidate the Carolina Charter, but the Crown voided their patents in 1665, 
and yet, as late as 1768, the Crown granted the Cox family of New Jersey, to whom had been transferred the Heath title in 1696, 100,000 acres of the land in New York as a payment for their tenuous and dubious claim. Two years later, the eight Carolina proprietors received a new charter, extending their grant to 36 degrees 30 minutes in the north and down to 29 degrees in the south, the latter, however, being academic, as it covered the Spanish settlements of Florida. A party of settlers under the new grant established a settlement at Charlestown, now Charleston, at the mouth of the Ashley and Cooper Rivers in 1670. From the beginning, the proprietors had to govern two distinct and separate settlements, Unruly Albemarle in the north and Charlestown in the south, far more under its control. Moreover, the two settlements were, from the beginning, administered by different governors, though under the same proprietary. Albemarle was under the general aegis of Virginia's Governor Berkeley, one of the proprietors who appointed the governor of the district. From 1691 on, Albemarle Settlement was known as North Carolina and the Charleston area as South Carolina, separately administered, though for some years under a single proprietary rule. The proprietors were given a grant with feudal powers virtually as sweeping as the Maryland gift of privilege, a veritable palatinate. The proprietors were empowered to work their will, with the very important exception that the assembly of the freemen of the colony, or their representatives, had to approve of the laws. Thus, as in the other colonies, the popularly elected assembly originated less as a sovereign branch of government than as a check on the despotic rule of the executive. Even before Charleston was settled, the proprietors in 1665 drew up for the government of the chartered area the Concessions and Agreements, a relatively liberal document granting freedom of conscience, liberal land distribution subject to the inevitable but small quit-rent, as well as an assembly elected by the freemen of the colony. But in 1669, the proprietors, spurred by the ambitious Ashley Cooper, decided to embark on the fantastic project of fastening a feudal rule on the colony that could not be supplanted or dissolved by market processes. For not only were there to be proprietors as feudal lords, but there was to be a fully ordered feudal hierarchy of various degrees of sub-infudiation, This scheme to be imposed on the entire Carolinas was drawn up for the supposedly liberal Shaftesbury by his hired theoretician John Locke and promulgated as the fundamental constitutions of the Carolinas. The contradiction has often been noted between the arch-feudalism of Locke's fundamental constitutions and the individualist, laissez-faire liberalism of his civil government, a liberalism destined to have great intellectual impact on 18th century America. The latter was written not much more than a decade later. This is largely true. 
However, we must also point out that a staunch defense of private property rights will mean laissez-faire liberalism in a new country largely unsaddled by the yoke of feudal land tenure, while an equivalent defense in a country already hag-ridden by feudalism will be, at least in part, an apologia for feudal rather than justly private property and a free society. In short, the crucial issue is the justice of the private property titles that are being defended. Glossing over this question means that the same set of principles may lead to a libertarian society in a non-feudal America, where land titles devolve fairly rapidly upon the actual settlers, but to retention of quasi-feudalism in an England where land titles had been largely feudal. A conservative bulwark for feudalism, when transplanted, can prove to be a radically libertarian call for a free society. The Cooper-Locke scheme envisioned a hereditary feudal nobility that was to preempt two-fifths of the land of the Carolinas, to be sold to it by the proprietary. Each of these nobles was to have his own seigneury of 12,000 acres in each county. Underneath the nobles were the landgraves, each of whom was to have four baronies totaling 48,000 acres. Next to them, the caciques, with two baronies totaling 24,000 acres. Underneath them, the lords of the manor, each with 3,000 to 12,000 acres. And finally, the freeholders, with a 500-acre minimum requirement for voting. The unfree, slaves and indentured servants, of course, did not count enough to be worthy of mention in the hierarchical structure. The eight proprietors were to constitute a supreme palatine court, with each proprietor also operating a court of his own. The palatine court was to appoint the governor and exert sovereign rule over the colony. The assembly was to be limited to the governor the hereditary nobility, and the deputies, the last restricted to holders of 500-acre freeholds. All fishing and mineral rights were to be retained in the ownership of the proprietors. Religious freedom was to be guaranteed, a long-standing conviction of locks, even for Quakers, Jews, and slaves. But the Church of England was to be established by the government, with churches to be built and the ministers paid by the state, But although Locke did not agree with the establishment of the Church of England, he was perhaps partially compensated for this disappointment by receiving the title of Landgrave. It was, however, also decreed that no non-theist could hold public office or even have the protection of the law. Another libertarian provision was the guarantee of trial by jury. Fortunately for the Carolinas, the proprietors were never able to persuade the assembly to accept this scheme. As a consequence, the gravest threat of permanent feudalism in English America was nipped in the bud. Twenty-six landgraves and thirteen caciques were created, but they mostly expired with the original holder and did not become hereditary. Furthermore, no manor was ever created, no large seigneury or barony was established. We have seen that by the mid-1670s, the southern colonies were becoming ripe for revolution. 
accumulated grievances in Virginia and Maryland included English restrictions on tobacco, aggravated dictatorial rule by the governor in Virginia, as well as growing Indian troubles, and also attempts to impose feudalism and Protestant anti-Catholicism in Maryland. But the Carolinas, small though they yet were, did not need a lengthy incubation for serious rebellion. Indeed, with the attempt to impose an elaborate feudal structure upon the Carolinas, the new colony was ripe for rebellion almost immediately. This was particularly true of North Carolina, where an unusually independent group of small farmers exercised religious toleration, even for Quakers. Unburdened by feudal planters or a theocratic church, they were suddenly confronted with an attempt by a new English ruler to fasten upon them the very conditions for which they had left the Virginia settlement. North Carolina, which had a population of about a thousand in 1660, grew rapidly. Its free atmosphere and complete religious freedom, attracting religious sects and great admixtures of ethnic groups, Germans, French, Swiss, Scots, and Moravians. By the 1670s, its population totaled about 4,000, while New South Carolina was still well under 1,000. The English navigation laws and restrictions on tobacco occasioned additional grievances among the tobacco-growing North Carolinian settlers. The free spirit of the North Carolina settlers was further reinforced by the failure of land grants for large plantations to take root there. This was a colony of small farmers who had largely settled there to assure their independence. It had no large town or city. The largest town was Edenton. That could serve as a convenient seat for governmental rule. The earliest arrivals either settled freely on the land or purchased it from Indian chiefs. The proprietary, anxious to make money by encouraging rapid settlement, adopted the equivalent of the Virginia headright system, first granting a hundred acres to each settler, plus fifty acres of land for each person the settler brought over to the colony. By the 1680s, the headright was sixty acres for each settler and sixty for each servant brought over. Each servant was also to receive a hundred acres of land on expiration of his term of service. This system, while subject to grave abuses, through accumulation of head rights resulting in arbitrarily large land grants, at least assured a wide distribution of land in the colony. The land from the first was subject to restrictive conditions and charges, including a quit rent of half a penny per acre to the proprietor, but at least no initial purchase price was required to the grantee. Unfortunately, one-eleventh of each division of land was to be reserved to the proprietors. In the early 18th century, the Virginia planter William Byrd was to write of the North Carolinians that they treat their governors with all the excesses of freedom and familiarity. They are of the opinion that rulers would be apt to grow insolent if they grow rich and for that reason take care to keep them poorer. Another shock to visitors was the absence of churches. Apparently, the North Carolinians preferred to practice their religion in private. The great English founder of the Quakers, 
George Fox, visiting Albemarle in 1672, discovered to his chagrin that he could find no place of worship in all the colony. And some years later, William Byrd was again stunned to find that this is the only metropolis in the Christian or Mohammedan world where there is neither church, chapel, mosque, synagogue, or any other place of public worship of any sect or religion whatsoever. Volume 1, Chapter 14, The Aftermath of Bacon's Rebellion in the Other Southern Colonies. As Bacon's rebellion entered its radical phase, Bacon tried to spread the revolutionary movement to the neighboring colonies, each of which had severe and often similar grievances against its government and the crown. At the height of Bacon's rebellion, in September 1676, 60 persons, led by William Davies and John Pate, assembled in Calvert County, Maryland, to declare their opposition to crushing taxation and to Lord Baltimore's disfranchisement of the freemen. They also declared their refusal to swear to a new loyalty oath proposed by the proprietor. They refused to obey the governor's order to disband on promise to consider their grievances in the next assembly, pointing out that the manipulated assembly no longer represented the people. But the death of Bacon caused the quick collapse of the embryo Davies-Pate rebellion, and Davies and Pate were hanged after being denounced as traitors. The governor observed with satisfaction that the people were now suitably terrified. The threat was over, but the governor wrote in warning to Lord Baltimore that never had a people been more replete with malignancy and frenzy. Apparently, the Maryland regime had had a close call. The result increased the bitterness in the colony against the proprietor. However, the struggle against the oppression of the feudal proprietary in Maryland had not been crushed. The veteran rebel, Josiah Fendall of Charles County, elected to the assembly but barred from his seat for his rebellious activities in 1660, now took up the libertarian torch. In particular, Fendall led a movement against high taxes and quit rents imposed by the proprietor. Fendall also championed freedom of speech, a rarity in that era. Philip Calvert denounced Fendall for telling the people they were fools to pay taxes and for allegedly saying that now nothing was treason, a man might say anything. Assisting Fendall were Thomas Gerard, a veteran rebel and a Catholic, and John Coode, an ex-Catholic and ex-clergyman, in a welcome display of religious amity. In 1681, Lord Baltimore had a law passed forbidding the dissemination of false news, that is, news aiming to stir up unrest and rebellion, in an attempt to hamper the Fendel movement. Finally, in the same year, a Fendel-Coode plan for rebellion was betrayed and the leaders imprisoned. The jury, drawn necessarily from the populace, favored the defendants, whereas the judges, being appointees of the proprietor, were hostile. Fendel was convicted, fined heavily, and exiled forever from the province. Coode, an assemblyman, won acquittal. Lord Baltimore denounced Fendel and Coode as rank Baconist, and wrote afterwards to a friend that, 
Had these leaders not been secured in time, you would have heard of another Bacon. North Carolina, Albemarle, was also in a rebellious frame of mind in the mid-1670s. Most grievous was the Navigation Act of 1673, which placed a prohibitory tax of one penny per pound on all inter-colonial trading of tobacco. The tobacco farmers of North Carolina, growing over one million pounds of tobacco a year, were heavily dependent on New England shipping for exporting their tobacco, and in turn for importing other products needed by the Carolinians. The tax crippled Carolinian trade, and the result was continual evasion and sporadic attempts by the government to crack down on the now illegal trade. Another important grievance was the feudal quit-rent that the proprietary tried to extract from the North Carolinian landholders. At first, land grants were made there at a relatively small quit-rent of two shillings per 100 acres, the usual quit-rent rate in Virginia. Then in the 1660s, the proprietary tried to double the imposed quit-rent to one-half penny per acre, payable in specie. After vigorous protest, the proprietary in the Great Deed of 1668 retained the quit-rent at the former rate. However, the proprietary tried again to raise the quit-rent, this time to quadruple the rate to one penny per acre. Rumors, indeed, circulated about an eventual sixpence per acre levy. Attempts, eventually abandoned, to enforce the quadrupled quit-rents fanned the flames of rebellion. To encourage settlement, the Assembly of 1669 limited land grants to 660 acres, but this limitation did not apply to land given out by the proprietors directly. Land was to be subject to forfeit if not worked by the grantees within six months. Trouble began to come to a head in Albemarle upon the passage of the Crippling Navigation Act of 1673. With the colonists determined to avoid payment of the tax, Governor uh, Peter Carteret resigned and fled the colony, and John Jenkins remained as acting governor. Jenkins, a pre-charter settler of Albemarle, belonged to the popular opposition to the proprietary rule, opposition led by wealthy planter George Durant, one of the founders of the original settlement. Upon his assumption of office, Jenkins heroically determined not to enforce the Navigation Act upon the colony, in short, to occupy the post of ruler in order to diminish the extent of his rule. Jenkins simply ignored the order of the king to appoint collectors of customs with the duty of enforcing the hated levy. Finally, in two years, in 1675, the king appointed a collector for the colony. Until the arrival of the collector, Governor Jenkins could appoint a temporary collector, and so he chose his closest associate, Valentine Byrd, who again simply failed to enforce the law. The Durant-Jenkins forces though backed strongly by the bulk of the Albemarle people, were opposed by a faction led by the Speaker of the Assembly, Thomas East Church, and by Thomas Miller. 
when East Church and Miller moved to appeal to England for enforcement of the Navigation Act, Jenkins moved swiftly to crush the counter-revolution by jailing Miller for treasonable utterances and dissolving the East Church-controlled assembly. The assembly, however, deposed and summarily imprisoned Jenkins, and East Church went to England to induce the proprietary to crack down on the rebellious and independent colony. There he was joined by Miller, freed by the intervention of Sir William Berkeley. Thus, when Bacon's rebellion broke out in 1676, Albemarle was fortunate enough to be without a governor, and the hated Navigation Act was still not being enforced. This happy state was not to last for long, however, for the proprietors proceeded to select the two leaders of the pro-Navigation Act clique as the new rulers of the colony. East Church as governor and Miller as secretary and collector of the customs. On the way to America in 1677, the two men stopped in the West Indies. East Church decided to stay for a while to get married and sent Miller on to North Carolina to act as governor in his stead. Miller quickly proceeded to use his double power with predictable ruthlessness. He zealously tried to suppress the illegal tobacco trade and also to enforce the higher quit rents. In addition, Miller interfered with elections and arbitrarily set a price on the head of many prominent leaders of the province. On the always convenient pretext of defense against the Indians, Miller organized a military guard that terrorized Albemarle and imposed a heavy debt on the struggling colony. With Miller now added to the provocation of the Navigation Act and other grievances, North Carolina was truly ripe for rebellion. George Durant had fearlessly threatened the proprietors with revolt upon hearing of East Church's appointment. The revolutionary ferment was stirred further by the example of Bacon's rebellion in neighboring Virginia, by the influx of rebellious Baconian refugees from that colony, and by the influence in Albemarle of former Governor William Drummond, one of the Baconian leaders. Furthermore, the popular opposition had another dynamic leader in John Culpepper, Surveyor General of Carolina, who had years ago been arrested in South Carolina for sedition and rebellion and had escaped north to avoid the hangman. Arriving in Albemarle, he joined Durant in the opposition and called upon the people to resist the enforcement of the Navigation Act. The revolution, in short, needed but a spark to be ignited into flame. It found its spark in December 1677, when a New England merchantman arrived in Albemarle with a cargo of supplies. Miller arrested the skipper, who promised to leave at once and not return. When the North Carolinians tried to persuade the master of the cargo to stay, Miller arrested the eminent George Durant on the charge of treason. This tyrannical act touched off the rebellion, and Culpepper, Valentine Byrd, and their men arrested the governor and his council and called free elections for a new assembly. The elections revealed the overwhelming popular support for the rebellion, and the newly elected assembly appointed a council and chose John Culpepper as governor and collector of the customs. The assembly proceeded to indict Miller, appoint new justices in the colony, and warn East Church, hurrying to the American mainland to stay out of Albemarle.
Culpepper and his allies governed Albemarle for a period of two years. Culpepper justified his actions in a manifesto charging Miller with tyranny and corruption. The new governor was clearly in a difficult spot. With Virginia again tightly under the rule of the Berkeleyan oligarchy and with the rebellion in Maryland a failure, Culpepper's tiny colony could hardly hold out in independence indefinitely against the might of England. Culpepper could hardly take the route of ultimate independence, which Bacon had begun to envision before his death. An immediate threat from Virginia loomed when Governor Eastchurch arrived and prepared to lead a military force against the colony. Eastchurch's death, however, ended that menace. Culpepper felt that he had to move quickly. Going to England, he pleaded his case there in conflict with Miller, who had escaped from prison in Albemarle. Culpepper convinced the proprietors of the rightness of his case, but the crown, more sensitive to rebellion, arrested Culpepper for treason. Culpepper was defended by the leading Carolina proprietor, the Earl of Shaftesbury, Lord Ashley Cooper, and was acquitted, but he had been permanently deposed from power. Miller was deposed and Durant freed by the proprietors, but the whole system against which the rebellion had protested, including the attempt to levy a quit-rent of a penny an acre, remained intact. For a few years, affairs proceeded smoothly, as the newly appointed governor, Seth Sothel, who had bought the Earl of Clarendon's one-eighth share of Carolina, was captured on his way to America by pirates and held captive for three years. In the interim, the Durant party remained in control with Jenkins selected by the council as acting governor, but now meekly enforcing the British regulations. Attempts by Miller and his associates to stir up counter-revolution met with no success. In 1683, however, the supposedly moderate Sothel was released from captivity, and the North Carolinians were soon to find that if they had been chastised with whips, they were now to be chastised with scorpions. For Sothel proceeded to terrorize and plunder the colony without mercy. One of his favorite devices was to seize any property that he fancied, and then to imprison any owner who had the temerity to object. A typical incident. When two ships arrived from the West Indies, Sothel seized their perfectly legitimate captains as pirates and confiscated their property. One of the captains died in prison from maltreatment. Before death, the captain made a will naming as executor of his estate one of the leading men of the Albemarle colony, Thomas Pollock. Governor Sothel, however, refused to probate the will and seized the dead man's property himself. When Pollock threatened to tell the story to England, Sotho imprisoned Pollock as well. The chain of imprisonments continued to lengthen. When George Durant protested against proceedings as unlawful, Sotho immediately jailed Durant and confiscated his entire estate. Sotho withheld and pocketed the salaries of subordinate officials and accepted bribes from criminals. To make the cup of the Carolinians still more bitter, Virginia passed a law in 1679 prohibiting any importation of Carolina tobacco.
The motives for the law were twofold, to stifle the competition of Albemarle tobacco and to assert an irredentist Virginia territorial claim to sovereignty over Albemarle. This crippled Albemarle's tobacco still further and left it even more dependent on the illegal smuggling to New England. Moreover, the Virginians incited border Indians to make war upon the Albemarle settlers. Volume 1, Chapter 15, The Glorious Revolution and Its Aftermath Maryland 1688 was the year of the Glorious Revolution in England, the year when Great Britain experienced the last of its great political upheavals of the turbulent 17th century. The Stuart King, the Catholic James II, was deposed in that year, and the monarchy secured to the impeccably Protestant William and Mary of Orange. This year of upheaval signaled the troubled and oppressed colonies to seize the opportunity of Britain's distraction at home to try to secure their own freedom. By ironic coincidence, Lord Baltimore sent William Joseph as deputy governor to run the Maryland colony in late 1688, and Joseph opened the assembly only nine days after James II had been deposed by William and Mary. In his opening address, delivered considerably before news of the Glorious Revolution reached America, Joseph proved himself to be an extreme advocate of divine and feudal right to rule. He declared, The power by which we are assembled here is undoubtedly derived from God to the king and from the king to his excellency, the Lord Proprietary, and from his said lordship to us. When news came of the change of regimes in England, People angrily remembered that Joseph had, in the fall of 1688, insisted on the colonies giving thanks for the birth of a Catholic heir to the throne. Agitation also rose in the colony because Lord Baltimore's courier, coming to order the colony to proclaim allegiance to William and Mary, died en route and left Maryland in unresolved ferment. All the latent anti-Catholicism of the Protestant masses in the colony rose to the surface, aided by the fact that the proprietor was Catholic and the privileged oligarchy in Maryland largely so. The appointed council, for example, had a Catholic majority. Was a Catholic plot underway? Would the proprietary refuse to acknowledge William and Mary? and joined James II in his plans for war against his successor. James soon landed in Ireland with French troops, and the colonist well remembered that James's proconsul in Ireland was Richard Talbot, Duke of Tyrconnell, a relative and close friend of Lord Baltimore. Rumors swept all the American colonies, not only Maryland. The French colonies were about to march on the English colonies in alliance with James. Catholic subversives were planning to help them, and Catholics and Indians were conspiring together to massacre Protestants. It is understandable that the agitation would be most severe in Maryland, where the proprietor was Catholic and the bulk of the people Protestant. 
In April 1689, there was formed an association in arms for the defense of the Protestant religion and for asserting the right of King William and Queen Mary to the province of Maryland and all the English dominions. Leading the association was John Coode, the old revolutionary who had been freed for his part in the Fendel Revolt of 1681. Coode had married a daughter of his old confrere, Thomas Gerard. Other leaders included many eminent men in the colony. Nehemiah Blackiston, collector of the customs, another son-in-law of Gerard, Kenelm Cheseldine, speaker of the House of Burgesses, and Colonel Henry Fowles of the militia. When rumors spread that the Catholics were arming themselves in the state house at St. Mary's, Coode, at the head of several hundred armed men, marched on the capital. On August 1, Joseph and the council surrendered to the Coode rebels. Coode and the assembly petitioned William and Mary to end the proprietary regime, and finally, in 1691, the new king agreed. Coode and his followers engaged in violent anti-Catholic propaganda in the course of their revolutionary agitation. However, Coode's close association with Catholics and his ancient opposition to the proprietary lead to the conclusion that, at least on Coode's part, the anti-Catholic agitation was but a convenient point d'appui for his aim of ridding Maryland of the tyrannical and feudal proprietary. In Coode's own history of the rebellion, he stressed the injustice and tyranny under which we groan, the absolute authority exercised over us in the seizure of their persons, forfeiture and loss of their goods. While the Coude Rebellion succeeded in overturning the proprietary, the success was only temporary. Aside from the fact that the structure of land tenure remained the same, the proprietor was only displaced for a short period of years. When the third Lord Baltimore died in 1715, the Crown granted the proprietorship once again to the Baltimore family, which had converted from Catholic to Protestant. In the meanwhile, the Crown continued to turn over part of the collected quit-rents to the proprietary. What did change was the religious complexion of the government and society in Maryland, the old tradition of religious toleration in Maryland was abandoned. Taxes immediately began to be levied in 1692 for the establishment of the Anglican Church, and any further immigration of Catholics into the colony was prohibited under severe penalties. Furthermore, the public celebration of the Mass was outlawed, the capital city was summarily shifted from St. Mary's, the center of Catholicism in the colony, to Protestant Providence, now renamed Annapolis. So much was St. Mary's strictly a governmental city that it now rapidly diminished to the virtual status of a ghost town. Only a small minority of the colony were Anglicans. The Puritans Leaders in the rebellion against the proprietary were naturally chagrined to be confronted with an established church, but they were appeased when assured in 1702 of freedom of worship, which extended even to Quakers. This limited toleration was established 
despite the strenuous efforts of the head of the Anglican Church in Maryland, Dr. Thomas Bray. Bray had persuaded the assembly to pass a bill outlawing all forms of worship but the Anglican form in the colony, but fortunately this extreme provision was disallowed by the crown. Also irritating was the fact that the Anglican ministers were paid by a new poll tax, which was most heavy on the poor. The spirit of crown toleration, however, did not spread to the Catholics, against whom William pursued his long-time vendetta. The spirit of the government of the time may be seen from a 1704 incident in which two Catholic priests were arrested for saying Mass. They were refused the benefit of counsel. The chapel of St. Mary's, venerated by Catholics as the first church in Maryland, was closed down as scandalous and offensive to the government, and Governor John Seymour delivered to the priest the following diatribe. It is the unhappy temper of you and all your tribe to grow insolent upon civility and never know how to use it. If the necessary laws that are made were let loose, they are sufficient to crush you, and which, if your arrogant principles have not blinded you, you must need to dread. You might, methinks, be content to live quietly as you may, and let the exercise of your superstitious vanities be confined to yourselves, without proclaiming them at public times and in public places, unless you expect by your gaudy shows and serpentine policy to amuse the multitude and beguile the unthinking weakest part of them, an act of deceit well known to be amongst you. In plain and few words, if you intend to live here, let me hear no more of these things. For if I do, be assured I'll chastise you. I'll remove the evil by sending you where you will be dealt with as you deserve. Pray take notice, I am an English Protestant gentleman and can never equivocate. The House of Delegates was so pleased by this tirade that they formally commended the governor for protecting Her Majesty's Protestant subjects here against the insolence and growth of popery. Anti-Catholic hysteria surged through England and the colonies in the course of a lengthy war waged by England against Catholic France and of attempts by the Stuart pretender to return to the throne. The crackdown on Catholics was pursued zealously in Maryland. No Catholic was permitted to buy real estate or to practice as a lawyer. Loyalty oaths were to be forced upon all Catholics, and any who refused would be incapable of inheriting land or holding office. The oaths were deliberately worded in such a way that no conscientious Catholic could swear to them. The test oath, as required by an act of 1699, compelled the oath-taker to swear, I do believe that in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper there is not any transubstantiation, and that the invocation or adoration of the Virgin Mary or any other saints and the sacrifice of the Mass as they are now used in the Church of Rome are superstitious and idolatrous. If a Catholic widow had married a Protestant, her children could be forcibly seized by the state and placed under Protestant guardians. Catholics were also assessed at rates for emergency tax levies double those of everyone else. 
A special duty was also levied on all Irish Papist servants coming into the colony. The duty was doubled in 1717. Catholic priests were in 1698 even prevented by proclamation of the governor, as urged by the House of Delegates, from visiting the sick and dying during a plague. The proclamation ranted, Several popish priests and zealous papists make it their constant business, under pretense of visiting the sick, to seduce, delude, and persuade divers of his majesty's good Protestant subjects to the Romish faith, by which means sundry have been withdrawn from the Protestant religion, by law established, and from the due and natural obedience they owe to his said majesty and laws, whereby the party, so reconciled and withdrawn, as well as their procurers and counselors, have justly incurred the penalty and forfeitures of high treason. Not only were the priests and their possible dying converts subject to severe penalty, but also anyone who knew of such offenses and did not inform the authorities. In 1704, a truly comprehensive act was passed for the persecution of Catholics, Catholics were prohibited from practicing their religion and priests from exercising their office. A reward of a hundred pounds was offered to any informer giving evidence against a priest saying mass, and the penalty for a convicted priest was life imprisonment. It was life imprisonment as well for any Catholic found guilty of running a school or educating a child. Children were encouraged to inform on their parents to the end that the Protestant children of popish parents may not want of fitting maintenance, be it enacted that if any such parent in order to the compelling such Protestant child to change religion shall refuse to allow such child a fitting maintenance suitable to the decree and ability of such parent, then upon complaint thereof it shall be lawful to make such order. Fortunately, however, Queen Anne, less intolerant than her Anglican minions in Maryland, decided to allow private family practice of the Catholic religion. As a result, Catholic services remained partially underground by being held in family chapels on planters' estates with other Catholic families of the area invited as guests. Benedict Calvert, the fourth Lord Baltimore, had taken the precaution of converting to the Protestant faith. And so, when his father and he both died in 1715, the Calverts were handed back the proprietary title, which now went to Charles Calvert, 5th Lord Baltimore. The resumption of the now Protestant proprietary by no means slackened the pace of persecution. The Anglicans were worried about continuing conversions from their faith, and Governor John Hart ordered the surveillance of Catholic priests. Any suspected of visiting the homes of dying persons were forced to take the test oath. Refusal to swear to the test oath meant imprisonment. In 1716, a law decreed that any officeholder caught in any popish assembly and participating in the celebration of the Mass would forfeit his office. And finally, in 1718, the Catholics of Maryland were disfranchised through making the test oath a requirement for voting. One amusing byproduct of the anti-Catholic hysteria among the Maryland Anglicans 
was the apparent existence of a plot by Governor Hart and some leading Anglican clergymen to spread the rumor that young Lord Baltimore and his guardian, Lord Guilford, were secret Catholics. They thereby hoped to persuade the crown to turn the proprietary over to Hart himself. The man who reported the plot to the Bishop of London was himself a leading Anglican minister in the colony, the Reverend Jacob Henderson. Henderson, in turn, was accused of being soft on Catholics, an accusation he indignantly denied. The oppressive poll tax for support of the newly established Anglican Church was made payable in a fixed rate in tobacco, which was then the medium of exchange in Maryland. Gresham's law operated here as in currency, and since the law did not specify the quality of tobacco, payment was always made in the very poorest and most unmarketable grades. As a result, Maryland's established clergymen were continually impoverished, and only the poorest quality of them settled in the colony. The Carolinas The North Carolinians, inspired by the glorious revolution, seized the opportunity to rid themselves once and for all of the tyranny of Seth Sothel. An uprising in 1689, led by Thomas Pollock, and other leading colonists resulted in the arrest of Sothel and his banishment from the province for a year. Sothel was removed permanently from the governorship. He then hied himself to the sister colony of South Carolina, where he was also one-eighth proprietor. The proprietary appointed Colonel Philip Ludwell, the new governor of Albemarle, now called North Carolina. Ludwell, Virginia's Leading Berkeleyan was instructed to redress the grievances of the colonists arising from the Saltho regime. Captain John Gibbs, who had apparently been chosen by the council as governor to succeed Saltho, tried to maintain the revolutionary impetus and in 1690 launched an armed rebellion against Ludwell. But the conciliatory policy had done its work, and Gibbs's rebellion lacked popular support. Gibbs and his band were defeated and fled to Virginia. Gibbs and Ludwell both went to London to put their cases before the proprietary, and Gibbs, as might have been expected, was repudiated. Though growing rapidly, South Carolina had a population of something over 3,100 in 1690, still by far the smallest of the southern colonies. This colony, too, was racked by strife and accumulated grievances. Like its fellow colony, Albemarle, Charleston Colony suffered from the crippling restrictions on its tobacco and intercoastal trade inflicted by the Navigation Acts. It also bitterly resisted repeated attempts by the proprietors, if anything more determined than in Albemarle, for less settler resistance was expected farther south, to impose Shaftbury's grandiose feudal proposals on the colony. In addition, South Carolina suffered from the demand that quit rents be paid at the far higher rate in coin instead of in commodities. In 1682, the proprietary suddenly decreed that all quit rents must be paid in English money, thus eliminating the option to pay in commodities, and it tightened enforcement of the levy. The aroused assembly protested that the people had been extremely hard 
dealt with, but the proprietors retorted that their regulations had been designed to counteract those who instilled fancies into the heads of the people in order to avoid payment of quitrents. Further problems were caused by the practice of kidnapping Indians to use for slaves and thus make economically viable the tobacco plantations, a procedure that naturally stimulated retaliatory attacks by the Indians. Conflicts unique to this colony arose from the unwillingness of the English settlers to allow the substantial number of new Huguenot immigrants to vote and from a fear of a Spanish invasion into what the Spaniards regarded as their imperial territory. The Huguenots were French Protestant refugees from the revocation of the Edict of Nantes in 1685. James Colleton, a brother of one of the proprietors and given 48,000 acres in the colony, arrived in South Carolina to become governor in 1687. He immediately alienated the colonists by preventing them from sailing on an expedition of war against the Spanish headquarters at St. Augustine, Florida. Colleton came to the county determined to impose his will, and particularly to stop the widespread evasion of the hated navigation laws and quit rents. He insisted on enforcing these edicts to the hilt, and even on attempting to collect arrears of quit rents. Particularly bitter for the colonists was Colleton's expulsion, upon arriving at the colony, of all the members of the assembly who opposed the restrictive laws and taxes. All this incurred the growing rage and resentment of the colony and especially of the assembly. Finally, in 1689, the alarmed proprietors instructed Colleton to suspend all further sessions of the legislature. This tyrannical act further fanned the flames of incipient rebellion, spurred by the fact that the South Carolinian laws had to be renewed every two years to remain in effect, and that a biennial term was now expiring. The final straw occurred in the spring of 1690, when Colleton imposed the despotism of martial law upon the colony. This embraced such actions as imposing a very heavy fine on a minister for delivering a sermon displeasing to the government. In addition, Colleton used his powers of martial law to grant himself a privileged monopoly of trade with the Indians. Revolution, as we have pointed out, is a time of rapid change, and this often means sharp changes in a person's values and his views of institutions. Seth Sothel, the former governor of North Carolina, who was deposed the year before, had arrived in South Carolina to see a similar revolutionary process brewing against the tyranny of the governor in Charleston. Sothel had apparently learned his lesson. His views changed, and he became the leader of the people's opposition to Colleton. When Colleton inflicted the final act of repression in imposing martial law, Sothel led a revolutionary coup against the governor. Declaring himself governor, Sothel reconvened the suppressed assembly and banished Colleton from the colony. Sothel's action was ignited by a petition signed by over 400 of the leading citizens. The petition detailed the grievances of the people of the colony including 
The attempts to impose several variants of proposals found in Locke's fundamental constitutions, the imposition of martial law, the governor's monopolization of the Indian trade, arbitrary arrest, expulsion for any excess of freedom of speech, even by a counselor, and attempts to enforce higher quit rents. Salto was allowed to continue his rule for only one year. In the fall of 1691, the proprietors ousted Salto from office and charged him with high treason. Although Salto was a one-eighth proprietor of the colony, it was also true that he had organized a revolution against the authority appointed by the proprietary as a whole. Salto fled back to Albemarle, where his term of banishment was over and where he soon died in poverty and obscurity. Especially notable in Sothel's brief term in office was his stimulating the assembly to pass significantly liberalizing laws. In particular, the French, Swiss, and other non-English immigrants were granted rights equal to those of the English settlers, and severe punishment was decreed for anyone who killed a slave. Other new laws, on the other hand, were repressive, requiring licenses of all retailers of liquor, regulating ships, pilots, and regulating the Indian trade. The proprietors on removing Salto unfortunately also nullified the laws of his administration. The ultimate failure of the revolution did not, of course, end the grievances underlying the unrest in the Carolinas. Grudgingly, the proprietary finally issued a general amnesty. For a while, the proprietary tried the unsuccessful experiment of uniting the two Carolinas, appointing Philip Ludwell as governor of both colonies. The proprietors tried to force the North Carolinian colonists to send their representatives to the distant Charleston Assembly. This plan was quickly abandoned and each of the Carolinas was governed by a deputy governor of its own, with the main governor stationed in South Carolina. Each colony also retained its own assembly, and therefore essentially its own separate government. As in other liberalizing moves, the proprietors promised to abandon their attempts to impose the dicta contained in the Shaftesbury Locke Fundamental Constitutions. It was now acknowledged that the Carolinas were to be governed by the original charter. In addition, the proprietary removed all obstacles to freedom of trade with the Indians. It also vetoed an act of the Ludwell administration that harassed the rural Huguenots by requiring a uniform hour for all Sunday church services in the colony. Another constructive measure during the Ludwell term was that permitting quit rents to be paid in commodities. John Archdale, an English Quaker, who had become one of the eight proprietors by purchasing the share of Sir John Berkeley, became governor of the Carolinas in 1695. He assumed office with the intent of allaying the grievances of the colonies. His term lasted for only one year, but that year saw a significant liberalization in the Carolina colonies. In the South, peace was made with the Indians, in particular the practice of whites kidnapping and enslaving the natives was ended. Furthermore, the quit-rent burden was significantly lightened, 
including cessation of the attempt to collect the arrears. From the 1690s on, the main grievance concerning the quit-rent had been the threat hanging over the colonists from the huge arrears of uncollected claims. Also, quit-rents were made payable in commodities as well as in money. From that point on, the quit-rent of one penny per acre was scarcely enforced in the proprietary colony, and the expected revenue accruing to the proprietary dwindled to a negligible sum, not nearly enough to pay the expenses of the local officials. Furthermore, Archdale reshuffled the South Carolina Council to give the dissenters the majority, and also decreed that with rare exceptions the proprietors could not annul laws without the Assembly's consent. The liberal reforms continued the following year, during the administration of Archdale's successor, the dissenter Joseph Blake, also a one-eighth proprietor. Blake's Act of 1697 admitted into full civil rights the important Huguenot population of South Carolina, as well as other aliens, and guaranteed religious liberty to all Christians except Catholics. This was an important reform in a colony where the large majority of people were dissenters of one hue or another from the Church of England. Not until 1704, however, were the alien-born permitted to vote in South Carolina. The Archdale and Blake reforms hardly eliminated the basic conflicts in the colony. Thus, in 1698, the proprietary reneged on its promise, given in the wake of the Sotho rebellion against Colleton, to forget about the fundamental constitutions and a new variant of this thoroughly disliked proposal was introduced again and continued to be introduced until 1705. In 1699, indeed, the South Carolina Assembly saw fit to address a list of grievances to the proprietary. The list included violations of the requirement of consent to all laws by the Assembly and the accumulation of vast landed estates in the hands of a few privileged persons. The Assembly asked that no land tract be granted over the size of 1,000 acres. Even the King's Collector of Customs, the Tory Edward Randolph, warned the Crown in 1699 that there are but few settled inhabitants in this province, the Lord's proprietors having taken up vast tracts for their own use, where the land is most commodious for settlement, which prevents peopling the place. The Assembly also objected strongly to the English tariff on South Carolina rice and naval stores, turpentine, pitch, tar, but, as in the case of the other grievances, to no effect. A major grievance soon became Randolph himself, who had arrived in 1699 to enforce vigorously the neglected navigation laws and the suppression of popular but illegal trade. Randolph wrote to the crown of his horror at the pervasive commerce, including trade with the Dutch, all with simply no regard to the acts of trade. The institution of royal admiralty courts appointed by the crown for vigorous enforcement also angered the colonists greatly. Indeed, the South Carolina Assembly, under severe pressure by the people, tried to pass laws in 1700 and 1701, all of course vetoed, to restrict the activities of the royal custom officials. 
In North Carolina, the Archdale reforms also lowered the quit rents. Ludwell had attempted to do so, but had for his efforts been angrily removed from the office by the proprietary. Soon attempts to collect a penny per acre were abandoned, and the rate came to be set generally at two shillings per one hundred acres. Soon attempts to collect a penny per acre were abandoned, and the rate came to be set generally at two shillings per hundred acres, with payment accepted in commodities. For some land, the quit rents were far less. Quit rents continued to be collected, at least partially, for the remainder of the proprietary term. Enforcement, however, was often evaded, and the quit rents were generally absorbed in salaries to local officials, so that the return to the proprietors was small. From their beginning in the mid-17th century, the Carolina counties had been conspicuous and notable havens of religious liberty. Here they contrasted to other American colonies, including their Spanish neighbors to the south. North Carolina, indeed, had been founded by independent settlers escaping religious and political discrimination in Virginia. The proprietary had announced from the first its intention to establish the Church of England in the Carolinas, but driven by desire to profit by encouraging settlers in the colony, had never put this plan into effect. Into this relatively free haven, then, came numerous dissenting groups, including the much-persecuted Quakers and Huguenots, and the Anglicans were in a considerable minority. In fact, even the Anglicans in South Carolina believed strongly in self-government on a congregational level and insisted eventually on appointing their own ministers. In this, they were influenced by the decentralizing spirit of the Presbyterian majority of the colony. And as for North Carolina, with its preponderance of Quakers, there had not even been a single Anglican church or priest in the colony. So little was there of an Anglican establishment in the Carolinas. But this happy condition, this approach to separation of church and state, was not destined to last. Instead, at the turn of the 18th century, the Anglican Old Guard moved purposefully and aggressively to fasten a state church upon the only southern colonies that had yet escaped this incubus. This was a particularly bitter pill for the dissenting majority that had enjoyed religious freedom. The Anglican aggression was ignited by events in England where, about 1700, a renewed wave of Anglican repression under Queen Anne's regime was launched against the dissenters. The peace accord with the dissenters that had emerged from the Glorious Revolution and been embodied in the Toleration Act of 1689 was now rudely shattered. One of the leaders of a campaign dedicated to the extermination of the dissenters within one generation was Lord Granville, who also happened to be the Palatine of Carolina, that proprietor entrusted with colonial affairs. In 1704, Lord Granville instructed the new governor of South Carolina, Sir Nathaniel Johnson, a veteran supporter of the Stuarts and the Colleton regime, to secure the establishment of the church in the Carolinas. Johnson was confronted in South Carolina with an assembly majority of dissenters. 
To drive through an establishment bill, therefore, he had to resort to trickery and fraud. First, very early in the 1704 session, when many members were absent, Johnson rushed through an act excluding all non-Anglicans from the assembly. This measure was at least temporarily needed in order to drive through an establishment bill without fear of the dissenter majority, and the latter was accomplished by the fall of 1704. The bill established the Anglican Church and imposed taxation on the public for its support. Many Anglicans opposed this tyrannical seizure. One, the Reverend Edward Marston, was deprived of his salary, deposed from his office, and almost arrested by the new assembly. The understandably bitter dissenting colonist appealed the tyrannical law to the proprietor, who, of course, rejected the appeal. But the Crown and the Board of Trade were persuaded to nullify the two laws. The Crown did not want an establishment so severe on the rights of dissenters that the growth and the commerce of the colony with England would be repressed. Even the Bishop of London, whose diocese included the Carolinas, sided with the protesting colonists. The act of establishment, however, was disallowed because it was too liberal. It allowed the layman of a parish to remove a minister, thus striking at the principle of hierarchical control of the church by the state. If both edicts of the crown had been immediately obeyed, the assembly, now including a dissenting majority, would have never passed a new act establishing the Anglican church. Hence, Governor Johnson's new assembly of 1706, completely excluding dissenters, rushed through a new establishment act without the provision for lay removal of ministers. Lay members, however, were permitted to select their ministers. Tax funds were appropriated for churches and ministerial salaries, and church repairs were to be paid from assessments on all the inhabitants of the parish. The dissenting assemblymen were only readmitted after the establishment bill was safely passed. The dissenters were naturally angry at their treatment. Though they were no longer excluded from the assembly, any repeal of the state church would be blocked by the governor's veto. The dissenters rioted at length during 1707, the riots being led by a political club headed by prominent dissenters. Included in these rebellious protests was a new phenomenon, a woman's political club. The dissenters were also embittered because one of their great leaders, Landgrave Thomas Smith, was being persecuted by the Johnson regime. For criticizing the assembly in a private letter, Smith was ordered arrested. When he escaped, the assembly sought to disqualify Smith from public office for life, but in this affair at least the dissenters had their revenge. Now speaker of a dissenter-controlled assembly, Smith had the satisfaction of arresting former speaker Colonel Risby, the reputed author of the Exclusion Act, for disrespectful words spoken in private against the new assembly. Finally, the dissenters also gained the temporary satisfaction of forcing the proprietors to remove the hated Johnson from office in 1708. The drive for a state church occurred at the same time in North Carolina, which was at least formally ruled by the South Carolina governor. 
The northern colony, true to its tradition, was even more dissenting and rebellious than its southern neighbor. North Carolina's troubles began with the appointment of Henderson Walker, a zealous Anglican, as deputy governor in 1699. Walker, deeply disturbed that North Carolina had successfully gone 40 years without priest or altar, maneuvered through the assembly the Vestry Act of 1701, which imposed a state church on North Carolina, including a poll tax on the colonists for support of the Anglican clergymen. The act was disallowed by the proprietary for not going far enough in paying the clergy. But the fight had just begun. Lord Granville's instructions to the governor of South Carolina, Sir Nathaniel Johnson, to secure whatever legislation was necessary to impose a state church on the Carolinas, led Johnson to replace Walker as deputy governor of North Carolina with Colonel Robert Daniel. Daniel could not hope to drive the establishment through the North Carolina Assembly, however, as it had a comfortable Quaker majority. The zealous Daniel, therefore, decided to attain his goal by expelling the Quakers from the Assembly and used as his weapon a dubious legal application of the new test oath of allegiance to Queen Anne required of all public officials in England. This oath excluded Quakers, who by their religion could only affirm and could not swear to oaths. The expulsion of the Quaker assemblymen left the high church party with a small majority, and this party now drove through the new Vestry Act, establishing the church, as well as an act imposing the test oath for all public officials, including assemblymen in the future. The embittered Quakers were able to pressure Governor Johnson to remove Daniel in 1705, but the damage had been done. Despite the establishment, however, Anglican zeal was so weak in freewheeling North Carolina that not until 1732 did the colony see a regular Anglican minister. The new deputy governor, welcomed by the Quakers for his supposedly liberal views, was Thomas Carey, a Charleston merchant and son-in-law of the great Archdale. But Carey betrayed his supporters by repressing the Quakers even more ardently than had his predecessors. Carey not only expelled the Quakers from the assembly, but also levied a heavy fine on anyone presuming to enter office without taking the test oath. Furthermore, Carey further weakened the assembly by having an act passed fining anyone daring to promote actively his own election to any office. The numerous body of North Carolina Quakers finally sent John Porter a non-Quaker, to England in 1707 to plead their case with the Lord Proprietors. Two of the Proprietors, John Archdale and John Danson, were Quakers, and they persuaded the others of the justice of the Quaker case. The Proprietors abolished the test oath, deposed Carey, suspended Governor Johnson's authority over North Carolina and authorized the Council of North Carolina to select its own president who would assume the full duties as governor. The council then selected as president William Glover, 
who governed North Carolina in Cary's stead, but the Anglican Glover betrayed the Quakers in his turn by still insisting on enforcement of the test oath. John Porter and the infuriated Quakers now formed an alliance with the double turncoat Cary to try to oust Glover from his rule. The election to the Assembly of 1708 was won by the Cary-Porter forces, who disregarded Glover's insistence on the test oath, declared Cary governor, voided all the laws of the Glover regime, and appointed many Quakers to office. Leader of the Cary forces in the Assembly was the Speaker, the powerful Edward Mosley, a wealthy planter and devout Anglican, who nevertheless steadfastly supported religious freedom and opposed any establishment. Glover, however, refused to recognize the legality of this democratic upheaval and fled to Virginia, still claiming the governorship. The relatively liberal Cary Porter rule lasted until 1711, when the proprietary decided to stamp out the seditious popular regime and sent Edward Hyde, a cousin of Queen Anne, to be the new governor of North Carolina, now permanently separated from South Carolina. Hyde immediately instituted a regime of repression, aligning himself completely with the Gloverite faction. All the liberal laws, as well as the court proceedings of Carey's second administration, were nullified, and the test oath was reimposed on all public officials on pain of a heavy 100-pound fine for all refusals to take it. The Quaker assemblymen were once again expelled. In addition, a law was passed to punish severely all seditious words or scurrilous libels against the government, the government itself, of course, being the judge of what was seditious or scurrilous against itself. Moreover, Carey and Porter were indicted for various crimes and misdemeanors. To counter this repression, Thomas Carey organized an armed rebellion against the Hyde regime. In the midst of the fighting, Governor Alexander Spotswood of Virginia sent a force of Royal Marines to aid Hyde, which counter-revolutionary intervention dispersed the rebellion. Carey and the other leaders fled to Virginia. There he was arrested, however, and sent to England to stand trial for treason, but was released for lack of evidence. Thus the rebellion failed, and the test oath remained in force in North Carolina. These struggles in the Carolinas weakened the authority of the proprietary and helped make them ripe for the abolition of proprietary rule in South Carolina in 1719 and in North Carolina in 1729. By 1730, then, the Carolinas and Virginia were both royal colonies, leaving Maryland with its restored proprietary as the only proprietary colony in the South. While these conflicts were going on, North Carolina was experiencing a rapid growth. A heavy influx of people came from Virginia, seeking more religious freedom or cheaper land free of arbitrary landed monopolies. North Carolina's status as a refuge is shown by Virginia's repeated accusations that it was harboring runaway slaves. Finally, the first town was laid out in North Carolina, 
Bath in 1704, which promptly became the capital. Many of the immigrants were European refugees, including French Protestant Huguenots and German and Swiss Palatines. Treatment of the Indians, however, grew increasingly brutal. The white settlers had participated in the Indian fur trade. They had learned from the Indians' techniques of clearing the unfamiliar land, of cultivating the soil, and of growing such new crops as corn, tobacco, and potatoes. Now the whites repaid the Indians by embarking on a campaign of decimation. Proclamations stated that the Indians would be exterminated like vermin, and the legislature of North Carolina granted bounties for Indian scalps. Indian prisoners of war, including many children, were sold into slavery by their captors. Volume 1, Chapter 16 Virginia After Bacon's Rebellion The crushing of Bacon's rebellion had left Virginia itself in the control of the despotic Governor Berkeley and his Green Spring clique. Even after Berkeley was recalled at the urging of the King's commissioners, the Green Spring oligarchy continued to rule the colony until news arrived in the fall of 1677 of Berkeley's death. At that point, news came of the appointment of Thomas Lord Culpepper as governor. Until his arrival, Colonel Herbert Jeffreys, one of the King's commissioners, was to continue as lieutenant governor. But Jeffreys soon fell ill, and the council, dominated by the Green Spring faction, effectively continued its oppressive rule of the colony. Jeffreys died at the end of 1678 and was succeeded by Sir Henry Chicherley, who at last held a fair election for the assembly the following year. The new assembly began to institute reforms, for example, reenacting Bacon's laws, authorizing the free men and housekeepers of each parish to select two men to sit with the judges in the county courts. But Chicherley, too, was old and sick, and reforms were therefore not pressed forward. Finally, the king forced the reluctant Lord Culpepper to sail personally for Virginia or give up his governorship, and Culpepper arrived in the spring of 1680. One of his first acts was to urge the assembly, at the king's instigation, to provide a permanent revenue for the support of the government. But the assembly refused to turn over the crucial power of the purse into the hands of the royal governor. The assembly, however, finally passed the bill after considerable bullying and threats by Culpepper. The governor also tried to force a fantastically uneconomic plan on agricultural Virginia, compelling every county to construct a town and warehouse near water, and coercively restricting all trade in the county to that town. Fortunately, while the assembly passed the law, the Crown realized the impracticality of such hothouse plans and vetoed the bill. Culpepper also faced the perennial tobacco problem. Tobacco had been suffering grievously from twofold government interference, a fall in prices due to trade restrictions imposed by the Navigation Acts and the restrictions of compulsory cartels. The restrictions raised tobacco prices, but at the expense of the more efficient farmers and planters, 
of reducing trade for all and of greatly injuring American and European consumers. Moreover, the bulk of the price fall had been because of increased tobacco production. The fact that annual tobacco output in Virginia and Maryland in the 1680s reached the 28 million pounds shows that, for all the complaining, tobacco was still the most profitable line of investment. The repeated attempts at compulsory cartels cannot be excused on pleas of poverty. The fact that Virginia governors repeatedly tried to force the reduction of tobacco planting without success demonstrates that the profitability of tobacco was enough to overcome even government prohibition and trade restrictions. Thus, in 1640, the planter-dominated government had passed a law compelling the burning of half the colony's tobacco crop, fixing the price of tobacco, and relieving debtors from paying one-third of their debts for three years. In 1662, Berkeley and the leading Chesapeake planters petitioned the king to outlaw all planting and shipping of tobacco during the following year. In response, King Charles II, following the tradition of James and Charles I in wanting to compel a shift from tobacco planting, ordered the restriction of planting. Commissioners from Virginia and Maryland met in May 1663 and resolved to limit tobacco planting jointly. But though the Virginia Assembly obediently agreed, the Maryland Assembly refused. Undaunted, the Virginia planters managed to arrange a conference of commissioners from the three tobacco colonies, Virginia, Maryland, North Carolina, in the summer of 1666, and they agreed to outlaw all tobacco planting for the year of 1667. All three assemblies then approved this plan for injuring the consumers in order to raise tobacco prices, but the colonies were saved at the last minute by the veto of Lord Baltimore of Maryland. Now in 1680, with tobacco crops even more bountiful, Culpepper resumed the old pressure by urging the king to prohibit all tobacco planting in Virginia, Maryland, and North Carolina during the following year. The plan for total prohibition, incidentally, would have particularly benefited tobacco speculators who had purchased the crop. Their accumulated stocks would benefit most from the temporary price rise. Most gravely injured would be the most efficient, lowest-cost planters, as well as the consumers. When the king did not agree to total prohibition, the big planters put on pressure for a session of the assembly to outlaw a year's tobacco planting in Virginia alone. Crowds in each county, led by the prominent local planters, sent petitions and held meetings clamoring for an assembly session. Under this pressure, the infirm Sir Henry Chicherley, again acting governor after Culpepper had returned to England, called a special assembly session for April 1682. But Culpepper at the last minute vetoed the session, forcing it to wait until November when he would be back in the colony. Deprived suddenly of their assembly session, the planters rose in the Plant Cutters' Rebellion. Beginning in Gloucester County on May 1, gangs of tobacco planters and their retinues engaged in an orgy of destroying tobacco plants, obviously the plants of those efficient and free-spirited planters who were willing to trust their fortunes to the marketplace. 
Despite arrest and patrols by the militia, the orgy of destruction spread to New Kent, Middlesex, and other counties. Lord Baltimore was moved to place armed guards along the Potomac to keep the frenzy from spreading to Maryland. The opponents of the plant cutting gained control of the council and charged that the leader of the uprising was Major Robert Beverly, clerk of the assembly and a leader of the Green Spring clique. They charged also, and with reason, that Chicherley was under Beverly's influence. Chicherley agreed to imprison Beverly, but otherwise issued a general pardon to the criminals, with one exception. For his punishment, one tobacco saboteur was ordered to build a bridge, a bridge conveniently near Chicherley's own plantation. Returning to Virginia in December, Culpepper, understandably enraged at the soft treatment of the plant cutters, went overboard and declared that tobacco destruction was treason and thereupon hanged two of the leaders as an example to the people. Culpepper showed good economic sense in keeping secret and thus suppressing the king's authorization to end tobacco planting He realized that if the planting of tobacco were really excessive, the inefficient producers would soon shift to other industries. Lord Culpepper's troubles with Virginia were aggravated by his unpopularity. For Culpepper, along with Lord Arlington, had received in 1673 the proprietary grant of 31 years of quit-rents and escheats in Virginia. He had not received the right to govern, but his gaining of the governorship had been an attempt to enforce his feudalistic proprietary claims. In 1681, Culpepper bought out Lord Arlington's share, but on being ousted by the king in mid-1683, he was happy in 1684 to sell his proprietary rights back to the crown in return for a royal pension of £600 a year for 21 years. But Culpepper's removal by no means meant the end of conflict in the colony. On the contrary, the appointment of the despotic Francis Lord Howard began a four-year struggle in Virginia. Howard promptly launched a determined drive to exalt the royal prerogative over the assembly and over the liberties of the Virginians. Howard demanded a law to authorize the governor and council to levy a high poll tax, up to the sum of 20 pounds of tobacco. Such a bill would eliminate the need to keep returning to the Assembly for annual appropriations. The Burgesses, however, turned down the plan. Howard also wanted to revive the compulsory town-building plan and disclosed the King's instructions to eliminate the cherished custom of allowing judicial appeals from the royally appointed General Court to the General Assembly. The change meant that the administration of justice was now completely under the control of the governor and his appointed officials, including the council. Furthermore, Howard, under royal instructions, demanded that the assembly repeal all permission granted to county courts and parish officials to make local laws and to replace it by insisting that all local laws receive approval of the central government but the Burgesses failed to act on this proposal. The lower house, the House of Burgesses, was understandably disturbed at this comprehensive assault on their and Virginia's liberties, and a general struggle ensued between governor and Burgesses.
Howard also refused to disclose his instructions and thus to end rule by secrecy. When the Catholic James II succeeded to the throne in February 1685, a new issue arose to exacerbate relations between Lord Howard and the people of Virginia. For Howard was a Catholic, and he promptly proceeded to fire several officials of the colony and replace them with Catholics. To suppress the groundswell of criticism, Howard forbade all seditious discourses, and Colonel Charles Scarborough, a member of the House of Burgesses, was forcibly deprived of all his public offices. In addition, Howard persistently vetoed laws passed by the Assembly, persecuted its leaders, tried to bully it into meeting his demands. In all of this, the majority of the governor's creatures, the council, supported his actions. Another disturbing threat facing the House of Burgesses was use of the royal veto to impose laws, in effect by vetoing their repeal. The Burgesses sent a vigorous protest to the king against this practice, but the king countered by ordering Robert Beverly's removal as clerk of the House of Burgesses in late 1686, transforming the position into one appointed by the governor. Now that the main threat to Virginian liberties had become the crown and the royal prerogative, the displaced Greenspring clique, out of favor, shifted to take the lead of Virginians opposed to royal encroachments. The clique was now led by Robert Beverly and Philip Ludwell, and Ludwell assumed the leadership of the liberal popular opposition to royal tyranny in the council. Ludwell was expelled from the council by Howard in 1687, the year of Beverly's ouster. Howard also dismissed two other leading burgesses from all public offices. Lord Howard raised fierce opposition by imposing a large fee of 200 pounds of tobacco for stamping official papers and by shifting payment of quit rents from tobacco to the higher-valued sterling. Furthermore, Howard quarreled with the Burgesses over the military. Howard naturally advocated a bigger militia, whereas the Burgesses wanted to relieve the colonists of the oppressive tax and resource burdens of the armed forces and urged disbandment of the troops of the colony. Howard also struck a grievous blow at local rights and assembly powers by personally decreeing repeal of permission given local courts and officials to make their own bylaws. After dissolving in disgust the assembly at the end of 1686, Lord Howard determined to continue his rule while the assembly met in session as little as possible. In early 1688, Royal orders compelled Howard to call the assembly in the spring to pass a law prohibiting the export of bulk tobacco. Since tobacco was exported either in bulk or in hogshead, the scheme was clearly an attempt to grant special privileges to the tobacco merchants who packed their tobacco in hogsheads by outlawing their competition. The assembly was also asked to aid New York in its projected war against the French. But the assembly courageously and defiantly refused such aid, since New York, it saw perceptively, was in no real danger, 
and since it steadfastly refused to levy still higher taxes upon Virginia. The Burgesses persisted in their refusal to bow to the royal demands. The House of Burgesses also rejected the King's Bill to outlaw bulk tobacco exports, pointing out acidly and correctly that the bill was originated by London tobacco merchants and not even by Virginia planters. During the Howard administration, the Burgesses and the Virginians had lost the right to receive judicial appeals to appoint their clerk and to control certain revenues and fees. But the fierce struggle also helped retain many liberties for Virginians and the House of Burgesses, especially the general taxing power. Furthermore, a host of oppressive laws were spurned by the independent-minded assembly. The battle between Lord Howard and the bulk of Virginians came rudely to an end with the glorious revolution of 1688, Howard happened to be in England when the news came of James II's overthrow and the president of the council became acting governor. The Glorious Revolution had an unusually mild impact upon Virginia as compared with its effect on the other colonies, south and north. Rumors fed by anti-Catholic hysteria led the people of the Northern Neck, already disgruntled from opposing the Culpeper proprietary, to take up arms in their defense. The new climate meant the Crown would grant a much friendlier hearing to Virginia's numerous grievances and to Virginia's agent in England, Philip Ludwell. Howard made a determined attempt to stay in office. But Ludwell finally prevailed, and the Crown ordered the end of the hated fee of 200 pounds of tobacco for the official stamping of documents. Howard kept the nominal title of governor, but Captain Francis Nicholson, lately lieutenant governor of New York, was sent to Virginia to rule as lieutenant governor. During the Nicholson administration of 1690-92, the governor managed to harmonize with and reconcile the opposition, although no fundamental reforms were passed. Increasingly coming to the fore was one of Virginia's most bitter grievances, the problem of land monopoly in the northern neck. In 1649, Charles II had arbitrarily granted the enormous tract of land between the Rappahannock and Potomac Rivers to Lord Hopton and a group of his friends, including Sir John Berkeley. Hopton's circle now had proprietary control of revenues from the area, but not of political power. In 1669, however, a renewed grant gave control of the local governmental policies at Northern Neck to the proprietors. The proprietary menace to the Northern Neck could well have been ended when Lord Culpepper sold his proprietary claim to Virginia in 1684. But not only did the king refuse to buy the Northern Neck claim, he transformed the 31-year grant into a permanent charter. Philip Ludwell was not destined to remain long in his new role as champion of the liberties of the people. Ludwell joined the employ of Lord Culpepper as agent for managing the Neck, and soon Ludwell began to appoint government officials in the Neck area. In early 1692, Lord Howard resigned from his nominal post as governor of Virginia and was succeeded by Sir Edmund Andros, formerly head of the Dominion of New England, who now came to Virginia 
to assume the reins of power. Andros was an arch-Tory, fond of the royal prerogative, and so he resumed all the oppressions and conflicts of the Howard era. Andros insisted on a forced town and port creation program, but this and another revived bill to prohibit the export of bulk tobacco failed to pass the House of Burgesses. The Burgesses also refused once more to send aid to New York, pointing out incisively that New York was not Virginia's first line of defense, and indeed that the Iroquois, staunch allies of New York, were a most severe threat to Virginia. Finally, however, in 1695, the Burgesses gave in to Andros's pressure and sent military aid to New York, paying for it by a temporary liquor tax. Andros also introduced a frightening new note into his struggle with the colonist, continued hints that Virginia land titles were really invalid. Nothing could have been better calculate to inflame the opposition of the landowners. One of the most important men in Virginia beginning in the 1690s was the Reverend James Blair, a young Scottish Anglican, who had been appointed in 1689 as representative or commissary in Virginia of the Bishop of London. This was the first such appointment in America. Blair was instrumental in inducing the assembly in 1691 to create a free governmental college, the College of William and Mary, rooted in the Anglican faith. Money for construction was raised from the crown and the bulk of the governing trustees were selected by the assembly, which also paid its operating support. Reverend Blair received a life appointment as president from the assembly and was so confirmed by the Bishop of London. Blair combined political, ministerial, and educational activities, assuming a seat in the council in 1694. He soon broke with Andros, who was apparently not theocratic enough for the young minister. Blair agitated for increased support for the established church, and King William and Queen Mary responded by asking the assembly to pay the clergy in money or in tobacco valued at current prices. The House of Burgesses replied tartly that the ministers were well enough paid, whereupon in mid-1696 the Anglican clergymen of the colony petitioned the assembly for greater salaries and subsidies. The legislature yielded to the pressure and increased subsidies for the ministers. Blair's pressure finally resulted in Andros's removal in the spring of 1698 and his replacement as governor by Francis Nicholson, now returning to Virginia as full-fledged governor rather than as Culpeper's deputy. Nicholson effected a few badly needed reforms on royal instructions. He had the great powers of the council over the colony reduced. No longer could councillors be customs collectors, naval officers, and auditors all in one, thus reducing the practice of councillors sitting in judgment on their own actions. Nicholson also tried to institute land reforms. During the 1680s and 1690s, land engrossing through large arbitrary land grants had grown apace. Governor Andros, in particular, had granted large tracts to individuals by selling to individual engrossers rights to land. The old headright system of granting 50 acres of land to each person settled in or brought to Virginia was hardly ideal, 
but selling rights to 50-acre plots at one to five shillings per right completely cut the natural link between land settlement and ownership and added to the monopolizing of unused land by speculators. Typical of land abuses in Virginia was the case of a large planter, William Byrd II. The law required a land grantee to establish at least one settler to every 100 acres of his grant within 10 years of the date of issue. Now, this was hardly a satisfactory safeguard against land abuses since the grantee, rather than the settlers themselves, was considered the property owner. The settlers either were forced into a quasi-feudal subservience to the privileged grantee or else had to buy the land at prices far higher than the zero price that would have obtained without the engrossment by the government and its pet grantees. Of course, the settlers still had to spend money immigrating, clearing the land, and so forth, but at least no arbitrary cost would have been imposed on top of these expenses. Yet, despite these grave weaknesses, the law at least tried to establish some connection between land ownership and settlement, and grantees like Byrd proceeded to evade even this vague limitation. Thus, in 1688, William Byrd obtained a grant from the government of over 3,000 acres. He failed to get the land settled within the 10 years, but being head of the Virginia Land Office, he managed to delay forfeiting the land until 1701. At that point, Byrd got the same tract regranted to his close friend, Nathaniel Harrison, who soon had the land regranted to Byrd for another 10 years' chance. An additional tract of 6,000 acres was secured by Byrd. Failing to settle it in time, he had it transferred to his son. Nicholson tried to reform these practices, but accomplished little. In his first administration, he tried to revoke some land grants, but the council refused to cooperate. In his second term, he prohibited the practice of gaining more headright land by bringing in more Negro slaves. On the other hand, far less helpful were Nicholson's attempts to enforce quit-rent payments to the Crown. During the Nicholson administration, Virginia changed its capital from Jamestown nearby to the newly created city of Williamsburg in the spring of 1700. A more lasting achievement was Nicholson's proclamation in 1703 of the English Act of Toleration in Virginia. Liberty of conscience for all religions was guaranteed, except for non-Protestants. This action guaranteed religious freedom to the new and growing dissenting Protestant sects in Virginia, especially Presbyterians, whose form of worship was quite close to the low Anglicanism of the colony. The irascible Nicholson soon fell to quarreling with the Blair faction, by now intermarried with the powerful Ludwells, the Blair-Ludwell clique immediately began to plot for Nicholson's recall. Six councillors, led by Blair, submitted such a petition to Queen Anne in 1703, accusing Nicholson of personal bullying and despotic behavior. But the governor took his case openly to the assembly and the public in the spring of 1705, and the majority of the House of Burgesses, as well as the great majority of the Anglican clergymen of the colony, came to Nicholson's defense. 
the bulk of the clergy petitioned England, denouncing Blair's attack on the governor and hailing Nicholson's administration. One of Blair's friends published a bitter attack on the convocation of clergymen, the first stanza of which pointedly declared, Bless us, what dismal times are these! What stars are in conjunction! When priest turns sycophants to please and hair-brained passion to appease, dare prostitute their unction. Finally, in the summer of 1705, Blair succeeded, and Nicholson was removed as governor. He was replaced by a new system. Appointed as governor-in-chief of Virginia was the Earl of Orkney, who remained in England for 40 years, drawing a good salary for his post while taking no interest whatever in colonial affairs. As lieutenant governor, in actual charge of Virginia, the Crown appointed Major Edward Knott. During the short-lived Knott administration, the new governor tried once again to push through a bill forcing Virginia to build ports and to restrict all trade to them. The port bill was instigated by English merchants, who would have found it cheaper and more convenient to concentrate their shipments at a few ports rather than having to trade at each planter's wharf. The Crown, however, disallowed the bill and thus finally ended the menace of compulsory ports in Virginia. The Crown also became alarmed that Virginians were shifting from tobacco to cotton or wool raising and manufacturing. In the imperial mercantilist framework, the colonies were not supposed to compete with imperial manufacturers. They were supposed only to supply raw material and then purchase the finished product from the mother country. The Board of Trade ordered not to discourage any cotton planting in Virginia. The big dispute of the Knott administration was over the established church. The oligarchic council, led by Blair, was anxious to put the Anglican church on a more secure footing by raising ministers' salaries and securing greater tenure in office. Nothing was done since the relatively liberal House of Burgesses had opposite objectives. One objective was to reduce the church oligarchy by periodically dissolving the ruling bodies of the church, that is, the vestries, which had become self-perpetuating bodies of church elders. Both parties deadlocked, and neither set of changes could pass. An impasse aggravated by the Anglican clergy's denunciation of the high-handed tactics of the Scott hireling Blair. The deadlock meant that the overwhelming majority of Anglican ministers in Virginia, those not officially inducted into office, held office only on the sufferance of the particular board of vestrymen. Not died a year after his induction, and the next four years were politically uneventful, as the president of the council served as acting governor of the colony. While Virginia, in the decades after Bacon's rebellion, increasingly settled down to a rather placid oligarchic rule, one element in Virginia society persisted in being the reverse of placid about its condition. From Bacon's rebellion to 1710, the colony seethed with incipient and actual revolts by the Negro slaves. Being an oppressed minority of the populace, the slaves, in revolt by themselves and lacking mass white support, could not hope to succeed, and yet they continued to try to break through to freedom.
In the early 1680s, the Virginia legislature was troubled enough to pass the Act for Preventing Negroes' Insurrections. Frequent meetings of Negro slaves were denounced as dangerous, as conspiratorial activity abounding under pretext of feast and burials. Yet, despite such precautions, slave revolts broke out in Virginia in 1687, 1691, 1694, 1709, and 1710, as well as in other years. The 1687 uprising was centered in Virginia's northern neck. The plan of uprising was uncovered and the leaders executed. The council, as a consequence, prohibited public slave funerals, which the rebels had used as their meeting ground. But this did not prevent the uprising of 1691, in which the slave Mingo, having escaped his master in Middlesex County, gathered a guerrilla band and attacked plantations, especially in Rappahannock County. By 1694, Governor Andros condemned the lack of enforcement of anti-slave rebellion legislation, thus permitting Negroes to run together in certain parts of the colony, causing assemblages so dangerous as to threaten the peace of the whole community. As Negro slaves increased in number after the turn of the century, threats of slave rebellion grew correspondingly. Early in 1709, a plot for rebellion by both Negro and Indian slaves in Surrey, James City, and Isle of Wight counties was uncovered. The court inquiry found that the late dangerous conspiracy was formed and carried on by great numbers of Negroes and Indian slaves for making their escape by force from the service of their masters and for the destroying and cutting off such as should oppose their design. The revolt conspiracy was led by four slaves, Scipio, Peter, Salvador, and Tom Shaw. The following year, a slave revolt planned for Easter in Surrey and James City counties was betrayed by the slave Will, whose freedom was purchased by the Virginia legislature as a reward of his fidelity and for encouragement of such services. It was ironic that the informer should be rewarded with the very goal that the rebels were desperately trying to achieve, freedom. The two main rebel leaders were duly executed, said Lieutenant Governor Jennings, to strike such terror in the other Negroes as will keep them from forming such designs in the future. Volume 1, Part 3, The Founding of New England Volume 1, Chapter 17, The Religious Factor Religion was one of the principal traits distinguishing the northern from the southern colonies. In the south, the state-established Church of England tended to be dominant, but the northern colonies were largely settled by members of churches dissenting from the established church. These dissenters came to America largely because they desired to create communities in which they could practice their beliefs undisturbed. The Protestant Reformation of the 16th century had taken two broadly different paths. In the rising absolute monarchies of Europe, the state gained control over the church within the nation, whether Protestant or Catholic, and found it more consonant with its own power structure to maintain the Episcopal system. 
On the other hand, independent and decentralized cities and provinces, such as Switzerland and the Netherlands, were the home of far more thoroughgoing reform in religious doctrine and structure. In these Calvinist countries, bishops were eliminated and ministers appointed directly by the state. In England, the church, created as a state church by the crown, not only maintained episcopacy but was far closer than the Lutherans to Roman Catholic doctrine and practice. Protestantizing reforms were soon introduced into the church, but the Catholic Church during the reign of Queen Mary drove the more radical of the reformers to Holland and other continental centers of advanced Protestant theology and practice. When the Church of England was reestablished under Elizabeth in 1559, the returning reformers found the Anglican Church even less reformed than before they had gone into exile. They now concentrated on seeking a purification of religious ceremonies within the Anglican Church and were thus called Puritans. The Puritans came to hold important church and university positions and exercise a strong influence in the government and in Parliament, but the government soon summarily removed them from their post. Persecution polarized the Puritans, who began to advocate the purification of the church organization, which had blocked the purification of rites, by eliminating the role of the bishops. Some of the reformers, the separatist or congregationalist, doubted the possibility of reforming the state church from within and illegally withdrew from attendance at church to organize separate reformed churches, vesting autonomous control in each congregation. The bulk of the Puritans, however, were influenced by the Calvinist or Presbyterian form of church organization dominant in the Netherlands and parts of Switzerland, where their leaders had lived in exile. In the Presbyterian system, first established at Geneva, each church or congregation was, to be sure, ruled by elders, the preaching elder or minister, and the ruling elder or leading layman. But to prevent diversity of doctrine, the congregation selected the minister and elder only with the advice and consent of a synod or consistory of the ministers and elders of the churches of the district. While the role of the leading layman in the church was high, state officials in Geneva were restricted to church members, and this limited the selection of magistrates to laymen who were under the influence of the ministers. Thus, in contrast to Anglicanism, control of the church was partially replaced by church control of the state. This Presbyterian method of church organization, negating the roles of king and bishops, tended to appeal to the ministers and to the local community oligarchs, nobles, gentry, merchants, whose powers over the people would thus be increased at the expense of their political opposition, the king and his officials. In France, England, Scotland, and the Netherlands, a large portion of local political leaders became Calvinist and Presbyterian. Since the English government strongly punished suspected Calvinists, the Presbyterian organization was not directly introduced into England, and the Puritans, aided by their intellectual center at Cambridge University, spread their beliefs from within the Anglican Church, 
by which they influence the important groups and industrial populations of London, East Anglia, and the West Country. When James I succeeded Elizabeth in 1603, one of his earliest problems was to face Puritan demands for reform of the Anglican Church. The Milnery Petition, signed by about a thousand Puritan ministers of the Church of England, or about one-tenth of all the clergymen of that church, requested modifications in church ceremonies and protection from governmental persecution. Because of its Presbyterian overtones, the petition was rejected, and some 300 of the Puritan clergymen were removed from their positions in the Church of England. The majority of the Puritan clergy, however, continued to conform outwardly to Anglican church ceremonies in order to continue their reform movement undisturbed. In contrast, some of the separatist or congregationalist who had already left the Church of England decided they could no longer bear the persecution and fled England. As pilgrims, they went to the Netherlands in 1608. Let us now return to colonization in the early 17th century. We remember that the earliest English settlement in America was founded by the London or South Virginia Company in 1606. The North Virginia or Plymouth Company had been granted the American territory from the 41st to the 45th parallel. The Plymouth Company had landed an expedition in Maine in 1607, but it was forced to return home the following year and then sunk into desuetude. In 1620, Sir Ferdinando Gorgias, a favorite of King James, was anxious to secure a monopoly of the fisheries on the northern American coast. To this end, Gorgias secured from the king a new charter. Replacing the Plymouth Company was the Council for New England, now completely separate from Virginia, and the territory actually granted to the company was greatly extended to include the land between the 40th and the 48th parallels. President of the council was the Duke of Buckingham, an unpopular favorite of King James. And leading members were Sir Ferdinando Gorgias and the Earls of Pembroke, Lennox, and Southampton. The council was granted powers of rule, the subgranting of land in the territory, and a monopoly of shipping on the New England coasts, and therefore implicitly a monopoly of the fishing rights. Volume 1, Chapter 18, The Founding of Plymouth Colony The mere granting of land by the crown did not yet create a settlement. The first successful settlement in New England was something of an accident. By 1617, the pilgrims had determined to leave the Netherlands, where their youth were supposedly being corrupted by the licentiousness of even the Calvinist Dutch, who, for example, persisted in enjoying the Sabbath as a holiday rather than bearing it as a penance. Deciding to settle in America, the pilgrims were offered an opportunity to settle in New Netherland, but preferred to seek a patent from the South Virginia Company, which would provide an English atmosphere in which to raise their children. The Pilgrims formed a partnership in a joint stock company with a group of London merchants, including Thomas Weston, an ironmonger, and John Pierce, a clothmaker. The company, 
John Pearson Associates received in 1620 a grant from the Virginia Company for particular plantation in Virginia Territory. In this alliance, each adult settler was granted a share in the joint stock company, and each investment of £10 also received a share. At the end of seven years, the accumulated earnings were to be divided among the shareholders. Until that division, as in the original Virginia settlement, the company decreed a communistic system of production, with each settler contributing his all to the common store and each drawing his needs from it. Again, a system of from each according to his ability to each according to his needs. Just over a hundred colonists sailed from England on the Mayflower in September 1620. Of these, only 41 were pilgrims from Leiden, Holland. Eighteen were indentured servants bound as slaves for seven years to their masters, and the others were largely Anglicans from England seeking economic opportunity in the New World. Bound supposedly for the mouth of the Hudson River, the Mayflower decided instead to land along what is now the Massachusetts coast, outside Virginia Territory. Some of the indentured servants began to grow restive, logically maintaining that since the settlement would not be made, as had been agreed in Virginia Territory, they should be released from their contracts. They would use their own liberty, for none had power to command them. To forestall this rebellion against servitude, the bulk of the colonists, and especially the pilgrims, decided to establish a government immediately, even though on shipboard. No possible period without governmental rule was to be permitted to the colonists. The pilgrim minority straightway formed themselves on shipboard into a body politic in the Mayflower Compact enabling them to perpetuate their rule over the other majority colonists. Thus, the first form of government in the new world established by colonists themselves was by no means a gesture of independence from England. It was an emergency measure to maintain the pilgrim control over the servants and other settlers. In mid-December 1620, the Mayflower landed at Plymouth. In a duplication of the terrible hardships of the first Virginia settlers, half of the colonists were dead by the end of the first winter. In mid-1621, John Pearson Associates obtained a patent from the Council for New England, granting the company a 100 acres of land for each settler and 1,500 acres compulsorily reserved for public use. In return, the council was to receive a yearly quit-rent of two shillings per 100 acres. A major reason for the persistent hardships for the starving time in Plymouth, as before in Jamestown, was the communism imposed by the company. Finally, in order to survive, the colony in 1623 permitted each family to cultivate a small private plot of land for their individual use. William Bradford, who had become governor of Plymouth in 1621 and was to help rule the colony for 30 years thereafter, eloquently describes the results in his record of the colony. All this while no supply was heard of, so they began to think how they might raise as much corn as they could and obtain a better crop than they had done, that they might not still thus languish in misery. At length... 
the governor, with the advice of the chiefest among them, gave way that they should set corn every man for his own particular, and in that regard trust to themselves, and so assign to every family a parcel of land, for that end, only for present use. This had very good success, for it made all hands very industrious, so as much more corn was planted than otherwise would have been by any means the governor or any other could use, and saved him a great deal of trouble, and gave far better content. The women now went willingly into the field and took the little ones with them to set corn, which before would allege weakness and inability, whom to have compelled would have been thought great tyranny and oppression." The experience that was had in this common course and condition tried sundry years, and that amongst godly and sober men may well evince the vanity of that conceit of Plato's, that the taking away of property and bringing community into a commonwealth would make them happy and flourishing. For this community was found to breed much confusion and discontent and retard much employment that would have been to their benefit and comfort. For the young men that were most able and fit for labor and service, did repine that they should spend their time and strength to work for other men's wives and children without any recompense. The strong had no more in division of victuals and clothes than he that was weak and not able to do a quarter the other could. This was thought injustice. Upon all being to have alike and all to do alike, they thought one as good as another and so did work diminish the mutual respects that should be preserved amongst men. Let none object that this is men's corruption. All men have this corruption in them. The antipathy of communism to the nature of man here receives eloquent testimony from a governor scarcely biased a priori in favor of individualism. Plymouth was destined to remain a small colony. By 1630, its population was still less than 400. Its government began in the Mayflower Compact with the original signers forming an assembly for making laws, choosing a governor, and admitting people to freemen's citizenship. The governor had five assistants, elected also by the freemen. This democratic setup signified a very loose control of the colony by the Pierce Company, which wanted to accelerate the growth of the colony and saw the pilgrim dominance as an obstacle to such growth. Religious exclusiveness in a colony necessarily hampers its growth. We have seen that Lord Baltimore soon abandoned the idea of Maryland as an exclusively Catholic colony in order to encourage its rapid development. Thus, persecution of non-separatist for playing ball on Sunday and for daring to observe Christmas as a holiday was hardly calculated to stimulate the growth of the colony. To inject some variety into the colony, the English merchants therefore sent the Reverend John Lyford, a Puritan within the Church of England, with a group of colonists to Plymouth. As soon as Lyford began to administer the sacraments according to the Church of England, his correspondence was seized by Governor Bradford, and Lyford and his chief supporter, John Oldham, were tried for plotting against pilgrim rule both in respect of their civil and church state. To the charge of Lyford and Oldham that non-pilgrims were being discouraged from coming to Plymouth, 
Governor Bradford replied that strangers were perfectly free to attend the Pilgrim Church as often as they liked. When Bradford spread the stolen letters, critical of the government, upon the record, Oldham angrily called upon the assembly to revolt against this tyranny, but no one followed his lead. The Reverend Lyford instantly recanted and groveled in his errors before the court. Both men were ordered banished from the colony. Oldham went thirty miles north with a number of the discontented to found a settlement at Nantasket, now Hull. Included in this company were Roger Conant and William and Edward Hilton, who shortly traveled further north to join David Thompson, a Scottish trader who had established a settlement at what is now Portsmouth, New Hampshire, at the mouth of the Piscataqua River. The Hiltons were later to found the nearby town of Dover, New Hampshire. In return for his abasement, the Reverend Lyford was put on six months' probation, but again some critical letters to England were purloined by the government, and this time Lyford was truly expelled and went on to join the Nantasket settlement. The pilgrims, however, had not seen the last of the rebellious band. In the spring of 1624, the pilgrims built a wharf some 60 miles north on the current site of Gloucester at Cape Ann in northeastern Massachusetts, only to find the following spring that Lyford, Oldham, and their group had moved there. They had been invited to Gloucester by the Dorchester Company of Merchants from Western England. The company's founder, the Reverend John White, a Puritan, had already established a fishing village at Gloucester in 1623. Roger Conant was now installed as superintendent of the community, and Lyford became its pastor. Upon returning to Gloucester to find the dissidents established there, the first instinct of Plymouth's military leader, Captain Miles Standish, was typically to demand the surrender of the unwelcome wharf, but cooler heads prevailed and a peaceful compromise was soon reached. The pilgrims, however, could not make a go of this fishing station and abandoned it at the end of the year. Upon the bankruptcy of the Dorchester Company the following year, the Conant Oldham Group left Gloucester and moved 15 miles down the coast to found the town of Nomkeeg, later known as Salem. Lyford was its Anglican minister. In 1625, Thomas Morton, gentleman lawyer and an agent of Sir Ferdinando Gorgeous, organized another settlement, Marymount, north of Plymouth at the present site of Quincy, Massachusetts. Marymount was an Anglican settlement, and the citizens did not comport themselves in the highly aesthetic fashion to which the Plymouth separatists wished them to conform. Apparently, Marymount was merry indeed, and whiskey and interracial white Indian revelry abounded, including the old Anglican, but denounced by the pilgrims as pagan, custom of dancing around a maypole, a practice which King James I had urged in his Book of Sports, 1617. Plymouth had established friendly relations with the Indians, but Marymount was now threatening to compete most effectively with Plymouth's highly lucrative monopoly of the beaver trade with the Indians. Marymount was also a place where Morton set his servants free and made them partners in the fur trade, and thus it loomed as a highly attractive haven for runaway servants 
from Plymouth. The pilgrims denounced Morton's colony as a school of atheism, atheism apparently signifying the use of the Anglican Book of Common Prayer, the Maypole, in selling rum and firearms to the Indians and buying furs in exchange. The sale of rum and firearms was condemned even though relations with the Indians had been perfectly peaceful. Then, in 1628, Plymouth established a virtual New England tradition of persecution by dispatching Captain Standish with an armed troop to eradicate Marymount. Having surrendered on the promise of safe treatment to himself in the settlement, Morton was assaulted by Standish and his men and almost killed. The Plymouth forces not regarding any agreement made with such a carnal man. Hauled into a Plymouth court, despite Plymouth's lack of legal jurisdiction over Marymount, Morton was almost executed. His death was urged at great length by Miles Standish. Finally, he was deported back to England, with Standish still threatening to kill Morton personally before he could leave the colony. Before deportation, Morton was confined alone for over a month of severe winter at the Isles of Shoals without a gun, knife, or proper clothing. Despite the destruction of Marymount and the failure of other attempts at settlement, the 1620s saw several settlements dot the Massachusetts coast. Most important was the Roger Conant group at Namkeeg. Another was the settlement at Boston, led by the Puritan minister, Reverend William Blackstone. In 1627, the inherent conflict between colony and company in Plymouth was finally resolved by the elimination of the company from the scene. In that year, the seven years of enforced communism by the company expired, and all the assets and lands were distributed to the individual shareholders. Grants of land were received in proportion to the size of the stock, so that the larger shareholders received larger gifts of land. This complete replacement of communism by individualism greatly benefited the productivity of the colony. Furthermore, the colonists took the happy occasion to buy up the shares of the Pierce Company. Plymouth was now a totally self-governing colony. By 1633, the entire purchase price had been paid, and the colonists were freed from the last remnant of company, or indeed of any English, control. There still remained, of course, the Overlord Council for New England. In 1630, the council granted a new patent to the Plymouth Colony, clearly defining its territory and recognizing its right to freedom of trading and fishing. But Governor Bradford limited the privileges of trade to the original pilgrim partners, the old comers, and kept the patent in his own possession before relinquishing it in 1641. Plymouth was destined to remain a small colony in which the nominal rulers, the free men, were rarely consulted, and the governor and the council imposed an oligarchic rule. But after the Council for New England was dissolved in 1635, Plymouth, nevertheless, became a fully self-governing colony. Volume 1, Chapter 19, The Founding of Massachusetts Bay When the tiny band of separatists left England in 1608, the great bulk of English Puritans, 
despite the persecutions of the early part of the reign of James I, were highly confident of their future in England and of the potential for reform within the English church structure. Why, then, the intense Great Migration only one generation later? What had happened to sap the confidence of the English Puritans? At the beginning of the 17th century, virtually all of England's export trade consisted of unfinished woolen cloths, which were sent to the Netherlands for finishing and dyeing, and to be re-exported to the north for grain. In the decade following the conclusion of peace with Spain in 1604, the woolen trade, and hence the English economy, flourished. But parliamentary refusal to approve any further taxes in protest against rising taxation, as well as the persecution of Puritan clergy, led, in 1614, to the Crown's dissolution of Parliament. In its search for revenue, the Crown then decided to create new monopolies, and its meddling in the vital wool trade had disastrous results. On the proposal of Alderman Cocaine of the Eastland Company, the government suspended the charter of the merchant adventurers, an attempted monopoly in the export of unfinished cloth, and completely prohibited the export of unfinished cloth upon which the prosperity of England rested. Instead, a new charter was granted to a syndicate of Eastland Company and Levant Company merchants in a new company, the King's Merchant Adventures, which had a legal monopoly of the export of finished and dyed cloth, half the profits of which were to be paid to the crown. The English government failed to realize that the English were not technically equipped for finishing and dyeing cloth. The higher cost of finishing woolens in England left an open field for the emergence of a new competitive cloth industry on the continent. As a result, English woolen exports fell by a catastrophic one-third in two years and the repeal of the prohibition in 1616 could not succeed in reviving the cloth trade. Not only did the tax-crippled English industry have to compete with the low-cost industry of the continent, but the outbreak of the Thirty Years' War in 1618 brought about a continent-wide debasement of currencies, a debasement that aided exports from the debasing countries at the expense of such other countries as England. Renewal of war in the Netherlands in 1622 further disrupted the vital market there, and the result was a continuing Great Depression in England in the 20s, a depression and unemployment concentrated particularly in the cloth-making centers of East Anglia and the West Country. Fearful of rising political opposition sparked by the Depression, the government tried desperately to relieve the victims of the Depression by maintaining wage rates at a high level and keeping failing companies in operation. The result was only to prolong and intensify the Depression the government was trying to cure. Artificially high wage rates deepened unemployment in the clothing centers, and imposed higher cost on an already high-cost industry. Propping up 
of inefficient producers wasted more capital and ruined their creditors, and the domination of inefficient monopoly companies was tightened at the very time when the industry's salvation could only come from freer competition and escape from the taxation and regulation of government. The overcapitalized monopoly companies were especially hard hit by the Depression. The East India and Muscovy companies defaulted to their creditors, and the Virginia company's difficulties resulting from the government's monopoly of tobacco sales led to its dissolution, hence the royal assumption of power over the Virginia colony. One growing light on the economic horizon was the exportation of the lightweight new draperies produced free from government control and over which no monopoly company held sway. Export trade in these new draperies was developing in southern Europe by the 1620s. The contrast in the fortunes of the two branches of cloth trade was too great to be ignored. The connection between free trade and economic growth and between privileges and decline was becoming evident to contemporaries. In successive parliaments, the representatives of the people demanded freedom in economic and political affairs and the termination of the government's restrictions, monopolies, and taxes that had brought about the Depression engulfing the country. The government responded characteristically by imprisoning the opposition leaders, such as Sir Edwin Sandys and Lord Say and Seal, for advocating free trade, radicalism, and interference with tax collection. The Parliament of 1624 presented a list of grievances in protest against the moratoria issued to debtors against their creditors, against the increases in government officials and expenses, against extraordinary tariffs and taxes, against the government's use of informers and enforcement of regulations and controls, and against the monopoly trading companies, which were popularly regarded simply as gangs of thieves, from the East India Company to the Council for New England. The Parliament concluded by passing the Act Against Monopolies, by which all monopolies were outlawed and all proclamations furthering them prohibited. Unlike the Depression of the 1550s, which had led to the unquestioned creation of monumental government controls over the economy, the Depression of the 1620s witnessed an attempt toward liberalization by removing the regulations that had caused the crisis. The movement for the abolition of the government's monopolies and regulations became a major part of the 17th century constitutional struggle in England and had a significant influence on the American colonists, whose migration was a fruit of the government's controls. However clear the principles of liberalism had become, the struggle for their realization in the 17th century had hardly begun. The accession of Charles I to the throne in March 1625 ushered in a period of conflict that was to span the mid-17th century. The financial difficulties of the new government were greatly increased when England decided to enter the Thirty Years' War by attacking Spain in 1625. The English government had remained behind the scenes in the early phases of the war, acting through 
diplomacy and subsidies, despite the pressure of Puritan opinion for greater aid to the Calvinist forces of Germany, which had gone to war with Austria, and to the United Provinces, which had renewed the war with Spain and had suffered heavy defeats by the two Habsburg powers. When the English government intervened in an alliance of the Lutheran powers of Northern Europe with the anti-Habsburg Catholic powers of Southern Europe, it tried to use the excitement of war preparations as a convenient means of gaining taxes from Parliament. However, the Parliament refused to be stampeded by the crisis of European Protestant fortunes and refused to vote taxes until the government had redressed grievances, especially in church reform. For the major authority in government on ecclesiastical matters was Reverend William Laud, Archbishop of Canterbury, who strongly opposed Puritanism in doctrine and in practice, and who had embarked upon a policy of eliminating all churchmen suspected of Puritan sympathies and promoting those whose theology and devotions the Puritans considered Catholic in origin. The persecution of the Puritan clergy was matched by imprisonment of the opposition leaders and of merchants who refused to pay the taxes that Parliament had refused to approve. Moreover, the people were conscripted or had soldiers quartered in their homes if they refused to pay these taxes. It was this climate of increasing religious and political persecution placed on top of the continuing economic depression that led the Reverend John White, a mildly Puritan minister from Dorchester and founder of the Dorchester Company, to revive the project of a settlement on the coast of New England. A settlement was projected to form a colony of West Country Puritans who would find refuge without having to submit to the tyranny of the religious and social conformity of the separatist at Plymouth. Surely, if the relatively humble separatist could succeed in America, the far wealthier and more powerful Puritans could succeed all the more. The old Dorchester Company was bankrupt, but in 1628, White formed the New England Company with other Puritans and with old Dorchester associates and secured a grant from the Council for New England of all the land between three miles south of the Charles River, which runs through Boston, and three miles north of the Merrimack, now the Massachusetts-New Hampshire border. Immediately, John Endicott and a major financier of the company, Matthew Craddock, were sent out with settlers to take control of the Nomkeeg settlement, by then renamed Salem, and for Endicott to supersede Conant as governor. John Endicott's idea of rule was that God had chosen him as a fit instrument for establishing a new Canaan for the chosen people by rooting out all lesser folk, red and white, preferably by means of the pillory and the whipping post, his major struggle was to cripple the livelihood of the old settlers by prohibiting their tobacco culture and beaver trade, turning these over to the New England Company. The old planters could only protest in vain that they were becoming slaves to a monopoly company. 
During the spring of 1629, still harder-line Puritans immigrated to the New England colony, and their ministers established a quasi-separatist church based on a congregational covenant. Old planters who refused to go this far from the Church of England and embrace the covenant were persecuted by Endicott as libertines, and some were deported to England, where the Reverend John White tried vainly to protect them. Many of the old planters expelled from Salem by Endicott moved to Reverend William Blackstone's settlement at Boston and Charlestown. Migration under the New England Company was small, but the rush of events soon intensified Puritan desires to seek a haven in the New World. Having added a war against France in 1627 to the conflict with Spain, the Crown was obliged to call Parliament into session to provide financing for the war effort. But Parliament took the occasion to present a petition of its grievances to be met before voting taxes for the King's adventures. The Petition of Right, June 1628, denounced taxation without consent of Parliament, arbitrary arrest without benefit of habeas corpus, and the quartering of the government's soldiers upon the people. Insistence upon these libertarian demands before supply of revenue led to the King's dissolution of Parliament in March 1629 and to the Crown's arrest of the leaders of the opposition. Thus, English Puritans faced the gloomy prospect of greatly intensified repression at home at the hands of the absolute royal power and its prerogative courts of the High Commission and the Star Chamber. Puritan gloom was further deepened by the aggravated plight of their fellow Calvinists on the European continent. England's military operations against France and Spain had failed, especially in trying to relieve the French Huguenots, Calvinists, besieged by the French crown at La Rochelle. The Huguenots were forced to surrender to the French forces in October 1628. Early the following year, the Protestant powers in Germany concluded a humiliating peace, issuing from the almost uninterrupted string of losses they had suffered in the first decade of the Thirty Years' War. Finally, the Calvinist United Provinces in the Netherlands were undergoing serious losses at the hands of the Spanish army. Thus, everywhere in Europe, the Catholic powers were triumphant and the Protestants suffering losses. As the Puritan leader, John Winthrop, concluded during 1629, all other churches in Europe are brought to desolation, and it cannot be but the like judgment is coming upon us. A secure sanctuary in America seemed to be vital for Puritan survival. Seeing their plight, the Puritans were able to persuade Charles I to grant a royal charter in March 1629 to the Massachusetts Bay Company, the more powerful successor of the New England Company. Coincidentally, the charter was granted just four days after King Charles's dissolution of Parliament. The old unincorporated company had now become an incorporated body politic, with power to govern its granted territory. The old grant of land was reconfirmed. The new company was to appoint the governor, deputy governor, and council, 
and make laws for its settlers. The company promptly sent out a fleet of colonists to Salem. With the arrival of this fleet, Salem immediately attained to a larger size than the decade-old Plymouth colony. By 1630, the Massachusetts Bay Colony totaled a little over 500 people. Massachusetts Bay Company and Colony, however, developed far more rapidly than their founders had foreseen, thanks to the unexpectedly overwhelming interest in emigration among the Puritans of East Anglia. The East Anglians were the most numerous and most extreme of the English Puritans, reaching virtually the point of separatism from the Church of England. As dedicated Puritans, the East Anglians had been embittered by Archbishop Laud's anti-Puritan movement within the Church of England and by widespread growth of a liberal Dutch theology in the universities and among the upper classes, a theology stressing free will and religious toleration. Such doctrines were highly suspect to the Calvinist Puritans bent upon predestination and extirpation of heresy. For a long while, however, the East Anglians had been indifferent to the emigration movement, for East Anglia had not been as widely hit by the Depression of the 1620s as had the West Country and other manufacturing centers in England. The reason for the relative prosperity was that East Anglia was the center for the production of the lighter new draperies, which had not been crippled by taxation, monopoly privilege, or stringent state regulation. However, the wars with France and Spain interrupted the markets for East Anglian textiles while moving the state in its frantic search for revenue to bring taxes and controls upon the new drapery industry. Production of new draperies in East Anglia dropped by a startling two-thirds between 1628 and 1631, and tens of thousands of spinners and weavers were thrown out of work, increasing the poor tax burdens upon the country farmers and gentry. Riots and disorders by the workmen made things still worse. They led the government to impose further taxes and minimum wage rates upon the manufacturers to force merchants to buy textiles and to prohibit export competition with the monopoly companies. With sudden economic distress and injustice added to unwelcome political and religious trends, the Puritans of East Anglia were now ripe for mass emigration. A decisive conference of Puritans took place at the Puritans' intellectual center, Cambridge University, at the end of August 1629. In the Cambridge Agreement, a group of Puritan leaders from East Anglia agreed to join the Massachusetts Bay Company and to immigrate to America if the officers were to be chosen solely from immigrants to New England and if the company charter were to be carried with them to the New World. Moreover, the Puritan stockholders remaining in England agreed to sell all their shares in the company to the immigrants. The Massachusetts Bay Company could now be completely located in New England as a self-governing Puritan colony. This was a legal action because the Puritans had cleverly persuaded the king not to specify the location of the company in the charter. John Winthrop, 
a leading East Anglican attorney, was appointed governor of the company, and John Humphrey, brother-in-law of the highly influential Earl of Lincoln, deputy governor. When Humphrey decided to remain in England, he was replaced by Thomas Dudley, the steward of the Earl of Lincoln. Although the Reverend John White did send some West Country Puritans to Salem during 1630, the vast bulk of the great Puritan exodus of the 1630s, the Great Migration, came from East Anglia. It must be noted that by no means all of the great wave of Puritan emigrants from East Anglia in the 1630s chose to go to Massachusetts Bay. A greater number moved to Barbados, other West Indian islands, and Ireland. The Great Migration of Puritans began immediately, and 17 ships sailed from England in 1630 alone. They settled not only in Salem, but all along the Massachusetts coast, founding such towns as Watertown, Roxbury, Dorchester, Medford, and Newtown, later Cambridge. During the 1630s, from 20,000 to 25,000 people immigrated to Massachusetts. By 1640, 9,000 remained, deducting immigration from Massachusetts back home or to other lands, while only 1,000 people lived in Plymouth. Thus, by 1630, the two New England colonies, Plymouth and Massachusetts Bay, had managed to win for themselves virtual self-governing status, independent of English control. Like Virginia, the New England colonies began as chartered companies. But the Virginia Company continued to rule the colony from England, being finally expropriated and superseded by the Crown in 1620. The New England settlements, in contrast, were strongly impelled by religious motives, Hence, the Plymouth Pilgrims and Separatists were only loosely controlled by the parent company and soon bought out that company completely, while the Puritan Massachusetts Bay Company transferred itself to and completely blended with the colony in America. According to the Massachusetts Bay Charter, the governor, deputy governor, and council of assistants were to be elected by the whole body of stockholders or freemen, this sounds highly democratic on paper, but the stumbling block was that only 12 stockholders migrated to America, and all were officers of the colony. Since any new freemen had to be selected by the existing freemen, the natural tendency was to perpetuate a closed oligarchy and to select few new members. Rumblings of popular resistance occurred as early as the fall of 1630, when 109 settlers petitioned to be made freemen of the company. The freemen gave in to this request, but completely vitiated its effect by mendaciously claiming that the charter had put all power into the hands of the Council of Assistants, who could choose the governor and deputy governor and make all the laws. Moreover, the assistants were to hold office permanently on good behavior. The only function of the body of freemen, it was alleged, was filling vacancies in the council. 
By thus failing to show the freemen the text of the charter, a dozen Puritan oligarchs managed to keep absolute control of the colony's affairs for great lengths of time. In addition, though in violation of the charter, only Puritans were admitted to the body of freemen, thus ensuring domination of the churches and the broad body politic by the church elders. From the beginning, the authorities had trouble from the newly burgeoning smaller towns. At the beginning of 1631, a tax of 60 pounds was levied upon each settlement to pay for frontier forts at Newtown. The inhabitants of Watertown promptly refused to pay the tax, assessed by the Council of Assistance, on the great old English ground that no community may be taxed without its own consent. As the Watertown protesters eloquently declared, it was not safe to pay monies after that sort for fear of bringing themselves and posterity into bondage. Here was the first tax strike in America, long anticipating the episode in Surrey, Virginia. In 1632, the government bowed to the strike after an apology was extracted from the resistors and the freemen assumed the power to elect the governor and the assistants, though the governor had to be chosen from the ranks of the assistants, and also to make tax levies. Or, rather, this power was assumed by the representatives of the freemen, direct democracy now being held impractical in the large colony, and two deputies were elected from each town in Massachusetts. For over a decade, the deputies and the assistants sat in the same house of the legislature, the general court, but then separated into two houses of that court. During the following year, political conflicts intensified in the colony as opinion polarized two camps, Thomas Dudley, backed by the elders, accused Governor Winthrop of leniency and of being negligent in instituting the absolute and complete tyranny of the Lord Brethren. Dudley called characteristically for heavier fines, severer whippings, more frequent banishments. On the other hand, many of the free men continued to grow restive at the oligarchical rule and the leading Puritan divine, Reverend Thomas Hooker, arrived in Massachusetts to stand aghast and protest at the tyranny of the colony's magistrates. The struggle came to a head in 1634. A paper by Israel Stratton denounced the government oligarchy for monopolizing power. They made the laws, disposed lands, raised monies, punished offenders, and so forth, at their discretion. Neither did the people know the portent. The magistrates responded by burning the paper, but the argument would not thus be stifled. Finally, a committee from each of the eight towns in Massachusetts Bay sent representatives to insist on the opening of the hitherto secret charter for the colony. When they then discovered that the lawmaking power was fully and legally vested in the free men rather than in the assistants, the general court from then on assumed full jurisdiction for the making of laws. The magistrates made sure, however, that not the total body of freemen, but the more malleable deputies in the general court were actually to make the laws. 
For a while, the general court, especially the deputies in the lower house, was furious at the lengthy betrayal. And led by Israel Stoughton as Speaker of the Deputies, it deposed Winthrop as governor and levied fines on some of the assistants. But the number of free men was still restricted to Puritan church members by an act of 1631, and a law five years later prohibited any new churches from existing in the colony without securing the consent of the authorities. The loosening of the oligarchic rule in Massachusetts was therefore not very great. Indeed, Dudley, who had replaced Winthrop as governor, quickly prohibited Stoughton from any public office for a three-year period. Soon the general court was all too happy to return Winthrop to office and depose Dudley. A threat of English overlordship vanished in 1635 upon the dissolution of the Council for New England. The Council had failed financially. Its doom had been assured when its fishing monopoly off the English coast was disallowed by the crown. Sir Ferdinando Gorgias and his associates still tried to menace the colony by proposing that the territory of New England be parceled out to individual proprietors in the council. Gorgias also tried his best to have the Massachusetts Charter revoked. The crown, indeed, was thinking along similar lines. England was getting very worried about the virtual independence of Massachusetts Bay. In 1634, the Lord's Commissioners for Foreign Plantations in general, as Privy Council Committee under the chairmanship of the formidable Archbishop Laud, moved firmly against the colony. Authorized to control the colonies as well as emigration, the commission moved in the spring of 1635 to revoke the charter of the Massachusetts Bay Company in the courts. The English courts severely rebuked the officer of the Massachusetts colony for not appearing at the trial and decided to revoke the colony's charter in 1637. Massachusetts prepared to arm to repel an English attack but it was saved from such a confrontation by the beginnings of the Puritan Revolution the following year, a revolution that hopelessly distracted the English government from Massachusetts affairs for fully a generation. Volume 1, Chapter 20 The Puritans Purify Theocracy in Massachusetts The Puritans had no sooner landed in the New World Then they began coercively to purify their surroundings. As early as John Endicott's arrival in Salem, the Puritans had surprisingly shifted from their loyal opposition within the Anglican Church and had severed themselves from the Anglican Communion. In this way, they became, to a large extent, as separatists as the Plymouth pilgrims they had previously despised. This act of separation was accomplished in 1629 with Francis Higginson and Samuel Skelton as the guiding ministers. Two Puritan members of the council, John and Samuel Brown, balked at this radical departure from Puritan beliefs and moved to form an Anglican church of their own. This prompted the government to move quickly in the first act of purifying the colony's spiritual atmosphere. 
Governor Endicott protested that the Browns' speeches and activities were tending to mutiny and faction and promptly deported them to England, thus serving notice that any Anglican worship in Massachusetts would be speedily prosecuted. The Puritans also proceeded to the final destruction of Thomas Morton's ill-starred Marymount Colony. For Morton in 1629 had indeed re-established his colony of the interracial frolic, the Anglican maypole, and brisk and efficient trade in Indian furs that competed with Massachusetts Bay. Massachusetts offered to share the Bay Company's fur trading monopoly with Morton, but the highly efficient Morton refused to do so, judging that he could easily outcompete the Massachusetts monopoly. This he did far outstripping Massachusetts in the fur trade by over six to one. This the colony could not tolerate, and Captain Littleworth was sent to Marymount with an armed troop. Littleworth cut down the maypole, burned Morton's house, and confiscated his property, and proceeded to destroy the settlement. Morton was charged by the authorities with alienating the Indians, the reverse of the fact and was again deported to England. Back in England, the embittered Morton protested his persecution and worked for Gorgeous in trying to void the Plymouth and Massachusetts patents, but to no avail. Years later, returning to Massachusetts, the poverty-stricken Morton was heavily fined, was imprisoned for a year by the authorities, and died in Maine shortly after his release. The Massachusetts colony was organized in towns. The church congregation of each town selected its minister. Unlike the thinly populated, extensive settlement of Virginia, the clustering in towns was ideal for having the minister and his aides keep watch on all the inhabitants. Although the congregation selected the minister, the town government paid his salary. In contrast to the poorly paid clergy of the southern colonies, the salary was handsome indeed. Out of it, the minister could maintain several slaves or indentured servants and amass a valuable library. The minister, himself a government official, exerted enormous political influence in the community, and only someone whom he certified as godly was likely to gain elected office. The congregation was ruled not democratically by the members, but rather by its council of elders. Also highly important was the minister who functioned as church teacher, specializing in doctrinal matters. Since only church members could vote in political elections, the requirements for admission became a matter of concern for every inhabitant. These requirements were rigorous. For one thing, the candidate had to satisfy the minister and elders of his complete adherence to pure doctrine and of his satisfactory personal conduct. And, once admitted, he was always subject to expulsion for deviations in either area. As the years wore on, the rule of the oligarchy tended to tighten and polarize further, so that a lower proportion of the colony was admitted to church membership. The Puritan leaders made strenuous efforts to exclude the unsanctified from the colony. Thus, in 1636, the town of Boston outlawed any persons entertaining strangers for more than two weeks without obtaining permission from the town government. 
Salem went one better by hiring an inspector to go from house to house once a month to inquire what strangers have thrust themselves into the town. To quicken his incentive for snooping, he was rewarded with the fines levied against those whose crime in entertaining strangers he had uncovered. In 1637, the Massachusetts government imposed this outlawing of hospitality on all towns, and it was now illegal for any town to permit a stranger to move there without the consent of high government officials. As the years went on, however, and the colony grew, the authorities were forced by the need for labor to admit servants, apprentices, sailors, and artisans who did not necessarily belong to the body of Puritan saints. To the saints and their leaders, any idea of separation of church and state was anathema. As the Puritan Synod put it in their Platform of Church Discipline, 1648, it is the duty of the magistrate to take care of matters of religion. The end of the magistrate's office is godliness. It is the duty of the magistrate to punish and repress idolatry, blasphemy, heresy, venting corrupt and pernicious opinions, open contempt of the word preached, profanation of the Lord's day. Should any congregation dare to grow schismatical or walk incorrigibly or obstinately in any corrupt way of their own, the magistrate was to put forth his coercive power. And if the state was to be the strong coercive arm of the church, so the church in turn was to foster in the public the duty of obedience to the state rulers. Church government furthereth the people in yielding more hearty obedience unto the civil government. From this attitude, it followed for the Puritan that any rebel against the civil government was a rebel and traitor to God, and, of course, any criticism of, let alone rebellion against, Puritan rule was also a sin against God, the author of the plan for Puritan hegemony. So insistent, indeed, were the Puritans on the duty of obedience to civil government that the content of its decrees became almost irrelevant. As Reverend John Davenport, a leading Puritan divine, put it, you must submit to the ruler's authority and perform all duties to them whom you have chosen, whether they be good or bad, by virtue of their relation between them and you. Naturally, John Winthrop, who had helped govern Massachusetts for 20 years after its inception, agreed with this sentiment. To Winthrop, natural liberty was a wild beast, while correct civil liberty meant being properly subjected to authority and restrained by God's ordinances. Perhaps the bluntest expression of the Puritan ideal of theocracy was the Reverend Nathaniel Ward's The Simple Cobbler of Agawam in America, 1647. Returning to England to take part in the Puritan ferment there, this Massachusetts divine was horrified to find the English Puritans too soft and tolerant, too willing to allow a diversity of opinion in society. The objective of both church and state, Ward declaimed, was to coerce virtue, to preserve unity of spirit, faith, and ordinances, to be all like-minded, of one accord, 
every man to take his brother into his Christian care, and by no means to permit heresies or erroneous opinions. Ward continued, God does nowhere in his word tolerate Christian states to give toleration to such adversaries of his truth. If they have power in their hands to suppress them, he that willingly assents to toleration of varieties of religion, his conscience will tell him he is either an atheist or a heretic or a hypocrite, or at best captive to some lust. Polypiety is the greatest impiety in the world. To authorize an untruth by a toleration of state is to build a sconce against the walls of heaven, to batter God out of his chair. And so the Puritan ministry stood at the apex of rule in Massachusetts, ever ready to use the secular arm to enforce its beliefs against critics and false prophets, or even against simple lapses from conformity. To enforce purity of doctrine upon society, the Puritans needed a network of schools throughout the colony to indoctrinate the younger generation. The southern colony's individualistic attitude toward education was not to be tolerated. Also, the clusters of town settlements made schools far more feasible than it did among the widely scattered rural population of the southern colonies. The first task was a college, to graduate suitably rigorous ministers, and to train schoolmasters for lower schools. And so the Massachusetts General Court established a college in Cambridge in 1636, named Harvard College the following year, appropriating 400 pounds for its support. In a few years after schoolmasters had been trained, a network of grammar schools was established throughout the colony. In 1647, the government required every town to create and keep in operation a grammar school. Thus, Massachusetts forged a network of governmental schools to indoctrinate the younger generation in Puritan orthodoxy. The master was chosen and his salary paid by the town government, and, of course, crucial to selecting a master, was the minister's intensive inquiry into his doctrinal and behavioral purity. Indeed, in 1654, Massachusetts made it illegal for any town to continue in their post any teachers that have manifested themselves unsound in the faith or scandalous in their lives. To feed the network of grammar schools, the colony in 1645 compelled each town to provide a schoolmaster to teach reading and writing. There would be no point to government schools for indoctrinating the masses if there were no masses to be indoctrinated. Vital to the system, therefore, was a law compelling every child in the colony to be educated. This was put through in 1642, the first compulsory education law in America, and was in contrast to the system of voluntary education then prevailing in England and in the southern colonies. Parents ignoring the law were fined, and wherever government officials judged the parents or guardians to be unfit to have the children educated properly, the government was empowered to seize the children and apprentice them out to others. One of the essential goals of Puritan rule was strict and rigorous enforcement of ascetic Puritan conception of moral behavior. 
But since men's actions, given freedom to express their choices, are determined by their inner convictions and values, compulsory moral values only serve to manufacture hypocrites and not to advance genuine morality. Coercion only forces people to change their actions. It does not persuade people to change their underlying values and convictions. And since those already convinced of the moral rules would abide by them without coercion, the only real impact of compulsory morality is to engender hypocrites, those whose actions no longer reflect their inner convictions. The Puritans, however, did not boggle at this consequence. A leading Puritan divine, the Reverend John Cotton, went so far as to maintain that hypocrites who merely conformed to the church rules without inner conviction could still be useful church members. As to the production of hypocrites, Cotton complacently declared, Oh, if it did so, yet better to be hypocrites than profane persons. Hypocrites give God part of his due, the outward man, but the profane persons giveth God neither outward nor inward man. One requisite for the efficient enforcement of any code of behavior is always an effective espionage apparatus of informers. This apparatus was supplied in Massachusetts, informally but no less effectively, by the dedicated snooping of friends and neighbors upon one another, with detailed reports sent to the minister on all deviations, including the sin of idleness. The clustering of towns around central villages aided the network, and the fund of personal information collected by each minister added to his great political power. Moreover, the menace of excommunication was redoubled by the threat of corollary secular punishment. Informal snooping, however, was felt by some of the towns to be too haphazard, and these set up a regular snooping officialdom. These officers were called tithing men, as each one had supervision over the private affairs of his ten nearest neighbors. One Puritan moral imperative was strict observance of the Sabbath. Any worldly pleasures indulged in on the Sabbath were a grave offense against both church and state. The general court was shocked to learn in the late 1650s that some people, residents as well as strangers, persisted in uncivilly walking in the streets and fields on Sunday, and even traveling from town to town and drinking at inns. And so the general court duly passed a law prohibiting the crimes of playing uncivil walking, drinking, and traveling from town to town on Sunday. If these criminals could not pay the fine imposed, they were to be whipped by the constable at a maximum rate of five lashes per ten shilling fine. To enforce the regulations and prevent the crimes, the gates of the towns were closed on Sunday, and no one permitted to leave. And if two or more people met accidentally on the street on a Sunday, they were quickly dispersed by the police. Nor was the Sabbath in any sense a hasty period, Under the inspiration of the Reverend John Cotton, the New England Sabbath began rigorously at sunset Saturday evening and continued through Sunday night, thus ensuring that no part of the weekend could be spent in enjoyment. Indeed, enjoyment at any time 
while not legally prohibited, was definitely frowned upon, levity being condemned as inconsistent with the gravity to be always preserved by a serious Christian. Kissing one's wife in public on a Sunday was also outlawed. A sea captain, returning home on a Sunday morning from a three-year voyage, was indiscreet enough to kiss his wife on the doorstep. For this, he was forced to sit in the stocks for two hours for this lewd and unseemly behavior on the Sabbath day. Not only were non-religious activities outlawed on Sundays, but attendance at a Puritan church was compulsory as well. Fines were levied for absence from church, and the police were ordered to search through the towns for absentees and forcibly haul them to church. Falling asleep in church was also outlawed, and whipping was the punishment for repeated offenses. Gambling of any kind was strictly forbidden. The law declared, nor shall any person at any time play or game for any money upon penalty of forfeiting treble the value thereof, one half to the party informing and the other half to the treasury. Yet, as so often happens in this world, what was so sternly prohibited to private individuals was permitted to government. Thus, government was permitted to raise revenue for itself by running lotteries. To government, in short, was given the compulsory monopoly of the gambling and lottery business. Cards and dice were, of course, prohibited as gambling. Also prohibited, however, were games of skill at public houses, such as bowling and shuffleboard, such activities being considered a waste of time by the people's self-appointed moral guardians in the government. Idleness, in fact, was not just a sin, but also a punishable misdemeanor, at any time, not only on Sunday. If the constable discovered anyone, singly or in groups, engaged in such heinous behavior as coasting on the ice, swimming, or sneaking in a quiet smoke, he was ordered to report to the magistrate. Time, it seems, was God's gift, and therefore always to be used in his service. A sin against God's time was a crime against the church and state. Drinking, oddly enough, was not completely outlawed, but drunkenness was, and subject to a fine. The practice of drinking toast was outlawed in 1639 because of its supposedly pagan origin and because once a man has begun to drink a toast, he is on the road to perdition. Drunkenness, uncleanness, and other sins quickly follow. And yet the stern guardians of the public morality had their troubles. For decades later, we find ministerial complaints that the heathenish and idolatrous practice of health drinking is too frequent. Women and children, as might be expected, were treated extremely harshly by the Puritan commonwealth. Children were regarded as the virtually absolute property of their parents, and this property claim was rigorously enforced by the state. If any child be disobedient to his parents, any magistrate could haul him into court and punish the little criminal with a maximum of ten lashes for each offense. Should the pattern of disobedience persist into adolescence, the parents, as provided by the law of 1646, were supposed to bring the youth to the magistrate. If convicted of the high crime of stubbornness and rebelliousness, 
the son was to be duly executed. Happily, it is likely that this particular law on the books for over 30 years was rarely, if ever, put into effect by the parents. Women were viewed as instruments of Satan by the Puritans, and severe laws were passed outlawing women's apparel that was either immodest or so showy as to indicate the sin of pride of raiment. Immodesty, including the wearing of short-sleeved dresses, whereby the nakedness of the arm may be discovered, a practice duly outlawed in 1656. In outlawing pride of raiment, women were not discriminated against by the Puritans. Men, too, felt the heavy arm of the state. In 1634, the general court began the practice of outlawing finery of dress for either sex, including immodest fashions with any lace on it, silver, gold, or thread, hat bands, belts, ruffs, beaver hats, and many other items of adornment. In 1639, more items of sin were added. For example, ribbons, shoulder bands, and cuffs, these non-utilitarian items being of little use or benefit but to the nourishment of pride. Excessive finery was subject to heavy fines, and the law was extensively enforced. Thus, in one year, Hampshire County hauled 38 women and 30 men into court for illegal finery, silk being an especially popular sin. One woman was punished for wearing silk in a flaunting garb to the great offense of several sober persons. Even the wearing of one's hair long, an old cavalier practice condemned by the Puritans, who were therefore called roundheads, was placed under interdict. The general court repeatedly condemned flowing hair as dangerous vanity. Many Puritan divines ranked pride in long hair fully as sinful as gambling, drinking, or idleness. One citizen fined for daring to build upon unused government land was offered a remission of half the amount if he would only cut off the long hair off his head into a civil frame. Hair righteousness, however, never had much of a chance even in godly Massachusetts, for some of the major leaders of the colony, including Governor Winthrop and John Endicott, persisted in the sin of long hair. Mixed dancing only came to the colony late in the century, but was promptly condemned as frivolous, immoral, and a waste of time. Boston, upon hearing complaints, closed down a dancing school. The measures of the fanatical Puritan theocracy were not solely motivated by religious zeal. Part of the motivation had an economic class basis. As the century progressed, the lowly laborers and indentured servants formed an increasing minority of the populace, since they were not admitted to the political and social privileges of church membership, they were naturally the most disaffected members of the social body. The above measures were partly designed to keep the lower classes in their place. Thus, the authorities were particularly angered to see servants or the families of laborers having the gall to wear fine apparel. 
The General Court in 1658 severely announced our utter detestation that men or women of mean condition should take upon them the garb of gentlemen by wearing gold or silk lace or buttons or silk of taffeta hoods or scarves, which, though allowable to persons of greater estates or more liberal education, yet we cannot but judge intolerable in persons of such like condition. In short, the lower orders must know their place, and the stringent requirements of a fanatical moral code could bend for the upper strata of society. Similarly, the requirement of compulsory education was enforced particularly upon the indentured servants, as many masters believed that their servants would be less inclined to be independent or give trouble if imbued with Puritan teachings. Indeed, the leaders of the colony did not hesitate to justify the oligarchic rule by the rich over the poor. As Governor Winthrop expressed it in his A Model of Christian Charity, 1630, God Almighty in his most holy and wise providence hath so disposed of the condition of mankind, as in all times some must be rich, some poor, some high and eminent, in power and dignity, others mean and in subjection. Generally, then, it was the lower orders who had to bear the main brunt of the severely enforced moral rules of the Puritan Code. Indeed, Massachusetts imposed maximum ceilings on wage rates in order to lower wage costs to employers. The temporarily enslaved indentured servants were particularly oppressed by Puritans, trying to maintain them as the efficient property of their masters. They therefore tried to suppress all deviant tendencies from the norm. The sources of servants in Massachusetts and the other northern colonies were the same as those of the servants coming to Virginia. Many servants were branded like cattle with their initials and the date of purchase, so as to assure their rapid identification in case of flight. When found unsatisfactory or troublesome, servants were generally punished, whipped, and imprisoned, or had their tenure of servitude extended. Orphan boys were bound out as servants by the state until they reached the age of 20, while illegitimate boys were especially punished by being bound out until the age of 30. In addition, indentured servants could, like slaves, be sold by their masters to other masters and thus be forcibly separated from their families. Servants caught escaping were often punished by having their ears cut off. Volume 1, Chapter 21, Suppressing Heresy, The Flight of Roger Williams. The Puritans in Leaving England, the historian Thomas Jefferson Wharton Baker wrote, fled not so much from persecution as from error. It was to build a rigorous theocracy free from dissent that the Puritans built a colony in America, and yet a Protestant theocracy must always suffer from a grave inner contradiction, for one significant tenet of Protestantism is the individual's ability to interpret the Bible free of ecclesiastical dictates. Although particular Protestant creeds may have no intention of countenancing or permitting dissent, 
the Protestant stimulus to individual interpretation must inevitably provoke that very dissent. If the Puritans were so rigorous in suppressing idleness and frivolity on the Sabbath, we can imagine their zeal in rooting out heresy. As the Reverend Urian Oakes put it, the loud outcry of some is for liberty of conscience. I look upon an unbounded toleration as the firstborn of all abominations. And the Reverend Thomas Shepherd echoed that, "'Tis Satan's policy to plead for an indefinite and boundless toleration." The eminent Puritan divine, John Norton, in The Heart of New England Rent, thundered against liberty. We both dread and bear witness against liberty of heresy. It is a liberty to answer to the dictate of error of conscience in walking contrary to rule. It is a liberty to blaspheme, a liberty to seduce others from the true God, a liberty to tell lies in the name of the Lord. As for liberty of conscience, Norton speciously claimed to be upholding it, but not the liberty of the error of conscience. In short, people were to be free to believe what Norton wanted them to, but were not to be free to differ. As early as 1631, the Puritan authorities revealed their position on heresy. In that year, Philip Ratcliffe was whipped, fined forty shillings, had his ears cut off, and was banished for the high crime of uttering malicious and scandalous speeches against the government and the church. The first important case of heresy also came soon after the founding of the colony. To Massachusetts in early 1631 came the young Reverend Roger Williams, who quickly refused the coveted appointment of teacher of the Boston Church. An individualist and a fearless logician, Williams had concluded that the Puritan Church in Massachusetts, being separatist de facto, should also be separatist de jure, that is, should break openly from communion with the Church of England. In short, he pursued the Puritans' logic further than they were willing to go, and thus embarrassed the Puritans a great deal. Beginning with this dissent, Williams quickly went on to strike hammer blows against the entire political structure of the colony. First, he proceeded to deny the right of the civil authority to punish the infraction of religious rule or doctrine. This struck at the entire theocratic principle— and the General Court of Massachusetts declared in reply that it was clearly absurd to maintain that a church might run into heresy and yet the civil magistrate could not intermeddle. To the Puritans, this was clearly a puzzling and astonishing doctrine. Williams now accepted appointment as teacher of the Salem Church, but his appointment was overruled by the General Court on account of Williams's separatist views and his dedication to religious liberty. Williams thereupon moved to the fully separatist Plymouth, where he became assistant to the Reverend Ralph Smith, who had also been ejected from Salem for his pure separatist views. But Plymouth itself was becoming less separatist and could not tolerate Williams's libertarianism. As a result, Williams accepted in late 1633 a second call from Salem 
to be a teacher of the church. There he joined the senior pastor, Samuel Skelton, in attacking the growing practice of ministers in holding periodical joint discussions, a practice which they perceptively feared would grow into a form of synodal quasi-Presbyterian control over the individual congregations. Only four years later, Skelton and Williams were proved right by the erection of a system of synods which also resulted in joint ministerial advice to the civil power. Williams proceeded to strike another fundamental blow at the social structure of Massachusetts Bay. He denied the right of the king to make arbitrary grants of the land of Massachusetts to the colonist. The Indians, he maintained, properly owned the land, and therefore the settlers should purchase the land from them. This doctrine attacked the entire quasi-feudal origin of American colonization in arbitrary land grants in the royal charters, and it also hit at the policy of ruthlessly expelling the Indians from their land. Williams, indeed, was the rare white colonist courageous enough to say that full title to the soil rested in the Indian natives, and that white title could only be validly obtained by purchase from its true owners. The whites, charged Williams, lived under a sin of usurpation of others' possessions. The denial of the king's right to grant title to land he did not justly own, of course, hit directly at the basis of the Massachusetts Charter itself, which, Williams argued, the colonists had a moral duty to turn from and renounce. The infuriated authorities now moved in on Williams, charging him with subversive doctrine. Bowing to force majeure, Williams recanted and offered to burn the tract expressing his dissenting views. But Williams was too much a man of principle to be suppressed for long, and by late 1634, news reached Boston that Williams was repeating his old subversive doctrines, as well as adding the purest religious deviation from Puritan orthodoxy that oaths should not be administered by magistrates to unregenerate sinners. Williams also denounced the loyalty oaths coerced upon the mass of non-freemen residents of the colony in April 1634 as blasphemous. He refused to subscribe to the oath and urged his congregation to do the same. Williams did this despite the punishment for refusal having been announced as banishment from the colony. A crackdown by the Massachusetts authorities was precipitated by Salem churches appointing Williams as its chief minister in place of the deceased Skelton. The Massachusetts authorities now unanimously condemned Williams's views as erroneous and very dangerous and denounced Salem's action as a great contempt of authority. The Massachusetts clergy recommended to the general court that this dangerous advocate of religious liberty be removed. Hauled into general court in July 1635, Williams now remained adamant, even after several confrontations with church authorities. The general court now openly moved to undermine Williams with his home base at Salem, punishing that town by refusing to grant it title to land that it claimed at Marblehead Neck. Salem church 
struck back with an indignation meeting which sent letters to the congregations of the other churches of the colony urging them to admonish the magistrates and deputies for their heinous sin. The elders of the other churches made certain to suppress any potential upsurge of popular sympathy for Williams and Salem by not reading the letters to their congregations. Williams continued to strike hard, denouncing the oligarchy of elders for keeping information from the body of church members. As the fierce conflict continued, Williams's fearless spirit, the logic of Protestantism, and the dynamics of the conflict itself drove Roger Williams to the ultimate conclusion of separatism, calling upon Salem Church to separate clearly from the other churches of the colony as well as from the Church of England. This was the straw that broke the Massachusetts camel's back. The Puritan oligarchy now brandished its temporal sword, sending to Salem its model of church and civil power. The model gave grave warning that the civil magistrates would strike down any corrupt or schismatic church. Independent churches would be suppressed. Religious toleration could only end by dissolving the state as well as the church. In September, the civil power followed this by subduing Salem. The general court expelled the Salem deputies and reiterated its refusal to grant the town's land claims. The assistant ruling Salem, John Endicott, defended the Salem church but was promptly imprisoned until he recanted and was discharged. Under the severest pressure by the Puritan oligarchy, the majority of Salem church, as Williams was later to write, was swayed and bowed, whether for fear of persecution or otherwise, to say and practice what, to my knowledge, many of them mourned under. With Salem brought to heel, it now remained only to suppress the isolated Roger Williams himself. Yet when brought again into general court in October 1635, Williams stoutly maintained all of his heretical and libertarian opinions. He refused to recant, even when forced to debate with the Reverend Thomas Hooker, a leading Puritan divine. Thereupon, the general court ordered Williams expelled from the colony within six weeks. The sentence of banishment declared, Whereas Mr. Roger Williams hath broached and divulged diverse new and dangerous opinions against the authority of magistrates, has also written letters of defamation, both of the magistrates and churches here, and yet maintaineth the same without retraction, it is therefore ordered that the said Mr. Williams shall depart out of this jurisdiction. The court agreed to extend the deadline for Williams's banishment, provided that he would not go about to draw others to his opinions. But the authorities were chagrined to find that even Williams in private was having a subversive effect. While Salem bowed reluctantly to the decision of the authorities and received the Marblehead land in return, Williams himself separated from the Salem church, and others were moved to do the same. Over twenty Salem families now prepared to follow Williams southward into exile and there build a haven of religious liberty. With the disappearance of the Council for New England in 1635, Massachusetts Bay and Plymouth were both virtually self-governing, 
And what is more, the land south of the Massachusetts Grand and west of Plymouth became a tempting vacuum, not having been parceled out to any person or group. It was in this free area that Williams now prepared to found a new colony. The Massachusetts authorities were greatly dismayed because they had expected that Williams would be forced back to England. It was not enough to oust Williams forcibly from the land area assigned to Massachusetts. Should he merely move southward, there would still be a danger that, in the words of Governor John Winthrop, the infection would easily spread to Massachusetts Bay. The general court hastily sent a ship to Salem to arrest Williams and send him speedily back to England. But Williams bested his persecutors and fled alone into the wilderness. He trudged south through the snow and spent the winter among the friendly Narragansett Indians. In the spring, Williams was joined by four friends, and they proceeded to the northern tip of Narragansett Bay, where they founded the settlement of Seekonk. There they were soon joined by several more families from Salem, the great southward flight from Massachusetts had begun. Williams's travail had scarcely ended, however. Soon the governor of Plymouth Colony wrote to Williams, regretfully advising him that Seekonk was still inside the Plymouth boundaries and that Plymouth could not dare displease Massachusetts by allowing the little band to remain. So Williams was now banished from Plymouth as well, and the purchase of the Seekonk land from the Indians, the clearing of land, and the planting of crops had all been in vain. Moving west across the Seekonk River, Williams left the jurisdiction of Plymouth and founded the settlement of Providence. In Providence plantations, Williams and the others scrupulously purchased the land from the Indians and determined to allow religious liberty in their new and spontaneously formed colony. How Roger Williams was regarded by the frightened Puritan oligarchs of Massachusetts Bay may be seen from the historical account of the Reverend Cotton Mather, one of the main leaders of the later generation of Puritan divines. There was a whole country in America like to be set on fire by the rapid motion of a windmill in the head of one particular man, Roger Williams. And Mather realized that Williams' doctrines were aimed at the whole political as well as the ecclesiastical constitution of the country. The reaction of the Massachusetts authorities to Williams' flight was to step up their persecution of Salem separatism. All meetings of separatists were now outlawed. Williams's views, at least in these early days of his career, were notably libertarian, especially in contrast to those of other Americans of his time. But it must be recognized that Williams emerged as an embattled leader within the context of a Puritan and dissenter movement in England, which in the 1630s and 1640s was rapidly becoming radicalized and increasingly libertarian. The libertarian movement reached its culmination and was not to reach the same height again for well over a century in the leveler movement of the 1640s. Williams himself had participated in the emerging Puritan cause. A protege of the great liberal jurist, Sir Edward Coke, Williams owned opinions that had brought him into conflict with the ultra-Anglican and minion of the Stuarts, Archbishop Laud. 
Williams thus received his early ideological training in the liberal dissenter movement. Free and safe in a providence enjoying religious liberty and separation of church and state, Roger Williams was later able to elaborate on his doctrines of religious liberty. His most famous theoretical work, The Bloody Tenant of Persecution for the Cause of Conscience Discussed, appeared in 1644. A sequel, The Bloody Tenant Yet More Bloody, rebutting the reply of the leading Massachusetts divine, Reverend John Cotton, appeared eight years later. Compulsory religion, Williams pointed out, violated the Christian tenet of love, and by ravishing and forcing souls and consciences led to hypocrisy for fear of state punishment. Coerced religion, Williams declared, leads to sex slaughtering each other for their several respective religions and consciences. Again, unusual for his time, Williams insisted that not only Protestants, but all religions must be completely free, including the most paganish, Jewish, Turkish, or anti-Christian consciences and worships. He added, to molest any person, Jew or Gentile, for either professing doctrines or practicing worship, is to persecute him and such a person, whatever his doctrine or practice be true or false, suffereth persecution for conscience. And this man of courage and principle nobly proclaimed the importance of cleaving to truth. We must not let go for all the flea-bitings of the present afflictions. Having bought truth dear, we must not sell it cheap. Not the least grain of it for the whole world, least of all for the little puff of credit and reputation from the changeable breath of uncertain sons of men. While Williams's heart was in the right place in insisting on purchasing all land voluntarily from the Indians, there were important aspects of the land problem that he had not thought through. While the Indians were certainly entitled to the land they cultivated, they also... One, laid claim to vast reaches of land which they hunted, but which they did not transform by cultivation. And, two, owned the land not as individual Indians, but as collective tribal entities. In many cases, the Indian tribes could not alienate or sell the lands, but only lease the use of their ancestral domains. As a result, the Indians also lived under a collectivist regime that, for land allocation, was scarcely more just than the English governmental land grab against which Williams was properly rebelling. Under both regimes, the actual settler, the first transformer of the land, whether white or Indian, had to fight his way past a nest of arbitrary land claims by others and pay their exactions until he could formally own the land. Williams, always a friend of the Indians, bought from the Sackhams, or chiefs, a grant of the large amount of land called the Providence Purchase. Williams then donated the land to a town fellowship, a joint property held equally by himself and five of his followers. The fellowship shortly enlarged to 13. As long as only the original settlers lived in Providence, all was peaceful, and virtually no government arose at all. 
As Williams described it, the masters of families have ordinarily met once a fortnight and consulted about our common peace, watch and plenty, and mutual consent have finished all matters of speed and pace. But it was inevitable that new settlers would come, and then that the arbitrary nature of the land allocation should give rise to conflict. Indeed, recriminations and tensions rapidly developed. Not realizing the inherent injustice of any arbitrary claims to unsettled land, and therefore not realizing that he and the others of the fellowship were taking on the aspect of quasi-feudal land monopolist, Williams naturally believed he had acted generously in giving the land to the fellowship. But the later settlers, forced to purchase the land from the fellowship, properly resented this feudalistic proprietary. The fellowship, later enlarged to 54, assigned 11 acres to each member, plus the right to an additional 100 acres apiece. In this way, some of the land passed quickly to the individual members of the fellowship. If their acreage was not in precise proportion to the degree of settlement, at least this land was now in the hands of its just owners, the individual settlers. But unfortunately, the great bulk of the Providence tract still remained in the hands of the collective fellowship proprietary, and in 1640, the fellowship moved to formalize its claim and to establish a proprietary oligarchy over future settlers. In that year, the fellowship drew up a plantation agreement at Providence and appointed a board of five disposers that would take charge of disposing of the land, managing the land held in common, and passing judgment on the qualification of new settlers. Taught little humility by their own sufferings, the disposers tended to be rigorous in their judgments. Before a man was permitted to settle and buy land in Providence, even the land of an individual settler willing to sell, the fellowship had to approve, and a veto by one fellow was sufficient to bar the newcomer. The original fellows soon admitted more members, but the number of fellows never exceeded 101, and the later members received only 25, rather than 100, acres of collectively owned land. Positions in the fellowship descended to the heirs of the original members. The other settlers who were permitted to become landowners in Providence were excluded from the select circle of the fellowship proprietary, which thus controlled the land and government. The fellowship kept a sharp check on its five disposers, but this hardly made the government of Providence less oligarchical. The most oligarchic feature of the plantation agreement dealt with Potuxet, a tract of land immediately south of Providence. Potuxet had been purchased from Indian Sachems in the spring of 1638 and turned over by Williams to the fellows, then numbering 13. Overriding Williams's wishes, the fellows led by William Arnold and William Harris deciding in October of 1638 eventually to divide the Patuxet lands among themselves without even providing for any new settlers. The agreement of 1640 confirmed Patuxet as a closed proprietorship. Roger Williams carried his principles of religious liberty into practice. There was no state church and no one was forced to attend church. 
Williams himself was to change his religious views several times, becoming a Baptist for a few months, and then ending as a seeker who held to no fixed creed. Liberty has its own inner logic, and so Williams's religious liberty in Providence extended also to women. One of Williams's Salem adherents who had followed him to Providence, Joshua Varon, tasting the heady wine of religious liberty, grew disenchanted with Williams's sermon and stopped attending church. This was perfectly legitimate in his newfound home, but Varon went so far as to prevent his wife from attending, even beating her to prevent her from going. Farron was therefore disfranchised by Providence in the spring of 1638 for restraining his wife's conscience. He soon returned to Salem, where he could again exercise the Puritan role of despotic pater familias. The logic of liberty had, as we shall see, even more drastic implications. For, as some citizens of Providence began to reason, if the conscience of the individual was to be supreme in religious matters, if the state was to have no power to interfere with any actions determined by his religious conscience, why shouldn't his liberty extend to civil matters as well? Why shouldn't the individual's conscience reign supreme in all civil as well as religious affairs? Volume 1, Chapter 22, Suppressing Heresy, The Flight of Anne Hutchinson Very shortly after the expulsion of Roger Williams, the Massachusetts Bay Colony was rent far more widely by another heresy with roots deep in the colony, the antinomianism of Mrs. Anne Hutchinson. A major reason for the crisis that Anne Hutchinson's heresy posed for Massachusetts was that she occupied a high place in the colony's oligarchy. Arriving in Massachusetts in 1634, she and her husband lived close to Governor Winthrop's mansion in Boston and participated in Boston's high society. A friend of the eminent Reverend John Cotton, she first confined her religious activities to expatiating on Cotton's sermons. Soon, however, Mrs. Hutchinson developed a religious doctrine of her own, now known as antinomianism. She preached the necessity for an inner light to come to any individual chosen as one of God's elect. Such talk marked her as far more of a religious individualist than the Massachusetts leaders. Salvation came only through a covenant of grace emerging from the inner light and was not at all revealed in a covenant of works, the essence of which is good works on earth. This meant that the fanatically ascetic sanctification imposed by the Puritans was no evidence whatever that one was of the elect. Furthermore, Anne Hutchinson made it plain that she regarded many Puritan leaders as not of the elect. She also came to assert that she had received direct revelations from God. In contrast to Williams's few Salem followers, Anne Hutchinson had rapid and sweeping success in converting her fellow citizens. John Cotton now became a follower of hers, as did young Sir Henry Vane, chosen governor by the general court in 1636, and Anne's brother-in-law, Reverend John Wheelwright. 
Indeed, John Winthrop, deputy governor in 1636, wrote disgustedly that virtually the entire church at Boston had become her converts. As bitter enemies of Anne, there remained especially Winthrop and the senior minister of Boston, John Wilson. Mrs. Hutchinson failed in her attempt to oust Wilson from his post, but she did succeed in having him censured by his own congregation. The Hutchinsonian movement began, if inadvertently, to pose political problems for the oligarchy as well. The conscription of soldiers for war against the Indians met resistance from Boston Hutchinsonians on the ground that the military chaplain, Reverend John Wilson, was under a covenant of works rather than of grace. The anti-Hutchinson forces moved first against the fiery Reverend Mr. Wheelwright. The general court narrowly convicted him of sedition and contempt in March 1637, but the sentencing of Wheelwright was postponed. The turning point of the Hutchinson affair came with the May election of 1637, which the Winthrop forces managed to win by shifting its site from pro-Hutchinson, Boston, to Newtown, now Cambridge. The election pitted Sir Henry Vane against former Governor Winthrop and Thomas Dudley, running for his old post of deputy governor. With the election turning on the Hutchinson issue, Vane carried Boston but lost the other towns heavily. Winthrop, Dudley, and the majority of the magistrates or assistants were carried by the conservative anti-Hutchinson faction, a not surprising victory when we consider that suffrage was restricted to the ranks of accepted church members. This overwhelming defeat spelled swift suppression for the antinomian heretics. Quickly, the new general court passed a law that penalized strangers and was directed against a group of Hutchinsonians known to be on their way from England. Disheartened, Sir Henry Vane gave up the struggle and returned to England. Seeing the way the wind was blowing, John Cotton promptly deserted his old disciple, abjectly recanted his heresies, and at a Newtown Synod denounced 91 antinomian opinions as unwholesome or blasphemous. Vane was gone and Cotton and apostate, but there was still the Reverend Mr. Wheelwright. The already convicted Wheelwright was again hauled before the general court and sentenced to banishment from the colony. Wheelwright walked through the snows to New Hampshire in the north, where he founded the settlement of Exeter. When, by 1643, Massachusetts had appropriated the New Hampshire towns, Wheelwright fled to Maine. But by 1646, Wheelwright had recanted, bewailed his own vehement and censorious spirit, and was allowed back into Massachusetts. Having vented their fury on the major followers and isolated the leader, the Puritan oligarchs proceeded to the culminating point of the drama, the trial and persecution of Anne Hutchinson herself. There was no independent judiciary in the colonies, the supreme judicial arm in Massachusetts was the legislative body, the general court, at this time a unicameral legislature presided over by the governor. Anne Hutchinson was hauled up for trial, or rather public examination, before the general court in November 1637. Anne's enemies on the general court duly tried her, convicted her of sedition and contempt, 
and banished her from the colony. Governor Winthrop summarized the proceedings thus, The court hath already declared themselves concerning the troublesomeness of her spirit and the dangers of her course amongst us, which is not to be suffered. Winthrop then called for a vote that Mrs. Hutchinson is unfit for our society and that she shall be banished out of our liberties and imprisoned till she be sent away. Only two members voted against her banishment. When Winthrop pronounced the sentence of banishment, Anne Hutchinson courageously asked, I desire to know wherefore I am banished. Winthrop refused to answer. Say no more. The court knows wherefore and is satisfied. It was apparently enough for the court to be satisfied. No justification before the bar of reason, natural justice, or the public was deemed necessary. The general court now proceeded against all the leading Hutchinsonians, concentrating on 60 Bostonians who had previously signed a moderate petition, denying that Reverend Wheelwright had stirred up sedition among them. Two members of the general court, both of whom had spoken up for Mrs. Hutchinson at the trial, were expelled from the court and banished from the colony. Many people were disfranchised, and 75 citizens were disarmed on the pretext that the Hutchinsonians were plotting to follow the path of the German Anabaptist of old and rise up in armed revolt. The reasoning, as expounded by Dudley at the Hutchinson trial, was that the German Anabaptist had also claimed to enjoy private revelations. Hutchinsonian military officers were forced to recant, but the determined Captain John Underhill refused to do so, and was duly banished. Anne Hutchinson's ordeal was still not ended. Spared banishment during the rugged winter, she was imprisoned at the home of one of her major enemies, and the elders attempted throughout the winter to argue her out of her convictions. Finally, they subjected her to an ecclesiastical trial the following March. Tormented, ill, and exhausted, Mrs. Hutchinson momentarily recanted, But as she continued to be denounced, her spirits returned, and she put forth her views again. To save himself from the fate meted out to the other Hutchinsonians, John Cotton now apparently felt that his personal recantation was not enough, so he joined the pack rending Mrs. Hutchinson at the ecclesiastical trial. This man, whom Anne Hutchinson had revered and followed to the new world, now turned on her savagely, wailing that he had been duped, denouncing her as a liar and for conduct tending eventually to infidelity. The Boston Ecclesiastical Court then pronounced excommunication upon Anne, and it was the peculiar satisfaction of the Reverend John Wilson, her most bitter enemy, to deliver the sentence. I do cast you out, and in the name of Christ I do deliver you up to Satan, that you may learn no more to blaspheme, to seduce, and to lie, and I do account you from this time forth to be a heathen and a publican. Therefore I command you in the name of Jesus Christ and of his church as a leper to withdraw yourself out of the congregation. The undaunted Anne Hutchinson had the last word, Better to be cast out of the church than to deny Christ. 
While Anne was undergoing imprisonment and subsequent excommunication, the leaders of the Hutchinsonian movement gathered together to flee the colony and to prepare a home for themselves and Anne away from the developing reign of terror in Massachusetts. On March 7, 1638, 19 men, including Anne's husband, William Hutchinson, gathered at the home of the eminent Boston merchant, William Coddington, one of the wealthiest men in the colony and its former treasurer. In a solemn compact, the 19 formed themselves into a body politic, choosing Coddington as their judge. The Hutchinsonians first intended to go to Long Island or Jersey to make their home, but they were persuaded by Roger Williams to settle in the Rhode Island area. On Williams's friendly advice, Coddington purchased the island of Aquidneck from the Indians and founded on the island the settlement of Pocasset, now Portsmouth. Anne, ill and exhausted, joined her husband at Aquidneck in April as soon as her trial was over. The enormous significance of Roger Williams's successful flight and settlement of Providence two years before was now becoming evident. For Williams's example held out a beacon light of liberty to all the free spirits caught in the vast prison house that was Massachusetts Bay. By the happy accident of the demise of the Council for New England, the land south of Massachusetts Bay and west of Plymouth was free land, free of proprietary and effective royal government alike. It was a haven for religious liberty and for diverse sects and groupings and for an extension of the logic of liberty as well. For once liberty is pursued and experienced, it is difficult to hobble its uttermost expansion. When the ill Anne Hutchinson arrived at her haven in Aquidneck, the many months of persecution had left their mark, and she suffered a miscarriage as did her beautiful young follower, Mary Dyer, who had stood up to walk out of the Boston church with the excommunicated Anne. The Puritan leaders of Massachusetts Bay, preoccupied for years afterward with the Hutchinsonian menace, characteristically gloated in righteous satisfaction at the misfortunes of Anne and Mary. The theocrats were jubilant, and the Reverend John Cotton, Governor Winthrop, and the Reverend Thomas Weld all hailed Anne's and Mary's sufferings as the evident judgment of God. It was typical of the Puritans to hail the misfortunes of their enemies as God's judgment and to dismiss any kindness shown them by others as simply God's will and therefore requiring no gratitude to those showing it. Massachusetts Bay continued indeed in a state of hysteria over the Hutchinsonian heresy for a number of years. Anne's followers and sympathizers were fined, whipped, and banished. And five years later, Robert Potter was executed for being a Hutchinsonian. It was also typical that with Anne outside their jurisdiction, the Boston church leaders should send a committee to Aquidneck to try to persuade her of the error of her ways. If they could no longer inflict violence upon Anne, they could at least badger and harass her. It is not surprising that the beleaguered Anne gave the committee short shrift, kicked it out of her home, and denounced the Boston church as a whore and a strumpet. In Pocasset, Anne was spiritual leader of the flock, and Cottington temporal leader. The Pocasset government was chosen by the assembled freeholders, and, like Providence, 
The government had to consent to the arrival of any newcomers to the colony. But Anne Hutchinson was becoming more and more concerned for the principle of freedom of conscience rather than for propagating her own religious views. She began to see that Coddington and his associates were launching a new theocracy of their own in the infant colony. For Coddington was judge of the settlement, basing his decrees and decisions on the word of God as interpreted by himself. And Anne began to chafe at the state control that Coddington was increasingly imposing. Coddington based his seizure of power on the flimsy legalism of his being the sole name on the deed of purchase of a quidnick from the Indians. Therefore, he claimed for himself all the rights of a feudal lord owning the whole island, owning and renting out the lots of all the settlers, and asserting authority over all land grants. At the beginning of 1639, Anne Hutchinson led a movement that successfully modified the Bocassic Constitution. The change gave the body of freemen a veto over the actions of the governor and the right to elect three elders to share the governor's powers. Thus, the increasingly dictatorial rule of Coddington was checked. Coddington reacted most ungraciously to this limitation on his power, and he appointed a constable to keep watch on any manifest breaches of the law of God that tend to civil disturbance. Had Anne Hutchinson fled the theocracy of Massachusetts only to see a miniature raise its head in her new home? Finally, in April, the Hutchinson forces insisted at the Pocasset town meeting on a new election for governor, a demand that startled Coddington, who expected to remain in office indefinitely and without the fuss and bother of elections. Vigorous pressure by Freeman on Coddington finally won the demand for elections, and William Hutchinson was elected by a large majority. Coddington and his followers, including Nicholas Easton, John Cogshall, William Dyer, and John Clark, abandoned Pocasset and founded the new settlement of Newport at the southern end of Aquidneck Island. The victorious Hutchinsonians adopted a new compact of government and changed the name of the town to Portsmouth. Oligarchal distinctions were eliminated and all the male inhabitants signed the new compact. Provision was made for jury trial and church and state were at last separated. There was no provision, for example, in the new civil compact about the word of God, the only rule by which Coddington had made his decisions. Anne Hutchinson had been rapidly learning firsthand about state persecution and freedom of religion for all Christians was now guaranteed. William Hutchinson was chosen new chief judge of the colony. The power-hungry Coddington now mounted an armed attempt to rule over Portsmouth, but was forcibly ejected by the Hutchinsonians. Soon, however, Coddington was able to arrest William Hutchinson and order his disfranchisement. Anne and her husband were again victims of harassment and persecution. A year later, on March 12, 1640, the two groups came to an agreement, and the settlements of Portsmouth and Newport, the latter by now being the larger of the two, united primarily on the libertarian principles of Portsmouth. 
Coddington was chosen governor, however, and William Hutchinson one of his assistants. The separate towns were allowed to retain their autonomy, and the laws were to be made by the citizens rather than by an oligarchy. And a year later, in May 1641, the Aquidneck government declared, it is ordered that none shall be accounted as delinquent for doctrine. Religious liberty had been officially decreed in Aquidneck. The settlements of Providence in Aquidneck had raised the banner of freedom for all religious creeds. In this free air, diversity of religion came to proliferate in the colony. Soon, however, Mrs. Anne Hutchinson, ruminating in the free air of Rhode Island on the meaning of her experience, came to an astounding and startling conclusion, and one that pushed the logic of Roger Williams's libertarianism far beyond the master. For, as Williams reported in Bewilderment, Anne now persuaded her husband to give up his leading post as assistant in the Equidnick government because of the opinion which he had newly taken up, of the unlawfulness of magistry. In short, the logic of liberty and a deeper meditation on scripture had both led Anne to the ultimate bounds of libertarian thought, to individualist anarchism. No magistry, whatever, was lawful. As Anne's biographer, Winifred Rugg, put it, she was supremely convinced that the Christian held within his own breast the assurance of salvation. For such persons, magistrates, were obviously superfluous. As for the other, they were to be converted, not coerced. To the Puritans of Massachusetts, Equidnick was an abominable isle of errors, and the Rhode Island settlements were rogues' land. Massachusetts began to plot to assert its jurisdiction over these pestiferous settlements and to crush the havens of liberty. Indians were egged on to raid the Providence and Aquidneck territories. Massachusetts then shut off all trade with the Rhode Islanders, who were thus forced to turn to the neighboring Dutch settlements of New Netherland for supplies. A son and son-in-law of Anne's visiting Boston were seized and very heavily fined by the authorities and then banished from Massachusetts on pain of death. In 1642, soon after his resignation from public office, William Hutchinson died. Deprived of her husband and mainstay, disgusted with all government, and deeply worried about Massachusetts' threatened encroachments on Rhode Island, and knowing also that the Bay Colony was now regarding her as a witch and therefore deserving of death, Anne decided to leave once more. Taking a few members of her family and a few dozen disciples, Anne Hutchinson left Rhode Island to go to Long Island in New Netherland and finally to settle in the wilderness of Pelham Bay. There, in late summer of 1643, Anne and her family were murdered by a band of Indians engaged in armed struggle with the Dutch. Williams and Anne's deaths were hailed and gloated over by the Puritan oligarchy of Massachusetts Bay. To the unconcealed delight of the divines of Massachusetts, Anne Hutchinson had finally been physically destroyed. But the spirit of liberty that she embodied and kindled was to outlast the despotic theocracy of Massachusetts Bay. Perhaps 
in the light of history, the victory in the unequal contest was Anne Hutchinson's. Even in the short run, Massachusetts Bay was soon to meet again the spirit of Anne Hutchinson, the emphasis on the inner light, on individual conscience, on liberty, in the new sect of Quakers, a sect joined by many Hutchinsonians, including William Coddington and Mary Dyer, and in the Baptists, headed by Anne Hutchinson's sister, Catherine Scott, and by the Hutchinsonian, Dr. John Clark. Volume 1, Chapter 23, The Further Settlement of Rhode Island, The Odyssey of Samuel Gorton. In the meanwhile, religious liberty, and hence diversity, was flourishing in nearby Providence. An Anglican minister who had been living in the vicinity before the Williams Settlement continued to preach there. Baptists came also to the colony and exerted great influence. The first Baptist minister was Dr. John Clark, a physician who had arrived in Massachusetts from England just in time to join with Anne Hutchinson and leave for Quidnick. William Harris also was a leading Rhode Island Baptist from the earliest days. The brilliant Baptist leader and sister of Anne Hutchinson, Mrs. Catherine Scott, even succeeded in temporarily converting Roger Williams, along with many other leaders, to the Baptist faith in early 1639. The inveterate Baptist insistence on individual conscience and the right of religious liberty was very close to Williams's views. In addition, each Baptist church was separate and completely autonomous. The officers were democratically elected by the entire congregation. In a few months, however, Williams shifted again to become a seeker, which he continued to be for the rest of his life. Williams had arrived at the point of questioning the claims of all churches to apostolic authority or to correctness of ritual. In addition to religious liberty and apart from land allocation, the powers of government in Providence were limited. Disputes were to be settled by arbitration, but the arbitration was compulsory, enforced by the ruling disposers. And in contrast to Massachusetts, there was no establishment of government schools. One of the most repeatedly and consistently persecuted Americans of the 17th century was Samuel Gorton, an individualist and a free spirit who had been a clothier in London. Gorton, a professor of the mysteries of Christ, challenged not only the right of theocracy, but the wisdom of all priests and formal religious organizations. Politically, this individualist argued that any transgressions of government beyond the rights guaranteed by the English common law were impermissible. Gorton also opposed theocratic laws against immorality and questioned the existence of heaven and hell, the truth of the scriptures, baptism, and the taking of oaths. Chafing at the restrictions of Anglican England, Gorton left London for Boston in 1636 to enjoy liberty of conscience in respect to faith towards God. It did not take Gorton long to see that he had only moved from the frying pan into the fire. He arrived just in time to see the expulsion of the Reverend Wheelwright to Exeter, and he realized that if Massachusetts would not tolerate the presence of the relatively orthodox Wheelwright, it could surely have little place for the likes of him. 
Gordon therefore left quickly for Plymouth, where he began to attract considerable following for his views. Adopting Anne Hutchinson's device of prayer meetings in his parlor, Gordon began to arouse the ire of the colony's oligarchs by making a convert of the wife of the Reverend Ralph Smith, the respected retired minister of Plymouth. Another inconvenient convert was a sewing maid of the current minister of the colony, the Reverend Mr. Rayner. Reverend Mr. Smith began a campaign to expel Gordon from the colony, and a suitable excuse came shortly to hand. Employed as Mrs. Gordon's serving maid was a widow newly arrived from England, Ellen Aldridge. Charges began to be whispered about Plymouth Colony that Ellen had committed the grievous offense of smiling in church. Complaints were duly lodged against her, and the Plymouth Fathers summarily ordered Ellen to be promptly expelled from the colony as a vagabond. Gordon spoke up heatedly in protest over these high-handed proceedings, for which high crime Gordon himself was hauled into court in late 1638. In a pretrial hearing, Gordon accused one of the magistrates of lying, a charge which only added to his crimes. At this trial, Gordon denounced the grave violation of English common law in uniting the offices of prosecutor and magistrate in the same man. Protesting against the injustice of the trial, Gordon addressed the crowd, Ye see, good people, how you are abused. Stand for your liberty, and let them not be parties and judges. The frightened church elders, on hearing this plea, urged the court to inflict summary punishment to remove this libertarian troublemaker from the colony. Gorton was duly prohibited from speaking in his own defense, and the court swiftly fined Gorton and gave him fourteen days to leave Plymouth. Gorton was thereby forced to walk through the wilderness in the snow and was barely able to finish the journey southwestward to Portsmouth, where he settled. In Portsmouth, Gorton found political rule centered in William Coddington, the sole magistrate. Joined there by his main Plymouth disciple, John Wicks, Gorton promptly amassed a large following and formed an alliance with Anne Hutchinson to overthrow Coddington's dictatorial rule and to repulse Coddington's armed attempt to impose his rule in Portsmouth. A year later, however, with Newport joined to Portsmouth, Coddington was back in command, even though opposed by the majority of Portsmouth residents. Again, Samuel Gorton, who had steadfastly refused to enter into the agreement to join Newport, felt the lash of persecution, and again Gorton's defense of someone in his employ was the catalyst used. At the end of 1640, an old woman's cow invaded Gorton's land, Coming after the cow, the trespassing old lady got into a fight with a serving girl of Gorton's, after which the woman hauled the servant into court. Gorton defended his servant and strongly protested the unfair trial, attacking the justices as just asses. He also denied the authority of the constituted court and government, since no royal charter covered Rhode Island, it was free territory, and therefore no authority to set up a government could exist. Coddington, the chief justice at the trial, ordered Gorton arrested forthwith, crying out, You that are for the king, lay hold on Gorton, to which the defiant Gorton instantly riposted, All you that are for the king, lay hold on Coddington. 
A hand-to-hand fight ensued, with Coddington's armed guard gaining the victory. Gordon was arrested, and John Wicks, who had also defended the servant, was put into the stocks. Gordon himself was soon whipped and banished from a quidnick. Wicks and several Gortonites were banished as well. What next? The only place left for Gordon to go was Providence, and so he and a dozen families of disciples arrived there in the winter of 1640-41. In Providence, Gordon found two major factions— the owners of Patuxet, headed by William Arnold and William Harris, and Providence proper, led by Roger Williams. The oligarchal Patuxet clique was particularly fearful that Gordon might convert a majority of townsmen and overturn its rule, and so the Patuxet rulers refused to allow the Gordon Knights to use the town commons. The Arnold faction urged that the turbulent Gorton and his followers be expelled immediately from the settlement. But Gorton expanded his following, and they soon became a third force in the little colony. And what of Roger Williams? Enjoying increasing political power, Williams was beginning to lose the edge of his libertarian principles. He became alarmed that Gorton, far more individualist and libertarian than himself, was bewitching and bemaddening poor Providence with his unclear and foul censures of all the ministers of this country. Williams tried to violate, sub rosa, his own principles of religious liberty by simply excluding Gorton from Providence, an exclusion which was in the power of the landed oligarchy of the town. Or rather, Williams, more moderate than Arnold, wanted to grant Gorton admission only if he pledged to respect the authority of the government, and if he abandoned such uncivil protest as had gotten Gorton expelled from Portsmouth. Finally, in November 1641, some of the Patuxet faction seized some cattle owned by a Gortonite. To satisfy a debt judgment, the Gortonites believed to be arbitrarily decreed by the disposers. This led to a full-fledged riot between the two factions, the Gortonites being led by Randall Holden and John Green, and the Gortonites managed to save their friends' property from the cattle stealers. Because of the riot, 13 of the Patuxet oligarchs made a desperate and treacherous call for the Massachusetts government to intervene with force to expel the anarchist Gortonites. The oligarchs pulled out all the stops against their enemies, accusing the Gortonites of being anarchist and leaning toward communism and free love or familism. Their appeal to Massachusetts was a direct threat to all the precious liberties that the men of Providence had fled Massachusetts to preserve, and thus began an active threat to Rhode Island liberty from Massachusetts, that was to last and be of great significance for the little settlements for years to come. Massachusetts replied haughtily to the Patuxians that it would intervene only if Providence would first submit to its authority, which Providence would not do. Indeed, less than a third of the Providence citizens supported the Arnold-Harris petition. Williams, however, now joined the Patuxians in obtaining the expulsion of Gorton from Providence. Gorton was now banished even from this relative haven of religious liberty. His only consolation was that this time he wasn't whipped out of town. 
Gordon and his followers now moved to West Patuxet, an unused tract of land which Gordon had purchased the year before. But once again, the alarmed Arnold Harris forces in September 1642 requested coercive intervention by Massachusetts and in return offered the submission of Patuxet to Massachusetts authority. Delighted, Massachusetts accepted with alacrity, and their declamations thoroughly alarmed the Gortonites. Governor Winthrop, for example, exalted that Samuel Gorton was a man not fit to live upon the face of the earth, and Massachusetts troops made ready, it appeared, to put that harsh value judgment into effect. There was, it seemed, no place in America that would tolerate the existence of Samuel Gorton, not even the relatively free Providence and Equidnick settlements. There was but one course left. Gorton determined to found an entirely new settlement of his own. Gorton, a friend of the Indians and of Indian rights, moved with his flock south of Providence to purchase Indian land and found the settlement of Shawamet in November 1642. Tasting the heady wine of freedom at last, the Gortonites sent a defiant letter to the Massachusetts authorities, which the diligent Boston Synod discovered to contain no less than 26 blasphemies. Massachusetts and its Patuxian underlings now formed a secret alliance with some marauding Indian chiefs to lay claim to Shawamet territory in order to charge that the Gortonite land purchase was null and void. Massachusetts suddenly, and for the first time, championing Indian land rights and implicitly assuming jurisdiction in an area not covered by its charter ordered Gordon to appear before the Massachusetts courts to defend his land claims. Gordon, of course, refused. In the summer of 1643, Massachusetts shamefully arranged the murder of the high Indian chief, Myantonomo, who had sold Shawamet to Gordon. Again, the Massachusetts General Court wrote to the Shawamet settlers, ordering them all to appear at Boston, ostensibly to settle the land claims. Randall Holden wrote the defiant reply for the Gordonites on September 15, a reply filled, of course, with what the Bostonians called blasphemies. Addressing himself to the great and honored idol general, now set up in the Massachusetts, Holden denounced the submitting Indian Sacums headed by one Uncas as thieves, pointing out that Shawamet was outside Massachusetts jurisdiction and proceeding to talk to the Massachusetts oligarchy at long last in terms which none had yet dared to use, calling them a generation of vipers, murderers of Anne Hutchinson, and companions of Judas Iscariot, Holden in the Gortonites heroically declared that they would henceforth treat Massachusetts precisely as Massachusetts treated them. According as you put forth yourselves towards us, so shall you find us transformed to answer you. If you put forth your hand to us as countrymen, ours are in readiness for you. If you exercise the pen, accordingly do we become a ready writer. 
if your sword be drawn, ours is girt upon our thigh. If you present a gun, make haste to give the first fire, for we are come to put fire upon the earth, and it is our desire to have it speedily kindled. To this valiant defense of the rights of Shawamet, Massachusetts replied instantly in the way it knew best, by declaring the Gorton Knights fitted for the slaughter, and by dispatching an armed troop. The Massachusetts troop, having laid siege to Shawamet, Gorton asked Massachusetts to accept an offer of Providence ministers to arbitrate the dispute. Winthrop quickly refused, charging that this was just a ruse to delay matters while Gorton stirred up the Indians. After the soldiers plundered the houses and seized the cattle of the Gortonites, the settlers surrenders but only on the pledge of the soldiers that they would be treated en route to Boston as guests rather than as captives. As soon as the surrender was completed, however, the Massachusetts soldiery reneged on the agreement and the Gortonites were marched to Boston under orders that anyone who spoke on the way would be knocked down and anyone who dared to step out of the column would be run through with a bayonet. Arriving in Massachusetts, the Gorton Knights found that the colony had now conveniently forgotten about the dispute over the Indian land claims. With the Gorton Knights at last in its power, Massachusetts held them exultantly without bail on charges of heresy, blasphemy, and opposition to the authority of Massachusetts. According to now hallowed Massachusetts custom, it was not enough of a scourge upon the Gorton Knights to be charged with heresy, blasphemy, and treason. In addition, they had to be constantly pursued and harassed by the church elders and ministers trying to convert them to the Puritan faith. Once, only once, was Gorton allowed to speak in a Massachusetts church to the great regret of the theocracy. Courageously, he proclaimed, In the church now there was nothing but Christ, as that all our ordinances, ministers, and sacraments, and others, were but men's inventions for show and pump. On hearing this, some of the ministers urged the magistrates speedily to hew Gordon in pieces. The Reverend John Cotton urged death for the heretics. Indeed, the cry for death was joined by all but three ministers of the colony. Happily, the death vote lost by two votes in the general court, the supreme judicial as well as legislative arm of the colony. Not that the court's sentence was not severe. On November 3, 1643, the general court condemned the Gortonites to indefinite terms of hard labor in chains and forbade them to speak any of their blasphemous and abominable heresies on pain of death. The indomitable Gortonites, however, did not let their sentence faze them in the least. Working at hard labor rather than languishing in prison meant that they traveled throughout the colony, working in different towns. Defiantly ignoring the death threat, the Gordon Knights preached their view of the gospel wherever they went and made numerous converts all over the colony, especially among women. Before long, a majority of the colony was at the least sympathetic to their plight. Many influential leaders, including former 
Governor John Endicott, urged death for the disobedient Gordonites, and Reverend John Cotton recommended that they be starved into submission. But finally, the alarmed and perplexed authorities decided that the safest course was to get the resisting Gordonites out of the country. They freed the prisoners, giving them 14 days to leave the colony on pain of death. The Massachusetts authorities assumed that the banishment order covered Shawamut, Acting on the technicality that the town was not explicitly mentioned in the order, the Gortonites returned home to Shawamut. They were not long allowed to remain there, however. On hearing of their return, Governor Winthrop ordered the Gortonites out, and the hapless settlers fled back to Portsmouth, where they rented houses and land, despite the opposition of Governor Coddington to their immigration but the trials and tribulations of Samuel Gorton and his flock were far from over. Much as Roger Williams continued self-government free from English rule, the threat of Massachusetts imperialism brought on by the Patuxet oligarchs had driven him to realize that it was now necessary to gain an English charter to protect the Rhode Island settlement once and for all from Massachusetts aggression. Sailing in 1643 for England, now in the midst of the exhilarating ideological ferment of the Puritan Revolution, Williams persuaded Parliament in the spring of 1644 to grant Providence and Equidnick a charter as the United Providence Plantations. While in England, Williams happily associated with the radical, liberal wing of the Revolution, especially with Sir Henry Vane, the former ally of Anne Hutchinson in Massachusetts, and with its struggle against any established Presbyterian or Puritan church. It was in England, indeed, that Williams was inspired to elaborate his principle of religious liberty and to publish his famous Bloody Tenant. His writings were hailed by the British liberals, who used Williams's arguments in their own struggle against any budding theocracy. The new Rhode Island Charter was happily loose and vague, allowing any sort of self-government generally and vaguely compatible with English laws. On Williams's triumphal return to Providence in late 1644, the colony's General Assembly met for the first time and formed a loose and informal organization with Williams chosen as chief officer. Bitterly opposed to the charter, however, was William Coddington, whose increasingly pressed claim to sole ownership of all of Aquidneck Island was now permanently in jeopardy. Coddington treacherously followed the Patuxet lead by seeking to bring in the force of Massachusetts and also the newly formed New England Confederation against the new charter. Forgetting his former fight for liberty alongside Anne Hutchinson, Coddington actually wrote Winthrop that he believed wholeheartedly in the Massachusetts system, both in church and commonwealth. Samuel Gordon returned to Portsmouth just in time to throw himself into the defense of the charter against Coddington's attempted usurpation. Gordon was, in fact, made a judge by the anti-Coddingtonians of Portsmouth. Despite the protective charter of 1644, Massachusetts continued in the next two years to claim authority over all of the Rhode Island settlements. 
Thus, in 1645, Massachusetts and its sister colonies of the United Colonies, or New England Confederation, declared war against the peaceful Narragansett Indians and dispatched a military force to Rhode Island. Upon hearing of Roger Williams's negotiation of neutrality with the Narragansetts, Massachusetts and Plymouth thundered to the Providence plantations that if they persisted in their neutrality, they would be treated as enemies and also forbade them to operate under their 1644 charter. Moving specifically against the Gortonites, Massachusetts, in autumn 1645, authorized a group of families to settle at Shawamut on the lands seized from the Gortonites. Plymouth, however, felt that it too had a claim to the territory and warned off the new settlers from Massachusetts. The United Colonies of New England promptly proceeded to assume jurisdiction and presumed to award the territory to Massachusetts. Alarmed at the developing aggression of Massachusetts, Samuel Gorton decided to go to England to seek definite English protection for his rights to Shawamut. Holding also an impressive commission from his friends, the Narragansett Indians, who declared themselves willing to submit to an English charter, Gorton, along with Holden and Green, left for England in late 1645. After a decade of odyssey and persecution, it was highly gratifying for Samuel Gorton to arrive in England at the height of the great libertarian ferment spawned by the levelers and other radical individualist groups. Gorton had the time of his life for two years, spoke throughout England, was widely hailed, and wrote and published two books, his literary output being inspired evidently by the radical libertarian ferment in England. In the fall of 1646, Randall Holden and John Green returned triumphantly to Boston, armed with an order from the Earl of Warwick, head of the Commission for Foreign Plantations, to allow the Shawamut settlers to return home in freedom and to remain there without molestation. The submission of the Narragansett Indians to England also successfully kept the potentially bountiful Narragansett country out of Massachusetts' hands. The incensed Massachusetts authorities seriously considered jailing Holden and Green and ignoring Warwick and Parliament. But cooler heads finally prevailed, and the two Rhode Islanders were allowed to proceed on their way. Samuel Gorton himself exultantly returned to Boston in the spring of 1648. The infuriated General Court of Massachusetts immediately decided to lock up Gorton to prevent the infection of this pestilent doctrine, but Gorton triumphantly produced a letter of safe conduct from the Earl of Warwick. The disgruntled General Court had been stopped from arresting Gorton, but it gave him a week to get out of the colony. Gorton returned to Shawamut, which he gratefully renamed Warwick. William Arnold, the leading Patuxet oligarch, continued to complain about Gorton to Massachusetts and urge intervention. But Massachusetts was now chastened and decided at long last to leave the Gortonites alone. The saga of violent Gortonite persecution was finally over. 
Shawamet and later Warwick had no government at all until it united with the other towns to form the colony of Providence Plantations in 1648. Until then, the little settlement, in the words of Gorton, lived peaceably together, desiring and endeavoring to do wrong to no man, neither English nor Indian, ending all our differences in a neighborly and loving way of arbitration, mutually chosen amongst us. But this anarchist idol soon came to an end. Beginning in 1647 and completed the following year, the four Rhode Island towns of Providence, Portsmouth, Newport, and Warwick were united into the colony of the Providence Plantations. From a persecuted outcast, Samuel Gorton had now become a respected leader of the colony. As the undisputed leader of Warwick, Gorton was chosen town magistrate and for numerous other posts, and he was Warwick's main representative in the new colony. The Code of the United Colony, drawn up in 1647, followed Gorton's insistence on conforming judicial procedure to English law. The code had been largely drafted by Roger Williams, acting as moderator of the Providence Town Meeting, and discussed in detail both by committees of correspondence in the various towns and by the assembly. Numerous safeguards were included against the exercise of power by the central government of the colony. The selected officers, who constituted the supreme judicial power, did not, as in other colonies, constitute also an upper legislative house. Instead, they had no position in the legislature, which was, in fact, a general assembly of all the freemen of the colony. The only representative body was a general court, a committee of six from each town, meeting in between the meetings of the larger general assembly. Laws passed by the general court were subject to the approval of the towns. If a majority of the towns approved, then the law would stand, but only until confirmation by the next General Assembly. Popular elections were to be annual for all representatives and executive officers. The duties of each official were carefully defined, and every officer was warned not to go beyond his commission. Wrongdoing by any official made him liable to impeachment and trial in the General Assembly, In addition, the towns were empowered to make their own apportionment of the taxes levied upon them by the central government and to do their own collecting. One of the crucial safeguards raised in the code against the central government was the guarantee of home rule to each town. To guard against the supremacy of any one town, the general court and assembly were to rotate their meeting place among the towns, Moreover, the code provided for initiative and referendum and nullification by the towns. Initiative permitted the agitation and passage of new legislation by a majority of the town meetings themselves, thus completely bypassing the general court. The referendum and nullification provision forced the general court, as we have seen, to refer its enactments to the towns, a majority of which could veto any legislation. In accordance with Rhode Island's role of providing asylum, there were, unlike Massachusetts, no stranger laws preventing persons or towns from receiving newcomers without the consent of the central government. 
The code also provided no mitigation of legal penalties for gentlemen criminals, and there was no primogeniture in the law of inheritance. In contrast to the brutal edicts of Massachusetts, punishments for crime were restricted and were far more proportional to the gravity of the crime. Only once did Rhode Island, under the code, whip or brand anyone, and branding was abolished by 1656. And in contrast to the scores of capital crimes in England and Massachusetts, Rhode Island listed only nine crimes as capital. More important, only two criminals were executed in Rhode Island during Roger Williams's long lifetime, and both of these were murderers. Religious liberty was guaranteed in the Rhode Island Code, and the laws against personal immorality, though not completely absent, were relatively mild. There was neither sumptuary legislation against unseemly adornment nor any attempt to regulate a person's church life, though laws restricting drinking and gambling were imposed. And while witchcraft was technically illegal, the law against supposed witches was never enforced in Rhode Island. After several years of this system, the General Assembly in 1650 dissolved itself, thereby ending the democratic veto of the body of Freeman. A newly strengthened unicameral general court of six from each town now constituted the legislature of the colony. Provision for veto of any law by majority of towns was, however, retained. In the new government, it might be added, Samuel Gorton was especially selected to serve on committees of defense against Massachusetts encroachments, a task which Gorton was certainly happy and well-fitted to pursue. Let it not be thought, however, that Rhode Island was in any sense out of the woods. For one thing, it still faced the Coddington threat. Thwarted in his claim to unfettered rule in Equidneck, Coddington spurned Williams's offers to arbitrate their differences and turned again to an outside colony to practice subversion, this time to Plymouth. Equidnick would not agree to the scheme, however, and Coddington left for England in late 1648 to plead his case there. In the meanwhile, Massachusetts Bay continued its pressure on Rhode Island, and especially on Warwick and the Gortonites. Massachusetts and Plymouth stirred up the Indians to plunder Warwick, and then Massachusetts returned to its imperialist course by meddling in behalf of William Arnold and the Patuxet oligarchy. Arnold embarked on an aggressive campaign of land-grabbing and forcibly seized the land of William Field of Patuxet. When Field sued in the Providence courts, Arnold refused to appear and produced obviously mutilated documents of title to try to prove that Providence had no jurisdiction. These documents would, in effect, have ejected many Patuxians from their homes and lands, which would then become the property of Arnold and his friends. At this point, spring 1650, Massachusetts suddenly intervened and ordered Rhode Island to end its prosecution of this case, thus throwing its cloak of protection over the land theft by William Arnold and his friends and moving to extend its suzerainty over Rhode Island. 
To add to Rhode Island's and Gorton's troubles, Massachusetts quickly followed this intervention by granting to Arnold and his Patuxet friends the right to encroach on Gortonite land in Warwick. It did this by decreeing the forced merger of Patuxet and Warwick into one county of Suffolk. Shortly afterward, in the fall of 1650, Massachusetts troops arrived in Rhode Island and prevented the Warwick citizens from prosecuting Arnold. Finally, to make the little colony's cup overflow, Coddington returned from England in the spring of 1651 with an astounding new charter, granting Coddington the right to rule Quidnick Island as its sole feudal lord and ruler for life, to be aided only by six appointed assistants. The hammer blows against Rhode Island were now falling thick and fast. Massachusetts sent an official warning to Roger Williams that any attempt to collect taxes from William Arnold and his Patuxet oligarchs would lead the Bay magistrates to intervene in such manner as God shall put into their hands. And what is more, the United Colonies of the New England Confederation authorized Plymouth to assume complete jurisdiction over Warwick. Little Rhode Island was clearly in desperate straits. Its plight was reinforced by Massachusetts' persecution of the growing sect of Rhode Island Baptist. As early as 1646, the United Colonies had ordered the vigorous suppression of Baptist for rejecting infant baptism. The Baptist proceeded to aggravate the Puritan theocracy all the more by adopting the practice of baptism by immersion. Dr. John Clark The Baptist leader in Rhode Island infuriated the Massachusetts authorities by converting some citizens of Seekonk on the Plymouth side of the border, and Massachusetts went so far as to threaten armed action against Plymouth if it did not suppress the invading Baptist. By the fall of 1651, Massachusetts was negotiating with William Coddington for forcible extradition of all those refugees from Massachusetts who had found shelter at Aquidneck, and it began to contemplate the invasion of Rhode Island for the armed suppression of the Rhode Island Baptist. During this time, John Clark and Obadiah Holmes, the successful Baptist missionaries to Seekonk, had fallen into the hands of the Massachusetts oligarchy. Visiting a sick old communicant at Lynn, Clark and Holmes were arrested and sentenced to a heavy fine. The eminent Clark protested that Massachusetts proceedings violated traditional rights under English law. The report of Governor Endicott held, characteristically, that Clark deserved death and was worthy to be hanged. Obadiah Holmes refused to sanction the legitimacy of his sentence by not paying the fine, at which point the enraged Reverend John Wilson, minister of the Boston Church, struck Holmes in a fury and called down the curse of God upon him. Holmes received an extremely severe whipping of thirty lashes, scarring him for life. After this, additional fines were levied on the two men, with promise of another severe whipping in case of default. Roger Williams protested fervently against this brutal treatment, but to no avail. Deeply moved, Williams asked Massachusetts how it was that he that speaks so tenderly for his own hath yet so little respect, mercy, or pity 
to the like conscientious persuasions of other men. And Williams cried out, It is a dreadful voice from the king of kings and lord of lords. Endicott, Endicott, why huntest thou me? Why imprisonest thou me? Why finest? Why so bloodily whippest? Why wouldst thou hang and burn me? There was rising disgust in England as well. The English Puritans had come increasingly under the influence of libertarian views, emanating from the revolutionary ferment. As Massachusetts tightened its theocratic rule, the English Puritans became more and more horrified. Sir Richard Saltonstall, himself a former Massachusetts oligarch who had long since returned to England, wrote to Massachusetts in eloquent and aggrieved reaction to the prolonged whipping of Holmes. It doth not a little grieve my spirit to hear what sad things are reported daily of your tyranny and persecutions in New England, as that you fine, whip, and imprison men for their consciences. English Puritans, Saltonstall reminded them, had hoped that you might have been eyes to God's people here and not practice those courses in a wilderness which you went so far to prevent. Rhode Island was clearly hemmed in on every side, with Plymouth seizing Warwick, Coddington seceding to become sole overlord of Aquidneck and allying himself with the colony's enemies in Plymouth and Massachusetts, and Massachusetts assuming jurisdiction to protect the Patuxet land grab and threatening suppression of Rhode Island Baptist, indeed the crushing of the colony altogether. It was more than high time for a final desperate attempt to save the little colony. Obviously, the only thing to do was to send respected agents immediately to England to try to obtain firm parliamentary protection for Rhode Island's charter. Samuel Gorton, now president of Providence Plantations, a truncated colony including only Warwick and Providence, was the active force in raising 200 pounds to send Roger Williams to England. The majority of citizens of Aquidneck, bitterly opposed to Coddington's usurpation, raised the money to send Dr. John Clark of Newport, along with Williams, to represent the island. The Gortonites quickly informed the United Colonies that Williams was going to England on their behalf, among other things, to detail the numerous wrongs they had been suffering at the hands of Plymouth and Massachusetts. Alarmed by this decision, the determined William Arnold pleaded with Massachusetts to send troops immediately and take over Rhode Island before the opportunity was lost. Asking Massachusetts to keep his letter secret, Arnold, not noted for his own personal piety, warned that should Rhode Island be allowed to continue in existence under the pretense of liberty of conscience, thee comes to live all the scum, the runaways of the country. Arnold pointed to a horrible example. A man imprisoned in Connecticut, New Haven, for adultery, had escaped prison and fled to Rhode Island, where he was not executed although the guilty woman, having failed to escape, was properly put to death. Arnold also charged indignantly that some of the Gortonites crieth out much against them that putteth people to death for witches, for they say there be no other witches upon earth but your own pastors and ministers. 
Massachusetts, however, growing a bit cautious, did not take Arnold's tempting advice. Instead, it went so far as to permit Williams and Clark free passage to Boston, where they set sail for England in November 1651. With Williams gone, Samuel Gorton was the dominant force in the Providence-Warwick government. As president, and then as moderator of the assembly the following year, Gorton was able to enact the outlawing of slavery in the colony, and also to limit the term of any indentured service to ten years. Unfortunately, the former law remained a dead letter, but it was the first act of abolition of slavery in American history. Gorton also secured the elimination of imprisonment for debt. Samuel Gorton had successfully completed his odyssey of persecution to become one of the foremost leaders of the colony. Volume 1, Chapter 24, Rhode Island in the 1650s, Roger Williams's Shift from Liberty. With Williams gone to England, William Coddington discovered that it was not easy to impose absolute feudal rule upon a free people. The citizens of Aquidneck, led by Captain Richard Morris and Nicholas Easton, launched an armed revolt against Coddington in early 1652, threatening him and ordering his feudal court to disperse. Coddington, searching for yet another imperial armed force that he could rule and hide behind, turned in desperation to the Dutch, asking vainly for a troop of New Netherland soldiers to suppress the revolt. When Coddington's chief aide, Captain Partridge, seized the home of one of the citizens to enforce a Coddingtonian court order, the enraged populace rose up, occupied the house, and hung the captain then and there. The voice of the people had been heard, and Coddington, speedily taking the lesson to heart, reversed New England custom by fleeing to Massachusetts. He dared return only when he had signed an agreement relinquishing all claims to any greater ownership of a quidnick than had any other freeman. In the meantime, Williams and Clark easily convinced the English government of the spuriousness of Coddington's claim and obtained an order vacating the Coddington Charter. Soon William Dyer returned to Aquidneck from England with the good news. The Coddington threat was finally over. Williams arrived in England at the moment of Puritan victory and at the peak of the revolutionary intellectual ferment. The great libertarian leveler movement was at the peak of its influence, and religious freedom had given rise to many diverse and enthusiastic sects. Williams plunged again into intimate association with such liberal Puritan leaders as Sir Henry Vane and John Milton. The upsurge of libertarian views had led to a polarization of ideas among the Puritans, a polarization accelerated by the disruption that always follows the victory of a revolutionary coalition. The Orthodox Puritans, or independents, headed by the Reverend John Owen, began to move toward a new state church of their own and toward the suppression of other religious views. The liberal wing of the Puritans, including Vane and Milton, moved in to battle this essentially counter-revolutionary trend 
and Williams enthusiastically joined in this struggle. Eight years before, Williams's bloody tenant had been ordered burnt by the Presbyterians then in control of Parliament. Now his writings in behalf of religious liberty received great acclaim in Parliament and in the victorious New Model Army. This was especially true of his published reply to the Reverend John Cotton's attack on the bloody tenant. Williams's rebuttal was the bloody tenant yet more bloody, in which he denounced Massachusetts' persecution of men for their consciences. Williams also proceeded to a keen attack on the Massachusetts oligarchy, a forced payment of tithes created to church leadership, rich and lordly, pompous and princely, and gave it a monopoly on public office. Wasn't the insistence on compulsory church attendance a reflection of the fear of the rulers that, given a free choice, people's attendance in their churches would fall off? Williams pointed also to Holland's commercial greatness, continuing side by side with its practice of religious toleration. And he warned prophetically that the Irish question would never be settled so long as the laws persecuting Roman Catholics remained. Only full religious freedom, free conferrings, disputings, and preachings could reduce civil strife and bloodshed. Williams even pressed on from his insight into religious liberty to a much wider politico-economic libertarian view. The kings of the earth, he declared, used power over the bodies and goods of their subjects but for the filling of their paunches like wolves. These rulers, employing civil arms and forces to the utmost, pressed for universal conquest to establish rule and dominion over all the nations of the earth. But on the contrary, government's proper function is to secure to each individual his natural and civil rights and liberties due to him as a man, a subject, a citizen. In another tract written in that exhilarating spring of 1652, Hireling Ministry, None of Christ. Williams defended the idea of voluntary rather than compulsory donations to churches. He also declared, I desire not that liberty to myself, which I would not freely and impartially weigh out to all the consciences of the world beside. Government's absolute duty was to ensure absolute freedom for each religious group. Williams's new writings had a twofold thrust and purpose to advance the cause of Rhode Island liberty against Massachusetts and at the same time to wage the good and general fight for liberty against tyranny in England itself. The major complementary tract setting forth a specific case for Rhode Island as well as a Baptist defense of religious liberty was John Clark's newly published Ill News from New England. Although Williams and Clark had no difficulty disposing of Coddington's claims, the larger problem of Rhode Island vis-a-vis Massachusetts was far more difficult. For the crucial decision on which way the Puritan Revolution would turn rested not with Williams's friends, but with Oliver Cromwell, 
head of the new model army and a centrist torn between the flaming principles of the liberals and a conservative yearning by orthodox independents and Presbyterians for a swing back to statism. Cromwell, furthermore, was friendly with the oligarchs of Plymouth and Massachusetts Bay, as well as with Roger Williams. Moreover, the protector was, fatefully, balking increasingly at the obvious next task of the revolution, the smashing of feudal landholding. The libertarian groundswell of the revolution could not be sustained unless the feudal oligarchy was dispossessed of political power, as well as of its restrictive hold of the land of England created by that power and on which that power was now based. Events moved swiftly, as happens in revolutionary situations, and by May 1653, Cromwell had made his fateful decision for the landed oligarchy, for statism, and for counter-revolution. Parliament was forcibly dissolved and military dictatorship assumed by Cromwell. The great leveler leader, John Lilburn, was jailed for his libertarian views and the leveler movement broken up. Only the courageous Sir Henry Vane continued to cry out in protest, charging that Cromwell was plucking up liberty by its very roots. Williams, too, joined Vane in opposition, at least privately denouncing the protector as a usurper and also attacking Cromwell's aggressive imperialism, typified by his war against the Dutch. Proceeding skillfully, however, Williams was able to procure an at least tentative confirmation by the English government of Rhode Island's charter claims. Short of funds and discouraged by the new turn on the English scene and spurred by the turmoil in Rhode Island, Williams returned home in the summer of 1654, leaving John Clark in London to continue the negotiations. Williams arrived to find a highly troubled colony. In particular, his beloved Providence was again in great danger. William Coddington had been successfully overthrown, but this by no means ended trouble from Aquidneck. Instead, the Aquidneck government, headed by William Dyer and including Nicholas Easton, had embarked on an aggressive, imperialist course of its own. It had launched piratical attacks on the Dutch of New Netherland, and simultaneously, in spring 1653, combined with a minority of Providence Warwick people to claim that theirs was the true government of the Rhode Island colony. The Providence Warwick government had protested and charged that a quidnick aggression against the Dutch would set all New England on fire. At the same time, the Patuxet oligarchy again refused to pay taxes to Providence, and once again Massachusetts threatened armed intervention and prevented Providence from pressing its claim. Any lesser man than the great founder of Rhode Island would have been discouraged enough to give up. For almost two decades, Roger Williams had fought for individual liberty in England, in New England, and especially for his Rhode Island, and now England was retrogressing, and Rhode Island was rent in civil strife. But the great peacemaker, who had conciliated so many disputes and conflicts with the Indians, 
now used his powerful influence to bring the various factions into conciliatory negotiations. Rational persuasion, and not force, was his instrument in obtaining agreement and a new unity in the colony. Williams's main task was to bring into the negotiations a reluctant providence. Disgusted by the piracy conducted by the dire eastern rulers of Aquidneck against the Dutch. Finally, each of the four towns agreed to choose six commissioners for conciliation conference, which met at Warwick at the end of August 1654. The decision of the conference was at once a victory for Williams and Unity and a complete defeat for the East and Dyer faction. Reunion of the Rhode Island colony was achieved and all the laws of Aquidneck since the Coddington usurpation were eliminated, thus restoring the old pre-Coddington dispensation to the colony. Coddington himself formally submitted to Rhode Island authority two years later, Roger Williams was then elected president of the reunited colony. Even the Patuxet troubles were finally fading. Benedict Arnold, son of William and leader of the Patuxet oligarchy, finally abandoned the oligarchy's long search for outside armed intervention, renounced Massachusetts, submitted himself to Rhode Island, and moved from Patuxet to Newport. However, the actual reunion of the rest of the colony with Patuxet did not take place for five more years. A year later, 1655, Oliver Cromwell greatly helped settle the outstanding issues by sending a formal message to Rhode Island, confirming its right to self-government under the Charter of 1644. On this happy event, Williams wrote to Vane on behalf of the town of Providence, Vane had written to Rhode Island wondering why the colonists had fallen into such disorder. Williams replied for Providence that Rhode Island has long drunk of the cup of as great liberties as any people that we hear of under the whole heaven. Possibly this sweet cup hath rendered many of us wanton and too active. Rhode Island, Williams pointed out, had been spared the Civil War of England, the iron yoke of wolfish bishops, and the new chains of Presbyterian tyrants, nor in this colony have we been consumed with the overzealous fire of the so-called godly Christian magistrates. Williams expanded this recital of Rhode Island liberties to include the political and economic. Sir, we have not known what an excise means. We have almost forgotten what tithes are, yea, or taxes either, to church or commonwealth. It was at this very moment, the moment of triumph, that Roger Williams made a radical and fateful shift in his thinking and actions. From a fighter for liberty, Williams suddenly became a statist and an invader of liberty. From a devoted advocate of freedom of conscience, Williams became himself a persecutor of that very conscience. What was the reason or reasons for this sudden turnabout, this betrayal of the causes for which Roger Williams had so long devoted his very life? No historian can ever look completely into the soul of another man, but he can make some judicious estimates. We may note several probable reasons for the shift. 
First, there is the subtle corruption wrought by power, even upon the staunchest libertarian. In the last analysis, power and liberty are totally incompatible, and when one gains the upper hand, the other succumbs. The heroic fighter for liberty, out of power, is often tempted once the reins of command are in his hands, to rationalize that now order must be imposed by him, that excessive liberty must be checked by him. Williams had been president of Rhode Island only once before in the 1644-47 period when there was hardly any government in the colony. As soon as the colony was formally organized in 1647, Williams had been happy to retire to the private life of a successful fur trader. He had then only emerged from private life to go to England to save the colony. It was only now, in effect, that he was assuming the political post of head of Rhode Island. A second reason was the coinciding theoretical error that Williams had made in his letter to Vane, that what Rhode Island had been suffering from was an excess of liberty. The sweet cup hath rendered many of us wanton. On the contrary, the conflicts in Rhode Island had been caused not by too much liberty, but by too little. The land monopoly and the treachery of the Patuxet oligarchs the Coddington attempt to impose feudal rule, the continuing imperialist pressure of Massachusetts and the United Colonies. It had only been the remarkable sturdiness of the libertarian tradition in Rhode Island that had kept the colony free despite all these dangers, and it had enabled it to escape them at last. And the thought and life of Roger Williams had been perhaps the chief ingredient in that tradition. But that great tradition, strong enough to surmount other periods, was not strong enough to survive its betrayal by its own leading architect. A third reason for Williams's shift was undoubtedly his discouragement at the retrogression of the libertarian movement in the mother country. Williams had been one of the great lights of that movement, and it, in turn, had inspired and nourished him in the 1630s, the 1640s, and on his last visit to England. But then it had been an exciting, rising movement. Now, because of Cromwell's betrayal, it was rapidly losing heart and being put to rout. Was the now-aging Williams strong enough to keep his convictions at the same burning pitch was he strong enough to resist all the temptations to follow the Cromwellian path? Evidently, the answer is no. We may consider also Wims's earlier lapse from the libertarian principle in the days of the Gorton persecution and Wims's eventual siding with the Patuxet faction to expel Gorton from Providence. Purity of principle had been cast aside even then, and this indicates a fourth contributory reason for Williams's change of heart, a tendency to react testily when people more radically individualist than himself appeared upon the scene. Williams's shift from liberty 
to tyranny was first revealed sharply and startlingly in his imposing upon the people of Rhode Island compulsory military service. The other colonies underwent conscription, but this was a strong blow to the libertarian movement of Rhode Island. Driving through a compulsory militia bill in the selection of military officers in a Providence town meeting, Williams precipitated vehement opposition. The leaders of this libertarian opposition were the Baptists, who denounced the bearing of arms as unchristian and conscription as an invasion of religious liberty and of the natural rights of the individual. This opposition was itself radicalized by the crisis precipitated by Williams and the logic of the pacifist opposition to conscription and arms-bearing led them straight to the ne plus ultra of libertarianism, individualist anarchism. The opposition, led by Reverend Thomas Olney, former Baptist minister at Providence, William Harris, John Field, John Throckmorton, and Williams' own brother Robert circulated a petition charging that it was blood guiltiness and against the rule of the gospel to execute judgment upon transgressors against the private or public weal. In short, government itself was anti-Christian. The emergence of William Harris as an anarchist was a particularly striking phenomenon. This conscientious man, who had been one of the original few to accompany Williams to Providence and had then joined the Patuxet oligarchy, had been suddenly aroused by William Arnold. Harris had been one of the victims of Arnold's attempted land grab under the aegis of Massachusetts. Apparently, this sobering experience of how the state can be used to oppress as well as to confer privileges, added to his disfranchisement by Providence a dozen years before for street brawling, had set Harris on the individualist path. His Baptist pacifism completed the process. Roger Williams bitterly condemned the tumult and disturbance caused by the anarchist petition, conveniently failing to place any blame for the tumult on his original imposition of conscription. And Williams sneered at the pretense that arms-bearing violated the petitioner's conscience. He then came up with a famous analogy to support his newfound statist philosophy. He likened human society to a ship on which all people were passengers. All may worship as they please, he graciously declaimed, but none is to be allowed to defy the common laws and orders of the ship concerning their common peace or preservation. And if any should mutiny against their officers or preacher right that there ought to be no commanders or officers because all are equal in Christ, therefore no masters, nor officers, nor laws, nor orders, no corrections, nor punishments. The commanders may judge, resist, compel, and punish such transgressions. In short, not only were mutinous actions to be punished by the state, but even the very advocacy of anarchist principles. Williams's analogy was superficially attractive, but of dubious relevance. If society inhabits a ship and must obey its officers, 
who are the owners of the social ship. What gives one set of men in a country the right to claim ownership of that country and the people in it, and therefore the right to command and force others to obey? These were questions that Williams never bothered to raise, let alone answer. He might also have pondered in what way individual persons pursuing their separate ways on land were in any way comparable to a ship, and a single ship at that, which has to go in one direction at a time. Why must everyone be on one ship? Williams's pronouncement did not convince the opposition either. The anarchists rose in rebellion against Williams's government, but were put down by force. Despite this failure, at the 1655 elections a few months later, at which Williams was re-elected president, Thomas Olney was elected an assistant and was seated even though he had participated in the uprising. Williams now began a systematic campaign of statism in the colony. The central government was aggrandized at the expense of the home rule rights of the towns, In May 1655, the Assembly decided to bypass its financial dependence on funds raised by the towns and to appoint officials to levy general taxes directly on the people. The following year, it was decreed that no laws of the colony may be obstructed or neglected under pretense of any authority of any of the town charters. Williams also moved to stiffen the laws against immorality, the Assembly decreed the compulsory licensing of liquor dealers and an excise tax on liquor. Sales of spirits to Indians were restricted severely. Punishments were intensified. The four towns had, until then, failed to provide prisons or stocks. So little was the need and so pervasive the spirit of freedom. But the Colonial Assembly now moved to fill this gap and also to outlaw verbal incivilities, which were to be punished by the stocks or payment of a fine. Adultery, which had not been subject to express penalty in the Code of 1647, was now to be punished by whipping and a fine. Corporal punishment was to be levied for loose living, and masters were to be held responsible for the licentious careers of servants or minor sons. On the other hand, divorce laws were liberalized to allow for divorce for reasons of incompatibility. It is clear that a large part of the motivation for the new statist trend was a desire to curry favor with Cromwell. It was shortly after receipt of Cromwell's official reconfirmation of Rhode Island's charter in June 1655 that the Assembly passed the law against loose living on information that Cromwell was restive at the state of morality in the colony. Furthermore, Cromwell in his message had ordered Rhode Island to provide against intestine commotions. The colony swiftly passed a law against ringleaders of factions, providing that such ringleaders, when found guilty by the general court, were to be sent to England for trial. Here was the fulfillment of the ominous hints of Williams's ship analogy. But Baptist anarchism continued to multiply in Rhode Island. One of the new adherents was none other than Catherine Scott, the leading Baptist minister and a sister of Anne Hutchinson. 
Anne Hutchinson's lone pioneering in philosophical anarchism before her death had planted a seed that came to fruition a decade and a half later. Also adopting anarchism were Rebecca Throckmorton, Robert West, and Anne Williams, wife of Roger's brother, Robert. Catherine Scott and Rebecca Throckmorton were soon to espouse the Quaker faith. Finally, in March 1657, the crackdown arrived and the four individualists were summoned into court by Williams as being common opposers of all authority. Williams relented after this public intimidation, however, and the charges were dismissed. Meanwhile, Williams's relations with Patuxet had undergone a subtle but significant change. A former aggressor that many times had called on Massachusetts to crush the colony, Patuxet now became a relative island of liberty, resisting encroachment from Providence. Apart from its oligarchy and land, Patuxet had managed to avoid paying taxes either to Rhode Island or to Massachusetts Bay, and was content to live in liberty from immorality laws or from laws against trading with the Indians. It was now Williams who began to agitate aggressively for a joint Massachusetts-Providence suppression of Patuxian liberties and for the forcible end to Patuxet secession. This entire Patuxian experience with governments served to confirm William Harris in his anarchism and also to embitter Williams against Harris more than against his fellows. Harris was particularly vehement in opposition to taxation, all taxation, and circulated to all the towns a manuscript denouncing all civil government and urged the people to cry out, no lords, no masters. Harris predicted that the state, the House of Saul, would inevitably grow weaker and weaker, whereas the House of David, Harris and his followers, would grow stronger and stronger. Harris also condemned all punishments and prisons, all officials and legislative assemblies. William Harris was now hauled into court, charged with open defiance under his hand against our charter, all our laws, Parliament, the Lord Protector, and all government. Harris, instead of quieting down under the intimidation as had Mrs. Scott and the others, swore that he would continue to maintain his anarchism with his blood. Persistently refusing to recant, Harris repeated his interpretation of Scripture that he that can say it is his conscience ought not to yield subjection to any human order amongst men. The general court found that Harris was guilty of being contemptuous and seditious, and he and his son were heavily bonded for 500 pounds. The evidence was sent to England in preparation for a trial there for treason. The treason trial never materialized, but only because the ship carrying the evidence to England was lost at sea. Harris was finally sufficiently cowed, however, to abandon his anarchism, and he turned instead to a lifelong harassment of the hated Roger Williams through litigation of land claims. Williams retired from the presidency in 1657, and a year later, Patuxet was reunited with the rest of the colony.